Homilies of St. John Chrysostom on 1 Corinthians, translated by John Henry Newman and others. Argument. As Corinth is now the first city of Greece, so of old it prided itself on many temporal advantages, and more than all the rest, on excess of wealth, and on this account one of the heathen writers entitled the place the rich. For it lies on the isthmus of the Peloponnus, and had great facilities for traffic. The city was also full of numerous orators and philosophers, and one, I think, of the seven, called wise men, was of the city. Now these things we have mentioned, not for ostentation's sake, nor to make a display of great learning. For indeed, what is there in knowing these things? But they are of use to us in the argument of the epistle. Paul also himself suffered many things in the city, and Christ too in the city appears to him and says, Be not silent, but speak, for I have much people in this city. And he remained there two years. In this city also the devil went out, whom the Jews, endeavoring to exercise, suffered so grievously. In this city did those of the magicians, who repented, collect together their books and burn them. And there appeared to be fifty thousand. In this city also, in the time of Galileo, the proconsul, Paul was beaten before the judgment seat. The devil, therefore, seeing that a great and populous city had laid hold of the truth, a city admired for wealth and wisdom, and the head of Greece, for Athens and Lesomon were then and since in a miserable state, the dominion having long ago fallen away from them, and seeing that with great readiness they had received the word of God, what doth he? He divides the men, for he knew that even the strongest kingdom of all, divided against itself, shall not stand. He had a vantage ground too, for this device in the wealth, the wisdom of the inhabitants. Hence certain men, having made parties of their own, and having become self-elected, made themselves leaders of the people. And some sided with these, and some of those, with one sort as being rich, with another as wise and able to teach something out of the common, who on their part, receiving them, set themselves up, forsooth, to teach more than the apostle did at which he was hinting when he said, I was not able to speak unto you as unto spiritual. Evidently not his inability, but their infamy, was the cause of their not having been abundantly instructed. In this, ye are become rich without us, is the remark of one pointing that way. And this was no small matter, but of all things most pernicious, that the church should be torn asunder. And another sin too, besides these, was openly committed there, namely a person who had had intercourse with his stepmother, not only escaped rebuke, but was even a leader of the multitude, and gave occasion to his followers to be conceited. Wherefore he saith, And ye are puffed up, and have not rather mourned. And after this again, certain of those who, as they pretended, were of the more perfect sort, and who for gluttony's sake used to eat of things offered unto idols, and sit at meat in the temples, were bringing all to ruin. Others again, having contentions and strifes about money, committed unto the heathen courts all matters of that kind. Many persons, also wearing long hair, used to go out among them, whom he ordereth to be shorn. There was another fault besides, no trifling one, their eating in the churches apart by themselves, and giving no share to the needy. And again, they were erring in another point, being puffed up with the gifts, and hence jealous of one another, which was also the chief cause of the distraction of the church. The doctrine of the resurrection, too, was lame among them. For some of them had no strong belief that there is any resurrection of bodies, 
having still on them the disease of Grecian foolishness. For indeed all these things were the progeny of the badness which belongs to heathen philosophy, and she was the mother of all mischief. Hence likewise they had become divided, in this respect also having learned of the philosophers, for these latter were no less at mutual variance, always through love of rule and vainglory, contradicting one another's opinions, and bent upon making some new discovery, in addition to all that was before. And the cause of this was their having begun to trust themselves to reasonings. They had written accordingly to him by the hand of Fortunatus and Stephanus and Achaicus, by whom also he himself writes. And this he has indicated in the end of the epistle, not, however, upon all these subjects, but about marriage and virginity, wherefore also he said, now concerning the things whereof he wrote, etc., and he proceeds to give injunctions, both on the points about which they had written, and those about which they had not written, having learnt with accuracy all their feelings. Timothy, too, he sends with the letters, knowing that letters indeed have great force, yet that not a little would be added to them by the presence of the disciple also. Now, whereas those who had divided the church among themselves, from a feeling of shame, lest they should seem to have done so for ambition's sake, contrived cloaks for what had happened, their teaching forsooth more perfect doctrines, and being wiser than all sorts. Paul sets himself first against the disease itself, plucking up the root of the evils and its offshoot, the spirit of separation. And he uses great boldness of speech, for these were his own disciples, more than all others. Wherefore he saith, If to others I be not an apostle, yet at least I am unto you. For the seal of my apostleship are ye. Moreover, they were in a weaker condition, to say the least of it, than the others. Wherefore he saith, For I have not spoken unto you as unto spiritual. For hitherto ye were not able, neither yet even now are ye able. This he saith, that they might not suppose that he speaks thus in regard of the time past alone. However, it was utterly improbable that all should have been corrupted. Rather, there were some among them who were very holy. And this he signified in the middle of the epistle, where he says, To me it is a very small thing that I should be judged of you. And adds, These things I have in a figure transferred unto myself and Apollos. Since then, from arrogance, all these evils were springing, and from men's thinking that they knew something out of the common. This he purgeth away first of all, and in the beginning saith, Homily 2, 1 Corinthians 1, 4 and 5. I thank my God always on your behalf for the grace of God which is given you by Jesus Christ, that in everything ye are enriched by him. That which he exhorts others to do, saying, Let your requests with thanksgiving be made known to God. The same also he used to do himself, teaching us to begin always from these words, and before all things to give thanks unto God, for nothing is so acceptable to God as that men should be thankful, both for themselves and for others. Wherefore also he prefaces almost every epistle with this. But the occasion for his doing so is even more urgent here than in the other epistles. For he that gives thanks does so, both as having received a blessing and as in acknowledgment of a favor. Now a favor is not a debt, nor an exchange, nor a repayment, which indeed everywhere is important to be said but much more in the case of the Corinthians, who were gaping after the dividers of the church. Unto my God, 
out of great earnestness he seizes on that which is common and makes it his own as the prophets also from time to time used to say o god my god and by way of encouragement he incites them to use the same language also themselves for such expressions belong to one who is retiring from all secular things and moving towards him whom he calls on with so much earnestness since he alone can truly say this who from things of this life is ever mounting upwards unto god and always preferring him to all and giving thanks continually not only for the grace already given but whatever blessing hath been since at any time bestowed for this also he offereth unto him the same praise wherefore he saith not merely i give thanks but at all times for you instructing them to be thankful both always and to no one else save god only for the grace of god seest thou how from every quarter he draws topics for correcting them for where grace is works are not where works it is no more grace if therefore it be grace why are ye high-minded whence is it that ye are puffed up which is given you and by whom was it given by me or by another apostle not at all but by jesus christ for the expression in jesus christ signifies this observe how in diverse places he uses the word in in instead of theou through means of whom therefore its sense is no less that in everything ye have been enriched again by whom by him is the reply and not merely ye have been enriched but in everything since then it is first of all riches then riches of god next in everything and lastly through the only begotten reflect on the ineffable treasure verse five in all utterance and in all knowledge word or utterance not such as the heathen but that of god for there is knowledge without word and there is knowledge with word for so there are many who possess knowledge but have not the power of speech as those who are uneducated and unable to exhibit clearly what they have in their mind ye saith he are not such as these but competent both to understand and to speak verse six even as the testimony of christ was confirmed in you in the course of his praises and thanksgiving he touches them sharply for not by heathen philosophy saith he neither by heathen discipline but by the grace of god and by the riches and the knowledge in the word given by him were you enabled to learn the doctrines of the truth and to be confirmed unto the testimony of the lord that is unto the gospel for ye had the benefit of many signs many wonders unspeakable grace to make you receive the gospel if therefore ye were established by signs and grace why do ye waver now these are the words of one both reproving and at the same time prepossessing them in his favor verse six so that ye come behind in no gift a great question here arises they who had been enriched in all utterance so as in no respect to come behind in any gift are they carnal for if they were such at the beginning much more now how then does he call them carnal for saith he i was not able to speak unto you as unto spiritual but as unto carnal what must we say then that having in the beginning believed and obtained all gifts for indeed they were zealously affected they became remiss afterwards or if not so that not unto all are either these things said or those but the one to such as were amenable to his censures 
the other to such as were adorned with his praises. For as to the fact that they still had gifts, each one, saith he, hath a psalm, hath a revelation, hath a tongue, hath an interpretation, let all things be done unto edifying, and let the prophets speak two or three. Or we may state it somewhat differently, that, as it is usual with us to call the greater part the whole, so also he hath spoken in this place. Withal, I think, he glances at his own proceedings, for he too hath shown forth signs, even as also he saith in the second epistle to them, Howbeit the signs of an apostle were wrought among you in all patience. And again, for what is it wherein you were inferior to other churches? Either, as I was saying, he reminds them of his own miracles also, or further, he speaks thus with an eye to those who were as yet approved. For many holy men were there who had addicted themselves unto the ministry of the saints, and had become the first fruits of Achaia, as he declareth towards the end. In any case, although the praises be not very close to the truth, still, however, they are inserted by way of precaution, preparing the way beforehand for his discourse. For whoever at the very outset speaks things unpleasant excludes his words from a hearing among the weaker, since if the hearers be his equals in degree, they feel angry, if vastly inferior, they will be vexed. To avoid this, he forms his exorium out of what seems to be praises. I say seem, for not even did this praise belong to them, but to the grace of God. For to have had remission of sins, and to have been justified, this was the gift from above. Wherefore also he dwells upon these points, which show the loving kindness of God, in order that he may the more fully purge out of their malady. Waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why make ye much ado, saith he? Why are ye troubled, that Christ is not come? Nay, he is come, and the day is henceforth at the doors. And consider his wisdom, how, withdrawing them from human considerations, he terrifies them by mention of the fearful judgment seat, and thus implying that not only the beginnings must be good, but the end also. For with all these gifts, and with all else that is good, we must be mindful of that day, and there is need of many labors to be able to come unto the end. Revelation is his word, implying that although he be not seen, yet he is, and is present even now, and then shall appear. Therefore there is need of patience. For this end did ye receive the wonders, that ye may remain firm. Verse 8. Who shall also confirm you unto the end, that ye may be blameless? Here he seems to court them, but the saying is free from all flattery, for he knows also how to press them home, as when he saith, Now some are puffed up, as though I would not come to you. And again, what will ye? Shall I come unto you with a rod or in love, and in the spirit of meekness? And since ye ask a proof of Christ speaking in me, but he is also covertly accusing them, for to say, He shall confirm, and the word blameless, marks them out as still wavering, and liable to blame. But do thou consider how he always fastens them, as with nails to the name of Christ, and not any man or teacher, but continually the desired one himself is remembered by him, setting himself, as it were, to arouse those who were heavy-headed after some debauch. For nowhere in any other epistle doth the name of Christ occur so continually. But here it is, many times in a few verses, and by means of it he weaves together, one may say, the whole of the proem. Look at it from the beginning. Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have been sanctified in Jesus Christ. 
who call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be unto you, and peace from God the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God for the grace which hath been given you by Jesus Christ, even as the testimony of Christ hath been confirmed in you, waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall confirm you unreprovable in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom ye have been called into communion with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And I beseech you, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, seest thou the constant repetition of the name of Christ, from whence it is plain, even to the most unobservant, that not by chance nor unwittingly he doeth this, but in order that by incessant application of that glorious name he may draw off their swelling humors and cleanse out the corruption of the disease. Verse 9. God is faithful, by whom ye were called unto the fellowship of his Son. Wonderful! How great a thing saith he here! How vast the magnitude of the gift which he declares! Into the fellowship of the only begotten have ye been called, and do ye addict yourselves unto men. What can be worse than this wretchedness? And how have ye been called? By the Father, for since through him and by him were the phrases which he was constantly employing in regard of the Son, lest men might suppose that he so mentioneth him as being less. He ascribeth the same to the Father. For not by this one and that one, saith he, but by the Father have ye been called. By him also have ye been enriched. Again ye have been called. Ye did not yourselves approach. But what means into the fellowship of his Son? Hear him declaring this very thing more clearly elsewhere. If we suffer, we shall also reign with him. If we die with him, we shall also live with him. Then, because it was a great thing which he had said, he adds an argument fraught with unanswerable conviction. For, saith he, God is faithful, i.e. true. Now, if true, what things he hath promised he will perform. And he hath promised that he will make us partakers of his only begotten Son. For to this end also did he call us. For his gifts and the calling of God are without repentance. These things, by a kind of holy artifice, he inserts thus early in his discourse, lest after the vehemence of the reproofs they might fall into despair. For assuredly God's part will ensue, if we be not quite impatient of his reign. As the Jews being called would not receive the blessings, but this was no longer of him that called, but of their inconsideration. For he indeed was willing to give, but they, by refusing to receive, cast themselves away. For had he called to a painful and toilsome undertaking, not even in that case were they pardonable in making an excuse. However, they would have been able to say that so it was. But if the call be unto cleansing and righteousness and sanctification and redemption and grace and a free gift, and the good things in store which eye hath not seen nor ear heard, and it be God that calls and calls by himself, what pardon can they deserve, who come not running to him? Let no one therefore accuse God, for unbelief cometh not of him that calleth, but of those who start away from him. But some man will say, He ought to bring men in, even against their will. Away with this. He doth not use violence, nor compel. For who that bids to honors and crowns, and banquets and festivals, drags people unwillingly and bound? No one. For this is the part of one inflicting an insult. Unto hell he sends men against their will, but unto the kingdom he calls willing minds. To the fire he brings men bound and bewailing themselves, to the endless store of blessings not so. 
else is it a reproach to the very blessings themselves, if their nature be not such as that men should run to them of their own accord, and count it a great favor? Whence is it then, say you, that all men do not choose them, from their own infirmity, and wherefore doth he not cut off their infirmity? And how, tell me, in what way ought he have cut it off? Hath he not made a world to teach us his loving kindness and his power? For the heavens, saith one, declare the glory of God. Hath he not also sent prophets? Hath he not both called and honored us? Hath he not done wonders? Hath he not given a law both written and natural? Hath he not sent his son? Hath he not commissioned apostles? Hath he not wrought signs? Hath he not threatened hell? Hath he not promised the kingdom? Doth he not every day make his son to rise? Are not the things which he hath enjoined so simple and plain, that many transcend his commandments in their exceeding love of perfection? What was there to do unto the vineyard that I have not done to it? And why, say you, did he not make knowledge and virtue natural to us? Who speaketh thus, the Greek or the Christian? Both of them indeed, but not about the same things. For the one raises his objection with a view to knowledge, the other with a view to conduct. First then, we will reply to him who was on our side, for I do not so much regard those without as our own members. What then saith the Christian? If a remit to have implanted in us the knowledge itself of virtue, he hath implanted it. For if he had not done so, whence should we have known what things are to be done, and what left undone? Whence all the laws and tribunals? But God should have imparted not merely knowledge, but also the very mode of action. For what then wouldst thou have to be rewarded, if the whole was to be of God? For tell me, doth God punish in the same manner thee and the Greek upon committing sin? Surely not. For up to a certain point thou hast confidence, viz., that which ariseth from true knowledge. What then, if any one should now say, that on the score of knowledge thou and the Greek will be accounted of like desert, would it not disgust thee? I think so indeed, for thou wouldst say that the Greek, having of his own withal to attain knowledge, was not willing. If then the latter also should say that God ought to have implanted knowledge in us naturally, wilt thou not laugh him to scorn, and say to him, But why didst thou not seek for it? Why wast thou not in earnest even as I? And thou wilt insist on it with much confidence, and say, that it was extreme folly to blame God for not implanting knowledge by nature. And this thou wilt say, because thou art right in what appertains to knowledge. So also wert thou right in what appertains to practice. Thou wouldst not have raised these questions, but thou art tired of virtuous practice. Therefore thou shelterest thyself with these inconsiderate words. But how could it be all right to cause that by necessity one should become good, when shall we next have the brute beasts contending with us about virtue, seeing that some of them are more temperate than ourselves? But thou sayest, I had rather have been good by necessity, and so forfeited all rewards, than evil by deliberate choice, to be punished and suffer vengeance. But it is impossible that one should ever be good by necessity. If therefore thou knowest not what ought to be done, show it, and then we will tell you what is right to say. But if thou knowest that uncleanness is wicked, Wherefore dost thou not fly from the evil thing? I cannot, thou sayest. But others who have surpassed thee in well-doing will plead against thee, and will more than prevail to stop thy mouth. For thou perhaps, though living with a wife, art not chaste, but another even without a wife keeps his chastity inviolate. 
Now what excuse hast thou for not keeping the rule, while another even leaps beyond the lines that have been drawn to mark it? But thou sayest, I am not of this sort in my bodily frame, or my turn of mind. That is for want, not for power, but of will. For thus I prove that all have a certain aptness towards virtue. That which a man cannot do, neither will he be able to do, though necessity be laid upon him. But if necessity being laid upon him, he is able, he that leaveth it undone, leaveth it undone out of choice. The kind of thing I mean is this, to fly up and be borne towards heaven, having a heavy body, is even simply impossible. What then, if a king should command one to do this, and threaten death, saying, Those men who do not fly, I decree that they lose their heads, or be burnt, or some other such punishment. Would any one obey him? Surely not, for nature is not capable of it. But if in the case of chastity this same thing were done, and he were to lay down laws that the unclean should be punished, be burnt, be scourged, should suffer the extremity of torture, would not many obey the law? No, thou wilt say, for there is appointed even now a law forbidding to commit adultery, and all do not obey it. Not because the fear loses its power, but because the greater part expect to be unobserved. So that, when they were on the point of committing an unclean action, the legislator and the judge came before them, the fear would be strong enough to cast out the lust. Nay, were I to apply another kind of force inferior to this, were I to take the man and remove him from the beloved person, and shut him up close in chains, he will be able to bear it without suffering any great harm. Let us not say, then, that such a one is by nature good, and such in one by nature evil. For if a man were by nature good, he could never at any time become evil, and if he were evil by nature, he could never become good. But now we see that changes take place rapidly, and that men quickly shift from this side to the other, and from that fall back again into this. And these things we may see not in the scriptures only. For instance, that publicans have become apostles, and disciples traitors, and harlots chaste, and that robbers have found approval, and magicians have adored, and ungodly men passed over unto godliness, both in the New Testament and in the Old. But even every day a man may see many such things occurring. Now if things were natural, they could not change. For so we, being by nature susceptible, could never by any exertions become void of feeling. That which is whatever it is by nature can never fall away from such its natural condition. No one, for example, ever fell away altogether from sleeping. No one from a state of corruption changed into incorruption. No one from hunger to the perpetual absence of that sensation. Wherefore, neither are these things matters of accusation, nor do we reproach ourselves for them. Nor ever did any one, meaning to blame another, say to him, O thou, corruptible and subject to passion, but either adultery or fornication or something of that kind, we always lay to the charge of those who are counted guilty, and we bring them before judges who blame and punish, and in the contrary cases award honors. Since then, both from our conduct towards one another, and from others' conduct to us when judged, and from the things about which we have written laws, and from the things wherein we condemn ourselves, though there be no one to accuse us, and from the instances of our becoming worse through indolence, and better through fear, and from the cases wherein we see others doing well and arriving at the height of self-command, it is quite clear that we also have it in our power to do well. Why do we, the most part, 
deceive ourselves in vain with cold pretexts and excuses, bringing not only no pardon, but even punishment intolerable, when we ought to keep before our eyes that fearful day, and to give heed to virtue, and after a little labor obtain the incorruptible crowns. For these words will be no defense to us, rather our fellow servants, and those who have practiced the contrary virtues, will condemn all who continue in sin. The cruel man will be condemned by the merciful, the evil by the good, the fierce by the gentle, the grudging by the courteous, the vainglorious by the self-denying, the indolent by the serious, the intemperate by the sober-minded. Thus will God pass judgment upon us, and will set in their place both companies, on the one bestowing praise, on the other punishment. But God forbid that any of those present should be among the punished and dishonored, but rather among those who are crowned, and the winners of the divine kingdom, which may God grant us all to obtain through the grace and loving-kindness of our Lord Jesus Christ, with whom unto the Father and the Holy Ghost be glory, power, honor, now and ever, and unto everlasting ages. Amen. Homily 3, 1 Corinthians 1.10 Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together, in the same mind, and in the same judgment. What I have continually been saying, that we must frame our rebukes gently and gradually, this Paul doth hear also, in that, being about to enter upon a subject full of many dangers, and enough to tear up the church from her foundations, he uses very mild language. His word is, that he beseeches them, and beseeches them through Christ, as though not even he were sufficient alone to make the supplication and to prevail. But what is this, I beseech you through Christ? I take Christ to fight on my side, and to aid me. His injured and insulted name, an awful way of speaking indeed, lest they should prove hard and shameless, for sin makes men stubborn. Wherefore, if at once you sharply rebuke, you make a man fierce and impudent. But if you strike awe into him, you bow down his neck, you check his confidence, you make him hang down his head. Which object being Paul's also, he is content for a while to beseech them by the name of Christ. And what, of all things, is the object of this request? That ye may all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions, schisms, among you. The emphatic force of the word schism, I mean the very word, was enough to astound them extremely. For it was not that they had become many parts, each entire within itself, but rather the one body which originally existed had perished. For had they been entire churches, there might be many of them. But if there were schisms, then that first one was gone. For that which is entire within itself, not only does not become many by division into many parts, but rather the original one is lost. Such is the nature of schisms. In the next place, because he had sharply dealt with them by so applying the word schism, he again softens and soothes them, saying that ye may be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. That is, since he had said that ye may all speak the same thing, do not suppose, he adds, that I said concord should be only in words. I seek for that harmony which is of the mind. But since there is such a thing as agreement in words, and that hearty, not however on all subjects, therefore he added this, that ye may be perfectly joined together. For he that is united in one thing, but in another falls apart, is no longer perfectly joined, nor fitted in to complete accordance. There is also such a thing as harmony of opinions, where there is not yet harmony of sentiments. 
For instance, when having the same faith, we are not joined together in love. For thus, in opinions, we are one. For we think the same things, but in sentiments, not so. And such was the case at that time, this person choosing one leader and that another. For this reason, he saith, it is necessary to agree both in mind and in judgment. For it was not from any difference in faith that the schisms arose, but from the division of their judgment through human contentiousness. But seeing that whoso is blamed is unabashed so long as he hath no witnesses, observe how, not permitting them to stand forward and deny the fact, he adduces some to bear witness. Verse 11, For it hath been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them that are of the house of Chloe. Neither did he say this at the very beginning, but first he brought forward his charge, as one who put confidence in his informants, because had it not been so, he would not have found fault, for Paul was not a person to believe lightly. Neither then did he immediately say, It hath been declared, lest he might seem to blame on their authority. Neither does he omit all mention of them, lest he should seem to speak only from himself. And again he styles them brethren, for although the faults be plain, there is nothing against calling people brethren still. Consider also his prudence in not speaking of any distinct person, but of the entire family, so as not to make them hostile towards the informer. For in this way he both protects him and fearlessly opens the accusation. For he had an eye to the benefit, not of the one side only, but of the other also. Wherefore he saith not, it hath been declared to me by certain, but he indicates also the household, lest they might suppose that he was inventing. What was declared? That there are contentions among you. Thus when he is rebuking them, he saith, that there be no schisms among you. And when he is reporting the statements of others, he doth it more gently, saying, For it hath been declared unto me that there are contentions among you, in order that he might not bring trouble upon the informants. Next he declares also the kind of contention. Verse 12. That every one of you saith, I am of Paul, and I of Apollos, and I of Cephas. I say contentions, saith he, I mean not about private matters, but of the more grievous sort. That every one of you saith, For the corruption pervadeth not a part, but the whole of the church. And yet they were not speaking about himself, nor about Peter, nor about Apollos. But he signifies that if these were not to be leaned on, much less others. For that they had not spoken about them, he saith further on, And these things I have transferred in a figure unto myself and Apollos, that ye may learn in us not to think above what is written. For if it were not right for them to call themselves by the name of Paul, and of Apollos, and of Cephas, much less of any others. If under the teacher and the first of the apostles, and one that had instructed so many people, it were not right to enroll themselves, much less under those who were nothing. In the very strongest way, then, withdrawing them from their disease, he sets down these names in haste. Besides, he makes his argument less severe, not mentioning by name the rude dividers of the church, but concealing them, as behind a sort of masks, with the name of apostles. I am of Paul, and I am of Apollos, and I of Cephas. Not esteeming himself before Peter, hath he set his name last, but preferring Peter to himself, and that greatly, he hath arranged his statements in the way of climax, that he might not be supposed to do this for envy, nor for spiteful jealousy's sake, to be detracting from the other's honor. Wherefore also he hath put his own name first, for he who puts himself foremost to be rejected, 
doth so not for love of honor, but for extreme contempt of this sort of reputation. He puts himself, you see, in the way of the whole attack, and then he mentions Apollos, and then Cephas. Not therefore to magnify himself hath he done this, but in speaking of wrong things, he administers the requisite correction in his own person first. But that those who addicted themselves to this or that man were in error is evident, and rightly he rebukes them, saying, Ye do not well, in that ye say, I am of Paul, and I of Apollos, and I of Cephas. But why did he add, and I of Christ? For although those who are addicted themselves to men were in error, not surely those who dedicated themselves unto Christ. But this was not his charge, that they called themselves by the name of Christ, but that they did not call themselves by that name alone. And I think that he added this of himself, wishing to make the accusation more grievous, and to point out that by this rule Christ must be considered as belonging to one party only, although they were not so using the name themselves. For that this was his secret meaning, he hath declared in the sequel, saying, Verse 3. Is Christ divided? What he saith comes to this. Ye have cut in pieces Christ and distributed his body. Here is anger, here is chiding, here are words full of indignation. For whenever instead of proving he interrogates only, his doing so implies a confessed absurdity. But some say that he glanced at something else in saying, Christ is divided, as if he had said, He hath distributed to men and parted the church, and taken one share himself, giving them the other. Then in what follows he labors to overthrow this absurdity, saying, Was Paul crucified for you, or were ye baptized in the name of Paul? Observe his Christ-loving mind, how henceforth he brings the whole matter to a point in his own name, showing, and more than showing, that this honor belongs to no one, and that no one might think it was envy which moved him to say these things. Therefore he is constantly putting himself forward in all ways. Observe, too, his considerate way, in that he saith not, Did Paul make the world? Did Paul from nothing produce you into being? But only those things which belonged as choice treasures to the faithful, and flowed from the guardian love in excess. Those he specifies, the cross and baptism, and the blessings following on these. For the loving kindness of God towards men is shown by the creation of the world also, and nothing, however, so much as by the condescension through the cross. And he said not, Did Paul die for you? but was Paul crucified, setting down also the kind of death? Or were ye baptized in the name of Paul? Again, he saith not, did Paul baptize you? For he did baptize many. But this was not the question, by whom they had been baptized, but into whose name they had been baptized. For since this also was a cause of schisms, their being called after the name of those who baptized them, he corrects this error likewise, saying, were ye baptized into the name of Paul? Tell me not, saith he, who baptized, but into whose name. For not he that baptizeth, but he who is called unto the baptism, is the subject of inquiry. For this is he who forgives our sins. And at this point he stays the discourse, and does not pursue the subject any further. For he saith not, Did Paul declare to you the good things to come? Did Paul promise you the kingdom of heaven? Why then, I ask, doth he not add these questions also? because it is not all as one to promise a kingdom and to be crucified. For the former neither had danger nor brought shame, but the latter, all these. Moreover, he proves the former from the latter, for having said, He that spared not his own son, he adds, How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? And again, 
For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled unto God by the death of his Son, much more, being reconciled, we shall be saved. This was one reason for his not adding what I just mentioned, and also because the one they had not as yet, but of the other they had already made trial. The one were in promise, the other had already come to pass. Verse 14. I thank God that I baptized none of you, but Crispus and Gaius. Why are you elated at having baptized? When I, for my part, even give thanks that I have not done so. Thus saying, by a kind of divine art, he does away with their swelling pride upon this point. Not with the efficacy of the baptism, God forbid, but with the folly of those who are puffed up at having been baptizers. First, by showing that the gift is not theirs, and secondly, by thanking God, therefore. For baptism truly is a great thing, but its greatness is not the work of the person baptizing, but of him who is called to the baptism. Since to baptize is nothing as regards man's labor, but is much less than preaching the gospel. Yea, again I say, great indeed is baptism, and without baptism it is impossible to obtain the kingdom. Still, a man of no singular excellence is able to baptize, but to preach the gospel there is need of great labor. Verse 15. He states also the reason why he giveth thanks, that he had baptized no one. What then is this reason? Lest anyone should say that ye were baptized in my own name. Why did he mean to say that so it was in those other cases? Not at all, but I fear, saith he, lest the disease should proceed even to that. For if, when insignificant persons and of little worth baptize, a heresy ariseth, had I, the first announcer of baptism, baptized many, it was likely that some forming a party would not only call themselves by my name, but also ascribe the baptism to me, for if from the inferiors so great an evil arose, from those of higher order it would perhaps have gone on to something far more grievous. Verse 16. By this reason, then, having abashed those who were unsound, and subjoining, I baptized also the house of Stephanos, he again tacitly exposes their pride, saying as to the rest, I know not whether I baptized any other. For by this he signifies that neither did he seek much to enjoy the honor accruing thereby from the multitude, nor did he set about this work for glory's sake. Verse 17. And not by these only, but also by the next words, he greatly represses their pride, saying, Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. For the more laborious part, and that which needed much toil, and a soul of iron, and that on which all depended, was this. And therefore it was that Paul had it put into his hand. And why, not being sent to baptize, did he baptize? Not in contention with him that sent him, but in this instance laboring beyond his task. For he saith not, I was forbidden, but I was not sent for this, but for that which was of most immediate urgency. For preaching the gospel is a work perhaps for one or two, but baptizing for every one endowed with the priesthood. For a man being instructed and convinced to take and baptize him is what any one whatever might do. For the rest, it is all effected by the will of the person drawing near, and the grace of God. But when unbelievers are to be instructed, there must be great labor, great wisdom. And at that time there was danger also annexed. In the former case, the whole thing is done, and he convinced who is on the point of initiation. And it is no great thing when a man is convinced to baptize him. But in the latter case, the labor is great, to change the deliberate will, to alter the turn of mind, 
and to heave up error by the roots, and to plant truth in its place. Not that he speaks out all this, neither doth he argue in so many words, that baptism has no labor, but that preaching has. For he knows how always to subdue his tone, whereas in the comparison with heathen wisdom he is very earnest, the subject enabling him to use more vehemency of language. Not therefore in opposition to him that sent him did he baptize, but as in the case of the widows. Though the apostles had said, It pleases not that we should leave the word of God and serve tables, he discharged the office of a deacon, not in opposition to them, but as something beyond his task. So also here, for even now we commit this matter to the simpler sort of presbyters, but the word of doctrine unto the wiser, for there is the labor and the sweat. Wherefore he saith himself, Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in word and doctrine. For as to teach the wrestlers in the games is the part of the spirited and skillful trainer, but to place the crown on the conqueror's head may be that of one who cannot even wrestle, although it be the crown which adds splendor to the conqueror, so also in baptism. It is impossible to be saved without it, yet it is no great thing which the baptizer doeth, finding the will ready prepared. Not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. Having brought down the swelling pride of those who were arrogant because of their baptizing, he changes his ground afterwards to meet those who boasted about heathen wisdom, and against them he puts on his armor with more vehemency. For to those who were puffed up with baptizing, he said, I give thanks that I baptized no one, and for Christ sent me not to baptize. He speaks neither vehemently nor argumentatively, but having just hinted his meaning in a few words, passes on quickly, and here at the very outset he gives a severe blow, saying, Lest the cross of Christ be made of none effect. Why then pride thyself on a thing which ought to make thee hide thy face? Since if this wisdom is at war with the cross and fights with the gospel, it is not meet to boast about it, but to retire with shame. For this was the cause why the apostles were not wise, not through any weakness of the gift, but lest the gospel preached suffer harm. The sort of people, therefore, above mentioned, were not those employed in advocating the word, rather they were among its defamers. The learned men were the establishers of it. This broke in pieces vainglory, this repressed bloated arrogance, this enforced moderation. But if it was not by wisdom of subject, why did they send Apollos, who was eloquent? It was not, he replies, through confidence in his power of speech, but because he was mighty in the scriptures, and confuted the Jews, and besides, the point inquired of was the principles and first dissimulators of the word not having been eloquent, since these were the very persons to require some great power, for the expulsion of error in the first instance, and then namely at the very outset, was the abundant strength needed. Now he who could do without uneducated persons at first, if afterwards some being eloquent were admitted by him, he did not so because he wanted them but because he would make no distinctions. For as he needed not wise men to effect whatever he would, so neither, if any were afterwards found such, did he reject them on that account. But prove to me that Peter and Paul were eloquent, thou canst not. For they were unlearned and ignorant men. As therefore Christ, when he was sending out his disciples into the world, having shown unto them his power in Palestine first, and said, when I sent you away without purse and script and shoe, lacked ye anything, permitted them from that time forward to possess both a script 
and a purse. So also he hath done here, for the point was the manifestation of Christ's power, not the rejection of persons from the faith on account of their Gentile wisdom. If they were drawing nigh, when the Greeks then charged the disciples with being uneducated, let us be even more forward in the charge than they, nor let anyone say, Paul was wise, but while we exalt those among them who were great in wisdom and admired for their excellency of speech, let us allow that all on our side were uneducated, for it will be no slight overthrow, which they will sustain from us in that respect also, and so the spoils of victory will be brilliant indeed. I have said these things because I once heard a Christian disputing in a ridiculous manner with a Greek, and both parties in their mutual fray ruining themselves. For what things the Christian ought to have said, these the Greek asserted, and what things it was natural to expect the Greek would say, these the Christian pleaded for himself. As thus, the dispute being about Paul and Plato, the Greek endeavored to show that Paul was unlearned and ignorant, but the Christian from simplicity was anxious to prove that Paul was more eloquent than Plato. And so the victory was on the side of the Greek, this argument being allowed to prevail. For if Paul was a more considerable person than Plato, many probably would object that it was not by grace, but by excellency of speech that he prevailed, so that the Christian's assertion made for the Greek, and what the Greek said made for the Christian. For if Paul was uneducated and yet overcame Plato, the victory, as I was saying, was brilliant. The disciples of the latter, in a body, having been attracted by the former, unlearned as he was, and convinced he brought over to his side. From whence it is plain that the gospel was a result not of human wisdom, but of the grace of God. Wherefore, lest we fall into the same error, and be laughed to scorn, arguing thus with Greeks. For we were supposing ourselves in controversy with them. Let us charge the apostles with want of learning. For this same charge is praise. And when they say that the apostles were rude, let us follow up the remark, and say that they were also untaught, and unlettered, and poor, and vile, and wanting in acuteness, and insignificant persons. It is not a slander on the apostles to say so, but it is even a glory that, being such, they should have outshone the whole world. For these untrained and rude and illiterate men as completely vanquished the wise and powerful and the tyrants, and those who flourished in wealth and glory, and all outward good things, as though they had not been men at all. From whence it is manifest that great is the power of the cross, and that these things were done by no human strength. For the results do not keep the course of nature, rather the good done was above all nature. Now when anything takes place above nature, and exceedingly above it, on the side of rectitude and utility, it is quite plain that these things are done by some divine power and cooperation. And observe the fisherman, the tent-maker, the publican, the ignorant, the unlettered, coming from the far distant country of Palestine, and having beaten off their own ground, the philosophers, the mastery of oratory, the skillful debaters, alone prevailed against them in a short space of time. In the midst of many perils, the opposition of people and kings, the striving of nature herself, length of time, the vehement resistance of inveterate custom, demons in arms, the devil in battle array, and stirring up all, kings, rulers, people, nations, cities, barbarians, Greeks, philosophers, orators, sophists, historians, laws, tribunals, diverse kinds of punishments, deaths innumerable, and of all sorts. But nevertheless, all these were confuted, and gave way when the fishermen spake. Just like the light dust which cannot bear the rush of violent winds, now what I say is, let us learn thus to dispute with the Greeks, that we be not like beasts and cattle, but prepared as concerning the hope which is in us. And let us pause for a while to work out this topic, no unimportant one, and let us say to them 
How did the weak overcome the strong, the twelve the world, not by using the same armor, but in nakedness contending with men in arms? For, say, if twelve men, unskilled in matters of war, were to leap into an immense and armed host of soldiers, themselves not only unarmed, but of weak frame also, and to receive no harm from them, nor yet be wounded, though assailed with ten thousand weapons, if while the darts were piercing them through, with bare naked body they overthrew all their foes, using no weapons but striking with the hand, and in conclusion killed some, and others took captive and led away themselves, receiving not so much as a wound, would any one have ever said that the thing was of man? And yet the trophy of the apostles is much more wonderful than that, for a naked man's escaping a wound is not so wonderful by far as that the ordinary unlettered person, that a fisherman, should overcome with a body of talent, and neither for fewness, nor for poverty, nor for dangers, nor for prepossession of habit, nor for so great austerity of the precepts given in charge, nor for the daily deaths, nor for the multitude of those who are deceived, nor for the great reputation of the deceivers, be turned from his purpose. Let this, I say, be our way of overpowering them, and of conducting our warfare against them, and let us before all words astound them by our way of life. For this is the main battle, this is the unanswerable argument, the argument from actions, for though we give ten thousand precepts of philosophy and words, if we do not exhibit a life better than theirs, the gain is nothing, for it is not what is said that draws their attention, but their inquiry is what we do. And they say, Do thou first obey thine own words, and then admonish others. But if while thou sayest, Infinite are the blessings in the world to come, thou seem thyself nailed down to this world, just as if no such things existed, thy works to me are more credible than thy words. For when I see thee seizing other men's goods, weeping immoderately over the departed, doing ill and many other things, how shall I believe thee that there is a resurrection? And what if men utter not this in words? They think it and turn it often in their minds. And this is what stays the unbelievers from believing Christians. Let us win them therefore by our life. Many even among the untaught have in that way astounded the minds of philosophers, as having exhibited in themselves also that philosophy which lies in deeds, and uttered a voice clearer than a trumpet by their mode of life and self-denial. For this is stronger than the tongue. But when I say, one ought not to bear malice, and then do all manner of evil to the Greek, how shall I be able by words to win him, while by my deeds I am frightening him away? Let us catch them then by our mode of life, and by these souls let us build up the church, and of these let us amass our wealth. There is nothing to weigh against a soul, and not even the whole world, so that although thou give countless treasure unto the poor, thou wilt do no such work as he who converteth one soul. For he that taketh forth the precious from the vile shall be as my mouth. So he speaks. A great good it is, I grant, to have mercy on the poor, but it is nothing equal to the withdrawing them from error. For he that doth this resembles Paul and Peter, we being permitted to take up their gospel, not with perils such as theirs, with endurance of famines and pestilences, and all other evils, for the present is a season of peace, but so as to display that diligence which cometh of zeal. For even while we sit at home, we may practice this kind of fishery. Whoso hath a friend or relation or intimate of his house, these things let him say, these do, and he shall be like Peter and Paul. Why do I say Peter and Paul? He shall be the mouth of Christ. For he saith, He that 
taketh forth the precious from the vial shall be as my mouth. And though thou persuade not today, tomorrow thou shalt persuade. And though thou never persuade, thou shalt have thine own reward in full. And though thou persuade not all, a few out of many thou mayest. Since neither did the apostles persuade all men that are, but still they discoursed with all. And for all they have their reward. For not according to the result of the things that are well done, but according to the intention of the doers. Is God wont to assign the crowns? Though thou pay down but two farthings, he receiveth them. And what he did in the case of the widow, the same will he do also in the case of those who teach. Do not thou then, because thou canst not save the world, despise the few, nor through longing after the greater things, withdraw thyself from the lesser. If thou canst not an hundred, take thou charge of ten. If thou canst not ten, despise not even five. If thou canst not five, do not overlook one. If thou canst not one, neither so despair, nor keep back what may be done by thee. Seest thou not how, in matters of trade, they who are so employed make their profit, not only with gold, but with silver also? For if we are not come to slighting the little things, how shall we keep hold also of the great? But if we despise the small, neither shall we easily lay hold upon the other. Thus individuals become rich, gathering both small and great. And so let us act, that in all things enriched, we may obtain the kingdom of heaven, through the grace and loving kindness of our Lord Jesus Christ, with whom under the Father, together with the Holy Spirit, be glory, power, honor, now and henceforth, forevermore. Amen. Homily 4, 1 Corinthians 1, 18-20 For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but to us which are saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? To the sick and broken-spirited, even wholesome meats are unpleasant. Friends and relations burdensome, who are oftentimes not even recognized, but are rather accounted intruders. Much like this often is the case of those who are perishing in their souls. For the things which tend to salvation they know not. And those who are careful about them they consider to be troublesome. Now this ensues not from the nature of the thing, but from their disease. And just what the insane do, hating those who take care of them, and ever after reviling them, the same is the case with unbelievers also. But as in the case of the former, they who are insulted, then more than ever compassionate them, and weep, taking this as the worst symptom of the disease in its intense form, when they know not their best friends, so also in the case of the Gentiles, let us act, yea, more than for our wives, let us wail over them, because they know not the common salvation. For not so dearly ought a man to love his wife, as we should love all mankind, and draw them over unto salvation. Be a man, a Gentile, or be he what he may. For these then let us weep, for the preaching of the cross is to them foolishness, being itself wisdom and power. For, saith he, the preaching of the cross to them that perish is foolishness. For since it was likely that they, the cross being derided by the Greeks, would resist and contend by aid of that wisdom, which came forsooth of themselves, as being disturbed by the expressions of the Greeks, Paul comforting them, saith, Think it not strange and unaccountable, which is taking place. This is the nature of that which we now treat of to have them that perish fail in acknowledging its power. 
for they are beside themselves and behave as madmen, and so they rail and are disgusted at the medicines which bring health. But what sayest thou, O man? Christ became a slave for thee, having taken the form of a slave, and was crucified, and rose again. And when thou oughtest to adore him risen for this, and admire his loving kindness, because what neither father nor friend nor son did for thee, all this the Lord wrought for thee, the enemy and offender. When I say, thou oughtest to admire him for these things, callest thou that foolishness, which is full of so great wisdom. Well, it is nothing wonderful, for it is a mark of them that perish, not to recognize the things which lead to salvation. Be not troubled, therefore, for it is no strange nor unaccountable event that things truly great are mocked at by those who are beside themselves. Now such as are in this mind you cannot conceive by human wisdom. Yea, if you want so to conceive them, you do but the contrary, for the things which transcend reasoning require faith alone. Thus should we set about convincing men by reasonings, how God became man, and entered into the virgin's womb, and not to commit the matter unto faith. They will but deride the more. Therefore, they who inquire by reasonings, these are they who perish. And why I speak of God, for in regard of created things, should we do this, great derision will ensue. For suppose a man wishing to make out all things by reasoning, and let him try by thy discourse to convince himself how we see the light, and do thou try to convince him by reasoning. Yea, thou canst not. For if thou sayest that it suffices to see by opening the eyes, thou hast not expressed the matter, but the fact. For why see we not, one will say, by our hearing and with our eyes hear? But why hear we not with the nostril, and with the hearing smell? If then he being in doubt about these things, and we unable to give the explanation of them, he is to begin laughing, shall not we rather laugh him to scorn? For since both have their origins from one brain, since the two members are near neighbors to each other, why can they not do the same work? Now we shall not be able to state the cause, nor the method of the unspeakable and curious operation, and should we make the attempt, we shall be laughed to scorn. Wherefore, leaving this unto God's power and boundless wisdom, let us be silent, just so with regard to the things of God. Should we desire to explain them by the wisdom which is from without, great derision will ensue, not from their infirmity, but from the folly of men, for the great things of all no language can explain. Now observe, when I say he was crucified, the Greek saith, and how can this be reasonable? Himself he helped not when undergoing crucifixion and sore trial at the moment of the cross. How then after these things did he rise again and help others? For if he had been able, before death was the proper time. For this the Jews actually said, But he who helped not himself, how helped he others? There is no reason in it, saith he. True, O man, for indeed it is above reason, and unspeakable is the power of the cross. For that being actually in the midst of horrors, he should have shown himself above all horrors, and being in the enemy's hold should have overcome. This cometh of infinite power, for as in the case of the three children, their not entering the furnace would not have been so astonishing, as that, having entered in, they trampled upon the fire. And in the case of Jonah, it was a greater thing by far, after he had been swallowed by the fish, to suffer no harm from the monster, than if he had not been swallowed at all. So also, in regard of Christ, his not dying would not have been so inconceivable, 
as that being dead he should loose the bands of death say not then why did he not help himself on the cross for he was hastening on to close conflict with death itself he descended not from the cross not because he could not but because he would not for him whom the tyranny of death restrained not how could the nails of cross restrain but these things though known to us are not so as yet to the unbelievers wherefore he said that the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness but to us who are saved it is the power of god for it is written i will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the understanding of the prudent will i bring to nothing nothing from himself which might give offence does he advance up to this point but first he comes to the testimony of the scripture and then furnished with boldness from thence adopts more vehement words and saith verses twenty and twenty one hath not god made foolish the wisdom of this world where is the wise where the scribe where is the disputer of this world hath not god made foolish the wisdom of this world for after that by the power of god the world by wisdom knew not god it pleased god by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe having said it is written i will destroy the wisdom of the wise he subjoins the demonstration from facts saying where is the wise where is the scribe at the same time glancing at both gentiles and jews for what sort of philosopher which among those who have studied logic which of those knowing in jewish matters hath saved us and made known the truth not one it was the fisherman's work the whole of it having then inferred what he had in view and brought down their pride he said hath not god made foolish the wisdom of this world he states the reason also why these things were so done for after that by the wisdom of god saith he the world by wisdom knew not god the cross appeared now what means by the wisdom of god the wisdom apparent in those works whereby it was his will to make himself known for to this end did he frame them and frame them such as they are that by a sort of propitiation from the things which are seen admiration of the maker might be learnt is the heaven great and the earth boundless wonder then at him who made them for this heaven great as it is not only was made by him but made with ease and that boundless earth too was brought into being even as if it had been nothing wherefore of the former he saith the works of thy fingers are the heavens and concerning the earth who hath made the earth as it were nothing since then by this wisdom the world was unwilling to acknowledge god he employed what seemed to be foolishness i e the gospel to persuade men not by reasonings but by faith it remains that where god's wisdom is there is no longer need of man's for before to infer that he who made the world such and so great must in all reason be a god possessed of a certain uncontrollable unspeakable power and by these means to apprehend him this was the part of human wisdom but now we need no more reasonings but faith alone for to believe on him that was crucified and buried and to be most fully persuaded that this person himself both rose again and sat down on high this needeth not wisdom nor reasonings but faith for the apostles themselves came in not by wisdom but by faith and surpassed the heathen wise men in wisdom and loftiness and that so much the more by how much to raise disputings is less than to receive by faith the things of god for this transcends all human understanding but how hath he destroyed wisdom being made known to us by paul and others like him 
he hath shown it to be unprofitable. For towards receiving the evangelical proclamation, neither is the wise profited at all by wisdom, nor the unlearned injured at all by ignorance. But if one may speak somewhat even wonderful, ignorance rather than wisdom is a condition suitable for that impression, and more easily dealt with, for the shepherd and the rustic will more quickly receive this, once for all repressing all doubting thoughts, and delivering himself to the Lord. In this way, then, he hath destroyed wisdom. For since she first cast herself down, she is ever after useful for nothing. Thus, when she ought to have displayed her proper powers, and by the works to have seen the Lord, she would not. Wherefore, though she were now willing to introduce herself, she is not able, for the matter is not of that kind, this way of knowing God being far greater than the other. You see, then, faith and simplicity are needed, and this we should seek everywhere, and prefer it before the wisdom which is from without. For God, saith he, hath made wisdom foolish. But what is he hath made foolish? He hath shown it foolish in regard of receiving the faith. For since they prided themselves on it, he lost no time in exposing it. For what sort of wisdom is it, when it cannot discover the chief of things that are good? He caused her, therefore, to appear foolish, after she had first convicted herself. For if, when discoveries might have been made by reasoning, she proved nothing, now when things proceed on a larger scale, how will she be able to accomplish aught? Now when there is need of faith alone and not of acuteness, you see then, God has shown her to be foolish. It was his good pleasure too, by the foolishness of the gospel to save. Foolishness, I say, not real, but appearing to be such. For that which is more wonderful, yet is his having prevailed by bringing in, not another such wisdom, more abundant than the first, but what seemed to be foolishness. He cast out Plato, for example, not by means of another philosopher of more skill, but by an unlearned fisherman. For thus the defeat became greater, and the victory more splendid. Verses 22 through 24. Next to show the power of the cross, he saith, For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, unto the Jews a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks foolishness. But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Vast is the import of the things here spoken. For he means to say, how, by contraries, God hath overcome, and how the gospel is not of man. What he saith is something of this sort. When saith he, we say unto the Jews, believe, they answer, raise the dead, heal the demoniacs, show unto us signs. But instead thereof, what say we, that he was crucified and died, who is preached? And this is enough, not only to fail in drawing over the unwilling, but utterly to drive away those even who are willing. Nevertheless, it drives not away, but attracts and holds fast and overcomes. Again, the Greeks demand of us a rhetorical style, and the acuteness of sophistry. But we to these also preach the cross, and that which, in the case of the Jews, is deemed to be a weakness. This, in the case of the Greeks, is foolishness. Wherefore, when we not only fail in producing what they demand, but also produce the very opposites of their demand. For the cross has not merely no appearance of being a sign sought out by reasoning, but even the very annihilation of a sign is not merely deemed no proof of power, but a conviction of weakness, not merely no display of wisdom, but a ground for surmising foolishness. When, therefore, they who seek for signs and wisdom not only receive not the things which they ask, 
but even hear the contrary to what they desire, and then by means of contraries are persuaded, how is not the power of him that is preached unspeakable, as if to some one tempest-tossed, and longing for a haven, you were to show not a haven, but another wilder portion of the sea, and so could make him follow with thankfulness. Or as if a physician could attract to himself the man that was wounded and in need of remedies, by promising to cure him not with drugs, but with burning of him again. For this is a result of great power indeed. So also the apostles prevailed, not simply by a sign, but even by a thing which seemed contrary to all the known signs, which thing also Christ did in the case of the blind man. For when he would heal him, he restored him by a thing which increased the blindness, i.e. he put on clay. As then by means of clay he healed the blind man, so also by means of the cross hath he brought the world to himself. That certainly was adding an offense, not taking an offense away. So did he also, in the creation, working out things by their contraries. With sand, for instance, he walled in the sea, having made the weak a bridle to the strong. He placed the earth upon the water, having taken order that the heavy and the dense might be borne on the soft and fluid. By means of the prophets, again, with a small piece of wood, he raised up iron from the bottom. In like manner also with the cross, he hath drawn the world to himself. For as the water beareth up the earth, so also the cross beareth up the world. You see now, it is proof of great power and wisdom to convince by means of the things which tell directly against us. Thus the cross seems to be matter of offense, and yet far from scandalizing, it even attracts. Verse 25. All these things, therefore, Paul bearing in mind, and being struck with astonishment, said that the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. In relation to the cross, speaking of a folly and weakness, not real but apparent. For he is answering with respect unto the other party's opinion. For that which philosophers were not able by means of reasoning to accomplish, this, what seemed to be foolishness, did exceedingly well. Which then is the wiser, he that persuadeth the many or but few? I should say, no one. He who persuadeth concerning the greatest points, or about matters which are nothing. What great labors did Plato endure, and his followers, discoursing to us about a line, and an angle, and a point, and about numbers even and odd, and equal unto one another, and unequal, and such like spider-webs? For indeed those webs are not more useless to man's life than were these subjects. And without doing good to any one great or small, by their great means, so he made an end of his life. How greatly did he labor, endeavoring to show that the soul is immortal. And even as he came, he went away, having spoken nothing with certainty, nor persuaded any hearer. But the cross wrought persuasion by means of unlearned men. Yea, it persuaded even the whole world, and not about common things, but in discourse of God, and the godliness which is according to truth, and the evangelical way of life, and the judgments of the things to come. And of all men it made philosophers, the very rustics, the utterly unlearned. Behold how the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness stronger. How stronger? Because it overran the whole world, and took all by main force. And while men were endeavoring by ten thousands to quench the name of the crucified, the contrary came to pass, 
that flourished and increased more and more, but they perished and wasted away, and the living, in war with the dead, had no power, so that when the Greek calls me foolish, he shows himself exceedingly above measure foolish, since I who am esteemed by him a fool, evidently appear wiser than the wise. When he calleth me weak, then he showeth himself to be weaker. For the noble things which publicans and fishermen were able to effect by the grace of God, these philosophers and rhetoricians and tyrants, and in short the whole world, running ten thousand ways here and there, could not even form a notion of. For what did not the cross introduce? The doctrine concerning the immortality of the soul, that concerning the resurrection of the body, that concerning the contempt of things present, that concerning the desire of things future. Yea, angels it hath made of men, and all everywhere practice self-denial, and show forth all kinds of fortitude. But among them also it will be said, Many have been found contemptors of death. Tell me who, was it he who drank the hemlock? But if thou wilt, I can bring forward ten thousand such from within the church. For had it been lawful, when persecution befell them, to drink hemlock and depart, all had become more famous than he. And besides, he drank when he was not at liberty to drink, or not to drink, but willing, and against his will he must have undergone it. No effect surely of fortitude, but of necessity, and nothing more. For even robbers and manslayers, having fallen under the condemnation of their judges, have suffered things more grievous. But with us it is all quite the contrary, for not against their will did the martyrs endure, but of their will, and being at liberty not to suffer, showing forth fortitude harder than all adamant. This, then, you see, is no great wonder, that he whom I was mentioning drank hemlock, it being no longer in his power not to drink, and also when he had arrived at a very great age, for when he despised life, he stated himself to be seventy years old, if this can be called despising. For I, for my part, could not affirm it, nor, what is more, can anyone else, but show me someone enduring firm in torments for godlessness' sake, as I show thee ten thousand everywhere in the world, who, while his nails were tearing out, nobly endured, who, while his joints were retching asunder, who, while his body was enduring spoil, member by member, or his head, who, while his bones were being heaved out by levers, who, while placed without intermission upon frying pans, who, when thrown into a cauldron, show me these instances, for to die by hemlock is all as one with a sleeping man's continuing in a state of sleep. Nay, even sweeter than sleep is this sort of death, if report say true. But if certain of them did endure torments, yet of these two the praise is gone to nothing, for on some disgraceful occasion they perished, some for revealing mysteries, some for aspiring to dominion, others detected in the foulest crimes, others again at random and fruitlessly and ignorantly, there being no reason for it, made away with themselves, but not so with us. Wherefore, of their deeds nothing is said, but these flourish and daily increase, which Paul, having in mind, said, The weakness of God is stronger than all men. For that the gospel is divine, even from hence is evident. Namely, from what quarter could it have occurred to twelve ignorant men to attempt such great things, who sojourned in marshes, in rivers, in deserts, who never at any time perhaps had entered into a city, nor into a forum, whence did it occur to set themselves in array against the whole world? For that they were timid and unmanly, 
he shows who wrote of them, not shrinking back nor enduring to throw their failings into the shade, which indeed of itself is a very great token of the truth. What then doth he say about them? That when Christ was apprehended, after ten thousand wonders, the rest fled, and he who remained, being the leader of the rest, denied. Whence was it then that they who, when Christ was alive, endured not the attack of the Jews, now that he was dead and buried, and, as ye say, had not risen again, nor had any talk with them, nor infused courage into them, whence did they set themselves in array against so great a world? Would they not have said amongst themselves, Whatever meaneth this, himself he was not able to save, and will he protect us? Himself he defended not when alive, and will he stretch out the hand unto us now that he is dead? Himself when alive, subdued not even one nation, and how are we to convince the whole world by uttering his name? How, I ask, could all this be reasonable? I will not say, as something to be done, but even as something to be imagined. From whence it is plain, that had they not seen him after he was risen, and received most ample proof of his power, they would not have ventured so great a cast. For suppose they had possessed friends innumerable, would they not presently have got them all for enemies, disturbing ancient customs and removing their father's landmarks? But as it was, they had before gotten them for enemies, all, both their own countrymen and foreigners. For although they had been recommended to veneration by everything external, would not all men have abhorred them, introducing a new polity, but now they were even void of all, and it was likely that even on that account all would hate and scorn them at once. For whom will you name? The Jews? Nay, they had against them an inexpressible hatred on account of the things which had been done unto the Master. The Greeks then? Why, first of all, these had rejected one not inferior to them, and no man know these things so well as the Greeks. For Plato, who wished to strike out a new form of government, or rather a part of a government, in that not by changing the customs relating to the gods, but merely by substituting one line of conduct for another, being cast out of Sicily, went near to lose his life. This, however, did not ensue, so that he lost his liberty alone, and had not a certain barbarian been more gentle than the tyrant of Sicily, nothing could have rescued the philosopher from slavery throughout life in a foreign land. And yet it is not all one to innovate in affairs of a kingdom and in matters of religious worship, for the latter more than anything else causes disturbance and troubles men. For to say, let such and such and one marry such a woman, and let the guardians of the commonwealth exercise their guardianship so and so, is not enough to cause any great disturbance. And especially when all this is lodged in a book, and no great anxiety on the part of the legislator to carry the proposals into practice. On the other hand, to say, they be no gods which men worship, but demons. He who was crucified is God. Ye well know how great wrath it kindled, how severely men must have paid for it. What a flame of war it fanned. For Protagoras, who was one of them, having dared to say, I know of no gods, not going round the world and proclaiming it, but in a single city, was in the most eminent peril of his life. And Diagoras, the Milesian, and Theodorus, who is called atheist, although they had friends, and that influence which comes from eloquence, and were held in admiration because of their philosophy, yet nevertheless none of these profited them. And the great Socrates, too, he who surpassed in philosophy all among them, for this reason drank hemlock, because in his discourse concerning the gods, 
he was suspected of moving things a little aside. Now if the suspicion alone of innovation brought so great danger on philosophers and wise men, and on those who had attained boundless popularity, and if they were not only unable to do what they wished, but were themselves also driven from life and country, how canst thou choose but be in admiration and astonishment, when thou seest that the fisherman hath produced such an effect upon the world, and accomplished his purposes, hath overcome both barbarians and Greeks, all of them. But they did not, you will say, introduce strange gods, as the others did. Well, and in that you are naming the very point most to be wondered at, that the innovation is twofold, both to pull down those which are, and to announce the crucified, for from whence came it into their minds to proclaim such things, whence to be confident about their event? Whom of those before them could they perceive to have prospered in any such attempt? Were not all men worshipping devils? Were not all used to make gods of the elements? Was not the difference but in the mode of impiety? But nevertheless they attacked all, and overthrew all, and overran in a short time the whole world, like a sort of winged being, making no account of dangers, of deaths, of the difficulty of the thing, of their own fewness, of the multitude of the opponents, of the authority, the rank, the wisdom of those at war with them. For they had above all these mightier aid, the power of him that had been crucified and was risen again. It would not have been so wondrous had they chosen to wage war with the world in the literal sense, as this which in fact has taken place. For according to the law of battle, they might have stood over against the enemies, and occupying some adverse ground, have arrayed themselves accordingly, to meet the array of their foes, and have taken their time for attack in close conflict. But in this case it is not so, for they had no camp of their own, but were absolutely mingled with their enemies, and thus overcame them. Even in the midst of their enemies, as they went about, they gilded away from their hold, and became superior, and achieved a splendid victory, a victory which fulfills the prophecy that saith, even in the midst of thine enemies thou shalt have dominion. For this it was which was full of all astonishment, that their enemies having them in their power, and casting them into prisons and chains, not only did not vanquish them, but themselves also eventually had to stoop under them, the scourgers to be scourged, the binders in chains to those who were bound, the persecutors to the fugitives. All these things then we say unto the Greeks, yea, rather more than these, for the truth has enough and greatly to spare. And if ye will follow the argument, we will teach you the whole method of fighting against them. In the meanwhile, let us hold fast these two heads. How did the weak overcome the strong? And from whence came it into their thoughts, being such as they were, to form such plans, unless they enjoyed divine aid? So far then as to what we have to say, but let us show forth by our actions all excellencies of conduct, and kindle abundantly the fire of virtue. For ye are lights, saith he, shining in the midst of the world. And unto each of us God hath committed a greater function than he hath to the sun, greater than the heaven, and earth and sea, and by so much greater as spiritual things be more excellent than things sensible. When then we look into the solar orb, and admire the beauty, and the body, and the brightness of the luminary, let us consider again that greater and better is the light which is in us, as indeed the darkness also is more dreadful unless we take heed. And in fact, a deep night oppresses the whole world. This is what we have to dispel and dissolve. It is night not among the heretics, nor among Greeks only, but also in the multitude on our own side. 
in respect of doctrines and of life. For many entirely disbelieve the resurrection. Many fortify themselves with their horoscope. Many adhere to superstitious observances and to omens and auguries and presages. And some likewise employ amulets and charms. But to these also we will speak afterwards when we have finished what we have to say to the Greeks. In the meanwhile, hold fast the things which have been said, and be ye fellow helpers with me in the battle. By your way of life attracting them to us and changing them. For as I am always saying, he that teaches high morality ought first to teach it in his own person, and be such as his hearers cannot do without. Let us therefore become such, and make the Greeks feel kindly towards us. And this will come to pass if we make up our minds not to do ill, but rather to suffer ill. Do we not see when little children, being born in their father's arms, give him that carries them blows on the cheek, how sweetly the father lets the boy have his fill of wrath? And when he sees that he has spent his passion, how his countenance brightens up. In like manner, let us also act, and as fathers with children, let us discourse with the Greeks, for all the Greeks are children. And this some of their own writers have said, that that people are children always, and no Greek is an old man. Now children cannot bear to take thought for anything useful. So also the Greeks would be forever at play, and they lie on the ground, groveling in posture and affections. Moreover, children oftentimes, when we are discoursing about important things, give no heed to anything that is said, but will even be laughing at all the time. Such also are the Greeks. When we discourse of the kingdom, they laugh, and a spittle dropping in abundance from an infant's mouth, which oftentimes spoils its meat and drink, such also are the words flowing from the mouth of the Greeks, vain and unclean. Even if thou art giving children their necessary food, they keep on vexing those who furnish it with evil speech, and we must bear with them all the while. Again, children, when they see a robber entering and taking away the furniture, far from resisting, even smile on him in his mischievous craft. But shouldest thou take away the little basket, or the jinglings, or any other of their playthings, they take it to heart, and fret, tear themselves, and stamp on the floor. Just so do the Greeks also, when they behold the devil pilfering all their paternal wealth, and even the things which support their life. They laugh and run to him as to a friend. But should anyone take away any possession, be it wealth or any childish thing whatsoever of that kind, they cry, they tear themselves, and as children expose their limbs unconsciously, and blush not for shame, so the Greeks, wallowing in whoredoms and adulteries, and laying bare the laws of nature, and introducing unlawful intercourses, are not abashed. Ye have given me vehement applause and acclamation, but with all your applause have a care lest you be among those of whom these things are said. Wherefore I beseech you all to become men, since so long as we are children, how shall we teach them manliness? How shall we restrain them from childish folly? Let us therefore become men, that we may arrive at the measure of the stature which hath been marked out for us by Christ, and may obtain the good things to come, through the grace and loving kindness, etc. Homily 5, 1 Corinthians 1, 26 and 27. For behold your calling, brethren, that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. He hath said that the foolishness of God is wiser than men. He hath showed that human wisdom is cast out, both by the testimony of the scriptures and by the issue of events, by the testimony where he says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, by the event, 
putting his argument in the form of a question and saying, where is the wise? Where the scribe? Again, he hath proved at the same time that the thing is not new, but ancient, so as to be pre-signified and foretold from the beginning. For it is written, saith he, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. With all he shows that it was neither inexpedient nor unaccountable for things to take this course. For after that, by the wisdom of God, the world, saith he, kneweth not God. God was well pleased by the foolishness of preaching to save them which believe. And that the cross is a demonstration of ineffable power and wisdom, and that the foolishness of God is far mightier than the wisdom of man. And this again he proves, not by means of the teachers, but by means of the disciples themselves. For behold your calling, saith he, that not only teachers of an untrained sort, but disciples also of the like class, were objects of his choice, that he chose not many wise men, that is, his word, according to the flesh. And so that of which he is speaking is proved to surpass both in strength and wisdom, in that it convinces both the many and the unwise, in being extremely hard to convince an ignorant person, especially when the discourse is concerning great and necessary things. However, they did work conviction, and this he calls the Corinthians themselves to witness. For behold your calling, brethren, saith he, consider, examine, for that doctrines so wise, yea, wiser than all, should be received by ordinary men, testifies the greatest wisdom in the teacher. But what means according to the flesh, according to what is in sight, according to the life that now is, according to the discipline of the Gentiles? Then at least he should seem to be at variance with himself, for he had convinced both the proconsul and the Areopagites and Apollos, and other wise men too, we have seen coming over to the gospel. He said not, no one wise man, but not many wise men. For he did not, as one assigning fixed portions, call the ignorant and send away the wise. But these also he received, yet the others in much larger number. And why? Because the wise man, according to the flesh, is full of extreme inconsideration. And it is he who especially answers to the term foolish when he will not cast away his corrupt doctrine. And as in the case of a physician, who might wish to teach certain persons the secrets of his art, those who know a few things, having a bad and perverse mode of practicing the art, which they make a point of retaining, would not endure to learn quietly. But they who knew nothing would most readily embrace what was said, even so it was here. The unlearned were more open to conviction, for they were free from the extreme of madness. I mean the accounting themselves wise. For indeed the excess of folly is in these more than any. These, I say, who commit unto reasoning things which cannot be ascertained except by faith. Thus, suppose the smith by means of the tongs, drawing out the red-hot iron. If this sort of person should insist on doing it with his hand, we should vote him guilty of extreme folly. So in like manner the philosopher's reason for disparaging the faith was because they insisted on finding out these things for themselves. And it was owing to this that they found not out any one of the things they sought for, not many mighty, not many noble. For these also are filled with pride, and nothing is so useless towards an accurate knowledge of God as arrogance, and being nailed down to wealth. For these dispose a man to admire things present, and make no account of the future, and they stop up the ears through the multitude of cares, 
but the foolish things of the world hath God chosen, which thing is the greatest sign of victory, that they were uneducated by whom he conquers. For the Greeks feel not so much shame when they are defeated by means of the wise, but are then confounded when they see the artisan and the sort of person one meets in the market, more of a philosopher than themselves. Wherefore also he said himself that he might confound the wise, and not in this instance alone hath he done this, but also in the case of the other advantages of life. For to proceed the weak things of the world hath he chosen, that he might put to shame the strong. For not unlearned persons only, but needy also, and contemptible and obscure, he called that he might humble those who were in high places. Verse 28. And the base things of the world, and things which are despised, and things which are not, that he may bring to naught things which are. Now what doth he call things which are not? Those persons who are considered to be nothing because of their great insignificance. Thus hath he shown forth his great power, casting down the great by means which are accounted to be nothing. The same elsewhere he thus expresses, For my strength is made perfect in weakness. For a great power it is to teach abject persons, and such as never at any time apply themselves to any branch of learning, how all at once to discourse wisely on the things which are above the heavens. For suppose a physician, an orator, or anything else, we then most admire him, when he convinces and instructs those completely uneducated. Now if to instill into an uneducated man the rules of art be a very wonderful thing, much more those which pertain to so high philosophy. But not for the wonder's sake only, neither to show his own power hath he done this, but for the purpose also of repressing the arrogant. And therefore he both said before that he might confound the wise, that he might bring to naught the things which are. And here again, verse 29, that no flesh should glory in the presence of God. For God doeth all things to this end, to repress vain glory and pride, to pull down boasting. Do you too, saith he, employ yourselves in that work? He doth all, that we may put nothing to our own account, that we may ascribe all unto God. And have ye given yourselves over unto this person or that? And what pardon will ye obtain? For God himself has shown that it is not possible we should be saved only by ourselves. And this he did from the beginning, for neither then could men be saved by themselves. But it required their compassing the beauty of the heaven, and the extent of the earth, and the mass of creation besides. If so, they might be led by the hand of the great artificer of all the works. And he did this, repressing beforehand the self-sufficiency and wisdom which was after to arise. Just as if a master, who had given his scholar charge to follow, wheresoever he might lead, when he sees him forestalling and desired to learn all things of himself, should permit him to go utterly astray, and when he hath proved him incompetent to inquire the knowledge, he should thereupon at length introduce to him what himself has to teach. So God also commanded in the beginning to trace him by the idea which the creation gives. But since they would not, he, after showing by the experiment that they are not sufficient for themselves, conducts them again unto him by another way. He gave for a tablet the world, but the philosophers studied not in those things, neither were willing to obey him, nor to approach him by that way which himself commanded. He introduces another way more evident than the former, one that might bring conviction that man is not of himself alone sufficient unto himself. 
for then scruples of reasoning might be started and the gentile wisdom employed on their part whom he through the creature was leading by the hand but now unless a man become a fool that is unless he make void all reasoning and all wisdom and deliver up himself unto the faith it is impossible to be saved you see that besides making the way easy he hath rooted up hereby no trifling disease namely in forbidding to boast and have high thoughts that no flesh should glory for hence came the sin that men insisted on being wiser than the laws of god not willing so to obtain knowledge as he had enacted and therefore they did not obtain it at all so also was it from the beginning he said unto adam do such a thing and such another thou must not do he as thinking to find out something more disobeyed and even what he had he lost he spake unto those that came after rest not entirely in the creature but by means of it contemplate the creator they forsooth as if making out something wiser than what had been commanded set in motion turnings and windings innumerable hence they kept dashing against themselves and one another and neither found god nor concerning the creature had any distinct knowledge nor had any meat and true opinion about it wherefore again with a very high hand lowering their conceit he admitted the uneducated first showing thereby that all men need the wisdom from above and not only in the matter of knowledge but also in all other things both men and all other creatures he hath constituted so as to be in great need of them that they might have this also as a most forcible motive to be subject and own themselves his for this cause he did not suffer them to be sufficient unto themselves for if even now many for all their indigency despise him were the case not so whither would they not have wandered in haughtiness so that he stayed them from boasting as they did not from any grudge to them but to draw them away from the destruction thence ensuing verse thirty for of him are ye in christ jesus who of god is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption the expression of him i suppose he uses here not of our introduction into being but with reference to the faith that is to our having become children of god not of blood nor of the will of the flesh think not then that having withdrawn us from our confidence he left us so for there is another a greater confidence his gift for in his presence it is not meet to glory ye are his children having become so through christ and since he has said the foolish things of the world hath he chosen and the base he signifies that they are nobler than all having god for their father and of this nobility of ours not this person or that but christ is the cause having made us wise and righteous and holy for so mean the words he is made unto us wisdom who then is wiser than we are who have not the wisdom of plato but christ himself god having so willed but what means of god whenever he speaks great things concerning the only begotten he adds mention of the father lest any one should think that the son is unbegotten since therefore he had affirmed his power to be so great he had referred the whole unto the son saying that he had become wisdom unto us and righteousness and sanctification and redemption through the son again referring the whole to the father he saith of god but why said he not he hath made us wise but hath been made unto us wisdom to show the copiousness of the gift as if he had said he gave unto us himself and observe how he goes on in order 
For first he made us wise by delivering from error, and then righteous and holy by giving us the Spirit, and he hath so delivered us from all our evils as to be of him. And this is not meant to express communication of being, but is spoken concerning the faith. Elsewhere we find him saying, We have been made righteousness in him. In these words he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. But now he saith, He hath been made righteousness unto us, so that whosoever will may partake plentifully. For it is not this man or that who hath made us wise, but Christ. He that glorieth therefore, let him glory in him, not in such or such in one. From Christ have proceeded all things. Wherefore, having said, Who hath been made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption? He added, That according as it is written, He that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. For this cause also he had vehemently inveighed against the wisdom of the Greeks, to teach men this lesson, and no other, that, as indeed is no more than just, they should boast themselves in the Lord. For when of ourselves we seek the things which are above us, nothing is more foolish, nothing weaker than we are. In such case, a tongue well wedded we may have, but stability of doctrine we cannot have. Rather, reasonings, being alone, are like the webs of spiders. For unto such a point of madness some have advanced, as to say that there is nothing real in the whole of being. Yea, they maintain positively that all things are contrary to what is most evident. Say not, therefore, that anything is from thyself, but in all things glory in God. Impute unto no man anything at any time. For if unto Paul nothing ought to have been imputed, much less unto any others. For, saith he, I have planted, Apollos watered, but God give the increase. He that hath learnt to make his boast in the Lord shall never be elated, but will be moderate at all times, and thankful under all circumstances. But not such is the mind of the Greeks. They refer all to themselves. Wherefore, even of men, they make gods. To so great shame hath desperate arrogance exposed them. It is time, then, in what remains, to go forth to the battle against these. Recollect where we left our discourse on the former day. We were saying that it was not possible, according to human cause and effect, that the fishermen should have got the better of the philosophers. But nevertheless, it became possible. From whence it is clear that by grace it became so. We were saying that it was not possible even for them to have conceived such great exploits. And we showed that they not only conceived, but brought them to a conclusion with great ease. Let us handle today the same head of our argument, viz., from whence did it enter their thoughts to expect to overcome the world, unless they had seen Christ after he had risen? What? Were they beside themselves to reckon upon any such thing inconsiderately and at random? For it goes even beyond all badness to look without divine grace for success in so great an undertaking. How did they succeed in it if they were insane and frenzied? But if they were in their sober senses, as indeed the events showed, how, but on receiving credible pledges from the heavens, and enjoying the influence which is from above, did they undertake to go forth to so great wars, and to make all venture against earth and sea, and to strip and stand their ground, so nobly for a change in the customs of the whole world, which had been so long time fixed, they being but twelve men? And what is more, what made them expect to convince their hearers, by inviting them to heaven and the mansions above, 
even had they been brought up in honor and wealth and power and erudition not even so would it have been at all likely that they should have been roused to so burdensome an undertaking however there would have been somewhat more of reason in their expectation but as the case now stands some of them had been occupied about lakes some about hides some about the customs than which pursuits nothing is more unprofitable towards philosophy and the persuading men to have high imaginations and especially when a man hath no example to show nay they had not only no examples to make their success likely but they had examples against all likelihood of success and those within their own doors for many for attempting innovations had been utterly quenched i say not among the greeks for all that was nothing but among the jews themselves at that very time who not with twelve men but with great numbers had applied themselves to the work thus both theodosius and judas having great bodies of men perished together with their disciples and the fear arising from their examples was enough to control these had they not been strongly persuaded that victory without divine power is out of the question yea even if they did expect to prevail with what sort of hopes undertook they such great dangers except they had an eye to the world to come but let us suppose that they hoped for no less than victory what did they expect to gain from the bringing all men unto him who is not risen again as ye say for if now men who believe concerning the kingdom of heaven and blessings unnumbered with reluctance undertake dangers how could they have undergone so many for nothing yea rather for evil for if the things which were done did not take place if christ did not ascend into heaven surely their obstinate zeal to invent these things and convince all the world of them they were doing what must offend god and could but expect ten thousand thunderbolts from on high or in another point of view if they had felt all this great zeal while christ was living yet on his death they would have let it go out for he would have seemed to them had he not risen as a sort of deceiver and pretender know ye not that armies while the general and the king is alive even though they be weak keep together but when those in such office have departed however strong they may have been they are broken up tell me then what were the enticing arguments whereupon they acted when about to apply themselves to the gospel and to go forth unto all the world was there any kind of impediment wanting to restrain them if they had been mad for i will not cease repeating it there would have been no possibility of their succeeding at all for no one follows the advice of madmen but if they succeeded as in truth they did succeed and the event proves then none so wise as they now if none were so wise as they it is quite plain that they would not lightly have come to the gospel had they not seen him after he was risen what was there sufficient to draw them out unto this war what which would not have turned them away from it he said unto them after three days i will rise again and he made promises concerning the kingdom of heaven he said they should master the whole world after they had received the holy spirit and ten thousand other things besides these surpassing all nature so that if none of these things had come to pass although they believed in him while alive after his death they would not have believed in him unless they had seen him after he was risen for they would have said after three days he said i will arise again and he hath not risen he promised that he would give the spirit and he hath not sent him how then shall his sayings about the other world find credit with us when his sayings about this are tried and found wanting and why if he rose not again did they preach that he was risen 
because they loved him, you will say, but surely it was likely that they would hate him afterwards for deceiving and betraying them, and because, having lifted them up with innumerable hopes and divorced them from house and parents and all things, and had set in hostility against them the entire nation of the Jews, he had betrayed them after all, and if indeed the thing were a weakness, they might have pardoned it. But now we were supposing it a result of exceeding craft, for he ought to have spoken the truth, and not have promised heaven, being a mortal man, as ye say, so that the very opposite was the likely line for them to take, to proclaim the cheat, to declare him a pretender and apostor. Thus again they would have been rid of all their perils, thus have put an end to the war. Moreover, seeing that the Jews give money unto the soldiers to say that they stole the body, if the disciples had come forward and said, We stole him, he is not risen again, what honor would they not have enjoyed? Thus it was in their power to be honored, nay crowned. Why then did they, for insults and dangers, barter away these things, if it was not some divine power which influenced them, and proved mightier than all these? But if we do not yet conceive, take this also into consideration, that had this not been so, though they were ever so well disposed, they would not have preached this gospel in his name, but would have treated him with abhorrence. For ye know that not even the names of those who deceive us in this sort are we willing to hear. But for what reason preach they also his name, expecting to gain the mastery through him? Truly the contrary was natural for them to expect, that even if they had been on the point of prevailing, they were ruining themselves by bringing forward the name of a deceiver. But if they wished to throw into a shade former events, their line was to be silent. At any rate, to contend for them earnestly was to give more and more fuel, both for serious hostility and for ridicule. For whence then did it enter their thoughts to invent such things? I say invent, for what they had heard they had forgotten. But if when there was no fear, they forgot many things, and if some had not even a notion, as also the evangelist himself saith, now that so great a danger came upon them, how could it be otherwise than that all should fleet away from them? Why speak I of words, when even their love towards their master himself began gradually to fade away through fear of what was coming? Wherewith also he upbraided them, for since before this they hung upon him, and were asking continually, Whither goest thou? But afterwards, on his drawing out his discourse to so great length, and declaring the terrors which, at the very time of the cross, should befall them, they discontinued speechless and frozen through fear. Hear how he alleges to them the very point we are now upon, saying, None of you asketh me, whither goest thou? But because I have said these things unto you, sorrow hath filled your heart. Now if the expectation that he would die and rise again was such a grief to them, had they failed to see him after he was risen, how could it be less than annihilation? Yea, they would have been fain to sink into the depths of the earth, what with dejection at being so deceived and what with dread of the future, feeling themselves sorely straitened. Again, from whence came their high doctrines? For the higher points, he said, they should hear afterwards. For, saith he, I have many things to speak unto you, but ye cannot bear them now, so that the things not spoken were higher, and one of the disciples was not even willing to depart with him into Judea, when he heard of dangers, but said, Let us also go that we may die with him, taking it heartily, because he expected that he should die. Now if that disciple, while he was with him, expected to die, and shrank back on that account, what must he have not have expected afterwards, when parted from him and the other disciples, and when the exposure of their shameless conduct was so complete? 
Besides, what had they to say when they went forth? For the passion, indeed, all the world knew, for he had been hanged on high, upon the frame of wood, and in midday, and in a chief city, and in a principal feast, and that from which it was least permitted that any one should be absent, but the resurrection no man saw of those who were without, which was no small impediment to them in working conviction. Again, that he was buried was the common talk of all, and that his disciples stole his body, the soldiers and all the Jews declared, but that he had risen again no one of them who were without knew by sight. Upon what ground, then, did they expect to convince the world? For if, while miracles were taking place, certain soldiers were persuaded to testify the contrary, upon what ground did these expect, without miracles, to do the work of preachers, and without one farthing's gain, to convince land and sea concerning the resurrection? Again, if through desire of glory they attempted this, so much the rather would they have ascribed doctrines, each one to himself, and not to him that was dead and gone. While it be said, men would not have believed them. And which of the two was the likelier, being preached to win their belief? He that was apprehended and crucified, or those that had escaped the hands of the Jews. Next, tell me with what view were they to take such a course. They did not immediately leaving Judea, go into the Gentile cities, but went up and down within its limits. But how, unless they worked miracles, did they convince? For if such they really wrought, and work them they did, it was God's power, whatever resulted. If, on the other hand, they wrought none and prevailed, much more wonderful was the event. Knew they not, the Jews, tell me, in their evil practice and their soul full of grudgings? For they stoned even Moses, after the sea which they had crossed on foot, after the victory and that marvelous trophy which they raised without blood, by means of his hands, over the Egyptians who had enslaved them, after the manna, after the rocks and the fountains of rivers which break out thence, after ten thousand miracles in the land of Egypt and the Red Sea and the wilderness, Jeremiah they cast into a pit, and many of the prophets they slew. Here, for example, what saith Elias, after that fearful famine, and that marvelous rain and fire which he had brought down from heaven, and the strange holocaust, driven as he was so very far to the very extreme edge of their country. More, thy prophets they have killed, thine altars they have digged down, and I am left alone, and they seek my life. Yet were not those who were so persecuted, disturbing any of the established rules. Tell me then, what ground hath men for attending to these of whom we are speaking? For on the one hand, they were meaner persons than any of the prophets. On the other, they were introducing just such novelties as had caused the Jews to nail even their master to the cross. And in another way, too, it seemed less unaccountable for Christ to utter such things than for them. For he, they might suppose, acted thus to acquire glory for himself. But these they would have hated even the more, as waging war with them in behalf of another. But did the laws of the Romans help them? Nay, by these they were more involved in difficulties. For their language was, Whosoever make himself a king is not Caesar's friend. So that this alone was a sufficient impediment to them. That of him who was accounted an usurper, they were first disciples, and afterwards desirous to strengthen his cause. What in the world then set them upon rushing into such great dangers? And by what statements about him would they be likely to gain credit? That he was crucified, that he was born of a poor Jewish mother, who had been betrothed to a Jewish carpenter, that he was of a nation hated by the world. Nay, all these things were enough not only to fail of persuading and attracting the hearers, but also to disgust everyone, and especially those things which were affirmed by the tent-maker and the fishermen. Would not the disciples then bear all these things in mind? 
timid natures can invent more than the reality, and such were their natures. Upon what ground, then, did they hope to succeed? Nay, rather, they had no hope, there being things innumerable to draw them aside, if so be that Christ had not risen. It is not quite plain, even unto the most thoughtless, that unless they had enjoyed a copious and mighty grace, and had received pledges of the resurrection, they would have been unable, I say not to do and undertake these things, but even so much as to have them in their minds. For if, when there were so great hindrances in the way of their planning, I say not of their succeeding, they yet both planned and brought to effect, and accomplished things greater than all expectation. Everyone, I suppose, can see that not by human power, but by divine grace they wrought all things. Now these arguments we ought to practice, not by ourselves only, but one with another, and thus also the discovery of what remains will be easier to us. And do not, because thou art an artisan, suppose that this sort of exercise is out of your province. For even Paul was a tent-maker. Yes, saith someone, but at that time he was also filled with abundant grace, and out of that he spake all things. Well, but before this grace he had been at the feet of Gamaliel. Yea, moreover, he had received the grace because of this, that he showed a mind worthy of the grace. And after these things he again put his hand to his craft. Let no one, therefore, of those who have trades be ashamed, but those who are brought up to nothing and are idle, who employ many attendants, and are served by an immense retinue. For to be supported by continual hard work is a sort of asceticism. The souls of such men are clearer, and their minds better strung. For the man who has nothing to do is apter to say many things at random, and do many things at random. And he is busy all day long about nothing, a huge lethargy taking him up entirely. But he that is employed will not lightly entertain in himself anything useless, in deeds, in words, or in thoughts. For his whole soul is altogether intent upon his laborious way of livelihood. Let us not therefore despise those who support themselves by the labor of their own hands, but let us rather call them happy on this account. For tell me what thanks are due unto thee, when, after having received thy portion from thy father, thou goest on not in any calling, but lavishing away the whole of it at random. Knowest thou not that we shall not all have to render the same account, but those who have enjoyed greater license here, a more exact one, those who were afflicted with labor or poverty or anything else of this kind, one not so severe. And this is plain from Lazarus and the rich man. For as thou, for neglecting the right use of thy leisure, art justly accused, so the poor man, who having full employment, has spent his remnant of time upon right objects, great will be the crowns which he shall receive. But dost thou urge that a soldier's duties should at least excuse thee, and dost thou charge them with thy want of leisure? The excuse cannot be founded in reason. For Cornelius was a centurion, yet in no way did the soldier's belt impair his strict rule of life. But thou, when thou art keeping holiday with dancers and players, and making entire waste of thy life upon the stage, never thinkest of excusing thyself from such engagements by the necessity of military service, or the fear of rulers. But when it is the church to which we call you, then occur these endless impediments. And what wilt thou say in that day, when thou seest the flame and the rivers of fire, and the chains never to be broken, and shall hear the gnashing of teeth? Who shall stand up for thee in that day, when thou shalt see him that hath labored with his own hand, and hath lived uprightly, enjoying all glory, but thyself who art now in silken robes, and steaming with perfumes, in incurable woe? What good will thy wealth and superfluity do thee? And the artisan, what harm will his poverty do him?
Therefore, that we may not suffer then, let us fear what is said now, and let all our time of occupation be spent in employment on things which are really indispensable. For so, having propitiated God in regard of our past sins, and adding good deeds for the future, we shall be able to attain unto the kingdom of heaven, through the favor and loving kindness, etc. Homily 6, 1 Corinthians 2, 1 and 2. And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and him crucified. Nothing was ever more prepared for combat than the spirit of Paul, or rather I should say, not his spirit, for he was not himself the inventor of these things. But nothing was ever equal to the grace working within him, which overcometh all things. For sufficient indeed is what had been said before to cast down the pride of the boasters about wisdom, or rather, though it were but a part of what had been said, but to enhance the splendor of the prize, he contends anew for the points which he had been affirming, trampling upon the prostrate foe. Look at it in this way. He hath brought forward the prophecy, which saith, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. He has shown the wisdom of God, in that by means of what seemed to be foolishness, he had destroyed the philosophy of the Gentiles. He has shown that the foolishness of God is wiser than men. He hath shown that not only did he teach by untaught persons, but also chose untaught persons to learn of him. Now he showeth that both the thing itself which was preached and the manner of preaching it were enough to stagger people, and yet did not stagger them. And thus not only saith he, are the disciples uneducated, but I myself also, who am the preacher. Therefore he saith, and I, brethren, again he useth the word brethren, to smooth down the harshness of what he saith, came not with excellency of speech, declaring unto you the testimony of God. What then, tell me, hast thou chosen to come with excellency? Wouldest thou have been able? I indeed, had I chosen, should not have been able. But Christ, if he had chosen, was able. But he would not, in order that he might render his trophy more brilliant. Wherefore also, in a former passage, showing that it was his work which had been done, his will, that the word should be preached in an unlearned manner, he said, For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, but far greater, yea, infinitely greater, than Paul's willing this, is the fact that Christ willed it. I do not therefore, saith he, by display of eloquence, neither armed with arguments from without, do I declare the testimony of God. He saith not the preaching, but the testimony of God, which word was itself sufficient to withhold him. For he went about preaching death, and for this reason he added, For I determined to know nothing among you, save Jesus Christ and him crucified. This was the meaning he meant to convey, that he is altogether destitute of the wisdom which is without. As indeed he was saying above, I came not with excellency of speech, for that he might have possessed this also is plain. For he whose garments raised the dead, and whose shadow expelled diseases, much more was his soul capable of receiving eloquence. For this is among things which may be taught, but the former transcendeth all art. He then who knows things beyond the reach of art, much more must he have had strength for lesser things. But Christ permitted not, for it was not expedient. Rightly therefore he saith, For I determined not to know anything. For I too, for my part, have just the same will as Christ. And to me it seems that he speaks to them in a lower tone, even than to any others, 
in order to repress their pride. Thus the expression, I determined to know nothing, was spoken in contradistinction to the wisdom which is without. For I came not weaving syllogisms, nor sophisms, nor saying unto you anything else than Christ is crucified. They indeed have ten thousand things to say, and concerning ten thousand things they speak, winding out long courses of words, framing calculations and argumentations, compounding sophisms without end. But I came unto you, saying no other thing than Christ is crucified, and all of them I outstripped, which is a sign, such as no words can express, of the power of him whom I preach. Verse 3. And I was with you in weakness and in fear, and in much trembling. This again is another topic, for not only are the believers unlearned persons, not only is he that speaketh unlearned, not only is the manner of the teaching of an unlearned cast throughout, not only was the thing preached of itself enough to stagger people, for the cross and death were the message brought. But together with these there are also other hindrances and dangers, and the plots, and the daily fear, and the being hunted about. For the word weakness with him in many places stands for the persecutions, as also elsewhere. My weakness, which I had in my flesh, ye did not set at naught. And again, if I must needs glory, I will glory of the things which concern my infirmity. What infirmity? The governor under Artes, the king kept the city of the Demosians, desirous to apprehend me. And again, wherefore, I take pleasure in infirmities. Then saying in what he added, in reproaches, in necessities, in distresses. And here he makes the same statement. For having said, and I was in weakness, etc., he did not stop at this point, but explaining the word weakness, makes mention of his dangers. He adds again, and in fear, and much trembling, I was with you. How sayest thou, did Paul also fear dangers? He did fear, and dreaded them excessively. For though he was Paul, yet he was a man. But this is no charge against Paul, but the infirmity of human nature, and it is to the praise of his fixed purpose of mind, that, when he even dreaded death and stripes, he did nothing wrong because of this fear, so that they who assert that he feared not stripes not only do not honor him, but they rather abridge him greatly of his praises. For if he feared not, what endurance or what self-restraint was there in bearing the dangers? I, for my part, on this account admire him, because being in fear, and not simply in fear, but even in trembling, at his perils, he so ran as ever to keep his crown, and give not in for any danger, in his task of purging out the world, and everywhere both by sea and land sowing the gospel. Verse 4. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, that is, had not the wisdom from without. Now if neither the doctrine preached had anything subtle, and they that were called were unlearned, and he that preached of the same description, and thereto was added persecution and trembling and fear, Tell me how did they overcome? By divine power. And this is why, having said, my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, he added, but in demonstration of the spirit and power. Dost thou perceive how the foolish of God is wiser than men, and the weakness stronger? They for their part, being unlearned, in preaching such a gospel, in their chains and persecution, overcame their persecutors. Whereby... Was it not by their furnishing that evidence which is of the Spirit? For this indeed is confessed demonstration. For who, tell me, after he had seen dead men raising to life, 
and devils cast out, could have helped admitting it. But seeing that there are also deceiving wonders, such as those of sorcerers, he removes this suspicion also. For he said not simply of power, but first of the spirit, and then of power, signifying that the things done were spiritual. You see, it is no disparagement that the gospel was not declared by means of wisdom. Rather, it is a very great ornament. For this, it will be allowed, is the clearest token of its being divine, and having its roots from above, out of the heavens. Wherefore he added also, verse 5, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Seest thou how clearly in every way he has set forth the vast gain of this ignorance, and the great loss of this wisdom. For the latter made void the cross, but the former proclaimed the power of God. The latter, besides their failing to discover any of those things which they most needed, set them also above boasting of themselves. The former, besides their receiving the truth, led them also to be joyful in God. Again, wisdom would have persuaded many to suspect that the doctrine was of man. This clearly demonstrated it to be divine, and to have come down from heaven. Now when demonstration is made by wisdom of words, even the more ordinary sort oftentimes overcome the better, having more skill in words, and falsehood outstrips the truth. But in this case it is not so. For neither doth the Spirit enter into an unclean soul, nor having entered in, can it ever be subdued, even though all possible talent of reasoning assail it. For the demonstration by works and signs is far more evident than by words. But one of them may say, perhaps, if the gospel is to prevail, and hath no need of words, lest the cross be made of none effect, for what reason are signs withholden now? For what reason? Speakest thou in unbelief, and not allowing that they were done even in the times of the apostles? Or dost thou truly seek to know? If in unbelief I will first make my stand against this, I say then, if signs were not done at that time, how did they, chased and persecuted and trembling, and in chains, and having become the common enemies of the world, and exposed to all as a mark for ill usage, and with nothing of their own to allure, neither speech nor show, nor wealth, nor city, nor nation, nor family, nor pursuit, nor glory, nor any such thing, but with all things contrary, ignorance, meanness, poverty, hatred, enmity, and setting themselves against whole commonwealths, and with such a message to declare, how, I say, did they work conviction? For both the precepts brought much labor, and the doctrines much dangers. And they that heard and were to obey had been brought up in luxury and drunkenness, and in great wickedness. Tell me then, how did they convince? Whence had they their credibility? For as I said before, if without signs they wrought conviction, far greater does the wonder appear. Do not then urge the fact that signs are not done now, as a proof that they were not done then. For as then they were profitably wrought, so now profitably are they no longer wrought. Not that it necessarily followeth from discourse, being the only instrument of conviction, that now the preaching is by wisdom. For both they who from the beginning sowed the word were unprofessional and unlearned, and spake nothing of themselves. But what things they received from God, these they distributed to the world, and we ourselves at this time introduced no inventions of our own. But the things which from them we have received, we speak unto all, and not even now persuade we by argumentation, but from the divine scriptures, and from the miracles done at that time. We produce the proof of what we say. On the other hand, even they at that time persuaded not by signs alone, but also by discoursing,
and the signs and the testimonies out of the old scriptures, not the cleverness of the things said, made their words appear more powerful. How then, you will say, was it expedient that signs should be then, and now inexpedient? Let us suppose a case, for as yet I am contending against the Greek, and therefore I speak hypothetically of what must certainly come to pass. Let us, I say, suppose a case, and let the unbeliever endure to believe our affirmations, though it be only just for the time of conflict. For instance, that Christ will come. When then Christ shall come, and all the angels with him, and be manifested as God, and all things made subject unto him, will not even the Greek believe. It is quite plain that he will also fall down in worship, and confess him God, though his stubbornness exceed all reckoning. For who at the sight of the heavens opened, and him coming upon the clouds, and all the congregation of the powers above spread around him, and rivers of fire coming on, and all standing by and trembling, will not fall down before him, and believe him God. Tell me then, shall that adoration and knowledge be accounted unto the Greek for faith? No, on no account. And why not? Because this is not faith, for necessity hath done this, and the evidence of the thing seen, and it is not of choice, but by the vastness of the spectacle the powers of the mind are dragged along. It follows that by how much the more evident and overpowering the course of events, by so much is the part of faith abridged. For this reason miracles are not done now. And that this is the truth, hear what he saith unto Thomas. Blessed are they who have not seen, and yet have believed. Therefore, in proportion to the evidence wherewith the miracle is set forth, is the reward of faith lessened. So that if now also miracles were wrought, the same thing would ensue. For that then we shall no longer know him by faith. Paul has shown, saying, For now we walk by faith, not by sight. As at that time, although thou believe, it shall not be imputed unto thee, because the thing is so palpable. So also now, supposing that such miracles were done as were formerly, for when we admit things which in no degree and in no way can be made out by reasoning, then it is faith. It is for this that hell is threatened, but is not shown. For if it were shown, the same would again ensue. Besides, if signs be what thou seekest after, even now thou mayest see signs, although not of the same kind. The predictions without end, and on an endless variety of subjects, the conversion of the world, the self-denying course of the barbarians, the change from savage customs, the greater intenseness of piety. What predictions, you will say? For all the things just mentioned were written after the present state of things had begun. When, where, by whom, tell me. How many years ago? Will you have fifty or an hundred? They had not then, a hundred years ago, anything written at all. How then did the world retain the creed and all the rest, since memory would not be sufficient. How knew they that Peter was crucified? How could it have entered the minds of men who came after the events had taken place? To foretell, for instance, that the gospel should be preached in every part of the whole world, that the Jewish institutions should cease and never return again. And they who give up their lives to the gospel, how would they have endured to see the gospel adulterated? And how would the writers have won credit, miracles having ceased? And how could the writings have penetrated into the region of barbarians and of Indians and unto the very bounds of the ocean, if the relators had not been worthy of credit? The writers, too, who were they? When, how, and why did they write at all? Was it to assume glory to themselves? Why then inscribed they the books with other men's names? Why? 
from a wish to recommend the doctrine as true or as false? For if you say they struck to it as being false, their joining it at all was out of all likelihood. But if as being truth, there was no need of inventions, such as you speak of. And besides, the prophecies are of such a kind, as that even until now time has been unable to force aside the predicted course of things, for the destruction indeed of Jerusalem took place many years ago. But there are also other predictions which extend along from that time until his coming, which examine as you please, for instance this, I am with you always, even until the end of the world. And upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And this gospel shall be preached unto all nations. And that which the woman, which was an harlot, did, and many others more than these, whence then the truth of this prediction? At least if it were a forgery. How did the gates of hell not prevail against the church? How is Christ with us? For had he not been with us, the church would not have been victorious. How was the gospel spread abroad in every part of the world? They also who have spoken against us are enough to testify the antiquity of the books. I mean, such as Celius and he of Batania, who came after him. For they, I suppose, were not speaking against books composed after their time. And besides, there is the whole world, which with one consent hath received the gospel. Now there could not have been so great an agreement from one end of the earth to the other, unless it had been the grace of the Spirit. But the authors of the forgery would have been quickly found out. Neither could so great excellencies have originated from inventions and falsehood. Dost thou not see the whole world coming in, error extinguished, the austere wisdom of the monks shining brighter than the sun, the choirs of the virgins, the piety among the barbarians, all men serving under one yoke, for neither by us alone were these things foretold, but also from the beginning by the prophets. For you will not, I trow, cavil at their predictions also. For the books are with their enemies, yea, with the Greeks. Through the zeal of certain men, they have been transferred into the Greek tongue. Many things then do these also foretell concerning these matters, showing that he was God who should come among us. Why then do not all believe now? Because things have degenerated, and for this we are to blame. For from hence the discourse is addressed unto us also. For surely not even then did they trust to signs alone. But by the mode of life also many of the converts were attracted. For let your light so shine before men, saith he, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. And they were all of one heart and one soul. Neither said any man that aught of the things which he possessed was his own. But they had all things in common, and distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. And they lived an angelic life, and if the same were done now, we should convert the whole world, even without miracles. But in the meanwhile, let those who will be saved attend to the scriptures, for they shall find there both these noble doings and those which are greater than these. For it may be added that the teachers themselves surpass the deeds of the others, living in hunger and thirst and nakedness. But we are desirous of enjoying great luxury and rest and ease. Not so they. They cried aloud, Even unto the present hour we both hunger and thirst and are naked, and are buffeted and have no certain dwelling place. And one ran from Jerusalem into Illyricum, and another unto the country of the Indians, and another unto that of the Moors and this to one part of the world, that to another. 
whereas we have not the courage to depart even out of our own country, but seek for luxurious living and splendid houses, and all other superfluities, for which of us ever was furnished for the word of God's sake, which ever abode in a wilderness, which ever set out on a distant peregrination, which of our teachers hath lived by the labor of his hands to assist others, which hath endured death daily. Hence it is that they also who are with us have become slothful. For suppose that one saw soldiers and generals struggling with hunger and thirst and death, and with all dreadful things, and bearing cold and dangers and all like lions, and so prospering, then afterwards relaxing that strictness, and becoming venerated, and fond of wealth, and addicted to business and bargains, and then overcome by their enemies, it were extreme folly to seek for the cause of all this. Now let us reason thus in our own case, and that of our ancestors, for we too have become weaker than all, and are nailed down unto this present life. And if one be found having a vestige of the ancient wisdom, leaving the cities and marketplaces, and the society of the world, and the ordering of others, he betakes himself to the mountains. And if one ask the reason of that retirement, he invents a plea which cannot meet with allowance. For, saith he, lest I perish too, and the edge of my goodness be taken off, I start aside. Now how much better were it for thee to become less keen, and to gain others, than abiding on high to neglect thy perishing brethren. When, however, the one sort are careless about virtue, and those who do regard it, withdraw themselves far from our ranks, how are we to subdue our enemies? For even if miracles were wrought now, who would be persuaded, or who of those without would give heed unto us, our iniquity being so on the surface? For so it is, that our upright living seems unto the many the more trustworthy argument of the two. Miracles admitting of a bad construction on the part of obstinate and bad men, whereas a pure life will have power to stop the mouth of the devil himself, yea, and much more than so. These things I say both to governors and governed, and before all others unto myself, to the end that the way of life shown forth in us may be truly admirable, that taking our stations we may look down on all things present, may despise wealth and not despise hell, overlook glory and not overlook salvation, endure toil and labor here, lest we fall into punishment there. Thus let us wage war with the Greeks. Thus let us take them captive, with a captivity better than liberty. And while we say these things without intermission, over and over, they are realized very seldom. Howbeit, be they realized or not, it is right to employ such topics by way of continual admonition. For if some are engaged in deceiving by their fair speech, so much the more is it the duty of those who allure back unto the truth, not to grow weary of speaking what is profitable. Again, if the deceivers make use of so many contrivances, spending as they do money and applying arguments and undergoing dangers and making a parade of their patronage, much more should we, who are winning men from deceit, endure both dangers and deaths in all things, that we may gain both ourselves and others and become to our enemies irresistible, and so obtain the promised blessings through the grace and loving kindness, etc. Homily 7, 1 Corinthians 2, 6 and 7. Howbeit we speak wisdom among them that are perfect, yet not the wisdom of this world, nor of the princes of this world, that come to naught, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom, which God ordained before the world unto our glory. 
Darkness seems to be more suitable than light to those who are diseased in their eyesight. Wherefore, they betake themselves by preference to some room that is thoroughly shaded over. This also is the case with the wisdom which is spiritual, and the wisdom which is of God, seem to be foolish unto those without. So their own wisdom, being foolishness indeed, was accounted by them wisdom. The result has been, just as if a man, having skill in navigation, were to promise that without a ship or sails he would pass over a boundless tract of the sea, and then endeavor by reasonings to prove that the thing is possible. But some other person, ignorant of all, committing himself to a ship and a steersman, and to sailors, were thus to sail in safety, for the seeming ignorance of this man is wiser than the wisdom of the other, for excellence is the art of managing a ship, and when it makes too great professions, it is a kind of folly, and so is every art which is not content with its own proper limits. Just so the wisdom which is without, were wisdom indeed, if it had had the benefit of the spirit, but since it trusted all to itself, and supposed that it wanted none of that help, it became foolishness, although it seemed to be wisdom. Wherefore, having first exposed it by the facts, then and not till then, he calls it foolishness. And having first called the wisdom of God folly, according to the reckoning, then and not till then, he shows it to be wisdom. For after our proofs, not before, we are best able to abash the gainsayers. His words then are, Howbeit we speak wisdom among them which are perfect. For when I, accounted as I am foolish, and the preacher of follies, get the better of the wise, I overcome wisdom, not by foolishness, but by a more perfect wisdom, a wisdom too so ample, and so much greater than the other appears foolishness. Wherefore, having before called it by a name, such as they named it at that time, and having both proved his victory from the facts, and shown the extreme foolishness of the other side, he henceforth bestows upon it its right name, saying, Howbeit we speak wisdom among them that are perfect. Wisdom is the name he gives to the gospel, to the method of salvation, and being saved by the cross. The perfect are those who believe, for indeed they are perfect who know all human things, that they are utterly helpless, and who overlook them from conviction, that by such they are profited nothing, such as were the true believers, but not the wisdom of this world. For where is the use of the wisdom which is without, terminating here and proceeding no further, and not even here able to profit its possessors? Now by the princes of the world, here he means not certain demons, as some suspect, but those in authority, those in power, those who esteem the thing worth contending about, philosophers, rhetoricians, and writers of speeches, for these were the dominant sort, and often became leaders of the people. Rulers of this world he calls them, because beyond this present world their dominion extends not. Wherefore he adds further, which come to naught, disparaging it both on its own account and from those who wield it. For having shown that it is false, that it is foolish, that it is unable to discover anything, that it is weak, he shows moreover that it is but of short duration. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery. What mystery? For surely Christ saith, What ye have heard in the ear, proclaim upon the housetops. How then does he call it a mystery? Because that neither angel nor archangel nor any other created power knew of it before it actually took place. Wherefore he saith, That now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. 
and this hath God done in honor to us, so that they not without us should hear the mysteries. For we too ourselves, whomsoever we make our friends, used to speak of this as a sure proof of friendship towards them, that we tell our secrets to no one in preference to them. Let those here who make a sort of triumphal show of the secrets of the gospel, and unto all indiscriminately display the pearls and the doctrine, and who cast the holy things unto dogs and swine, and useless reasonings, for the mystery wants no adornment, but just what the fact is, that it is simply declared to be, since it will not be a mystery, divine and whole in all its parts, when thou addest anything to it of thyself also. And in another sense, too, a mystery is so called, because we believe, not the very things which we see, but some things we see and others believe, for such is the nature of our mysteries. I, for instance, feel differently upon these subjects from an unbeliever. I hear Christ was crucified, and forthwith I admire his loving kindness unto men. The other hears and esteems it weakness. I hear he became a servant, and I wonder at the care which he hath had for us. The other hears and counts it dishonor. I hear he died, and am astonished at his might, that being in death he was not holden, but even broke the bands of death. The other hears and surmises it to be helplessness. He hearing of the resurrection saith, The thing is a legend. I, aware of the facts which demonstrate it, fall down and worship the economy of God. But hearing of a laver counts it merely as water. But I behold not simply the thing which is seen, but the purification of the soul which is by the Spirit. He considers only that my body hath been washed. But I have believed that the soul also hath become both pure and holy. And I count it the sepulchre, the resurrection, the sanctification, the righteousness, the redemption, the adoption, the inheritance, the kingdom of heaven, the plenary effusion of the Spirit. For not by the sight do I judge of the things that appear, but by the eyes of the mind. I hear of the body of Christ. In one sense I understand the expression, in another sense the unbeliever. And just as children, looking on their books, know not the meaning of the letters, neither know what they see, Yea, more, if even a grown man be unskilled in letters, the same thing will befall him. But the skillful will find much meaning stored up in the letters, even complete lives and histories, and an epistle in the hands of one that is unskillful, will be accounted but paper and ink. But he that knows how to read will both hear a voice and hold converse with the absent, and will reply whatsoever he chooses by means of writing. So it is also in regard of the mystery. Unbelievers, albeit they hear, seem not to hear, but the faithful, having the skill which is by the Spirit, behold the meaning of the things stored therein. For instance, it is this very thing that Paul signified when he said that even now the word preached is hidden, for unto them that perish, he saith, it is hidden. In another point of view, the word indicates also the gospel's being contrary to all expectation. By no other name is Scripture wont to call what happens beyond all hope, and above all thought of men. Wherefore also in another place, my mystery is for me and for mine. And Paul again, behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. For though it be everywhere preached, still it is a mystery. For as we have been commanded, what things we have heard in the ear to speak upon the housetops, so have we been also charged not to give the holy things unto dogs, nor yet to cast our pearls before swine. For some are carnal and do not understand, 
others have a veil upon their hearts and do not see. Wherefore, that is above all things a mystery, which everywhere is preached, but is not known of those who have not a right mind, and is revealed not by wisdom, but by the Holy Ghost, so far as is possible for us to receive it. And for this cause a man would not err, who in this respect also should entitle it a mystery, the utterance whereof is forbidden. For not even unto us the faithful hath been committed entire certainty and exactness. Wherefore Paul also said, We know in part, and we prophesy in part. For now we see through a glass, darkly, but then face to face. For this cause, he saith, we speak wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world unto our glory. Hidden, that is, that no one of the powers above hath learnt it before us, neither do the many know it now, which he hath before ordained unto our glory. And yet elsewhere he saith, unto his own glory, for he considereth our salvation to be his own glory, even as also he calleth it his own riches, though he be himself the riches of good men, and need nothing in order that he may be rich. Foreordained, he saith, pointing out the care had for us. For so those are accounted most both to honor and to love us, whosoever shall have laid themselves out to do us good from the very beginning, which indeed is what fathers do in the case of children. For although they give not their goods until afterwards, yet from the first and from the beginning they had predetermined this. And this is what Paul is earnest to point out now, that God always loved us, even from the beginning, and when as yet we were not. For unless he had loved us, he would not have foreordained our riches. Consider not then the enmity which hath come between, for more ancient than that was the friendship. As to the words, before the worlds, they mean eternal. For in another place also he saith thus, who is before the worlds. The Son also, if you mark it, will be found to be eternal in the same sense. For concerning him he saith, by him he made the worlds, which is equivalent to subsistence before the worlds. For it is plain that the Maker is before the things which are made. Verse 8, which none of the princes of this world knew, for had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Now if they knew not, how said he unto them, Ye both know me, and ye know whence I am. Indeed, concerning Pilate, the scripture saith, He knew not. It is likely also that neither did Herod know. These, one might say, are called the rulers of this world. But if a man were to say that this is spoken concerning the Jews also and the priests, he would not err. For to these also he saith, Ye neither know me nor my father. How then saith he a little before, Ye know both me, and ye know whence I am. However, the manner of this way of knowledge, and of that, hath already been declared in the gospel, and not to be continually handling the same topic, thither do we refer our readers. What then? Was their sin, in the matter of the cross, forgiven them? For he surely did say, Forgive them. If they repented, it was forgiven. For even he who set countless assailants on Stephen, and persecuted the church, even Paul, became the champion of the church. Just so then, those also, on their choosing to repent, had forgiveness, and this indeed Paul himself meant, when he exclaims, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? God forbid. I say then, hath God cast away his people whom he foreknew? God forbid. Then to show that their repentance was not precluded, he brought forward, as a decisive proof, his own conversion, saying, For I also am an Israelite, 
as to the words they knew not they seem to me to be said here not concerning christ's person but only concerning the dispensation hidden in that event as if he had said what meant the death and the cross they knew not for in that passage also he said not they know not me but they know not what they do that is the dispensation which is being accomplished and the mystery they are ignorant of for if they knew not that the cross is to shine forth so brightly that it is made the salvation of the world and the reconciliation of god unto men that their city should be taken and that they should suffer the extreme of wretchedness by the name of wisdom he calls both christ and the cross and the gospel opportunely also he called him the lord of glory foreseeing that the cross is counted a matter of ignominy he suffers that the cross was great glory but that there was need of great wisdom in order to join with the knowledge of god the learning of this god's dispensation and the wisdom which was without turned out an obstacle not to the former only but to the latter also verse nine but as it is written i hath not seen nor ear heard neither have entered into the heart of man the things which god hath prepared for them that love him where are these words written why it is said to have been written then also when it is set down not in words but in actual events as in the historical books or when the same meaning is expressed but not in the very same words as in this place for the words they to whom it was not told about him shall see and they who have not heard shall understand are the same with the things which eye hath not seen nor ear heard either then this is his meaning or probably it was actually written in some books and the copies have perished for indeed many books were destroyed but a few were preserved entire even in the first captivity and this is plain in those which remain to us for the apostle saith from samuel and the prophets which follow after they have all spoken concerning him and these their words are not entirely extant paul however as being learned in the law and speaking by the spirit would of course know all with accuracy but why speak i of the captivity even before the captivity many books had disappeared the jews having as it were suffered shipwreck even to the last degree of impiety and this is plain from the end of the fourth book of kings for the book of deuteronomy could hardly be found having been buried somewhere in a dunghill and besides there are many places double prophecies easy to be apprehended by the wiser sort from which we may find out many of the things which are obscure what then hath i not seen what god hath prepared no for who among men saw the things which were about to be dispensed hath then ear not heard neither hath it entered into the heart of man how is this for if the prophets spoke of it how saith he ear hath not heard neither hath it entered into the heart of man it did not enter for not of these alone is he speaking but of the whole human race what then the prophets did not they hear yes they heard but the prophetic ear was not an ear of man for not as men heard they but as prophets wherefore he said he hath added unto me an ear to hear meaning by addition that which was from the spirit from whence it is plain that before hearing it had not entered into the heart of man for after the gift of the spirit the heart of the prophets was not the heart of man but a spiritual heart as also he saith himself we have the mind of christ as if he should say 
before we had the blessing of the Spirit, and had learnt the things which no man can speak. No one of us, nor yet of the prophets, conceived them in his mind. How should we, since not even angels know them? For what need is there to speak, saith he, concerning the rulers of this world, seeing that no man knew them, nor yet the powers above? What kind of things, then, are these? That, by what is esteemed to be the foolishness of preaching, he shall overcome the world, and the nations shall be brought in, and there shall be reconciliation of God with men, and so great blessings shall come upon us. How then have we known? Unto us, he saith, God hath revealed them by his Spirit, not by the wisdom which is without. For this, like some dishonored handmaid, hath not been permitted to enter in, and stoop down and look into the mysteries pertaining to the Lord. Seest thou how great is the difference between this wisdom and that? The things which angels knew not, these are what she hath taught us. But she that is without hath done the contrary. Not only has she failed to instruct, but she hindered and obstructed, and after the event sought to obscure his doings, making the cross of none effect. Not then simply by our receiving the knowledge does he describe the honor vouchsafed to us, nor by our being joined with angels to receive it, but what is more, by his Spirit conveying it to us. Then to show its greatness he saith, If the Spirit which knoweth the secret things of God had not revealed them, we should not have learned them. Such an object of care was this whole subject to God, as to be among his secrets. Wherefore, we needed also that other teacher, who knoweth these things perfectly. For the Spirit, saith he, searcheth all things, even the deep things of God. For what man knoweth the things of a man, save the Spirit of a man which is in him? Even so, the things of God knoweth no man, but the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. For the word to search is here indicative not of ignorance, but of accurate knowledge, at least if we may judge from the fact that this is the very same mode of speaking which he hath used even of God, saying, He that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit. Then having spoken with exactness concerning the knowledge of the Spirit, and having pointed out that it is in such sort fully equal to God's knowledge, as the knowledge of a man itself to itself, and also that we have learned all things from it, and necessarily from it, he added, which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. Seest thou to what point he hath brought us with the teacher's authority? For so much are we wiser than they, as there is difference between Plato and the Holy Spirit, they having for masters the heathen rhetoricians, but we the Holy Spirit. But what is this, comparing spiritual things with spiritual? When a thing is spiritual and of dubious meaning, we adduce testimonies from the things which are spiritual. For instance, I say, Christ rose again, was born of a virgin. I adduce testimonies and types and demonstrations. The abode of Jonah in the whale and his deliverance afterwards the child-bearing of the barren Sarah, Rebecca, and the rest, the springing up of the trees which took place in paradise. When there had been no seed sown, no rain sent down, no furrow drawn along, for the things to come were fashioned out and figured forth, as in shadow, by the former things, that these which are now might be believed when they came in. And again we show how of the earth was man, and how of man alone the woman, and this without any intercourse whatsoever. How the earth itself of nothing, the power of the great artificer being everywhere sufficient for all things. 
Thus with spiritual things do I compare spiritual, and in no instance have I need of the wisdom which is without, neither its reasonings nor its embellishments. For such persons do but agitate the weak understanding, and confuse it, and are not able to demonstrate clearly any one of the things which they affirm, but even have the contrary effect. They rather disturb the mind and fill it with darkness and much perplexity. Wherefore he saith, with spiritual things comparing spiritual, seest thou how superfluous he showeth it to be, and not only superfluous, but even hostile and injurious. For the expressions, lest the cross of Christ be made of none effect, and that our faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, had that signification. And he points out here that it is impossible for those who confidently entrust everything to it to learn any useful thing. For, verse 14, the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit. It is necessary, then, to lay it aside first. What, then, some man will say, is the wisdom from without stigmatized? And yet it is the work of God. How is this clear? Since he made it not, but it was an invention of thine. For in this place he calls by the term wisdom, curious research, and superfluous elegance of words. But should anyone say that he means the human understanding, even in this sense the fault is thine. For thou bringest a bad name upon it, who makest a bad use of it who to the injury and thwarting of God demandest from it things which indeed it never had, since then thou boastest therein, and fightest with God. He hath exposed its weakness. For strength the body also is an excellent thing, but when Cain used it not as he ought, God struck him with palsy, and made him tremble. Wine also is a good thing, but because the Jews indulged in it immoderately, God prohibited the priests entirely from the use of the fruit. And since thou also hast abused wisdom unto the rejecting of God, and hast demanded of it more than it can do of its own strength, in order to withdraw thee from human hope, he hath showed thee its weakness. For to proceed he also is a natural man, who attributes everything from cold reasonings, and considers not that he needs help from above, which is a mark of sheer folly. For God bestowed it, that it might learn and receive help from him, not that it should consider itself sufficient unto itself. For so the eyes are beautiful and useful. But should they choose to see without light, their beauty profits them nothing, nor yet their natural force, but even doth harm. So if you mark it, any soul also, if it choose to see without the spirit, it becomes even an impediment unto itself. How then, before this, it will be said, did she see all things of herself? Never at any time did she this of herself. But she had creation for a book set before her in open view. But when men, having left off to walk in the way which God commanded them, and by the beauty of visible objects to know the great artificer, had entrusted to dispensations the leading staff of knowledge, they became weak and sank in a sea of ungodliness. For they presently brought in that which was the abyss of all evil, asserting that nothing was produced from things which were not but from uncreated matter, and from this source they became the parents of ten thousand heresies. Moreover, in their extreme absurdities they agreed, but in those things wherein they seemed to dream out something wholesome, though it were only as in shadows, they fell out with one another, that on both sides they might be laughed to scorn, but that out of things which are not nothing is produced, nearly all with one accord have asserted and written, and this with great zeal. In these absurdities, then, they were urged on by the devil. But in their profitable sayings, 
wherein they seemed, though it were but darkly, to find some part of what they sought, and these they waged war with one another. For instance, that the soul is immortal, that virtue needs nothing external, and that the being good, on the contrary, is not of necessity, nor of fate. Dost thou see the craft of the devil? If anywhere he saw men speaking anything corrupt, he made all to be of one mind. But if anywhere speaking anything sound, he raised up others against them, so that the absurdities did not fail, being confirmed by the general consent, and the profitable parts died away, being variously understood. Observe how, in every respect, the soul is unstrung, and is not sufficient unto herself. And this fell out as one might expect. For if, being such as she is, she aspire to have need of nothing, and withdraw herself from God, suppose her not fallen into that condition, and into what extreme madness would she not have insensibly sunk? If endowed with a mortal body, she expected greater things from the false promise of the devil. For ye shall be, he said, as gods. To what extent would she not have cast herself away, had she received her body also from the beginning immortal? For even after that she asserted herself to be unbegotten, and of the essence of God, through the corrupt mouth of the Manichaeans. And it was this distemperate which gave occasion to her invention of the Grecian gods. On this account, as it seems to me, God hath made virtue laborious, with a view to bow down the soul, and to bring it to moderation, that thou mayest convince thyself that this is true. As far as from trifles one may guess at anything great, let us learn it from the Israelites. They, it is well known, when they lead not a life of toil, but indulged in relaxation, not being able to bear prosperity, fall away into ungodliness. What then did God upon this? He laid upon them a multitude of laws with a view to restrain their license, and to convince you that these laws contribute not to any virtue, but were given to them as a sort of curb, providing them with an occasion of perpetual labor. Hear what saith the prophet concerning them. I give them statutes which were not good. What means not good? Such as did not contribute towards virtue. Wherefore he adds also, in ordinances whereby they shall not live. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit. For as with these eyes no man could learn the things in the heavens, so neither the soul unaided the things of the Spirit. But why speak I of the things in heaven? It receives not even those in earth, all of them. For so, beholding afar off a square tower, we think it to be round, but such an opinion is mere deception of the eyes. So also we may be sure what a man by means of his understanding alone examines the things which are afar off from us. Much ridicule will ensue. For not only will he not see them such as indeed they are, but will even account them the contraries of what they are. Wherefore he added, For they are foolishness unto him. But this comes not of the nature of the thing, but of his infirmity, unable as he is to attain to their greatness, through the eyes of his soul. Next pursuing his contrast, he states the cause of this, saying, He knoweth not that they are spiritually discerned, i.e. the things asserted require faith, and to apprehend them by reasonings is not possible, for their magnitude exceeds by a great deal the meanness of our understanding. Wherefore he saith, But he that is spiritual judgeth all things, yet he himself is judged of no man. For so he that has sight beholds himself all things, even such as appertain to the man that has no sight. 
but no sightless person discerns what the other is about. So also in the case before us, our own matters and those of unbelievers, all of them we for our part know, but ours they know not henceforth any more. We know what is the nature of things present, what the dignity of things to come, and what some day shall become of the world, when this state of things shall be no more, and what sinners shall suffer, and the righteous shall enjoy, and that things present are nothing worth, we both know, and their meanness we expose, for to discern is also to expose, and that the things to come are immortal and immovable. All these things are known to the spiritual man, and what the natural man shall suffer when he is departed into that world, and what the faithful shall enjoy when he hath fulfilled his journey from this, none of which are known to the natural man. Wherefore also subjoining a plain demonstration of what had been affirmed, he saith, For who hath known the mind of the Lord, that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ, that is to say, the things which are in the mind of Christ, these we know, even the very things which he willeth, and hath revealed. For since he had said, the Spirit had revealed them. Lest any one should set aside the Son, he saith, that Christ also showed us these things. Not meaning this, that all the things which he knoweth we know, but that all the things which we know are not human, so as to be open to suspicion, but of his mind and spiritual. For the mind which we have about these things we have of Christ, that is, the knowledge which we have concerning the things of the faith is spiritual, so that it is but likely we should be judged of no man. For it is not possible that a natural man should know divine things. Wherefore also he said, For who hath known the mind of the Lord? Implying that our own mind, which we have about these things, is his mind. And this, that he may instruct him, he hath not added without reason, but with reference to what he had just now said, the spiritual man no one discerneth. For if no man is able to know the mind of God, much less to teach and to correct it. For this is the meaning of, that he may instruct him. Seest thou how from every quarter he repels the wisdom which is without, and shows that the spiritual man knoweth more things and greater. For seeing that those reasons, that no flesh should glory, and for this cause hath he chosen the foolish things, that he might confound the wise men and lest the cross of Christ should be of more effect, seemed it not to the unbelievers greatly worthy of credit, nor yet attractive, nor necessary, nor useful. He finishes by laying down the principal cause of all, because in this way we shall most easily see from whom we may have the means of learning even high things, and things secret, and things which are above us. For reason was absolutely made of none effect, by our inability to apprehend through Gentile wisdom the things above us. You may observe, too, that it was more advantageous to learn in this way from the Spirit, for that is the easiest and clearest of all teaching. But we have the mind of Christ, that is, spiritual, divine, that which hath nothing human. For it is not of Plato, nor of Pythagoras, but it is Christ himself, putting his own things into our mind. This then, if not else, let us revere, O beloved, and let our life shine forth as most excellent, since he also himself maketh this a sure proof of great friendship, viz. the revealing his secrets unto us, where he saith, Henceforth I call you not servants, for all ye are my friends, for all things which I have heard from my Father I have told unto you, that is, I have had confidence toward you. 
Now, if this by itself is a proof of friendship, namely to have confidence, when it appears that he has not only confided to us the doctrinal mysteries, but also by what we are to do imparted to us the same, consider how vast the love of which this is the fruit. This, if nothing else, let us revere. Even though we will not make any great account of hell, let it be more fearful than hell, to be thankless and ungrateful to such a friend and benefactor, and not as hired servants, but as sons and freemen. Let us do all things for the love of our Father, and let us at last cease from adhering to the world, that we may put the Greeks to shame. For even now, desiring to put out my strength against them, I shrink from so doing, lest haply surpass them, as we may by our arguments, and the truth of what we teach, we bring upon ourselves much derision from the comparison of our way of life, seeing that they indeed, cleaving unto error, and having no such conviction, abide by a strict rule of life, and we do the contrary. However, I will say it, for there may, there may be a chance that in practicing how to contend against them, we shall long as rivals to become better than they in our mode of life also. I was also saying not long ago that it would not have entered the apostles' thoughts to preach what they did preach, had they not enjoyed divine grace, and that so far from succeeding, they would not have even devised such a thing. Well then, let us also today persecute the same subject in our discourse, and let us show that it was a thing impossible to much as to be chosen or thought of by them, if they had not had Christ among them, not because they were arrayed, the weak against the strong, not because few against many, not because poor against rich, not because unlearned against wise, but because the strength of their prejudice was too great. For ye know that nothing is so strong with men as the tyranny of ancient custom, so that although they had not been twelve only, and not so contemptible, and such as they really were, but another world as large as this, and with an equivalent number arrayed on their side, or even much greater, even in this case the result would have been hard to achieve. For the other party had custom on their side, but to these their novelty was an obstacle. For nothing so much disturbs the mind, though it be done for some beneficial purpose, as to innovate and introduce strange things. And most of all, when this is done in matters relating to divine worship and the glory of God, and how great force there is in this circumstance, I will now make plain, first having made the following statement, that there was added also another difficulty with regard to the Jews. For in the case of the Greeks, they destroyed both their gods and their doctrines together. But not so did they dispute with the Jews, but many of their doctrines they abolished, while the God who had enacted the same they bade men worship. And affirming that men should honor the legislator, they said, Obey not in all respects the law which is of him. For instance, in the keeping of the Sabbath, or observing circumcision, or offering sacrifices, or doing any other like thing, so that not only was the sacrifice an impediment, but also the fact that when they bade men worship God, they bade them break many of his laws. But in the case of the Greeks, great was the tyranny of custom. For if it had been a custom of ten years only, I say not of such a length of time, and if it had preoccupied but a few men, I say not the whole world, when these persons made their approaches, even in this case the revolution would have been hard to effect. But now the sophists and orators and fathers and grandfathers and many more ancient than all these had been preoccupied by the error. The very earth and sea and mountains and groves and all the nations of barbarians and all the tribes of the Greeks and wise men and ignorant 
rulers and subjects, women and men, young and old, masters and slaves, artificers and husbandmen, dwellers in cities and in countries, all of them. And those who were instructed would naturally say, what may this be? Have all that dwell in the world been deceived? Both sophists and orators, philosophers and historians, the present generation and they who were before this, Pythagoreans, Platonists, generals, consuls, kings, they who in all cities from the beginning were citizens and colonists, barbarians and Greeks, and are the twelve fishermen and tent makers and publicans wiser than all these. Why, who could endure such a statement? However, they spake not so, nor had it in their mind, but did endure them, and owned that they were wiser than all. Wherefore, they overcame even all, and custom was no impediment to this, though accounted invincible when she hath acquired her full swing by course of time, that thou mayest learn how great is the strength of custom. It hath oftentimes prevailed over the commands of God. And why do I say commands, even our very blessings? For so the Jews, when they had manna, required garlic, enjoying liberty, they were mindful of their slavery, and they were continually longing for Egypt because they were accustomed to it. Such a tyrannical thing is custom. If thou desire to hear of it from the heathens also, it is said that Plato, although well aware that all about the gods was a sort of imposture, condescended to all the feasts and all the rest of it, as being unable to contend with custom, and as having in fact learned this from his master. For he too, being suspected of some such innovation, was so far from succeeding in what he desired, that he even lost his life, and this too, after making his defense. And how many men do we see now by prejudice held in idolatry, and having nothing plausible to say, when they are charged with being Greeks, but alleging their fathers and grandfathers and great-grandfathers? For no other reason did some of the heathens call custom, second nature. But when doctrines are the subject matter of the custom, it becomes yet more deeply rooted. For a man would charge all things more easily than those pertaining to religion. The feeling of shame, too, coupled with custom, was enough to raise an obstacle, and the seeming to learn a new lesson in extreme old age, and that of those who were not so intelligent. And why wonder, should this happen in regard of the soul, seeing that even in the body custom hath great force? In the apostles' case, however, there was yet another obstacle, more powerful than these. It was not merely changing custom so ancient and primitive, but there were perils also, under which the charge was effected, for they were not simply drawing men from one custom to another, but from a custom wherein was no fear to an undertaking which held out threats of danger. For the believer must immediately incur confiscation, persecution, exile from his country, must suffer the worst ills, be hated of all men, be a common enemy both to his own people and to strangers, so that even if they had invited men to a customary thing out of novelty, even in this case it would have been a difficult matter. But when it was from a custom to an innovation, and with all these terrors to boot, consider how vast was the obstacle. And again, another thing, not less than those mentioned, was added here too, to make the change difficult. For besides the custom and the dangers, these precepts were both more burdensome, and those from which they withdrew men were easy and light. For their call was from fornication unto chastity, from love of life unto sundry kinds of death from drunkenness unto fasting, from laughter unto tears and compunction, from covetousness unto utter indignance, 
from safety unto dangers, and throughout all they required the strictest circumspection. For filthiness, saith he, and foolish talking and jesting, let it not proceed out of your mouth. And these things they spake unto those who knew nothing else than how to be drunken and serve their bellies, who celebrated feasts made up of nothing but of filthiness and laughter, and all manner of revelings. So that not only from the matter pertaining to severity of life were the doctrines burdensome, but also from their being spoken unto men who had been brought up in careless ease, in filthiness, in foolish talking, and laughing, and revelings. For who among those who had lived in these things, when he heard, If a man take not up his cross and follow me, he is not worthy of me. And I came not to send peace but a sword, and to set a man at variance with his father, and the daughter at variance with her mother, would not have felt himself chilled all over. And who, when he heard, if a man bid not farewell to home and country and possessions, he is not worthy of me, would not have hesitated, would not have refused. And yet there were men who not only felt chill, neither shrunk away when they heard these things, but ran to meet and rushed upon the dangers, and eagerly caught at the precepts enjoined, again to be told, for every idle word we shall give an account. And whosoever looketh upon a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her as soon as seen, and whosoever is angry without cause shall fall into hell. Which of the men of that day would not these things have frightened off? And yet all came running in, and many even leaped over the boundaries of the course. What then was their attraction? Was it not plainly the power of him who was preached? For suppose that the case were not as it is, but just the contrary, that this side was the other, and the other this, would it have been easy, let me ask, to hold fast and to drag on those who resisted? We cannot say so. So that in every way that power is proved divine, which wrought so excellently. Else how, tell me, did they prevail with the frivolous and the dissolute, urging them toward the severe and rough course of life? Well, such was the nature of the precepts. But let us see whether the doctrine was attractive. Nay, in this respect also, there was enough to frighten away the unbelievers. For what said the preachers? That we must worship the crucified and count him as God, who was born of a Jewish woman. Now who would have been persuaded by these words, unless divine power had led the way? That indeed he had been crucified and buried, all men knew. But that he had risen again and ascended, no one save the apostles had seen. But you will say they excited him by promises, and deceive them by an empty sound of words. Nay, this very topic most particularly shows, even apart from all that has been said, that our doctrines are no deceit, for all its hardships took place here, but its consolations they were to promise after the resurrection. This very thing, then, for I repeat it, shows that our gospel is divine. For why did no one of the believers say, I close not with this, neither do I endure it, Thou threatenest me with hardships here, and the good things thou promised me after the resurrection. Why, how is it plain that there will be a resurrection? Which of the departed hath returned? Which of these hath said, What shall be after our departure hence? But none of these things entered into their minds. Rather, they give up their very lives for the crucified. So that this bare fact was more than anything a proof of great power. First, their working conviction at once, touching matters so important in persons that had never in their lives before heard of any such thing, secondly, that they prevailed on them to make the difficulties upon trial, and to account the blessings as matter of hope. Now if they had been deceiving, they would have done the contrary, 
the good things they would have promised as of this world, the fearful things they would have not mentioned, whether they related to the present life or to the future. For so deceivers and flatterers act. Nothing harsh, nor galling, nor burdensome do they hold out, but altogether the contrary, for this is the nature of deceit. But the folly, it will be said, of the greater part caused them to believe what they were told. How sayest thou, when they were under the Greeks, were they not foolish? And when they came over to us, did their folly then begin? And yet they were not men of another sort, nor out of another world, that the apostles took and persuaded. They were men too, who simply held the opinions of the Greeks. But ours they received with the accompaniment of dangers, so that if with better reason they had maintained the former, they would not have swerved from them. Now that they had so long time been educated therein, and especially as not without danger, was it possible to swerve. But when they had come to know from the very nature of things that all on that side was mockery and delusion, upon this, even under menaces of sundry deaths, they sprang off from their customary ways and came over voluntarily unto the new, inasmuch as the latter doctrine was according to nature, but the other contrary to nature. But the persons convinced, it is said, were slaves and women and nurses and midwives and eunuchs. Now in the first place, not of these alone doth our church consist, and this is plain unto all. But be it of these, this is what especially makes the gospel worthy of admiration, that such doctrines as Plato and his followers could not apprehend, the fishermen had the power on a sudden to persuade the most ignorant sort of all to receive. For if they had persuaded wise men only, the result would not have been so wonderful. But in advancing slaves and nurses and eunuchs unto such great severity of life as to make them rivals to angels, they offered the greatest proof of their divine inspiration. Again, had they enjoined, I know not what trifling matters, it were reasonable perhaps to bring forward the conviction wrought in these persons, to show the trifling nature of the things which were spoken. But if things great and high, and almost transcending human nature, and requiring high thoughts were a matter of their lessons of wisdom, the more foolish thou showest in those who were convinced, by so much the more dost thou show clearly that they who wrought the conviction were wise, and filled with divine grace. But you will say they prevailed on them through the excessive greatness of the promises. But tell me, is not this very thing a wonder to thee, how they persuaded men to expect rewards and recompenses after death? For this were there nothing else, is to me matter of amazement, but this too, it will be said, came a folly. Inform me wherein is the folly of these things, that the soul is immortal, that an uncorrupt tribunal will receive us after the present life, that we shall render an account both of our deeds and words and thoughts unto God that knoweth all secrets, that we shall see the evil undergoing punishment, and the good with crowns on their heads. Nay, these things are not a folly, but the highest instruction of wisdom. The folly is in the contrary opinions to these. Were this, then, the only thing, the despising of things present, the setting much by virtue, the not seeking rewards here, but advancing far beyond in hopes, and the keeping the soul so intent and faithful, as by no present terror, to be hindered in respect of the hopes of what shall be, tell me, to what high philosophy must this belong? But would you also learn the force of the promises and predictions in themselves, and the truth of those uttered? both before and after this present state of things. Behold, I show you a golden chain, woven cunningly from the beginning. He spake some things to them about himself, and about the churches, and about the things to come. And as he spake, he wrought mighty works. By the fulfillment, therefore, of what he said, 
It is plain that both the wonders wrought were real, and the future and promised things also. But that my meaning may be yet plainer, let me illustrate it from the actual case. He raised up Lazarus by a single word merely, and showed him alive. Again, he said, The gates of hell shall not prevail against the church, and he that forsaketh father or mother shall receive an hundredfold in this life, and shall inherit everlasting life. The miracle then is one, the raising of Lazarus, but the predictions are two, made manifest, the one here, the other in the world to come. Consider now how they are all proved by one another. For if a man disbelieve the resurrection of Lazarus from the prophecy uttered about the church, let him learn to believe the miracle. For the word spoken so many years before came to pass then, and received accomplishment. For the gates of hell prevailed not against the church. You see that he who spake truth in the prophecy, it is clear that he also wrought the miracle, and he who both wrought the miracle brings to accomplishment the words which he spake. It is clear that he speaks the truth also in the prediction of things yet to come, when he saith, He who despiseth things present shall receive an hundredfold, and shall inherit everlasting life. For the things which have been already done and spoken, he hath given as the surest pledges of those which shall hereafter come to pass. Of all these things then, and the like to these, collecting them together out of the Gospels, let us tell them, and so stop their mouths. But if any one say, Why then was not error completely extinguished? This may be our answer. Ye yourselves are to blame, who rebel against your own salvation. For God hath so ordered this matter by his hidden providence that not even a remnant of the old impiety need be left. Now briefly to recount what things have been said, what is the natural course of things? That the weak should be overcome by the strong or the contrary. Those who speak things easy or things of the harsher sort. Those who attract men with dangers or with security. Innovators are those who strengthen custom. Those who lead into a rough or into a straight way. Those who withdraw men from the institutions of their fathers are those who lay down no strange laws. Those who promise all their good things after our departure from this world are those who flatter in the present life. The few to overcome the many, or the many the few. But you too, saith one, give promises pertaining to this life. What then have we promised in this life? The forgiveness of sins and the laver of regeneration. Now in the first place, baptism itself hath its chief part in the things to come, as Paul exclaims, saying, For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When your life shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. But if in this life also it hath advantages, as indeed it hath, this also is more than all a matter of great wonder, that they had power to persuade men who had done innumerable evil deeds, yea, such as no one else had done, that they should wash themselves clean of all, and they should give account of none of their offenses. So that on this very account it were most of all meet to wonder that they persuaded barbarians to embrace such a faith as this, and to have good hopes concerning things to come, and having thrown off the former burden of their sins, to apply themselves with the greatest zeal for the time to come to those toils which virtue requires, and not to gape after any object of sense, but rising to a height above all bodily things, to receive gifts purely spiritual, yea, that the Persian, the Samaritan, the Moor, and the Indian should be acquainted with the purification of the soul, and the power of God, and his unspeakable mercy to men, and the severe discipline of faith, and the visitation of the Holy Spirit, and the resurrection of bodies, and the doctrines of life eternal. For in all these things, and whatever is more than these, the fishermen, initiating by baptism diverse races of barbarians, 
persuaded them to live on high principles. Of all these things, then, having observed them accurately, let us speak unto the Gentiles, and again let us show them the evidence of our lives, that by both means we ourselves may be saved, and they drawn over by our means unto the glory of God. For unto him be the glory for ever. Amen. Homily 8. 1 Corinthians 3, 1-3. And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. I have fed you with milk, and not with meat. For hitherto ye were not able to bear it, neither yet now are ye able, for ye are yet carnal. After having overturned the philosophy, which is from without, and cast down all its arrogance, he comes unto another argument. For it was likely that they would say, if we were putting forth the opinions of Plato, or of Pythagoras, or any other of the philosophers, reason were, thou shouldest draw out such a long discourse against us. But if we were announcing the things of the Spirit, for what reason dost thou turn and toss up and down the wisdom which is from without? Hear then how he makes his stand against this. And I, brethren, was not able to speak unto you as unto spiritual. Why in the first place, says he, though you had been perfect in spiritual things also, not even so ought you to be elated. For what you preach is not your own, nor such as yourselves have found from your own means. But now even these things ye know not as ye ought to know them. But ye are learners, and the last of all, whether therefore the Gentile wisdom be the occasion of your high imaginations, that hath been proved to be nothing, nay, in regard to spiritual things, to be even contrary unto us, or if it be on account of things spiritual. In these two ye come short, and have your place among the hindmost. Wherefore he saith, I was not able to speak unto you as unto spiritual. He said not, I have not spoken, lest the thing might seem to proceed from his grudging them somewhat. But in two ways he brings down their high spirits. First, because they knew not the things that are perfect. Next, because their ignorance was owing to themselves. Yea, in a third way besides these, by pointing out that not even now are they able to bear it. For as to their want of ability at first, that perhaps arose from the nature of the case. In fact, however, he does not leave them even this excuse. For not through any inability on their part to receive high doctrines, doth he say they receive them not, but because they were carnal. However, in the beginning, this was not so blameworthy. But after so long a time, they had not yet arrived at the more perfect knowledge. This was a symptom of most utter dullness. It may be observed that he brings the same charge against the Hebrews, not whoever it was so much vehemence. For those, he saith, are such partly because of tribulation, but these because of some appetite for wickedness. Now the two things are not the same. He implies, too, that in the one case he was intending rebuke, and the other rather stirring them up, when he spake these words of truth. For to these Corinthians he saith, Neither yet now are ye able, but unto the others, wherefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go unto perfection. And again, we are persuaded better things concerning you, and things which accompany salvation, though we thus speak. And how calleth he those carnal, who had attained so large a measure of the Spirit, and into whose praises at the beginning he had entered so much at large? Because they also were carnal, unto whom the Lord saith, Depart from me, ye workers of iniquity, I know you not. And yet they both cast out devils and raised the dead, and uttered prophecies, so that it is possible, having wrought even miracles, to be carnal. For so God wrought by Balaam, 
and unto Pharaoh he revealed things to come, and unto Nebuchadnezzar, and Caiaphas prophesied, not knowing what he said. Yea, and some others cast out devils in his name, though they were not with him. Since not for the doer's sake are these things done, but for others' sake. Nor is it seldom that those who were positively unworthy have been made instrumental to them. Now why wonder if, in the case of unworthy men, these things are done for others' sake? Seeing that, so it is, even when they are wrought by saints. For so Paul saith, all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos of Cephas or life or death. And again he gives some apostles and some prophets and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints unto the work of the ministry. For if it were not so, there would have been no security against universal corruption. For it may be that rulers are wicked and polluted, and their subjects good and virtuous, that laymen may live in piety and priests in wickedness, and there could not have been either baptism or the body of Christ or oblation through such, if in every instance grace required merit. But as it is, God uses to work even by unworthy persons, and in no respect of the grace of baptism, damaged by the conduct of the priest, else would the receiver suffer loss. Accordingly, though such things happen rarely, still it must be owed they do happen. Now these things I say, lest any one of the bystanders, busying himself about the life of the priest, should be offended as concerning the things solemnized. For man introduces nothing into the things which are set before us. But the whole is a work of the power of God, and he it is who initiates you into the mysteries. And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal. I have fed you with milk and not meat, for ye were not able to bear it. For lest he should seem to have spoken ambitiously these things which he had just spoken, the spiritual man judges all things, and he himself is judged of no man. And we have the mind of Christ, with a view also to repress their pride. Observe what he saith, not on this account, saith he, was I silent, because I was not able to tell you more, but because ye are carnal, neither yet now are ye able. Why, said he not, ye are not willing, but ye are not able. Even because he put the latter for the former, for as to the want of ability, it arises from the want of will, which to them indeed is matter of accusation, but to their teacher of excuse. For if they had been unable by nature, one might perhaps have forgiven them. But since it was from choice, they were barefoot of all excuse. He then speaks of the particular point also, which makes them carnal. For whereas there is among you strife and envying and division, are ye not carnal and walk as men? Although he had fornications also and uncleanness of theirs to speak of, he sets down rather that offense, which he had been a good while endeavoring to correct. Now if envying makes men carnal, it is high time for us all to bewail bitterly, and to clothe ourselves with sackcloth, and lie in ashes. For who is pure from this passion, except indeed I am but conjecturing the case of others from myself? If envying maketh men carnal, and suffereth them not to be spiritual, although they prophesy and show forth other wonderful works, now when not even so much grace is within us, what place shall we find for our own doings? when not in this matter alone, but also in others, of greater moment we are convicted. From this place we learn that Christ had good reason for saying, He that doeth evil cometh not to the light, and that an unclean life is an obstacle to high doctrines, not suffering the clear-sightedness of the understanding to show itself. As then it is not in any case possible for a person in error, but living uprightly to remain in error, 
so it is not easy for one brought up in iniquity speedily to look down upon the height of the doctrines delivered to us but he must be clean from all the passions who is to hunt after the truth for whoso is freed from these shall be freed also from his error and attain unto the truth for do not i beseech you think that abstinence merely from covetousness or fornication may suffice thee for this purpose not so all must concur in him that seeketh the truth wherefore saith peter of a truth i perceive that god is no respecter of persons but in every nation he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted of him that is he calls and attracts him unto the truth seest thou not paul that he was more vehement than any one in warring and persecuting yet because he led an irreproachable life and did these things not through human passion he was both received and reached a mark beyond all and if any one should say how doth such a one a greek who is kind and good and humane continue in error this would be my answer he hath some other passion vainglory or indolence of mind or want of carefulness about his own salvation accounting that all things which concern him are drifted along disorderly and at random paul's phrase for him that worketh righteousness is he that in all things has been irreproachable according to the righteousness which is in the law again i give thanks to god whom i serve from my forefathers with a pure conscience how then you will say were unclean persons considered worthy of the gospel because they wished and longed for it thus the one sort though in error are attracted by him because they are clean from passions the others of their own accord approaching are not thrust back many also even from their ancestors have received the true religion verse three for whereas there is among you envying and strife at this point he prepares himself to wrestle with those whose part was obedience for in what went before he hath been casting down the rulers of the church where he said that wisdom of speech is nothing worth but here he strikes at those in subjection in the words verse four while one saith i am of paul and i of apollos are ye not carnal and he points out that this so far from helping them at all nor causing them to acquire anything had even become an obstacle to their profiting in the greater things for this it was which brought forth envying and envying had made them carnal and the having become carnal left them not at liberty to hear truths of the sublimer sort verse five who then is paul and who is apollos in this way after producing and proving his facts he makes his accusation henceforth more openly moreover he employs his own name doing away all harshness and not suffering them to be angry at what is said for if paul is nothing and murmur not much less ought they to think themselves ill-used two ways you see he has of soothing them first by bringing forward his own person then by not robbing them of all as if they contributed nothing rather he allows them some small portion small though it be he does not allow it for having said who is paul and who apollos he adds but ministers by whom ye have believed now this in itself is a great thing and deserving of great rewards although in regard of the archetype and the root of all good it is nothing for not he that ministers to our blessings but he that provides and gives them he is our benefactor and he said not evangelists but ministers which is more for they had not merely preached the gospel but had also ministered unto us the one being a matter of word only while the other hath deed also and so even if christ be a minister only of good things 
and not the root himself, and the fountain, I mean, of course, in that he is the son, observe to what an issue this matter is brought. How then, will you ask, doth he say that he was made a minister of circumcision? He is speaking in that place of his secret dispensation in the flesh, and again, not in the same sense which we have now mentioned. Yet even there, too, by minister, he means fulfiller, and contradistinction to one that of his own store gives out the blessings. Further, he said not, those who guide you into the faith, but those by whom ye believed, again attributing the greater share to themselves, and indicating by this also the subordinate class of ministers. Now, if they were ministering to one another, how come they to seize the authority for themselves? But I would have you consider how in no wise he lays the blame on them as seizing it for themselves, but on those who endow them with it. For the groundwork of the error lay in the multitude, since had the one fallen away, the other would have been broken up. Here are two points which he has skillfully provided, in that first he hath prepared, as by mining, in the quarter where it was necessary to overthrow the mischief, the next on their side, and not attracting ill will, nor yet making them more contentious. Verse 5. Even as Christ gave to every man, for not even this small thing itself was of themselves, but of God, who put it into their hands, for lest they might say, What then? Are we not to love those that minister unto us? Yea, saith he, but you should know to what extent. For not even this thing itself is of them, but of God who gave it. Verse 6. I have planted, Apollos watered, but God give the increase. That is, I first cast the word into the ground, but in order that the seeds might not wither away through temptations, Apollos added his own part, but the whole was of God. Verse 7. So then, neither is he that planteth anything, nor he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. Do you observe the manner in which he sues them, so that they should not be too much irritated on hearing, Who is this person, and who is that? Nay, both are individuals, namely, both the saying, Who is this person, who the other, and the saying, That neither he that planteth, nor he that watereth is anything. How then does he soften these expressions? First, by attaching the contempt to his own person. Who is Paul, and who is Apollos? and next by referring the whole to God who gave all things. For after he had said, such a person planted, and added, he that planteth is nothing, he subjoined, but God that giveth the increase. Nor does he stop even here, but applies again another healing cause in the words. Verse 8, he that planteth and he that watereth are one. For by means of this he establishes another point also, viz. that they should not be exalted one against the other. His assertion that they are one refers to their inability to do anything without. God that giveth the increase, and thus saying, he permitted not either those who labored much to lift themselves up against those who had contributed less, nor these again to envy the former. In the next place, since this had a tendency to make men more indolent, I mean all being esteemed as one, whether they have labored much or little, observe how he sets this right, saying, but every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor. As if he said, Fear not, because I said, Ye are one. For, compared with the work of God, they are one. Albeit in regards to labors, they are not so. But every man shall receive his own reward. Then he smooths it still more, having succeeded in what he wished, and gratifies them where it is allowed with earnestness. Verse 9. For we are workers together with God. Ye are God's husbandry. Ye are God's building. 
Seest thou how to them also he hath assigned no small work, having before laid it down that the whole is of God. For since he is always persuading them to obey those that have the rule over them, on this account he abstains from making very light of their teachers. Ye are God's husbandry. For because he had said, I have planted, he kept to the metaphor. Now if ye be God's husbandry, it is right that you should be called not from those who cultivate you, but from God. For the field is not called the husbandman's, but the householder's. Ye are God's building. Again, the building is not the workman's, but the master's. Now if ye be a building, ye must not be forced asunder, since this were no building. If ye be a farm, ye must not be divided, but be walled in with a single fence, namely unanimity. Verse 10. According to the grace of God, which hath been given unto me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, but to give them an ensample, and to point out that this is a wise man's part, to lay one foundation. You may observe as one instance of his modest bearing, that in speaking of himself as wise, he allowed not this to stand as though it were something of his own, but first dedicating himself entirely to God, then, and not till then, calls himself by that name. For according to the grace of God, saith he, which is given unto me. Thus at once he signifies both that the whole is of God, and that this most of all is grace, viz. the not being divided, but resting on one foundation. Another buildeth thereupon, but let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon. Here I think, and in what follows, he puts them upon their trial concerning patience. After that he had once for all knit them together and made them one. Verse 11. For other foundation can no man lay, than that is laid which is Jesus Christ. I say it no man can lay it, so long as he is a master builder. But if he lay it, he ceases to be a master builder. See how even from men's common notions he proves the whole of his proposition. His meaning is this, I have preached Christ, I have delivered unto you the foundation. Take heed how ye build thereon lest haply it be in vainglory, lest haply so as to draw away the disciples unto men. Let us not then give heed unto the heresies. For other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid. Upon this let us build, and as a foundation let us cleave to it, as a branch to a vine, and let there be no interval between us and Christ. For if there be any interval, immediately we perish. For so the branch, by its adherence, draws in the fatness and the building stands, because it is cemented together, since if it stand apart it perishes, having nothing whereon to support itself. Let us not then merely keep hold of Christ, but let us be joined unto him, for if we stand apart we perish, for they who withdraw themselves far from thee shall perish. So it is said, let us cleave then unto him, and let us cleave by our works, for he that keepeth my commandments the same abideth in me, and accordingly there are many images, whereby he brings us into union. Thus, if you mark it, he is the head, we are the body. Can there be any interval between the head and the body? He is a foundation, we a building. He a vine, we branches. He the bridegroom, we the bride. He the shepherd, we the sheep. He is the way, we are they who walk therein. Again, we are a temple, he is the indweller. He the first begotten, we the brethren. He the heir, we the heirs together with him. He the life, we the living. He the resurrection, we those who rise again. He the light, we the enlightened. 
All these things indicate unity, and they allow no void interval, not even the smallest. For he that removes but to a little distance will go on until he has become very far distant. For so the body receiving through it be but a small cut by a sword perishes, and the building, though there be but a small chink, falls to decay, and the branch, though it be but a little while cut off from the root, becomes useless. So that this trifle is no trifle, but is even almost the whole. Whensoever then we commit some little faults or even negligence, let us not overlook that little, since this being disregarded quickly becomes great. So also when a garment hath begun to be torn and is neglected, it is apt to prolong its rent all throughout. And a roof, when a few tiles have fallen, being disregarded, brings down the whole house. These things then let us bear in mind, and never slight the small things, lest we fall into those which are great. But if so be that we have slighted them, and are come into the abyss of eagles, not even when we are come, there let us despond, lest we fall into recklessness. For to emerge from hence is hard ever after, for one who is not extremely watchful, not because of the distance alone, but of the very position too, wherein we find ourselves. For sin also is a deep, and is wont to bear down and crush. And just as those who have fallen into a well cannot with ease get out, but will want others to draw them up, so also is he that is come into any depth of sins. To such then we must lower ropes and draw them out. Nay, rather, we need not others only, but ourselves also, that we, for our part, may fasten on ourselves and ascend. I say not so much as we have descended, but much further. If we be willing, for why? God also helpeth. For he willeth not the death of a sinner so much as his conversion. Let no one then despair. Let no one feel the feelings of the heathen. For to them properly belongs this kind of sin. A heathen having come into any depth of evils makes light of it. So that it is not the multitude of men's sins which causes their despair, but their heathenish of mind. Shouldest thou, then, have gone all lengths in wickedness, yet say unto thyself, God is loving unto men, and he desires our salvation. For though your sins be as scarlet, I will whiten you as snow, saith he, and unto the contrary habit I will change you. Let us not therefore give up in despair, for to fall is not so grievous as to lie where we have fallen, nor to be wounded so dreadful as after wounds to refuse healing. For who shall boast that he has his heart chaste, or who shall say confidently that he is pure from sin? These things I say, not to make you more negligent, but to prevent your despairing. Wouldst thou know how good our master is? The publican went up full of ten thousand wickednesses, and saying only, Be merciful unto me, went down justified. Yea, God saith by the prophet, Because of sin, for some little season I grieved him, and I saw that he was grieved, and went sorrowful, and I healed his ways. What is there equal to this loving kindness? On condition of his being but sorrowful, so he speaks, I forgive him his sins. But we do not even this, wherefore we especially provoke God to wrath. For he who by little things even is made propitious, when he meets not with so much as these, is of course indignant, and exacts of us the last penalty. For this comes of exceeding contempt. Who is there, for instance, that hath ever become melancholy for his sins? Who hath bemoaned himself? Who hath beaten his breast? Who hath taken anxious thought? Not one, to my thinking. But days without number do men weep for dead servants, for the loss of money, while as to the soul, which we are ruining day by day, we give it not a thought. How then wilt thou be able to render God propitious, 
when thou knowest not even that thou hast sinned. Yea, saith someone, I have sinned. Yea, is thy word to me with the tongue. Say it to me with thy mind, and with the word mourn heavily, that thou mayest have continual cheerfulness. Since if we did grieve for our sins, if we mourned heavily over our offenses, nothing else could give us sorrow. This one pang would expel all kinds of dejection. Here then is another thing also, which we should gain by our thorough confession, namely, the not being overwhelmed with the pains of the present life, nor puffed up with its splendors. And in this way, again, we should more entirely propitiate God, just as by our present conduct we provoke him to anger. For tell me, if thou hast a servant, and he, after suffering much evil at the hands of his fellow servants, takes no account of any one of the rest, but is only anxious to provoke his master, he is not able by this alone to do away thine anger. But what, if his offenses against thee are no manner of care to him, while on those against his fellow servants he is full of thought, wilt thou not lay on him the heavier punishment? So also God doeth. When we neglect his wrath, he brings it upon us more heavily, but when we regard it more gently, yea, rather he lays it on us no more at all. He wills that we should exact vengeance of ourselves for our offenses, and thenceforth he doth not exact it himself. For this is why he at all threatens punishment, that by fear he may destroy contempt. And when that threat alone is sufficient to cause fear in us, he doth not suffer us to undergo the actual trial. See, for instance, what he saith unto Jeremiah. Seest thou not what they do? Their fathers light a fire, their children gather sticks together, their women knead dough. It is to be feared, lest the same thing of thee be said also concerning us. Seest thou not what they do? No one seeketh the things of Christ, but all their own. Their children run into uncleanness, their fathers into covetousness and rapine. Their wives, so far from keeping back their husbands from the pomps and vanities of life, do rather sharpen their appetites for them. Just take your stand in the marketplace, question the comers and goers, and not one wilt thou see hastening upon the spiritual errand, but all running after carnal things. How long, ere we awake from our surfeiting? How long are we to keep sinking down into deep slumber? Have we not had our fill of evils? And yet one might think that even without all words, the experience itself of such things is sufficient to teach you the nothingness of things present and their utter meanness. At all events, there have been men who, exercising mere heathen wisdom and knowing nothing of the future, because they had convicted this world of great worthiness, even when its objects are present, have left them on this account alone. What pardon, then, canst thou expect to obtain, groveling on the ground and not despairing the little things, and transient, for the sake of the great and everlasting? Who also hearest God himself declaring and revealing these things unto thee, and hast such promises from him? For that things here have no sufficient power to detain a man, those have shown, who even without any promise of things greater have kept away from them. For what wealth did they expect? that they came to poverty. There was none. But it was from their knowing full well that such poverty is better than wealth. What sort of life did they hope for, that they forsook luxury, and gave themselves up unto severe discipline? Not any. But they had become aware of the very nature of things, and perceived that this of the two is more convenient, for the strict training of the soul, and for the health of the body. These things, then duly estimating, and revolving with ourselves continually the future blessings, let us withdraw from this present world, that we may obtain that other which is to come, 
through the favor and loving kindness of our Lord Jesus Christ, with whom to the Father and the Holy Ghost be glory, power, honor, now and always, and unto everlasting ages. Amen. Homily 9, 1 Corinthians three twelve through 15 If any man build upon this foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest. For the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire. And the fire shall try every man's work, of what sort it is. If any man's work abide, which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive reward. If any man's work shall be burnt, he shall suffer loss. But he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. This is no small subject of inquiry which we propose, but rather about things which are of the first necessity, and which all men inquire about, namely, whether hellfire have any end, for it hath no end. Christ indeed declares, when he said, Their fire shall not be quenched, and their worm shall not die. Well, I know that a chill comes over you on hearing these things, but what am I to do? For this is God's own command, continually to sound those things in your ears, where he says, Charge this people, and, ordained as we have been unto the ministry of the word, we must give pain to our hearers, not willingly, but on compulsion. Nay, rather, if you will, we shall avoid giving you pain. For, saith he, if thou do that which is good, fear not, so that it is possible for you to hear me, not only without ill will, but even with pleasure. As I said then, that it hath no end, Christ has declared. Paul also saith, in pointing out the eternity of the punishment, that the sinners shall pay the penalty of destruction, and that forever. And again, be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor adulterers, nor effeminate shall inherit the kingdom of God. And also unto the Hebrews he saith, Follow peace with all men, and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. And Christ also, to those who said, In thy name we have done many wonderful works, saith, Depart from me, I know you not, all ye workers of iniquity. And the virgins too, who were shut out, entered in no more. And also about those who give him no food, he saith, they shall go away into everlasting punishment. And say not unto me, Where is the rule of justice preserved entire, if the punishment hath no end? Rather, when God doeth anything, obey his decisions, and submit not what is said to human reasonings. But moreover, how can it be anything else than just? For one who hath experienced innumerable blessings from the beginning, and then committed deeds worthy of punishment, and neither by threat nor benefit improved at all to suffer punishment, for if thou inquire what is absolute justice, it was meet that we should have perished immediately from the beginning, according to the definition of strict justice, rather not even then according to the rule of justice only. For the result would have had in its kindness too, if we had suffered this also. For when anyone insults him that hath done him no wrong, according to the rule of justice he suffers punishment. But when it is his benefactor, who, bound by no previous favor, hath bestowed innumerable kindnesses, who alone is the author of his being, who is God, who breathed his soul into him, who gave ten thousand gifts of grace, whose will it is to take him up into heaven. When I say such an one, after so great blessings, is met by insults, daily insults, in the conduct of the other party, how can that other be thought worthy of pardon? Dost thou not see how he punished Adam for one single sin? Yes, you will say, but he had given him paradise and caused him to enjoy much favor. Nay, surely it is not all as one, for a man to sin in the enjoyment of security and ease, and in a state of great affliction. In fact, this is the dreadful circumstance, 
that thy sins are sins of one not in any paradise, but amidst the innumerable evils of this life, that thou art not sobered even by affliction, as though one in prison should still practice his crime. However, unto thee he hath promised things yet greater than paradise, but neither hath he given them now, lest he should unnerve thee in the season of conflicts, nor hath he been silent about them, lest he should quite cast thee down with thy labors. As for Adam, he committed but one sin, and brought on himself certain death, whereas we commit ten thousand transgressions daily. Now if he by that one act brought upon himself so great an evil, and introduced death, what shall not we suffer who continually live in sins, and instead of paradise have the expectation of heaven? The argument is irksome, and pains the hearer. Were it only by my feelings, I know this. For indeed my heart is troubled and throbs, and the more I see the account of hell confirmed, the more do I tremble and shrink through fear. But it is necessary to say these things, lest we fall into hell. What thou didst receive was not paradise, nor trees and plants but heaven, and the good things in the heavens. Now if he that had received less was condemned, and no consideration exempted him, much more shall we, who have sinned more abundantly, and have been called unto greater things, endure the woes without remedy. Consider, for example, how long a time, but for one single sin our race abides in death. Five thousand years and more have passed, and death hath not yet been done away, on account of one single sin. And we cannot even say that Adam had heard the prophets, that he had seen others punished for sins, and it was meet that he should have been terrified thereby and corrected, were it only by the example. For he was at that time first and alone, but nevertheless he was punished. But thou canst not have anything of this sort to advance, who after so many examples art become worse, to whom so excellent a spirit hath been vouchsafed. And yet thou drawest upon thyself not one sin, nor two, nor three, but sins without number. For do not, because the sin is committed in a small moment, calculate that therefore the punishment also must be a matter of a moment. Seest thou not those men, who for a single theft or a single act of adultery, committed in a small moment of time, often have spent their whole lives in prisons and in mines, struggling with continual hunger and every kind of death, and there was no one to set them at liberty, or to say, the offense took place in a small moment of time, the punishment too should have its time equivalent to that of the sin. But they are men, someone will say, who do these things. As for God, he is loving unto men. Now, first of all, not even men do these things in cruelty, but in humanity. And God himself, as he is loving unto men, in the same character doth he punish sins. For as his mercy is great, so also is his reproof. When therefore thou sayest unto me, God is loving unto men, then thou tellest me of so much the greater reason for punishing, namely our sinning against such a being. Hence also Paul said, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Endure, I beseech you, the fiery force of the words, for perhaps, perhaps you will have some consolation from thence. Who among men can punish as God has punished, when he caused a deluge and entire destruction of a race so numerous? And again, when, a little while after, he rained fire from above and utterly destroyed them all. What punishment from men can be like that? Seest thou not that the punishment even in that instance, is almost eternal. Four thousand years have passed away, and the punishment of the Sodomites abideth at its height. For as his mercy is great, so also is his punishment. Again, if he had imposed any burdensome or impossible things, one might perhaps have been able to urge the difficulty of the laws. 
But if they be extremely easy, what can we say for ourselves, not regarding even these? Suppose thou art unable to fast, or to practice virginity, although thou art able if thou wilt. And they who have been able are a condemnation to us. But, however, God hath not used this strictness towards us, neither hath he enjoined these things, nor laid them down as laws, but hath left the choice to be at the discretion of the hearers. Nevertheless, thou art able to be chaste in marriage, and thou art able to abstain from drunkenness. Art thou unable to empty thyself of all thy goods? Nay, surely thou art able, and they who have done so prove it. But nevertheless, he hath not enjoined this, but hath commanded not to be rapacious, and of our means to assist those who are in want. But if a man say, I cannot even be content with a wife only, he deceiveth himself, and reasoneth falsely, and they condemn him who without a wife lives in chastity. But how, tell me, canst thou not help using abusive words? Canst thou not help cursing? Why, the doing these things is irksome, not the refraining from them. What excuse then have we for not observing precepts so easy and light? We cannot name any at all. That the punishment then is eternal is plain from all that hath been said. But since Paul's saying appears to some to tell the other way, Come, let us bring it forward also, and search it out thoroughly. For having said, If any man's work shall abide, which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. And if any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. He adds, But himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. What shall we say then to this? Let us consider first what is the foundation, and what the gold, and what the precious stones, and what the hay, and what the stubble. The foundation then he hath himself plainly signified to be Christ, saying, For no other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which he saith is Jesus Christ. Next, the building seems to me to be actions. Although some maintain that this also is spoken concerning teachers and disciples, and concerning corrupt heresies, but the reasoning doth not admit it. For if this be it, in what sense, while the work is destroyed, the builder to be saved, though it be through fire? Of right the author ought rather of the two to perish. But now it will be found that the severe penalty is assigned to him who hath built into the work. For if the teacher was the cause of the wickedness, he is worthy to suffer severe punishment. How then shall he be saved, if on the contrary he was not the cause, but the disciples became such through their own perverseness? He is no whit deserving of punishment, no, nor yet of sustaining loss. He, I say, who builded so well, in what sense then doth he say, he shall suffer loss? From this it is plain that the discourse is about actions. For since he means next in course to put out his strength against the man who had committed fornication, he begins high up and long beforehand to lay down the preliminaries. For he knew how, while discussing upon one subject in the very discourse about that thing to prepare the grounds of another, to which he intends to pass on, for so in his rebuke for not awaiting one another at their meals, he lays the grounds of his discourse concerning the mysteries. And also because now he is hastening on towards the fornicator, while speaking about the foundation, he adds, Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? If any man destroy the temple of God, him will God destroy. Now these things, he said, as beginning now to agitate with fears the souls of him that had been unchaste. Verse 12, If any man build upon this foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, for after the faith there is need of edification, 
And therefore he saith elsewhere, edify one another with these words. For both the artificer and the learner contribute to the edifying. Wherefore he saith, but let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon. But if faith had been the subject of these sayings, the thing affirmed is not reasonable. For in the faith all ought to be equal, since there is but one faith. But in goodness of life it is not possible that all should be the same, because the faith is not in one case less, in another more excellent, but the same in all those who truly believe. But in life there is room for some to be more diligent, others more slothful, some stricter, and others more ordinary. That some should have done well in greater things, others in less, that the errors of some should have been more grievous, of others less notable. On this account he saith, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest, his conduct, that is, what he speaks of here. If any man's work abide which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. Whereas if the saying related to disciples and teachers, he ought not to suffer loss for disciples refusing to hear. And therefore he saith, every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor, not according to the result, but according to the labor. For what if the hearers give no heed? Wherefore this passage also proves that the saying is about actions. Now his meaning is this, if any man suffer an ill life with a right faith, his faith shall not shelter him from punishment, his work being burned up. This phrase shall be burned up means shall not endure the violence of the fire, but just as if a man having golden armor on were to pass through a river of fire, he comes from the crossing it all the brighter. But if he were to pass through it with hay, so far from profiting, he destroys himself besides. So also is the case in regard of men's works. For he doth not say this as if he were discoursing of material things being burnt up, but with a view of making their fear more intense, and of showing how naked of all defense he is who abides in wickedness. Wherefore he saith, he shall suffer loss. Lo, here is one punishment, but he himself shall be saved, but so as by fire. Lo, again, here is a second. And his meaning is, he himself shall not perish in the same way as his works, passing into naught, but he shall abide in the fire. He calleth it, however, salvation. You will say, why? That is the cause of his adding, so as by fire, since we also use to say, it is preserved in the fire, when we speak of those substances which do not immediately burn up and become ashes. For do not, at the sound of the word fire, imagine that those who are burning pass into annihilation. And though he calls such a punishment salvation, be not astonished, for his custom is, in things which have an ill sound, to use fair expressions, and in good things the contrary. For example, the word captivity seems to be the name of an evil thing, but Paul has applied it in a good sense, when he says, bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. And again, to an evil thing he hath applied a good word, saying, sin hath reigned, where surely the term reigning is rather of an auspicious sound. And so here in saying, he shall be saved, he hath but darkly hinted at the intensity of the penalty, as if he had said, but himself shall remain forever in punishment. He then makes an inference, saying, verse 16, Know ye not that ye are the temple of God? For since he had discovered in the section before, concerning those who were dividing the church, he henceforward attacks him also, who had been guilty of uncleanness, not indeed as yet in plain terms, but in a general way, hinting at his corrupt mode of life, and enhancing the sin, by the gift which had been already given to him. 
then also he puts all the rest to shame, arguing from these very blessings, which they had already. For this is what he is ever doing, either from the future or from the past, whether grievous or encouraging, first from things future. For the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire. Again, from things already come to pass, know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. Verse 17. If any man destroyeth the temple of God, him will God destroy. Dost thou mark the sweeping vehemence of his words? However, so long as the person is unknown, what is spoken is not so invidious, all having among themselves the fear of the rebuke. Him will God destroy, that is, will cause him to perish. And this is not the word of one denouncing a curse, but of one that prophesieth. For the temple of God is holy, but he that hath committed fornication is profane. Then, in order that he might not seem to spend his earnestness upon that one, in saying, For the temple of God is holy, he addeth, Which ye are. Verse 18. Let no man deceive himself. This also is an inference to that person, as thinking himself to be somewhat, and flattering himself for his wisdom. But that he might not seem to press on him at great length, in a mere digression, he first throws him into a kind of agony, and delivers him unto fear, and then brings back his discourse to the common fault, saying, If any man among you seemeth to be wise in this world, let him become a fool, that he may become wise. And this he doth afterwards with great boldness of speech, as having sufficiently beaten them down, and shaken with fear the mind not of that unclean person only, but of all the hearers also. So accurately does he measure the reach of what he has to say. For what if a man be rich? What if he be noble? He is viler than all the vile. When made captive by sin, for as if a man were a king and enslaved to barbarians, he is of all men most wretched. So also is it in regard of sin. Since sin is a barbarian, and the soul which hath been once taken captive, she knoweth not how to spare, but plays the tyrant, to the shame and ruin of all who admit her. For nothing is so inconsiderate as sin, nothing so senseless, so utterly foolish and outrageous. All is overturned and confounded and destroyed by it wheresoever it may alight. Unsightly to behold, disgusting and grievous, and should a painter draw her picture, he would not, methinks, err in fashioning her after this sort. A woman with the form of a beast, savage, breathing flames, hideous, black, such as the heathen poets depict their scilias. For with ten thousand hands she lays hold of our thoughts, and comes on unexpected, and tears everything in pieces, like those dogs that bite sillily. But rather, what need of the painter's art, when we should rather bring forward those who are made after sin's likeness? Whom then will ye that we should portray first, the covetous and rapacious? And what more shameless than those eyes? What more immodest, more like a greedy dog? For no dog keeps his ground with such shameless importunity, as he when he is grasping at all men's goods. What more polluted than those hands? What more audacious than that mouth, swallowing all down and not satisfied? Nay, look not at the countenance and the eyes as being a man's, for such looks belong not to the eyes of men. He seeth not as men men. He seeth not the heaven as heaven. He does not lift up his head unto the Lord, but all is money in his account. The eyes of men are wont to look upon poor persons in affliction, and to be softened. But these of the rapacious man, at sight of the poor, glare like wild beasts. The eyes of men behold other men's goods. 
not as if they were their own, yea, rather their own as others. And they covet not the things given to others, but rather exhaust upon others their own means. But these will be content with nothing, except they take all men's property. For it is not a man's eye which they have, but a wild beast's. The eyes of men endure not to see their own body stripped of clothing. For it is not their own, though in person it belong to others. But these, unless they strip every one and lodge all men's property in their own home, are never cloyed. Yea, rather, they never have enough. Insomuch as one might say that their hands are not wild beasts only, but even far more savage and cruel than these. For bears and wolves, when they are satisfied, leave off their kind of eating, but these know not any satiety. And yet for this cause God made us hands to assist others, not to plot against them. And if we were to use them for that purpose, better had they been cut off than we left without them. But thou, if a wild beast rend a sheep, art grieved. But when doing the same unto one of thine own flesh and blood, thinkest thou that thy deed is nothing atrocious? How then canst thou be a man? Seest thou not that we call a thing humane, when it is full of mercy and loving kindness? But when a man doth anything cruel and savage, inhuman is the title we give to such an one. You see then that the stamp of man, as we portray him, is his showing mercy, of a beast the contrary. According to the constant saying, Why is a man a wild beast or a dog? For men relieve poverty, they do not aggravate it. Again, these men's mouths are mouths of wild beasts. Yea, rather, these are the fiercer of the two. For the words also, which they utter, emit poison, more than the wild beast's teeth, working slaughter. And if one were to go through all particulars, one should then see clearly how inhumanity turns those who practice it from men into beasts. But were he to search out the mind also of that sort of people, he would no longer call them beasts only, but demons. For first they are full of great cruelty and of hatred against their fellow servant. And neither is love of the kingdom there, nor fear of hell, no reverence for men, no pity, no sympathy, but shamelessness and audacity, and contempt of all things to come. And unto them the words of God concerning punishment seem to be a fable, and his threats mirth. For such is the mind of the covetous man, since then within they are demons, and without wild beasts, yea, worse than wild beasts. Where are we to place such as they are? For that they are worse even than wild beasts is plain from this. The beasts are such as they are by nature, but these endowed by nature with gentleness forcibly strive against nature to train themselves to that which is savage. The demons, too, have the plotters among men to help them, to such an extent that if they had no such aid, the greater part of their wiles against us would be done away. But these, when such as they have spitefully entreated are vying with us, still try to be more spiteful than they. Again, the devil wages war with man, not with the devils of his own kind. But he of whom we speak is urgent in all ways to do harm to his own kindred and family, and doth not even reverence nature. I know that many hate us because of these words, but I feel no hatred towards them. Rather, I pity and bewail those who are so disposed. Even should they choose to strike, I would gladly endure it. If they would but abstain from this their savage mind, for not I alone, but the prophet also with me, Banish all such from the family of men, saying, Man being an honor hath no understanding, but is compared unto the senseless beasts. Let us then become men at last, and let us look up into heaven, and that which is according to his image. 
let us receive and recover, that we may obtain also the blessings to come, through the grace and loving kindness of our Lord Jesus Christ, with whom to the Father and the Holy Spirit be glory, power, honor, now and always and unto the everlasting ages. Amen. Homily 10, 1 Corinthians 3, 18 and 19. Let no man deceive himself. If any man seemeth to be wise in this world, let him become a fool, that he may be wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. As I said before, having launched out before the proper time into accusation of the fornicator, and having half opened it obscurely in a few words, and made the man's conscience to quail, he hastens again to the battle with heathen wisdom, and to his accusations of those who are puffed up therewith and who were dividing the church, in order that having added what remained, and having completed the whole topic with accuracy, he might thenceforth suffer his tongue to be carried away with vehement impulse against that unclean person, having had but a preliminary skirmishing with him in what he had said before. For this, let no man deceive himself, is the expression of one aiming chiefly at him, and quelling him beforehand by fear, and the saying about the stubble suits best with one hinting at him. And so does the phrase, Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. For these two things are most apt to withdraw us from sin, when in one mind we realize the punishment appointed for the sin, and when we reckon up the amount of our true dignity. By bringing forward, then, the hay, and the stubble, he terrifies, but by speaking of the dignity of that noble birth, which was theirs, he puts them to shame, by the former striving to amend the more insensible kind, by the latter the more considerate. Let no man deceive himself. If any man seemeth to be wise in this world, let him become a fool. As he bids one become, as it were, dead unto the world, and this deadness harms not at all, but rather profits, being made a cause of life, so also he bids him become foolish unto this world, introducing to us hereby the true wisdom. Now he becomes a fool unto the world, who slights the wisdom from without, and is persuaded that it contributes nothing towards his comprehension of the faith. As then that poverty, which is according to God, is the cause of wealth and lowliness, of exaltation, and to despise glory, is the cause of glory, so also the becoming a fool maketh a man wiser than all. For all with us goes by contraries. Further, why said he not, let him put off wisdom, but let him become a fool, that he might most exceedingly disparage the heathen instruction? For it was not the same thing to say, lay aside thy wisdom and become a fool. And besides, he is also training people not to be ashamed at the want of refinement among us for he quite laughs to scorn all heathen things. And for the same sort of reason he shrinks not from the names, trusting as he does to the power of the things which he speaks of. Wherefore, as the cross, though counted ignominious, became the author of innumerable blessings, and the foundation and root of glory unspeakable, so also that which was accounted to be foolishness became unto us the cause of wisdom. For as he who hath learned anything ill, unless he put away the whole and make his soul level and clear, and so offer it to him who is to write on it, will know no wholesome truth for certain, so also in regard of the wisdom from without, unless thou turn out the whole, and sweep thy mind clear, and like one that is ignorant yield up thyself unto the faith, thou wilt know accurately nothing excellent. 
For so those also who see imperfectly, if they will not shut their eyes, commit themselves unto others, and will be trusting their own matters to their own faulty eyesight, they will commit many more mistakes than those who see not. But how, you will say, are men to put off this wisdom by their not acting on its precepts? Then seeing that he bade men so urgently withdraw themselves from it, he adds the cause, saying, For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God, for not only it contributes nothing, but even hinders. We must then withdraw ourselves from it as doing harm. Dost thou mark with what a high hand he carries off the spoils of victory, having proved that so far from profiting us at all, it is even an opponent. And he is not content with his own arguments, but he has also adduced testimony again, saying, For it is written, He taketh the wise in their own craftiness. By craftiness, i.e., by their own arms, getting the better of them, foreseeing that they made use of their wisdom to the doing away of all need of God. By it, and no other thing, he refuted them, showing that they are especially in need of God. How and by what method? Because, having by it become fools, by it, as was meet, they were taken. For they who supposed that they needed not God were reduced to so great a strait as to appear inferior to fishermen and unlettered persons, and from that time forth to be unable to do without them. Wherefore he saith, In their own craftiness he took them. For the saying, I will destroy their wisdom, was spoken in regard to its introducing nothing useful. But this, who taketh the wise in their own craftiness, with a view of showing the power of God. Next he declares also the mode in which God took them, adding another testimony. Verse 20. For the Lord saith he, knoweth the thoughts of the wise, that they are vain. Now when the wisdom which is boundless pronounces this edict concerning them, and declares them to be such, what other proof dost thou seek of their extreme folly? For men's judgment, it is true, in many instances fail, but the decree of God is unexceptionable and uncorrupt in every case. Thus having set up so splendid a trophy of the judgment from on high, he employs in what follows a certain vehemence of style, turning it against those who were under his ministry, and speaking thus, verse 21, Wherefore, let no man glory in human things, for all things are yours. He comes again to the former topic, pointing out that not even for their spiritual things ought they to be high-minded, as having nothing of themselves, since then the wisdom from without is hurtful, and the spiritual gifts were not given by you. What hast thou therein to boast? And in regard to the wisdom from without, let no man deceive himself, saith he, because they were conceited about a thing which in truth did more harm than good. But here, inasmuch as the thing spoken of was really advantageous, let no man glory, and he orders his speech more gently, for all things are yours. Verse 22. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all are yours, and ye are Christ's, and Christ is God's. For because he had handled them sharply, he refreshes them again, and as above he had said, We are fellow workers with God, and by many other expressions had soothed them. So here too he saith, All things are yours, taking down the pride of the teachers, and signifying that so far from bestowing any favor on them, they themselves ought to be grateful to the others, since for their sake they were made such as they were, yea, moreover, had received grace. But seeing that these also were sure to boast, on this account he cuts out beforehand this disease too, saying, As God give to every man, and God give the increase. 
to the end that neither the one party might be puffed up as the bestowers of good, nor the others on their hearing a second time, all things are yours, be again elated. For indeed, though it were for your sakes, yet the whole was God's doing. And I wish you to observe how he hath kept on throughout, making suppositions in his own name and that of Peter. But what is or death, that even though they die for your sakes, they die, encountering dangers for your salvation? Dost thou mark how he again takes down the high spirit of the disciples, and raises the spirit of the teachers? In fact, he talks with them as with children of high birth, who have preceptors, and who are to be heirs of all. We may also say, in another sense, that both the death of Adam was for our sakes, that we might be corrected, and the death of Christ, that we may be saved. And ye are Christ's, and Christ is God's. In one sense we are Christ's, and in another sense Christ is God's. And in a third sense the world ours, for we indeed are Christ's as his work. Christ is God's, as a genuine offspring, not as a work. In which sense neither is the world ours, so that, though the saying is the same, yet the meaning is different. For the world is ours, as being a thing made for our sakes. But Christ is God's, as having him the author of his being, in that he is Father, and we are Christ's, as having been formed by him. Now if they are yours, saith he, why have ye done what is contrary to this, in calling yourselves after their name, and not after Christ and God? Chapter 4, verse 1. Let a man so account of us, as of the ministers of Christ, and stewards of the mysteries of God. After he had cast down their spirit, mark how again he refreshes it, saying as the ministers of Christ, Do not thou then, letting go the master, receive a name from the servants and ministers. Stewards, saith he, indicating that we ought not to give these things unto all, but unto whom it is due, and to whom it is fitting we should minister. Verse 2. Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful, that is, that he do not appropriate to himself his master's goods, that he do not, as a master, lay claim for himself, but administer as a steward. For a steward's part is to administer well the things committed to his charge, not to say that his master's things are his own, but on the contrary, that his own are his master's. Let every one think on these things, both he that hath power in speech, and he that possesses wealth, namely, that he hath been entrusted with a master's goods, and that they are not his own. Let him not keep him with himself, nor set them down on his own account, but let him impute them unto God who gave them all. Wouldst thou see faithful stewards? Hear what saith Peter. Why look ye so earnestly on us, as though by our own power or holiness we had made this man to walk? Unto Cornelius also he saith, We also are men of like passions with you. And unto Christ himself, Lo, we have left all and followed thee. And Paul, no less, when he had said, I have labored more abundantly than they all, added, Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Elsewhere also, setting himself strongly against the same persons, he said, For what hast thou which thou didst not receive? For thou hast nothing of thy own, neither wealth, nor speech, nor life itself, for this also is surely the Lord's. Wherefore, when necessity calls, do thou lay down this also. But if thou dotest on life, and being ordered to lay it down refusest, thou art no longer a faithful servant. And how is it possible when God calls to resist? 
Well, that is just what I say too. And on this very account do I chiefly admire the loving kindness of God, that the things which he is able, even against thy will, to take from thee, these he willeth not to be paid in by thee unwillingly, that thou mayest have a reward besides. For instance, he can take away life without thy consent, but his will is to do so with thy consent, that thou mayest say with Paul, I die daily. He can take away thy glory without thy consent, and bring thee low, but he will have it from thee with thine own good will, that thou mayest have a recompense. He can make thee poor, though unwilling, but he will have thee willing become such, that he may weave crowns for thee. Seest thou God's mercy to man, seest thou our own brutish stupidity? What if thou art come to great dignity, and hast at any time obtained some office of church government? Be not high-minded, thou hast not acquired the glory, but God hath put it on thee, as if it were another's, therefore use it sparingly, neither abusing it, nor using it upon unsuitable things, nor puffed up, nor appropriating it unto thyself, but esteem thyself to be poor and inglorious. For never hast thou been entrusted with the king's purple to keep, never would it have become thee to abuse the robe and spoil it, but with the more exactness to keep it for the giver. Is utterance given thee, be not puffed up, be not arrogant, for the gracious gift is not thine. Be not grudging about thy master's goods, but distribute them among thy fellow servants, and neither be thou elated with these things, as if they were thy own, nor be sparing as to the distribution of them. Again, if thou hast children, they are gods which thou hast. If such be thy thought, thou wilt both be thankful for having them, and if bereft, thou wilt not take it hard. Such was Job when he said, The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. For we have all things from Christ. Both existence itself we have through him, and life, and breath, and light, and air, and earth. And if he were to exclude from any one of these, we are lost and undone. For we are strangers and sojourners, and all this about mine and thine is bare words only, and doth not stand for things. For if thou do but say, The house is thine, it is a word without a reality, since the very air, earth, matter, are the creators, and so art thou too thyself, who hast framed it, and all other things. But supposing the use to be thine, even this is uncertain, not on account of death alone, but also before death, because of the instability of things. These things, then continually picturing to ourselves, let us live strict lives, that we shall gain two of the greatest advantages. For first we shall be thankful both when we have and when we are bereaved, and we shall not be enslaved to things which are fleeting by, and things not our own. For whether it be wealth that he taketh, he hath taken but his own, or honor, or glory, or the body, or the life itself. Be it that he hath taken away thy son, it is not thy son that he hath taken, but his own servant. For thou formest him not, but he made him. Thou didst but minister to his appearing. The whole was God's own work. Let us give thanks, therefore, that we have been counted worthy to be his ministers in this matter. But what? Wouldst thou have had him forever? This again proves thee grudging and ignorant, that it was another's child which thou hadst, and not thine own. As therefore those who part resignedly are but aware that they have what was not theirs, so whoever gives way to grief is in fact counting the king's property his own, 
For if we are not our own, how can they be ours? I say we, for in two ways we are his, both on account of our creation and also on account of the faith. Wherefore David saith, My substance is with thee, and Paul too, for in him we live and move and have our being. Implying the argument about the faith, he says, Ye are not your own, and ye are bought with a price, for all things are God's. When then he calls and chooses to take, let us not, like grudging servants, fly from the reckoning, nor purloin our master's goods. Thy soul is not thine, and how can thy wealth be thine? How is it then that thou spendest on what is unnecessary, the things which are not thine? Knowest thou not that for this we are soon to be put on our trial, that is, if we have used them badly, but seeing that they are not ours, but our masters, it were right to expend them upon our fellow servants. It is worth considering that the omission of this was the charge brought against that rich man, and against those also who had not given food to the Lord. Say not then, I am spending mine own, and of mine own I live delicately. It is not of thine own, but of other men's, other men's, I say, because such is thine own choice. For God's will is that those things should be thine, which have been entrusted unto thee on behalf of thy brethren. Now the things which are not thine own become thine, if thou spend them upon others, and if thou spend on thyself unsparingly, thine own things become no longer thine. For since thou usest them cruelly, and sayest that mine own things should be altogether spent on mine own enjoyment, is fair. Therefore I call them not thine own, for they are common to thee and thy fellow servants, just as the sun is common, the air, the earth, and all the rest. For as in the case of the body, each ministration belongs both to the whole body and to each several member, and when it is applied to one single member only, it destroys the proper function of that very member. So also it comes to pass in the case of wealth, and that what I say may become plainer, the food of the body which is given in common to the members should pass unto one member, even to that it turns out alien in the end. For when it cannot be digested, nor afford nourishment, even to that part, I say, it turns out alien. But if it be made common, both that part and all the rest have it as their own. So also in regard of wealth, if you enjoy it alone, you have lost it, for you will not reap its reward. But if you possess it jointly with the rest, then will it be more your own, and then you will reap the benefit of it. Seest thou not that the hands minister, and the mouth softens, and the stomach receives? Doth the stomach say, Since I have received, I ought to keep it all? Then do not thou, I pray, in regard to riches, use this language, for it belongs to the receiver to impart. As then it is a vice in the stomach to retain their food, and not to distribute it, for it is injurious to the whole body, so it is a vice in those that are rich to keep to themselves what they have. For this destroys both themselves and others. Again, the eye receives all the light, but it doth not itself alone retain it, but enlightens the entire body. For it is not its nature to keep it to itself, so long as it is an eye. Again, the nostrils are sensible of perfume, but they do not keep it all to themselves, but transmit it to the brain and affect the stomach with a sweet savor, and by their means refresh the entire man. The feet alone walk, but they move not away themselves only, but transfer also the whole body. In like manner do thou, whatsoever thou hast been entrusted withal, keep it not to thyself alone, since thou art doing harm to the whole, 
and to thyself more than all. And not in the case of the limbs only may one see this occurring, for the smith also, if he choose to impart of his craft to no one, ruins both himself and all the other crafts. Likewise the cordwainer, the husbandman, the baker, and every one of those who pursue any necessary calling, if he choose not to communicate to any one of the results of his art, will ruin not the others only, but himself also with them. And why do I say the rich? For the poor too, if they followed after the wickedness of you who are covetous and rich, would injure you very greatly, and soon make you poor. Yea, rather, they would quite destroy you, were they in your own wants unwilling to impart of their own. The tiller of the ground, for instance, of the labor of his hands, the sailor of the gain from his voyages, the soldier of his distinction won in the wars. Wherefore, if nothing else can, yet let this at least put you to shame, and do you imitate their benevolence. Dost thou impart none of thy wealth unto any? Then shouldest thou not receive anything from another, in which case the world would be turned upside down. For in everything to give and receive is the principle of numerous blessings, in seeds, in scholars, in arts. For if any one desire to keep his art to himself, he subverts both himself and the whole course of things. And the husbandman, if he bury and keep the seeds in his house, will bring about a grievous famine. So also the rich man, if he act thus in regard of his wealth, will destroy himself, both the poor heaping up the fire of hell more grievous upon his own head. Therefore, as teachers, however many scholars they have, impart some of their love unto each. So let thy possession be, many to whom thou hast done good. And let all say, such an one he freed from poverty, such an one from dangers, such an one would have perished, had he not, next to the grace of God, enjoyed thy patronage. This man's disease thou didst cure, another thou didst rid of false accusation, another being a stranger you took in, another being naked you clothed. Wealth inexhaustible and many treasures are not so good as such sayings. They draw all men's gaze more powerfully than your golden vestments in horses and slaves, and these make a man appear even odious. They cause him to be hated as a common foe, but the former proclaim him as a common father and benefactor, and what is greatest of all. Favor from God waits on thee in every part of thy proceedings. What I mean is, let no man say, he helped to portion out my daughter. Another, he afforded my son the means of taking his station among men. Another, he made my calamity to cease. Another, he delivered me from dangers. Better than golden crowns are words such as these, that a man should have in his city innumerable persons to proclaim his beneficence. Voices such as these are pleasanter far and sweeter than the voices of the heralds marching before the Archians. To be called Savior, Benefactor, Defender, the very names of God, and not covetous, proud, insatiate, and mean. Let us not, I beseech you, let us not have a fancy for any of these titles, but the contrary. For if these, spoken on earth, make one so splendid and illustrious, when they are written in heaven, and God proclaims them on the day that shall come, think what renown, what splendor thou shalt enjoy which may it be the lot of us to all obtain, through the grace and loving kindness of our Lord Jesus Christ, with whom unto the Father and the Holy Spirit be glory, power, honor, now and always, and unto everlasting ages. Amen. Homily 11, 1 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4. But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged of you, or of man's judgment. 
Yea, I judge not my own self, for I know nothing by myself, yet am I not hereby justified. But he that judgeth me is the Lord. Together with all other ills, I know not how, there hath come upon man's nature the disease of restless prying, and of unseasonable curiosity, which Christ himself chastised, saying, Judge not, that ye be not judged. A kind of thing which hath no pleasure, as all other sins have, but only punishment and vengeance. For though we are ourselves full of ten thousand evils, and bearing the beams in our own eyes, we become exact inquisitors of the offenses of our neighbor, which are not at all bigger than motes. And so this matter at Corinth was falling out. Religious men and dear to God were enduring ridicule and expulsion for their want of learning, while others, brimful of evils innumerable, were being classed highly because of their fluent speech. Then, like persons sitting in public to try causes, these were the sort of votes which they kept rashly passing. Such an one is worthy, such an one is better than such another. This man is inferior to that, that better than this. And leaving off to mourn for their own bad ways, they were become judges over others, and in this way again were kindling grievous warfare. Mark then how wisely Paul corrects them, doing away with this disease. For since he had said, moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful, and it seemed as if he were giving them an opening to judge and pry into each man's life, and this was aggravating the party feeling. Lest such should be the effect on them, he draws them away from that kind of petty disputation, saying, With me it is a very small thing that I should be judged of you, again in his own person carrying on the discourse. But what means, with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged of you, or of man's day? I judge myself unworthy, saith he, of being judged by you, and why, say I, by you? I will add, by any one else, howbeit let no one condemn Paul of arrogance, though he saith that no man is worthy to pass sentence concerning him. For first he saith these things not for his own sake, but wishing to rescue others from the odium which they had incurred from the Corinthians. In the next place he limits not the matter to the Corinthians merely, but himself also he deposes from this right of judging, saying that to decree such things was a matter beyond his decision. At least he adds, I judge not my own self. But besides what has been said, we must search out the ground upon which these expressions were uttered. For he knew well in many cases how to speak with high spirit, and that not of pride or arrogance, but of a certain excellent economy, seeing that in the present case also he saith this, not as lifting up himself, but as taking down other man's sails, and earnestly seeking to invest the saints with due honor. For in proof that he was one of the very humble, hear what he saith, bringing forward the testimony of his enemies on this point. His bodily presence is weak, and his speech contemptible. And again, last of all, as to one born out of due time, he appeared unto me also. But notwithstanding, see this lowly man, when the time called on him, to what a pitch he raises the spirit of the disciples, not teaching pride, but inculcating a wholesome courage. For with these same discoursing he saith, And if the world shall be judged by you, are ye unworthy to judge the smallest matters? For as the Christian ought to be far removed from arrogance, so also from flattery and a mean spirit. Thus, if any one says, I count money as nothing, but all things here are to me as a shadow and a dream, and child's play, we are not at all to charge him as arrogant, since in this way we shall have to accuse Solomon himself of arrogance. 
or speaking austerely on these things, saying, Vanity of vanities, and all is vanity. But God forbid that we should call the strict rule of life by the name of arrogance. Wherefore, to despise these things is not haughtiness, but greatness of soul. Albeit we see kings and rulers and potentates making much of them, but many a poor man leading a strict life despises them. And we are not therefore to call him arrogant, but high-minded. Just as, on the other hand, if any be extremely addicted to them, we do not call him lowly of heart and moderate, but weak and poor-spirited and ignoble. For so should a son despise the pursuits which become his father, and affect slavish ways. We should not commend him as lowly of heart, but as base and servile, we should reproach him. What we should admire in him would be his despising those meaner things, and making much account of what came to him from his father. For this is arrogance, to think oneself better than one's fellow servants. But to pass the true sentence on things cometh not of boasting, but of strictness of life. On this account Paul also, not to exalt himself, but to humble others, and to keep down those who are rising up out of their places, and to persuade them to be modest, said, With me it is a very small thing that I should be judged of you, or of man's day. Observe how he sues the other party also, for whosoever is told that he looks down on all alike, and deigns not to be judged of any one, will not thenceforth any more feel pain, as though himself were the only one excluded. For if he had said of you only, and so held his peace, this were enough to gall them, as if treated contemptuously. But now by introducing, nor yet of man's day, he hath brought alleviation to the blow, giving them partners in the contempt. However, he himself softens this point again, saying, Not even do I judge myself. Mark the expression, how entirely free from arrogance, in that not even he himself, he saith, is capable of so great exactness. Then because this saying also seemed to be that of one extolling himself greatly, this too he corrects, saying, Yet I am not hereby justified. What then? Ought we not to judge ourselves in our own misdeeds? Yes, surely. There is great need to do this when we sin. But Paul said not this, For I am not, saith he, conscious to myself of anything. What misdeed, then, was he to judge, when he was conscious to himself of nothing? Yet, saith he, he was not justified. We then, who have our conscience filled with ten thousand wounds, and are conscious to ourselves of nothing good, but quite the contrary, what can we say, and how could it be, if he were to be conscious of himself, of nothing, that he was not justified, because it was possible for him to have committed certain sins, not, however, to be himself aware of their being sins. From this make thine estimate, how great shall be the strictness of the future judgment. It is not, you see, as considering himself unblameable, that he saith, it is so unmeet for him to be judged by them, but to stop the mouths of those who are doing so unreasonably. At least in another place, even though men's sins be notorious, he permits not judgment unto others, because the occasion required it. For why doest thou judge thy brother, saith he? Or thou, why dost thou set at naught thy brother? For thou wert not enjoined, O man, to judge others, but to prove thine own doings. Why then dost thou seize upon the office of the Lord? Judgment is his, not thine. To which effect he adds, Therefore judge nothing before the time, until the Lord come, who both will bring to light the hidden things of darkness, and will make manifest the counsels of the hearts. 
and then shall every man have his praise of God. What then? Is it not right that our teachers should do this? It is right in the case of open and confessed sins, and that with fitting opportunity, and even then with pain and inward vexation, not as these were acting at that time of vainglory and arrogance, for neither in this instance is he speaking of those sins, which all own to be such, but about preferring such in one before another, and making comparisons of modes of life. For these things he alone knows how to judge with accuracy, who is to judge our secret doings, which of these be worthy of greater, and which of less punishment and honor. But we do all this according to what meets our eye. For if in mine own errors, saith he, I know nothing clearly, how can I be worthy to pass sentence on other men? And how shall I, who know not my own case with accuracy, be able to judge the state of others? Now if Paul felt this, much more we, for to proceed he spake these things, not to exhibit himself as faultless, but to show that even should there be among them some such person free from transgression, not even he would be worthy to judge the lives of others, and that if he, though conscious to himself of nothing, declare himself guilty, much more they who have ten thousand sins to be conscious of in themselves. Having thus, you see, stopped the mouths of those who pass such sentences, he travails next with strong feeling, ready to break out and come upon the unclean person. And like as when a storm is coming on, some clouds fraught with darkness run before it. Afterwards, when the rattling of the thunders ariseth, and works the whole heavens even into one black cloud, then all at once the rain bursts down upon the ground. So also did it then happen. For though he might in deep indignation have dealt with the fornicator, he doth not so, but with fearful words he represses the swelling pride of the man, since in truth what had occurred was a twofold sin. Fornication, and that which is worse than fornication, the not grieving over the sin committed. For not so much does he bewail the sin as him that committed it, and did not as yet repent. Thus I shall bewail many, saith he, not simply of those who have sinned before, but of those, he adds, who have not repented of the uncleanness and impurity which they have wrought. For he who after sinning hath practiced repentance is a worthy object not of grief, but of gratulations, having passed over into the choir of the righteous. For declare thou thine iniquities first, that thou mayest be justified. But if after sinning one is void of shame, he is not so much to be pitied for falling, as for lying where he is fallen. Now if it be a grievous fault not to repent after sins, to be puffed up because of sins, what sort of punishment doth it deserve? For if he who is elated for his good deeds is unclean, what pardon shall he meet with who has that feeling with regard to his sins? Since then the fornicator was of this sort, and had rendered his mind so headstrong and unyielding through his sin, he, of course, begins by casting down his pride, and he neither puts the charge first for fear of making him hardened, as singled out for accusation before the rest, nor yet later, lest he should suppose that what related to him was but incidental, but having first excited great alarm in him by his plain speaking towards others, then, and not till then, he goes on to him in the course of his rebuke to others, giving the man's willfulness a share beforehand. For these same words, viz., I am conscious to myself of nothing, yet am I not hereby justified. In this, he that judgeth me is the Lord, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness, 
and make manifest the counsels of the hearts. Glance not lightly both upon that person, and upon such as act in concert with him, and despise the saints. For what saith he, if outward they appear a sort of virtuous and admirable persons? He, the judge, is not a discerner of externals only, but also brings to light all secrets. On two accounts, you see, or rather on three, correct judgment belongs not to us. One, because, though we be conscious to ourselves of nothing, still we need one to reprove our sins with strictness. Another, because the most part of the things which are done escape us and are concealed. And for the third, besides these, because many things which are done by others seem to us indeed fair, but they come not of a right mind. Why say ye then that no sin hath been committed by this or that person, that such an one is better than such another, seeing that this we are not to pronounce, not even concerning him who is conscious to himself of nothing. For he who discerns secrets, he it is who with certainty judges. Behold, for example, I for my part am not conscious to myself of anything, yet neither so am I justified, that is, I am not quit of accounts to be given, nor of charges to be answered. For he doth not say this, I rank not among the just, but I am not pure from sin. For elsewhere he saith also, He that is dead is justified from sin, that is liberated. Again, many things we do, good indeed, but not of a right mind. For so we commend many, not from a wish to render them conspicuous, but to wound others by means of them. And the thing done indeed is right, for the well-doer is praised, but the mind is corrupt, for it is done of a satanical purpose. For this one hath often done, not rejoicing with his brother, but desiring to wound the other party. Again, a man hath committed a great error. Some other person wishing to supplant him says that he hath done nothing, and comforts him forsooth in his error by recurring to the common frailty of nature. But oftentimes he doth this from no mind to sympathize, but to make him more easy in his fault. Again, a man rebukes oftentimes, not so much to reprove and admonish, as publicly to display and exaggerate his neighbor's sin. Our counsels, however, themselves, men do not know, but he that searcheth the hearts knows them perfectly, and he will bring all such things into view at that time. Wherefore he saith, Who shall bring to light the secret things of darkness, and shall make manifest the counsels of the hearts? Seeing then that neither, where we know nothing by ourselves, can we be clean from accusations, and where we do anything good, but do it not of a right mind, we are liable to punishment. Consider how vastly men are deceived in their judgments, for all these matters are not to become at by men, but by the unsleeping eye alone, and though we may deceive men, our sophistry will never avail against him. See not then, darkness is around me and walls, who seeth me? For he who by himself formed our hearts, himself knoweth all things, for darkness is no darkness with him. And yet he who is committing sin, well saith, darkness is around me and walls, for were there not a darkness in his mind, he would not have cast out the fear of God, and acted as he pleased. For unless the ruling principle be first darkened, the entrance of sin without fear is a thing impossible. Say not then, who seeth me? For there is that pierceth even unto soul and spirit, joints and marrow. But thou seest not thyself, nor canst thou pierce the cloud. But as if thou hadst a wall on all sides surrounding thee, thou art without power to look up into the heaven. 
For whatsoever sin thou wilt first let us examine, and thou shalt see that so it is engendered. For as robbers, and they who dig through walls, when they desire to carry off any valuable thing, put out the candle, and then do their work, so also doth men's perverse reasoning in the case of those who are committing sin. Since in us also, surely, there is a light, a light of reason ever burning. But if the spirit of fornication come eagerly on with its strong blast, quench that flame, it straightway darkens the soul and prevails against it, and despoils it straightway of the goods laid up therein. For when by unclean desire the soul is made captive, ever as a cloud and midst in the eyes of the body, so that desire intercepts the foresight of the mind, and suffers no one to see any distance before him, either precipice or hell or fear, but thenceforth, having that deceit as a tyrant over him, he comes to be easily vanquished by sin, and there is raised up before his eyes, as it were, a partition wall, and no window in it, which suffers not the ray of righteousness to shine in upon the mind, the absurd conceits of lust enclosing it, as with a rampart on all sides, and then, and from that time forward, the unchaste woman is everywhere meeting him, before his eyes, before his mind, before his thoughts, in station and presence. And as the blind, although they stand at high noon beneath the very central point of the heaven, receive not the light, their eyes being fast closed up, just so these also, though ten thousand doctrines of salvation sound in their ears from all quarters, having their soul preoccupied with this passion, stop their ears against all discourses of that kind. But they know it well who have made the trial, but God forbid that you should know it from actual experience. And not only this sin hath these effects, but every misplaced affection as well. For let us transfer, if you please, the argument from the unchaste woman unto money, and we shall see here also thick and unbroken darkness. For in the former case, inasmuch as the beloved object is one and shut up in one place, the feeling is not so violent. But in the case of money, which showeth itself everywhere, in silversmiths, shops, in taverns, in foundries for gold, in the houses of the wealthy, the passion blows a vehement gale. For when servants swaggering in the marketplace, horses with golden trappings, men decked with costly garments, are seen with desire by him who has that distemper, the darkness becomes intense which envelops him. And why speak of houses and silversmith shops? For my part, I think that such persons, though it be but in a picture and image, that they see the wealth and are convulsed, and grow wild and rave, so that from all quarters the darkness gathers round them. And if they chance to behold a portrait of a king, they admire not the beauty of the precious stones, nor yet the gold, nor the purple robe, but they pine away. And as the wretched lover before mentioned, though he see but the image of the woman beloved, cleaveth unto the lifeless thing, so this man also, beholding a lifeless image of wealth, is more strongly affected, though in the same kind of way, as being holden of a more tyrannical passion. And he must henceforth either abide at home, or if he venture into the forum, return home with innumerable hurts. For many are the objects which grieve his eyes, and just as the former seeth nothing else save the woman, even so the latter hastens by poor persons, and all things else, that he may not obtain so much as a slight alleviation. But upon the wealthy he steadily fixeth his eyes, by the sight of them introducing the fire into his own soul, mightily and vehemently. For a fire it is, and such in one as miserably devours the person that falls into it. And if no hell were threatened, nor yet punishment, 
this condition were itself punishment, to be continually tormented and never able to find an end to the malady. Well, these things alone might suffice to recommend our escaping from this distemper, but there is no greater evil than inconsideration, which causes men to be riveted unto things that bring sorrow of heart and no advantage. Wherefore, I exhort that you cut off the passion at its beginning. For just as a fever on its first attack does not violently burn up the patients with thirst, but on its increase and the heightening of its fire causes from that time incurable thirst. And though one should let them fill themselves full of drink, it puts not out the furnace, but makes it burn fiercer. So also it happens in regard to this passion. Unless when it first invadeth our soul, we stop it, and shut the doors against it. Having got in, from that time it makes the disease of those who have admitted it incurable. For so things, both good and bad, the longer they abide in us, the more powerful they become. And in all other things, too, anyone may see that this cometh to pass. For so a plant, but lately set in the ground, is easily pulled up, but no longer so when rooted for a long time. It then requires great strength in the lever. And a building newly put together is easily thrown down by those who push against it. But once well fixed, it gives great trouble to those who attempt to pull it down. And a wild beast that hath made his accustomed haunt in certain places for a long time is with difficulty driven away. Those, therefore, who are not yet possessed by the passion in question, I exhort not to be taken captive. For it is more easy to guard against falling into it than having fallen to get away. But unto those who are seized by it and broken down, if they will consent to put themselves into the hands of the word of healing, I promise large hope of salvation by the grace of God. For if they will consider those who have suffered and fallen into that distemper and have recovered, they will have good hopes respecting the removal of the disease. Who then ever fell into this disease and was easily rid of it? That well-known Zacchaeus. For what could be more fond of money than a publican? But all at once he became a man of strict life and put out all that blaze, Matthew in like manner, for he too was a publican, living in continual rapine, but he likewise all at once stripped himself of the mischief, and quenched his thirst, and followed after spiritual merchandise. Considering therefore these, and the like to them, despair not even thou, for if thou wilt, quickly thou shalt be able to emerge. But if you please, according to the rule of physicians, we will further prescribe accurately what thou shouldst do. It is necessary then, before all other things, to be right in this, that we never despond nor despair of our salvation. Next, we must look not only upon the examples of those who have done well, but also upon the sufferings of those who have persisted in sin. For as we have considered Zacchaeus and Matthew, even so ought we also to take account of Judas and Gezai and Ahaz and Ahab and Ananias and Sapphira, in order that by the one we may cast out all despair and by the other cut off all indolence and that the soul become not reckless to all the recommendation of the remedies suggested. And let us teach them of themselves to say what the Jews said on that day, approaching unto Peter, What must we do to be saved? And let them hear what they must do. What then must we do? We must know how worthless the things in question are, and that wealth is a runaway slave, and heartless, and encompasseth its possessor with ills innumerable. And such words like charms let us sound in their ears continually. And as physicians soothe their patients when they ask for cold water, by saying that they will give it, making excuses about the spring and the vessel, and the fit time, and many more such, for should they refuse at once, they go the way to make them wild with frenzy. 
so let us also act towards the lovers of money. When they say we desire to be rich, let us not say immediately that wealth is an evil thing, but let us assent and say that we also desire it, but in due time, yea, true wealth, yea, that which hath undying pleasure, yea, that which is continually accruing, and not for others, and those often our enemies. And let us produce the lessons of true wisdom, and say, We forbid not riches, but riches with ill-doing. For it is lawful to be rich, but without covetousness, without repine and violence, and an ill report from all men. With these arguments let us first smooth them down, and not as yet discourse of hell, for the sick man endures not such sayings all at once. Wherefore, let us go to this world for all our arguments upon these matters, and say, Why is it thy choice to be rich through covetousness, that the gold and silver may be laid up for others, but for thee curses and accusations innumerable, that he whom you have defrauded may be strong by want of the very necessaries of life, and bewail himself, and draw down upon thee the censure of thousands, and may go at fall of evening about the marketplace, encountering every one in the alleys, and in utter perplexity, and not knowing what to trust to even for that one night. For how is he to sleep after all, with pangs of the belly, restless famine besetting him, and that often while it is freezing, and the rain coming down on him, and while thou, having washed, returnest home from the bath, in a glow with soft raiment, merry of heart and rejoicing, and hastening unto a banquet prepared and costly, he, driven everywhere about the marketplace by cold and hunger, takes his round, stooping low and stretching out his hands. Nor hath he even spirit without trembling to make his suit for his necessary food. To one so full-fed, and so bent on taking his ease, nay, often he has to retire with insult. When, therefore, thou hast returned home, when thou liest down on thy couch, when the lights round thine house shine bright, when the table is prepared and plentiful, at that time call to remembrance that poor miserable man wandering about like the dogs in the alleys in darkness and in mire except indeed when as is often the case he has to depart thence not unto house nor wife nor bed but unto a pallet of straw even as we see the dogs baying all through the night and thou if thou seest but a little drop falling from the roof throwest the whole house into confusion calling thy slaves and disturbing everything while he, laid in rags and straw and dirt, has to bear all the cold, what wild beast would not be softened by these things? Who is there so savage and inhuman, as that these things should not make him mild? And yet there are some who are arrived at such a pitch of cruelty, as even to say that they deserve what they suffer, yea, when they ought to pity and weep and help to alleviate men's calamities. They, on the contrary, visit them with savage and inhuman censures, of these I should be glad to ask, tell me, why do they deserve what they suffer? Is it because they would be fed and not starve? No, you will reply, but because they would be fed in idleness. And thou, dost not thou wanton in idleness? What say I? Art thou not oftentimes toiling in an occupation more grievous than any idleness, grasping and oppressing and coveting? Better were it if thou, too, wert idle after this sort, for it is better to be idle in this way than to be covetous. But now thou even tramplest on the calamities of others, not only idling, not only pursuing an occupation worse than idleness, but also maligning those who spend their days in misery. And let us farther narrate to them the disasters of others, the untimely bereavements, the dwellers in prison, those who are torn to pieces before tribunals, those who are trembling for life, the unlooked-for widowhood of women, the sudden reverses of the rich, 
and with this let us soften their minds. For by our narrations concerning others, we shall induce them by all means to fear these evils in their own case too. For when they hear that the son of such an one, who was a covetous and grasping man, or the wife of such an one, who did many tyrannical actions, after the death of her husband endured afflictions without end, the injured persons setting upon the wife and the children, and a general war being raised from all quarters against this house, although a man be the most senseless of beings, yet expecting himself also to suffer the same, and fearing for his own, lest they undergo the same fate, he will become more moderate. Now we find life full of many such histories, and we shall not be at a loss for the correctives of this kind. But when we speak these things, let us not speak them as giving advice or counsel, lest our discourse become too irksome. But as in the order of the narrative, and by association with something else, let us proceed in each case unto that kind of conversation, and let us be constantly putting them upon stories of this kind, permitting them to speak of no subject except these which follow. How such in one splendid and famous mansion fell down! How it is so entirely desolate that all things that were in it have come into the hands of others! How many trials have taken place daily about this same property! What a stir! How many of that man's relations have died either beggars or inhabitants of a prison! All these things let us speak as in pity for the deceased, and as deprecating things present, in order that by fear and by pity we may soften the cruel mind, and when we see men shrinking into themselves at these narrations, then and not till then, let us introduce to their notice also the doctrine of hell, not as terrifying these, but in compassion for others. And let us say, but why speak of things present? For far indeed will our concern be from ending with these, a yet more grievous punishment will await all such persons, even a river of fire and a poisonous worm, and darkness interminable, and undying tortures. If with such addresses we succeed in throwing a spell over them, we shall correct both ourselves and them, and quickly get the better of our own infirmity. And on that day we shall have God to praise us, as also Paul saith, and then shall every man have praise of God. For that which cometh from men is both fleeting, and sometimes it proceeds from no good intentions. But that which cometh from God both abideth continually, and shines out clearly. For when he who knows all things before the creation, and who is free from all passion, gives praise, then also the demonstration of our virtue is even unquestionable. Knowing these things, therefore, let us act so as to be praised of God, and to acquire the great blessings, which God grant us all to obtain through the grace and loving kindness of our Lord Jesus Christ, with whom to the Father and the Holy Spirit be glory, power, honor, now and always, and unto the ages of eternity. Amen. Homily 12. 1 Corinthians 4, 6. And these things, brethren, I have in a figure transferred to myself, and to Apollos for your sakes that ye might learn in us not to think of men above that which is written. So long as there was need of expressions as harsh as these, he refrained from drawing up the curtain, and went on arguing, as if he were himself the person to whom they were addressed, in order that the dignity of the person censured, tending to counteract the censurers, no room might be left for flying out in wrath at the charges. But when the time came for a gentler process, then he strips it off and removes the mask, and shows the persons concealed by the appellation of Paul and Apollos. And on this account he says, These things, brethren, I have transferred in a figure unto myself and Apollos. And, as in the case of the sick, when the child, being out of health, kicks and turns away from the food offered by the physicians, the attendants call the father or the tutor, 
and bid them take the food from the physician's hands, and bring it so that, out of fear towards them, he may take it and be quiet. So also Paul, intending to censure them about certain other persons, of whom some he thought were injured, others honored above measure, did not set down the persons themselves, but conducted the argument in his own name and that of Apollos, in order that reverencing these they might receive his mode of cure, but that once received he presently makes known in whose behalf he was so expressing himself. Now this was not hypocrisy, but condescension and economy. For if he had said openly, as for you, the men whom ye are judging are saints, and worthy of all admiration, they might have taken it ill, they might even have started off altogether. But now in saying, but to me it is a very small thing that I should be judged of you, and again, who is Paul, and who is Apollos? He had rendered his speech easy of reception. This, if you mark it, is the reason why he says here, these things have I transferred in a figure unto myself for your sakes that in us ye may learn not to be wise above what is written, signifying that if he had applied his argument in their persons, they would not have learnt all that they needed to learn, nor would have admitted the correction, being vexed at what was said. But as it was, revering Paul, they bore the rebuke well. But what is the meaning of not to be wise above what is written? Why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye? And judge not that ye be not judged. For if we are one, and are mutually bound together, it behooveth us not to rise up against one another. For he that humbleth himself shall be exalted, saith he. And he that will be first of all, let him be the servant of all. These are the things which are written. That no one of you be puffed up one against another. Again, having dismissed the teachers, he rebukes the disciples. For it was they who caused the former to be elated. And besides, the leaders would not quietly receive that kind of speech, because of their desire of outward glory, for they were even blinded with that passion, whereas the disciples, as not reaping themselves the fruits of the glory, but procuring it for others, would both endure the chiding with more temper, and had it more in their power than the leading men to destroy the disease. It seems, then, that this also is a symptom of being puffed up, to be elated on another's account, even though a man have no such feeling in regard of what is his own. For as he who is proud of another's wealth is so out of arrogance, so also in the case of another's glory. And he hath well called it being puffed up. For when one particular member rises up over the rest, it is nothing else but inflammation and disease. Since in no other way doth one member become higher than another, except when a swelling takes place. And so in the body of the church also. Whoever is inflamed and puffed up, he must be the diseased portion, for he is swollen above the proportion of the rest. For this disproportion is what we mean by swelling, and so comes it to pass in the body, when some spurious and evil humor gathers, instead of the wanted nourishment, so also arrogance is born, notions to which we have no right coming over us. And mark with what literal propriety he saith, ye are puffed up, for that which is puffed up hath a certain tumor, of spirit from being filled with corrupt humor. These things, however, he saith not to preclude all soothing, but such soothing as leads to harm. Wouldst thou wait upon this or that person? I forbid thee not, but do it not to the injury of another. For not that we might be formed in divisions one against another, were teachers given us, but that we might all be mutually united. For so the general to this end is set over the host. 
that of those who are separate he may make one body. But if he is to break up the army, he stands in the place of an enemy rather than of a general. Verse 9. For who maketh thee to differ? For what hast thou which thou didst not receive? From this point, dismissing the governed, he turns to the governors. What he saith comes to this. From whence is it evidence that thou art worthy of being praised? Why hath any judgment taken place, any injury proceeded, any essay, any severe testing? Nay, thou canst not say it. And if men give their votes, their judgment is not upright. But let us suppose that thou really art worthy of praise, and that thou hast indeed the gracious gift, and that the judgment of men is not corrupt. Yet not even in this case were it right to be high-minded, for thou hast nothing of thyself, but from God didst receive it. Why then dost thou pretend to have that which thou hast not? Thou wilt say, Thou hast it, and others have it with thee. Well then, thou hast it upon receiving it. Not merely this thing or that, but all things whatsoever thou hast. For not to thee belong these excellences, but to the grace of God. Whether you name faith, it came of his calling, or whether it be the forgiveness of sins which you speak of, or the gifts of grace, or the word of teaching, or the miracles, thou didst receive all from thence. Now what hast thou, tell me, which thou hast not received, but hast rather achieved of thine own self? Thou hast nothing to say, well, thou hast received, and does that make thee high-minded? Nay, but it ought to make thee shrink back into thyself. For it is not thine what hath been given, but the giver's. What if thou hast received it? Thou received it of him. And if thou received it of him, it was not thine which thou receivest. And if thou didst but receive what was not thine own, why art thou exalted, as if thou hadst something of thine own? Wherefore he added, Now, if thou didst receive it, why dost thou glory, as if thou hadst not received it? Thus having, you see, made good his argument by one rapid onset, he indicates that they have their deficiencies, and those not a few, and saith, In the first place, though ye had received all things, it were not meet to glory, for nothing is your own. But, as the case really stands, there are many things of which ye are destitute. And in the beginning he did but hint at this, saying, I could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, and I determined to know nothing among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. But here he doth it in a way to abash them, saying, Verse 8, Now ye are full, now ye are rich. That is, ye want nothing henceforth. Ye are become perfect. Ye have attained the very summit. Ye stand as ye think in need of no one, either among the apostles or teachers. Now ye are full. And well saith he now, pointing out from the time the incredibility of their statements and their unreasonable notion of themselves. It was therefore in mockery that he said to them, So quickly have ye come to an end. Which thing was impossible in the time, for all the more perfect things wait long in futurity, but to be full with a little betokens a feeble soul, and from a little to imagine oneself rich, a sick and miserable one. For piety is an insatiable thing, and it argues a childish mind to imagine from just the beginnings that you have obtained the whole, and for men who are not even in the prelude of a matter, to be high-minded as if they had laid hold of the end. Then also, by means of what followeth, he puts them yet more out of countenance. For having said, Now ye are full, he adds, Now ye are rich, ye have reigned as kings without us. And I would to God ye did reign, that we might also reign with you. 
full of great austerity is the speech, which is why it comes last, being introduced by him after that abundance of reproof. Since then is our admonition respected and easily received, when after our accusations we introduce our humiliating expressions. For this were enough to repress even the shameless soul, and strike it more sharply than direct accusation, and correct the bitterness and hardened feeling likely to arise from the charge brought, it being certain that this more than anything else is the admirable quality of those arguments, which appeal to our senses of shame, that they possess two contrary advantages. On the one hand, one cuts deeper than by open invective. On the other hand, it causes the person reprimanded to bear that severe stab with more entire patience. Ye have reigned as kings without us. Herein there is great force, as concerns both the teachers and the disciples, and their ignorance too of themselves is pointed out, and their inconsideration. For what he saith is this, In labors indeed, saith he, all things are common both to us and to you, but in rewards and crowns ye are first. Not that I say this in vexation, wherefore he added also, I would indeed that ye did reign. Then at least there should seem to be some irony, he added, that we also might reign with you. For, saith he, we also should be in possession of these blessings. Dost thou see how he shows in himself all at once his austerity, and his care over them, and his self-denying mind? Dost thou see how he takes down their pride? Verse 9. For I think that God hath set forth us the apostles last, as it were appointed unto death. There is a great depth of meaning and severity implied again in his saying us, for not even with this was he satisfied, but added also his dignity, hinting them vehemently, us, the apostles, who are enduring such innumerable ills, who are sowing the word of godliness, who are leading you unto the severe rule of life. These he has set forth as appointed unto death, that is as condemned. For since he had said that we also might reign with you, and by that expression had relaxed his vehemency in order not to dispirit them, he takes up again with greater gravity, and saith, For I think that God has set forth us the apostles last, as it were appointed unto death. For according to what I see, saith he, and from what ye say, the most abject of all men, and emphatically the condemned, are we, who are put forward for continual suffering. But ye have already a kingdom, and honors, and great rewards in your fancy, and wishing to carry out their reasoning to still greater absurdity, and to exhibit it as incredible in the highest degree. He said not merely, We are last, but God hath made us last. Nor was he satisfied with saying, Last, but he added also, Appointed unto death, to the end that even one quite void of understanding might feel the statement to be quite incredible, and his words to be words of one vexed, and vehemently abashing them. Observe, too, the good sense of Paul, the topics by which, when it is the proper time, he exalts and shows himself venerable, and makes himself great. By these he now puts them to shame, calling himself condemned. Of so great consequence is it to do all things at the befitting season. By appointed unto death, in this place he means condemned and deserving of ten thousand deaths. For we are made a spectacle unto the world, and unto angels, and unto men. For what means we are become a spectacle unto the world? Not in a single corner, nor yet in a small part of the world, suffer we these things, saith he, but everywhere and before all. But what means unto angels? It is possible to become a spectacle unto men, but not so unto angels, when the things done are ordinary. But our wrestlings are such as to be worthy even of angelic contemplation. Behold from the things by which he vilifies them, how again he shows himself great, 
and from the things about which they are proud, how he displays their meanness. For since to be fools was accounted a meaner thing than to be wise, to be weak than to be made strong, and unhonored than glorious and distinguished, and that he is about to cast on them the one set of epithets, while he had himself accepted the other, he signifies that the latter are better than the former, if at least because of them he had turned the throng, I say, not of men only, but also of the very angels, unto the contemplation of themselves. For not with men only is our wrestling, but also with incorporeal powers. Therefore a mighty theater is set. Verse 10. We are fools for Christ's sake, but ye are wise in Christ. Again this also he spake in a way to abash them, applying that it is a thing impossible for these contraries to agree. Neither can things so distant from one another concur. For how can it be, saith he, that you should be wise, and we are fools, in the things relating to Christ? That is, the one sort being beaten and despised and dishonored, and esteemed as nothing, the others enjoying honor and being looked up to by many as a wise and prudent kind of people. It gives him occasion to speak thus, as if he had said, How can it be that they who preach such things should be looked upon as practically engaged in their contraries? We are weak, but ye are strong. That is, we are driven about and persecuted, but ye enjoy security, and are much waited upon, howbeit the nature of the gospel endureth it not. We are despised, but ye are honored. Here he setteth himself against the noble, and those who plumed themselves upon external advantages. Unto this present hour we both hunger and thirst, and are naked and are buffeted, and have no certain dwelling place, and labor working with our own hands. That is, it is not an old story that I am telling, but just what the very time present bears me witness of. That of human things we must take no account, nor yet of any outward pomp, but we look unto God only, which thing we too have need to practice in every place. For not only are angels looking on, but even more than they, he that presides over the spectacle. Let us not then desire any others to applaud us, for this is to insult him, hastening by him, as if insufficient to admire us. We make the best of our way to our fellow servants, for just as they who contend in a small theater seek a large one, as if this were insufficient for their display, so also do they, who contending in the sight of God, afterwards seek the applause of men, losing the greater praise and eager for the less, they draw upon themselves more severe punishment. What but this hath turned everything upside down? This puts the whole world into confusion, that we do all things with an eye to men, and even for our good things we esteem it nothing to have God as an admirer, but seek the approbation which cometh from our fellow servants. And for the contrary things again, despising him, we fear men, and yet surely they shall stand with us before that tribunal, doing us no good. But God, whom we despise now, shall himself pass the sentence upon us. But yet, though we know these things, we still gape after men, which is the first of sins. Thus were a man looking on, no one would choose to commit fornication. But even though he be ten thousand times on fire with that plague, the tyranny of the passion is conquered by his reverence for men. But in God's sight, men not only commit adultery and fornication, but other things also much more dreadful. Many have dared and still dare to do. This then alone, is it not enough to bring down from above ten thousand thunderbolts? Adulteries, did I say, and fornications? Nay, things even far less than these we fear to do before men. But in God's sight, we fear no longer. From hence, in fact, 
all the world's evils have originated, because in things so bad we reverence not God but men. On this account you see both things which are truly good, not accounted such by the generality, become objects of our aversion. We not investigating the nature of the things, but having respect unto the opinion of the many. And again, in the case of evil things, acting on the same principle, certain things, therefore, not really good, but seemingly fair unto the many, we pursue as goods through the same habit, so that on either side we go to destruction. Perhaps many may find this remark somewhat obscure. Wherefore, we must express it more clearly. When we commit uncleanness, for we must begin from the instances alleged, we fear men more than God. When, therefore, we have thus subjected ourselves unto them, and made them lords over us, there are many other things also, which seem unto these our lords to be evil. Not being such, these also we flee for our part in like manner. For instance, to live in poverty, many account disgraceful, and we flee poverty, not because it is disgraceful, nor because we are so persuaded, but because our masters count it disgraceful, and we fear them. Again, to be unhonored and contemptible and void of all authority seems likewise unto the most part a matter of shame and a great vileness. This again we flee, not condemning the thing itself, but because of the sentence of our masters. Again, on the contrary side also, we undergo the same mischief. As wealth is counted a good thing, and pride and pomps, and to be conspicuous. Accordingly, this again we pursue, not either in this case from considering the nature of the things as good, but persuaded by the opinion of our masters. For the people is our master, and the great mob is a savage master, and a severe tyrant, not so much as a command being needed in order to make us listen to him. It is enough that we just know what he wills, and without the command we submit. So great goodwill do we bear towards him. Again, God threatening and admonishing day by day is not heard, but the common people, full of disorder, made up of all manner of dregs, has no occasion for one word of command. Enough for it, only to signify with what it is well pleased, and in all things we obey immediately. But how, says someone, is a man to flee from these masters? By getting a mind greater than theirs, by looking into the nature of things, by condemning the voice of the multitude, before all, by training himself in things really disgraceful to fear, not men, but the unsleeping eye, and again, in all good things, to seek the crowns which come from him. For thus neither in the other sort of things shall we be able to tolerate them. For whoso, when he doeth right, judges them unworthy to know his good deeds, and contents himself with the suffrage of God, neither will he take account of them in matters of the contrary sort. And how can this be, you will say? Consider what man is, what God, whom thou desertest, and unto whom thou fliest for refuge, and thou wilt soon be right altogether. Man lieth under the same sin as thyself, and the same condemnation, and the same punishment. Man is like to vanity, and hath not true judgment, and needs the correction from above. Man is dust and ashes, and if he bestow praise, he will often bestow it at random, or out of favor, or ill will, and if he culminate and accuse, this again will he do, out of the same kind purpose. But God doeth not so. Rather irreprovable is his sentence, and pure his judgment. Wherefore we must always flee to him for refuge, and not for these reasons alone, but because he both made, and more than all spares thee, and loves thee better than thou dost thyself. Why then, neglecting to have so awful an approver, 
betake we ourselves unto man who is nothing all rashness all at random doth he call thee wicked and polluted when thou art not so so much the more do thou pity him and weep because he is corrupt and despise his opinion because the eyes of his understanding are darkened for even the apostles were thus evil reported of and they laughed to scorn their calumators but doth he call thee good and kind if such indeed thou art yet be not at all puffed up by the opinion but if thou art not such despise it the more and esteem the thing to be mockery wouldst thou know the judgments of the greater part of men how corrupt they are how useless and worthy of ridicule some of them fit only for raving and distracted persons others for children at the breast hear what hath been from the beginning i will tell thee of judgments not of the people only but also of those who passed for the wisest of those who were legislators from the earliest period for who would be counted wiser among the multitude than the person considered worthy of legislating for cities and people but yet to these wise men fornication seems to be nothing evil nor worthy of punishment at least no one of the heathen laws makes it penal or brings men to trial on account of it and should any one bring another into court for things of that kind the multitude laughs it to scorn and the judge will not suffer it dice playing again is exempt from all their punishments nor did any one among them ever incur penalty for it drunkenness and gluttony so far from being a crime are considered by many even as a fine thing and in military carousals it is a point of great emulation and they who most of all need a sober mind and a strong body these are most of all given over to the tyranny of drunkenness both utterly weakening the body and darkening the soul yet of the lawgivers not one hath punished this fault what can be worse than this madness is then the good word of men so disposed an object of desire to thee and dost thou not hide thyself in the earth for even though all such admired thee oughtest thou not to feel ashamed and cover thy face at being applauded by men of such corrupt judgment again blasphemy by legislators in general is accounted nothing terrible at any rate no one for having blasphemed god was ever brought to trial and punished but if a man steal another's garment or cut his purse his sides are flayed and he is often given over unto death while he that blasphemeth god hath nothing laid to his charge by the heathen legislators and if a man seduce a female servant when he hath a wife it seems nothing to the heathen laws nor to men in general wilt thou hear besides of some things of another class which show their folly for as they punish not these things so there are others which they enforce by law what then are these they collect crowds to fill theatres and there they introduce choirs of harlots and children of fornicators yea such as trample on nature herself and they make the whole person sit on high and so they captivate their city so they crown those mighty kings whom they are perpetually admiring for their trophies and victories and yet what can be colder than this honour what more undelightful than this delight from among these then seekest thou judges to applaud thy deeds and is it in company with dancers and effeminate and buffoons and harlots that thou art fain to enjoy the sound of compliments answer me how can these things be other than proofs of extreme infatuation for i should like to ask them is it or is it not a dreadful thing to subvert the laws of nature and introduce unlawful intercourse they will surely say it is dreadful at any rate they make a show of inflicting penalty on that crime why then dost thou bring on the stage those abused wretches and not only bring them in but honour them also 
with honors innumerable and gifts not to be told. In other places thou punished those who dare such things, but here, even as uncommon benefactors of the city, thou spendest money upon them and supportest them at the public expense. However, thou wilt say, they are infamous. Why then train them up? Why choose the infamous to pay honor to kings withal? And why ruin our cities? Or why spend so much upon these persons? Since if they be infamous, expulsion is properest for the infamous. For why dost thou render them infamous? In praise or in condemnation? Of course, in condemnation. Is the next thing to be, that although us after condemnation you make them infamous, yet as if they were honorable, you run to them and admire and praise and applaud. Why need I speak of the sort of charm which is found in the horse races, or in the contests of the wild beasts? For those places, too, being full of all senseless excitement, are a school ever open for the populace to acquire a merciless and savage and inhuman kind of temper, and practice them in seeking men torn in pieces, and blood flowing, and the ferocity of wild beasts, confounding all things. Now all these are wise lawgivers from the beginning introduced, being so many plagues, and our cities applaud and admire. But if thou wilt, dismissing these things, which clearly and confessedly are absurd, but seemed it not so to the heathen legislators, let us proceed to their grave precepts. And thou shalt see these two corrupted through the opinion of the multitude. Thus marriage is accounted an honorable thing, both by us and by those without, and it is honorable. But when marriages are solemnized, such a number of ridiculous circumstances take place as ye shall hear of immediately because the most part possessed and beguiled by custom are not even aware of their absurdity but need others to teach them for dancing and cymbals and flutes and shameful words and songs and drunkenness and revilings and all the devil's great heap of garbage is then introduced i know indeed that i shall appear ridiculous in finding fault with these things and shall incur a charge of great folly with the generality as disturbing the ancient laws for as I said before, great is the deceivableness of custom, but nevertheless I will not cease repeating these things, for there is, there is surely a chance that, although not all, yet some few will receive our saying, and will choose to be laughed to scorn with us, rather than we laugh with them, such a laughter as deserves tears, and overflowing punishment and vengeance. For how can it be other than worthy of the most utmost condemnation, that a damsel who has spent her life entirely in retirement, and be schooled in modesty from earliest childhood, should be compelled on a sudden to cast off all shame, and from the very commencement of her marriage to be instructed in impudence, and find herself put forward in the midst of wanton and rude men, and unchaste and effeminate. What evil plants will not grow up to that bride from that day forth? Immodesty and petulance, insolence, the love of vain glory, since they will naturally go on and desire to have all their days such as these, Hence our women become expensive and profuse. Hence they are void of modesty. Hence they proceed their unnumbered evils. And tell me not of the custom, for if it be an evil thing, let it not be done even once. But if good, let it be done constantly. For tell me, is not committing fornication evil? Shall we then allow just once this to be done? By no means. Why? Because though it be done only once, it is evil all the same. So also, that the bride be entertained in this way, if it be evil, let it not be done even once. But if it be not evil, let it even be done always. What then, saith one, dost thou find fault with marriage? Tell me, that be far from me. I am not so senseless, but the things which are so unworthily appended to marriage, 
the painting the face, the coloring the eyebrows, and all the other nicenesses of that kind. For indeed, from that day, she will receive many lovers, even before her destined consort. But many will admire the woman for her beauty. And what of that? Even if discreet, she will hardly avoid evil suspicion. But if careless, she will be quickly overtaken, having got that very day for a starting point in dissolute behavior. Yet though the evils are so great, the omission of these proceedings is called an insult by certain who are no better than brute beasts, and they are indignant that the woman is not exhibited to the multitude, that she is not set forth as a stage spectacle common to all beholders, whereas most assuredly they should rather count it insult when these things do take place, and a laughing stock and a farce. For even now I know that men will condemn me with much folly and make me a laughing stock, but the derision I can bear when any gain occurs from it. For I should indeed be worthy of derision, if while I was exhorting to contempt of the opinion of the many, I myself of all men were subdued by that feeling. Behold then what follows from this. Not in the day only, but also in the evening, they provide on purpose men that have well drunk, besotted, and inflamed with luxurious fare, to look upon the beauty of the damsel's countenance. Nor yet in the house only, but even through the marketplace, do they lead her in pomp to make an exhibition, conducting her with torches late in the evening, so that she may be seen of all, by their doings recommending nothing else, than that henceforth she put off all modesty, and they do not even stop here, but with shameful words do they conduct her, and this with the multitude is a law, and runaway slaves and convicts, thousands of them, and of desperate character, go on with impunity, uttering whatever they please, both against her and against him who is going to take her to his home. Nor is there anything solemn, but all base and full of indecency. Will it not be a fine lesson in chastity for the bride to see and hear such things? And there is a sort of diabolical revelry among the givers of the aforesaid instructions to outdo one another in their zealous use of reproaches and foul words, whereby they put the whole company out of countenance, and those go away victorious, who have found the largest store of railings, and the greatest indecencies to throw at their neighbors. Now I know that I am a troublesome sort of person, and disagreeable, and morose, as though I were curtailing life of some of its pleasure. Why, this is the very cause of my mourning, that things so displeasing are esteemed a sort of pleasure. For how, I ask, can it be other than displeasing to be insulted and reviled, to be reproached by all, together with your bride. If anyone in the marketplace speak ill of thy wife, thou makest a do without end, and countest life not worth living in. And can it be that, disgracing thyself with thy future consort in the presence of the whole city, thou art pleased and lookest gay on the matter? Why, what strange madness is this? But, say us one, this thing is customary. Nay, for this very reason we ought most to bewail it, because the devil hath hedged in the thing with custom. In fact, since marriage is a solemn thing, and that which recruits our race, and the cause of numerous blessings, that evil one inwardly pining, and knowing that it was ordained as a barrier against uncleanness, by a new vice introduces into it all kinds of uncleanness. At any rate, in such assemblages many virgins have been corrupted, and if not so in every case, it is because, for the time, the devil is content with those words and those songs so flagitious with making a show of the bride openly and leading the bridegroom in triumph through the marketplace. Moreover, because all this takes place in the evening, that not even the darkness may be availed to these evils, many torches are brought in, suffering not the disgraceful scene to be concealed. For what means the vast throng, and what the wassail, 
and what the pipes, most clearly to prevent even those who are in their houses and plunged in deep sleep from remaining ignorant of these proceedings, that being wakened by the pipe and leading to look out of the lattices, they may be witnesses of the comedy such as it is. What can one say of the songs themselves, crammed as they are with all uncleanness, introducing strange amours and unlawful connections, and subversions of houses, and tragic scenes without end, and making continual mention of the titles of friend and lover, mistress and beloved, and what is still more grievous, that young women are present at these things, having divested themselves of all modesty, in honor of the bride, rather I should say to insult her, exposing even their own salvation, and in the midst of the wanton young men acting a shameless part with their disorderly songs, with their foul words, with their devilish harmony. Tell me then, dost thou still inquire, whence come adulteries, whence fornications, whence violations of marriage? But they are not noble nor decent women. You will say, who do these things? Why then laugh me to scorn for this remonstrance, having been thyself aware of this law? Before I said anything, I say if the proceedings are right, allow those well-born women also to enact them. For what if these others live in poverty? Are not they also virgins? Ought not they also to be careful of chastity? But now here is a virgin dancing in a public theater of licentious use. And I ask, seems she not unto thee more dishonored than a harlot? But if you say, female servants do these things, neither so do I acquit thee of my charge. For neither to these ought such work to have been committed. For hence all these evils have their origin. That of our household we make no account. But it is enough in the way of contempt to say, he is a slave, and they are handmaidens. And yet day after day we hear, in Christ Jesus there is neither bond nor free. Again, were it a horse or an ass, thou dost not overlook it, but takest all pains not to have it of an inferior kind. And thy slaves who have souls like thine own, dost thou neglect. And why do I slave slaves, when I might say sons and daughters? What then must follow? It cannot be but grief, must immediately enter in, when all these are going to ruin, and often also very great losses must ensue, valuable golden ornaments being lost in the crowd in the confusion. Then, after the marriage, if perchance a child is born, in this case again we shall see the same folly, and many tokens full of absurdity. For so, when the time has come for giving the infant a name, caring not to call it after the saints, as the ancients did at first, they light lamps and give them names, and so name the child after that one which continues burning the longest, from thence conjecturing that he will live a long time. After all, should there be many instances of the child enduring untimely death, and there are many, great laughter on the devil's part will ensue, at his having made sport of them, as if they were silly children. What shall we say about the amulets and the bells, which are hung upon the hand, and the scarlet woof, and the other things full of such extreme folly, when they ought to invest the child with nothing save the protection of the cross. But now that is despised, which hath converted the whole world, and given the sore wound to the devil, and overthrown all his power, while the thread and the woof and the other amulets of that kind are entrusted with the child's safety. Must I mention another thing yet more ridiculous than this? Only let no one tax us with speaking out of season, should our argument proceed with that instance also. For he that would cleanse an ulcer will not hesitate first to pollute his own hands. What then is this so very ridiculous custom? It is counted indeed as nothing, and this is why I grieve. 
but it is the beginning of folly and madness in the extreme. The woman in the bath, nurses and waiting maids, take up mud and smearing it with the finger, make a mark on the child's forehead. And if one ask, what means the mud and the clay? The answer is, it turneth away an evil eye, witchcraft and envy. Astonishing, what power in the mud, what might in the clay, what mighty force is this which it has? It averts all the host of the devil. Tell me, can ye help hiding yourselves for shame? Will ye never come to understand the snares of the devil, how from the earliest life he gradually brings in the several evils which he hath devised? For if the mud hath this effect, why dost thou not thyself also do the same to thine own forehead, when thou art a man and thy character is formed? And thou art likelier than the child to have such as envy thee. Why dost thou not as well bemire the whole body? I say, if on the forehead its virtue be so great, why not anoint thyself all over with mud? All this is mirth and stage play to Satan, not mockery only, but hellfire belonging to the consummation to which these deceived ones are tending. Now that among Greeks such things should be done is no wonder, but among the worshippers of the cross and partakers of unspeakable mysteries and professors of such high morality that such unseemliness should prevail, this is especially to be deplored again and again. God hath honored thee with spiritual anointing, and dost thou defile thy child with mud. God hath honored thee, and dost thou dishonor thyself. And when thou shouldest inscribe on his forehead the cross, the mean of that invincible security, dost thou forego this, and cast thyself into the madness of Satan. If any look on these things as trifles, let them know that they are the source of great evils, and that not even unto Paul did it seem right to overlook the lesser things. For tell me, what can be less than a man's covering his head? Yet observe how great a matter he makes of this, and with how great earnestness he forbids it, saying, among other things, he dishonoreth his head. Now if he that covers himself dishonoreth his head, and he that dismears his child with mud, how can it be less than making it abominable? For how, I want to know, can he bring to the hands of the priest? How canst thou require that on that forehead the seal should be placed by the hand of the presbyter, where thou hast been smearing the mud? Nay, my brethren, do not these things, but from earnest life encompass them with spiritual armor, and instruct them to seal the forehead with the hand, and before they are able to do this with their own hand, do you imprint upon them the cross? Why should one speak of the other satanical observances, in the case of travel pains and childbirths, which the midwives introduce with the mischief on their own heads, of the outcries which take place in each person's death, and, as he is being carried to his burial, the irrational wailings, the folly enacted at the funerals, the zeal about men's monuments, the importunate and ridiculous swarm of the mourning women, the observances of days, the days I mean of entrance into the world and of departure. Are these then, I beseech you, the persons whose good opinion thou followest after? And what can it be but the extreme of folly to seek earnestly the praise of men so corrupt in their ideas, men whose conduct is all at random, when we ought always to resort to the unsleeping eye and look to his sentence in all that we do and speak? For these, even if they approve, will have no power to profit us. But he, should he accept our doings, will both here make us glorious, and in the future day will impart to us of the unspeakable good things, which may it be the lot of us to all obtain, through the grace and loving kindness of our Lord Jesus Christ, with whom to the Father and the Holy Spirit be glory, power, honor, now and always, and unto everlasting ages. Amen. Homily 13, 1 Corinthians 4.10 We are fools for Christ's sake. 
for it is necessary from this point to resume our discourse. But ye are wise in Christ. We are weak, but ye are strong. Ye are honorable, but we despised. Having filled his speech with much severity, that point which conveyed a sharper blow than any direct charge, he here handles with his own particular dignity. And, whereas he had said, ye have reigned as kings without us, and God hath set forth us last, as it were, appointed unto death. But what comes next, he signifies how they were appointed unto death, saying, We are fools, and weak, and despised, and hunger, and thirst, and are naked, and are buffeted, and have no certain dwelling, and labor working with their own hands, which are very signs of genuine teachers and apostles, whereas the others valued themselves on the things which are contrary to these, on wisdom, glory, wealth, consideration. Desiring, therefore, to take down their self-conceit, and to point out that in respect of these things, so far from taking credit to themselves, they ought rather to be ashamed, he first of all mocks them, saying, Ye have reigned as kings without us. As if he had said, My sentence is, that the present is not a time of honor, nor of glory, which kind of things you enjoy, but of persecution and insult, such as we are suffering. If, however, it be not so, if this rather be the time of remuneration, then as far as I see, but this he saith in irony, ye the disciples for your part have become no less than kings, but we the teachers and apostles, and before all entitled to receive the reward, not only have fallen very far behind you, but even as persons appointed unto death, that is, condemned convicts, spend our lives entirely in dishonors and dangers and hunger, yea, insulted as fools, and driven about, and enduring all intolerable things. Now these things he said, that he might hereby cause them also to consider that they should zealously affect the condition of the apostles, their dangers and their indignities, not their honors and glories. For these, not the former, are what the gospel requires. But to this effect he speaks not directly, not to show himself disagreeable to them, rather in a way characteristic of himself he takes in hand this rebuke. For if he had introduced his address in a direct manner, he would have spoken thus, Ye err and are beguiled and have swerved far from the apostolic mode of instruction. For every apostle and minister of Christ ought to be esteemed a fool, ought to live in affliction and dishonor, which indeed is our state, whereas you are in the contrary state. But thus might his expressions have jarred them yet more, as containing but praises of the apostles, and might have made the other party fiercer, censured as they were for indolence and vainglory and luxuriousness. Wherefore he conducts not his statement in this way, but in another, more striking, but less offensive. And this is why he proceeds with his address as follows, saying ironically, But ye are strong and honorable, since if he had not used irony, he would have spoken to this effect. It is not possible that one man should be esteemed foolish and another wise, one strong and another weak, the gospel not requiring either the one or the other. For if we were in the nature of things, that one should be this and another that, perchance there might be some reason in what you say. But now it is not permitted, neither to be counted wise, nor honorable, nor to be free from dangers. For otherwise it follows of necessity that you are preferred before us in the sight of God, you the disciples before the teachers, and that after our endless hardships. If this be too bad for any one to say, it remains for you to make our condition your object. And that no one saith he, think that I speak of things past only. Verse 11. Even unto this present hour we both hunger and thirst and are naked. Seest thou that all the life of Christians must be such as this, and not merely a day or two? For though the wrestler who is victorious in a single contest only be crowned, he is not crowned again if he suffer a fall. And hunger, 
against the luxurious and are buffeted, against those who are puffed up and have no certain dwelling place, against those who sink back into weariness and are naked, against the rich and labor. Here is something against the false apostles who endure neither toil nor peril, while they themselves receive the fruits. But not so are we, saith he, but together with our perils from without, we also strain ourselves to the utmost with perpetual labor. And what is still more, no one can say that we fret at these things, for the contrary of all these is our requital to them that so deal with us. This, I say, is the main point, not our suffering evil, for that is common to all, but our suffering without despondency or vexation. For we, so far from desponding, are full of exaltation, and a sure proof of this is our requiting with the contrary those who do us wrong. Now as to the fact that so they did, hear what follows. Verses 12 and 13. Being reviled we bless, being persecuted we endure, being defamed we entreat. We are become as the filth of the world. This is the meaning of fools for Christ's sake. For whosoever suffers wrong and avenges not himself, nor is vexed, is reckoned a fool by the heathen, and dishonored, and weak. And in order that he might not render his speech too unpalatable, by referring the sufferings he was speaking of to their city, what saith he? We are made the filth, not of your city, but of the world. And again, the offscourings of all men, not of you alone, but of all. As then, when he is discoursing of the providential care of Christ, letting pass the earth, the heaven, the whole creation, the cross is what he brings forward. So also, when he desires to attract them to himself, hurrying by all his miracles, he speaks of his sufferings on their account. So also, it is our method, when we be injured by any and despised, whatsoever we have endured for them, to bring the same forward. The offscouring of all men, even unto this present time, this is a vigorous blow which he gives at the end of all men, not of the persecutors only, saith he, but of those also for whom we suffer these things. O oh, greatly am I obliged to them. It is the expression of one seriously concerned, not in pain himself, but desiring to make them feel that he who hath innumerable complaints to make should even salute them. And therefore did Christ command us to bear insults meekly, that we might both exercise ourselves in a high strain of virtue, and put the other party to the more shame. For that effect one produces not so well by reproach as by silence. Verse 14. Then since he saw that the blow could not well be borne, he speedily heals it, saying, I write not these things to shame you, but as my beloved sons I warn you. For not as abashing you, saith he, do I speak these things, the very thing which by his words he had done. This he says he had not done. Rather, he allows that he had done it, not, however, with an evil and spiteful mind. Why this mode of soothing is the very best, if we should say what we have to say, and add the apology from our purpose. For not to speak was impossible, since they would have remained uncorrected. On the other hand, after he had spoken, to leave the wound unattended were hard. Wherefore, along with his severity, he apologizes. For this, so far from destroying the effect of the knife, rather makes it sink deeper in, while it moderates the full pain of the wound. Since when a man is told that not in reproach but in love are these things said, he the more readily receives correction. However, even here also is great severity and a strong appeal to their sense of shame, in that he said not as a master, nor yet as an apostle, nor yet as having you for my disciples, which had well suited his claims on them. But as my beloved sons, I warn you, and not simply sons, but longed after. Forgive me, saith he, 
if anything disagreeable have been said, it all proceeds of love. And he said not, I rebuke, but I warn. Now who would not bear with a father in grief, and in the act of giving good advice? Wherefore he did not say this before, but after he had given the blow. What then, some might say, do other teachers not spare us? I say not so, but they carry not their forbearance so far. This, however, he spake, not out at once, but by their professions and titles, gave indication of it. Preceptor and father being the terms which he employs. Verse 15. For though, saith he, ye have ten thousand instructors in Christ, yet have ye not many fathers. He is not here setting forth his dignity, but the exceeding greatness of his love. Thus neither did he wound the other teachers, since he adds the clause in Christ, but rather soothed them, designating not as parasites, but as preceptors, those among them who were zealous and patient of labor, and also manifested his own anxious care of them. On this account he said not, yet not many masters, but not many fathers. So little was it his object to set down any name of dignity, or to argue that of him they had received the greater benefit, but granting to the others the great pains they had taken for the Corinthians. For that is the force of the word instructor, the superiority and love he reserves for his own portion. For that, again, is the force of the word father. And he saith not merely, No one loves you so much, a kind of statement which admitted not of being called to account. But he also brings forward a real fact. What then is this? For in Christ Jesus I have begotten you through the gospel. In Christ Jesus, not unto myself, do I impute this. Again he strikes at those who give their own names to their teaching. For ye, saith he, are the seal of mine apostleship. And again, I have planted and in this place I have begotten. He said not, I have preached the word, but I have begotten, using the words of natural relationship. For this one care at the moment was to show forth the love which he had for them. For they indeed received you from me, and added enticements, but that you are believers at all came to pass through me. Thus because he had said, as sons, lest you should suppose that the expression was flattery, he produces also the matter of fact. Verse 16. Wherefore, I beseech you, be ye followers of me, as I am also of Christ. Astonishing, how great is our teacher's boldness of speech, how highly finished the image, when he can even exhort others hitherto, not that in self-exaltation he doth so, but implying that virtue is an easy thing, as if he had said, Tell me not, I am not able to imitate thee, thou art a teacher and a great one, for the difference between me and you is not so great as between Christ and me, and yet I have imitated him. On the other hand, writing to the Ephesians, he interposes no mention of himself, but leads them all straight to the one point. Be ye followers of God in this word. But in this place, since his discourse was addressed to weak persons, he puts himself in by the way. And besides, too, he signifies that it is possible even thus to follow Christ. For he who copies the perfect impression of the seal copies the original model. Let us see, then, in what way he followed Christ. For this imitation needs not time and art, but a steady purpose alone. Thus, if we go into the study of a painter, we shall not be able to copy the portrait, though we see it ten thousand times. But to copy him, we are enabled by hearing alone. Will ye then that we bring the tablet before you, and sketch out for you Paul's manner of life? Well, let it be produced, that picture far brighter than all the images of emperors. For its material is not boards glued together, nor canvas stretched out, but the material is the work of God, being as it is a soul and body, a soul the work of God, not of men, and a body again and likewise. Did you utter applause here? Nay, not here is the time for plaudits. 
but in what follows, for applauding, I say for imitating too. For so far as we have but the material, which is common to all without exception, inasmuch as soul differs not from soul, in regard of its being a soul, but the purpose of heart shows the difference. For as one body differs not from another, in so far as it is a body, but Paul's body is like everyone else's. Only dangers make one body more brilliant than another. Just so is it in the case of the soul also. Suppose then our tablets to be the soul of Paul. This tablet was lately lying covered with soot, full of spider's webs, for nothing can be worse than blasphemy. But when he came, who transformeth all things, and saw that not through indolence or sluggishness were his lines so drawn, but through inexperience, and his not having the tints of true piety, for zeal indeed he had, but the colors were not there, for he had not the zeal according to knowledge. He gives him the tint of the truth, that is grace, and in a moment he hath exhibited the imperial image. For having got the colors and learnt what he was ignorant of, he waited no time, but forthwith appeared a most excellent artist, and first he shows the head of the king, preaching Christ, then also the remainder of the body, the body of a perfect Christian life. Now painters we know shut themselves up and execute all their works with great nicety, and in quiet, not opening the doors to anyone. But this man, setting forth his tablet in the view of the world, in the midst of universal opposition, clamor, disturbance, did under such circumstances work out this royal image, and was not hindered. And therefore he said, We are made a spectacle unto the world, in the midst of the earth and sea and the heaven, and the whole habitable globe, and the world both material and intellectual. He was drawing that portrait of his. Would you like to see the other parts also thereof, from the head downwards? Or will ye that from below we carry our description upwards? Contemplate then a statue of gold, or rather of something more costly than gold, and such as might stand in heaven, not fixed with lead or placed in one spot, but hurrying from Jerusalem even to Illyricum, and setting out unto Spain, and borne, as it were, on wings over every part of the world. For what could be more beautiful than these feet which visited the whole earth under the sun? This same beauty the prophet also from of old proclaimeth, saying, How beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace! Hast thou seen how fair are the feet? Wilt thou see the bosom too? Come, let me show thee this also, that thou shalt behold it far more splendid than these beautiful feet, even than the bosom itself of the ancient lawgiver. For Moses indeed carried tablets of stone, but this man within him had Christ himself, it was the very image of the king which he bore, and of the mercy seat. For this cause he was more awful than the cherubim. For no such voice went out from them as from hence. But from them it talked with men chiefly about things of sense. From the tongue of Paul, on the other hand, about the things above the heavens. Again, from the mercy seat it spake oracles to the Jews alone, but from hence to the whole world. And there it was by things without life, but here by a soul instinct with virtue. This mercy seat was brighter even than heaven, not with variety of stars shining forth, nor with rays from the sun, but the very sun of righteousness was there, and from hence he sent forth his rays. Again, from time to time, as to this our heaven, any cloud coursing over at times makes it gloomy, but that bosom never had any such storm sweeping across it, but rather there did sweep over it many storms and oft, but the light they darkened not, rather in the midst of the temptation and dangers the light shone forth. Wherefore also he himself, when bound with his chain, kept exclaiming, The word of God is not bound. Thus continually by means of that tongue was it sending forth its rays. And no fear, no danger made that bosom gloomy. Perhaps the bosom seems to outdo the feet, 
However, both they as feet are beautiful, and this as a bosom. Wilt thou see also the belly with its proper beauty? Hear what he saith about it. If meat make my brother to offend, I will eat no flesh while the world standeth. It is good neither to eat flesh, nor to drink wine, nor anything whereby thy brother stumbleth, or is offended, or is made weak. Meats for the belly, and the belly for meats. What can be more beautiful in its kind than this belly, thus instructed to be quiet, and taught all temperance, and knowing how both to hunger and be famished, and also how to suffer thirst? For as a well-trained horse with a golden bridle, so also did this walk with measured paces, having vanquished the necessity of nature, for it was Christ walking in it. Now this, being so temperate, is quite plain that the whole body of vice besides was done away. Wouldst thou see the hands too, those which he now hath, or wouldst thou rather behold first their former wickedness? Entering this very man into the houses, he howled of late men and women with the hands not of man, but of some fierce wild beast. But as soon as he had received the colors of the truth and the spiritual skill, no longer were these the hands of a man, but spiritual, day by day being bound with chains, and they never struck any one. But they were stricken times without number. Once even a viper reverenced those hands, for they were the hands of a human being no longer, and therefore it did not even fasten on them. And wilt thou see also the back, resembling as it does the other members? Hear what he saith about this also. Five times I received of the Jews forty stripes save one. Thrice was I beaten with rods, once was I stoned, thrice I suffered shipwreck, a night and a day I have been in the deep. But lest we should fall into an interminable deep, and be carried away far and wide, going over each of his members severally, come let us quit the body, and look at another sort of beauty, that namely which proceeds from his garments, to which even devils showed reverence, and therefore both they made off, and various diseases took flight. And wheresoever Paul happened to show himself, they all retired and got out of the way, as if the champion of the whole world had appeared. And, as they who have been often wounded in war, should they see but some part of the armor of him that wounded them, feel a shuddering, much in the same way the devils also, at the sight of handkerchiefs only, were astonied. Where be now the rich, and they that have high thoughts about wealth? Where they who count over their own titles and their costly robes? With these things, if they compare themselves, it will be a clay in their sight and dirt. All that they have, their own. And why speak I of garments and golden ornaments? Why, if one would grant me the whole world in possession, the mere nail of Paul, I should esteem more powerful than all that dominion, his poverty than all luxury, his dishonor than all glory, his nakedness than all riches. No security would I compare with the buffeting of that sacred head, no diadem with the stones to which he was a mark. This crown let us long for, beloved, for if persecution be not now, let us meanwhile prepare ourselves, for neither was he of whom we speak glorious by persecutions alone. For he said also, I keep under my body, now in this one may attain excellence without persecutions. And he exhorted not to make provision for the flesh, to fulfill the lust thereof. And again, having food and raiment, let us be therewith content. For to these purposes we have no need of persecutions. And the wealthy too he sought to moderate, saying, 
they that will be rich fall into temptation. If therefore we also thus exercise ourselves, when we enter into the contest, we shall be crowned. And though there be no persecution before us, we shall receive for these things many rewards. But if we pamper the body and live the life of swine, even in peace we shall often sin, and have to bear our shame. Seest thou not with whom we wrestle, with the incorporeal powers? How then, being ourselves flesh, are we to get the better of these? For if wrestling with men, one have need to be tempered in diet, much more with evil spirits. But when together with fullness of flesh, we are also bound down to wealth, whence are we to overcome our antagonists? For wealth is a chain, a grievous chain, to those who know not how to use it, a tyrant savage and inhuman, imposing all his commands by way of outrage on those who serve him. Howbeit, if we will, this bitter tyranny we shall dispose from his throne, and make it yield to us, instead of commanding. How then shall this be, by distributing our wealth unto all? For so long as it stands against us, each single hand, like any robber in a wilderness, it works all its bad ends. And when we bring it forth among others, it will master us no more, holden as it will be in chains on all sides by all men. And these things I say, not because riches are a sin, although there be sin in not distributing them to the poor, and in the wrong use of them. For God made nothing evil, but all things very good, so that riches too are good, i.e., if they do not master their owners, if the wants of our neighbors be done away by them. For neither is that light good, which instead of dissipating darkness, rather makes it intense. Nor shall I call that wealth, which instead of doing away poverty, rather increases it. For the rich man seeks not to take from others, but to help others. But he that seeks to receive from others is no longer rich, but is emphatically the poor man. So that it is not riches that are an evil, but the needy mind which turns wealth into poverty. There are more wretched than those who ask alms in the narrow streets, enduring loss of limb and loathsome bodily harm. I say clothed in rags as they are. They are not so miserable as those in silks and shining garments. Those who go stately in the marketplace are more to be pitied than those who haunt the crossings of the streets and enter into the courts and cry from their cellars and ask charity. For these, for their part, do utter praises to God and speak words of mercy at a high sort of morality. And therefore we pity them and stretch out the hand and never find fault with them. But those who are rich to bad purpose, cruelty and inhumanity, ravening and satanic lust, are in the words which issue from them. And therefore, by all are they detested and laughed to scorn. Do but consider which of the two among all men is reckoned disgraceful, to beg of the rich or of the poor. Everyone, I suppose, sees it at once. Of the poor. Now this, if you mark it, is what the rich do, for they durst not apply to those who are richer than themselves, whereas those who beg do so of the wealthy. For one beggar asks not alms of another, but of a rich man. But the rich man tears the poor in pieces. Again, tell me, which is the more dignified, to receive from those who are willing and are obligated to you, or when men are unwilling, to compel and tease them? Clearly not to trouble those who are unwilling. But this also the rich do, for the poor receive from willing hands, and such are obligated to them, but the rich from persons unwilling and repugnant, which is an indication of greater poverty. For if no one would like so much as to go to a meal 
unless the inviter were to feel obligated to the guest, how can it be honorable to take one share of any property with compulsion? Do we not on this account get out of the way of dogs and fly from their baying? Because, by their much besetting, they fairly force us off. This also our rich men do. But that fear should accompany the gift is more dignified. Nay, this is of all most disgraceful. For he who moves heaven and earth about his gains, who can be so laughed to scorn as he? For even unto dogs, not seldom, through fear, we throw whatever we had hold of, which I ask again is more disgraceful, that one clothed with rags should beg, or one that wears silk. Thus, when a rich man pays court to old and poor persons, so as to get possession of their property, and this when there are children, what pardon can he deserve? Further, if you will, let us examine the very words, what the rich beggars say, and what the poor. What then saith the poor man? That he who giveth alms will never have to give by measure. That he is giving of what is God's. That God is loving unto men, and recompenses more abundantly. All which are words of high morality, and exhortation, and counsel. For he recommends thee to look unto the Lord, and he takes away thy fear of the poverty to come. And one may perceive much instruction in the words of those who ask alms. But of what kind are those of the rich? Why of swine and dogs and wolves and all other wild beasts? For some of them discourse perpetually on banquets and dishes and preserves and wines of all sorts and ointments and vestures and all the rest of that extravagance and others about the interest of money and loans and making out accounts and increasing the mass of debts to an intolerable amount as if it had begun in the time of men's fathers or grandfathers, one that they rob of his house, another of his field, and another of his slave, and of all that he has, why should one speak of their covenants, which are written in blood instead of ink? For either by surrounding them with some intolerable danger, or else bewitching them with some paltry promises, whomsoever they may see in possession of some small property, those they persuade to pass, by all their relations, and that oftentimes when perishing through poverty, and instead of them to enter their own names. Is there any madness and ferocity of wild beasts of any sort which these things do not throw into the shade? Wherefore, I beseech you, all such wealth as this, let us flee, disgracefully as it is, and in deaths abundant, and let us obtain that which is spiritual, and let us seek after the treasures in the heavens. For whoso possesses these, they are rich, they are the wealthy, both here and there enjoying things, even all things, since whoso will be poor, according to the word of God, has all men's houses open to him. For unto him that, for God's sake, has ceased to possess anything, every one will contribute of his own. But whoso will hold a little with injustice, shutteth the doors of all against him. To the end, then, that we may attain both to the good things here and those which are there, let us choose the wealth which cannot be removed, that immortal abundance, which may God grant us all to obtain through the grace and loving kindness of our Lord Jesus Christ, etc. Homily 14, 1 Corinthians 4, 17. For this cause have I sent unto you Timotheus, who is my beloved son and faithful in the Lord, who shall bring you into remembrance of my ways which be in Christ Jesus. Consider here also, I entreat the noble soul, the soul more glowing and keener than fire, how he was indeed most especially desirous to be present himself with the Corinthians. 
thus distempered and broken into parties, for he knew well what a help to the disciples his presence was, and what a mischief his absence, and the former he declared in the epistle to the Philippians, saying, Not as in my presence only, but also now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. The latter he signifies in this epistle, saying, Now some are puffed up as though I were not coming to you, but I will come. He was urgent, it seems, and desirous to be present himself. But as this was not possible for a time, he corrects them by the promise of his appearance. And not this only, but also by the sending of his disciple. For this reason, he saith, I have sent unto you Timothy. For this reason, how is that? Because I care for you as for children, and as having begotten you. And the message is accompanied with a recommendation of his person, who is my beloved son and faithful in the Lord. Now this he said, both to show his love of him and to prepare them to look on him with respect, and not simply faithful, but in the Lord, that is, in the things pertaining to the Lord. Now if in worldly things it is high praise for a man to be faithful, much more in spiritual things. If then he was his beloved son, consider how great was Paul's love, in choosing to be separated from him for the Corinthians' sake. And if faithful also, he will be unexceptionable in his ministering to their affairs. Who shall bring you into remembrance? He said not shall teach, lest they should take it ill, as being used to learn from himself. Wherefore also towards the end he saith, For he worketh the work of the Lord, as I also do. Let no man therefore despise him. For there was no envy among the apostles. But they had an eye unto one thing, the edification of the church. And if he that was employed was their inferior, they did, as it were, reinforce him with all zealousness. Wherefore, neither was he contented with saying, He shall bring you in remembrance, but purposing to cut out their envy more completely. For Timothy was young. With this view, I say, he adds, My ways, not his, but mine. That is, his policies, his dangers, his customs, his laws, his ordinances, his apostolic canons, and all the rest. For since he had said, We are naked and are buffeted, and have no certain dwelling place, all these things, saith he, he will remind you of, and also of the laws of Christ, for destroying all heresies. Then carrying his argument higher, he adds, Which be in Christ, ascribing all as was his want unto the Lord, and on that ground establishing the credibility of what is to follow. Wherefore he subjoins, as I teach everywhere in every church. Nothing new have I spoken unto you. Of these my proceedings, all the other churches are cognizant as well as you. Further, he calls them ways in Christ, to show that they have in them nothing human, and that with the aid from that source he doeth all things well. And having said these things, he so soothed them, and being just about to enter on his charge against the unclean person, he again utters words full of anger. Not that in himself he felt so, but in order to correct them, and giving over the fornicator, he directs his discourse to the rest, as not deeming him worthy even of words from himself, just as we act in regard to our servants when they have given us great offense. Next after that he had said, I send Timothy, lest they should thereupon take things too easily. Mark what he saith. Verse 18. Now some are puffed up as though I were not coming unto you. For here he glances both at them and at certain others, casting down their high-mindedness, since the love of preeminence is in fault, when men abuse the absence of their teacher for their own self-will. For when he addresses himself unto the people, observe how he does it by way of appeal to their sense of shame, when unto the originators of the mischief 
his manner is more vehement. Thus unto the former he saith, We are the offscouring of all. And soothing them, he saith, Not to shame you, I rate these things. But to the latter, now as though I were not coming to you, some are puffed up, showing that their self-will argued a childish turn of mind. For so boys, in the absence of their master, wax more negligent. This then is one thing here indicated, and another is that his present was sufficient for their correction. For as the presence of a lion makes all living creatures shrink away, so was also that of Paul to the corruptors of the church. Verse 19. And therefore he goes on, but I will come to you shortly if the Lord will. Now to say this only would seem to be mere threatening, but if to promise himself and demand from them a requisite proof by actions also, this was a course for a truly high spirit. Accordingly he added to this, saying, And I will know not the speech of them which are puffed up, but the power. For not from any excellencies of their own, but from their teacher's absence, this self-will arose, which again itself was a mark of a scornful mind towards him. And this is why, having said, I have sent Timotheus, he did not at once add, I will come, but waited until he had brought his charge against them, of being puffed up. After that he saith, I will come. Since had he put it before the charge, I would rather have been an apology for himself, as not having been deficient, instead of a threat, nor even so would the statement have been convincing. But, as it is, placing it after the accusation, he hath rendered himself such as they would both believe and fear. Mark also how solid and secure he makes his ground. For he saith not simply, I will come, but if the Lord will, and he appoints no said time. For since there was a chance that he might be tardy in coming, by that uncertainty he would fain keep them anxiously engaged. And lest they should hereupon fall back again, he added shortly, And I will know not the speech of them that are puffed up, but the power. He said not, I will know not the wisdom, nor the signs, but what? Not the speech. By the term he implies, at the same time depressing the one and exalting the other. And for a while he is setting himself against the generality of them, who were countenancing the fornicator. For if he were speaking of them, he would not say the power, but the works, the corrupt works which he did. Now why seekest thou not after the speech? Not because I am wanting in speech, but because all our doings are in power. As therefore in war success is not for those who talk much, but who affect much. So also in this case, not speakers, but doers have the victory. Thou saith he, art proud of this fine speaking. Well, if it were a contest and a time for orators, thou mightest reasonably be elated thereat. But if of apostles preaching truth, and by signs confirming the same, why art thou puffed up for a thing superfluous and unreal, and to the present purpose utterly inefficient? For what could a display of words avail towards raising the dead, or expelling evil spirits, or working any other such deed of wonder? But these are what we want now, and by these our cause stands. Whereupon also he adds, verse 20, For the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. By sign saith he, not by fine speaking we have prevailed. And that our teaching is divine, and really announces the kingdom of heaven, we give the greatest proof, namely our miracles, which we work by the power of the Spirit, of those who are now puffed up, desire to be some great ones. As soon as I am come, let them show whether they have any such virtue, and let me not find them sheltering themselves behind a pomp of words. For that kind of art is nothing to us. Verse 21. What will ye? Shall I come unto you with a rod or in love, and in the spirit of meekness? There is much both of terror and of gentleness in this saying. 
for to say I will know was the language of one as yet withholding himself, but to say what will ye, shall I come unto you with a rod, are the words of one henceforth ascending to the teacher's seat, and from thence holding discourse with them, and taking upon him all his authority. What means with a rod? With punishment, with vengeance, that is, I will destroy, I will maim, the kind of thing which Peter did in the case of Sapphira, and himself in the case of Elimas the sorcerer. For henceforth he no longer speaks as bringing himself into a close comparison with the other teachers, but with authority. And in the second epistle too, he appears to say the same, when he writes, Since ye seek a proof of Christ speaking in me, shall I come with a rod or in love? What then? To come with a rod, was it not an instance of love? Of love it was surely, but because through his great love he shrinks back in punishing, therefore he so expresses himself. Further, when he spoke about punishment, he said not, in the spirit of meekness, but simply with a rod. And yet, of that too, the spirit was author, for there is a spirit of meekness and a spirit of severity. He doth not, however, choose so to call it, but from its milder aspect. And for a like reason also, God, although avenging himself, has it often affirmed of him that he is gracious and long-suffering, and rich in mercy and pity but that he is apt to punish once perhaps or twice and sparingly, and that upon some urgent cause. Consider then the wisdom of Paul holding the authority in his own hands. He leaves both this and that in the power of others, saying, What will ye? The matter is at your disposal. For we too have depending on us both sides of the alternative, both falling into hell and obtaining the kingdom, since God hath so willed it. For behold, saith he, fire and water, whichever way thou wilt, thou mayest stretch forth thine hand. And if ye be willing, and will hearken unto me, ye shall eat the good of the land. But perhaps one will say, I am willing, and no one is so void of understanding as not to be willing. But to will is not sufficient for me. Nay, but it is sufficient if thou be duly willing, and do the deeds of one that is willing. But as it is, thou art not greatly willing. And let us try this and other things, if it seem good. For tell me, he that would marry a wife, is he content with wishing? By no means. But he looks out for women to advance his suit, and requests friends to keep watch with him, and gets together money. Again, the merchant is not content with sitting at home and wishing, but he first hires a vessel, then selects sailors and rowers, then takes up money on interest, and is inquisitive about a market and the price of merchandise. Is it not strange for men to show themselves so much in earnest about earthly things, but that's when they are to make a venture for heaven, they should be content with wishing only. Rather, I should say, not even in this do they show themselves properly in earnest. For he that wills a thing as he ought, puts also his hand unto the means, which lead to the object of his desire. Thus, because hunger compels thee to take nourishment, thou waitest not for the viands to come unto thee of their own accord, but omittest nothing to gather victuals together. So in thirst and cold, and all other things, Thou art industrious, and in thy station to take care of the body. Now do this in respect of God's kingdom also, and surely thou shalt obtain it. For to this end God made thee a free agent, that thou mightest not afterwards accuse God, as though some necessity had bound thee. And thou, in regard of those things wherein thou hast been honored, dost thou murmur. For in fact I have heard people say, But why did he then make my goodness depend on me? Nay, but how was he to bring thee, slumbering and sleeping, and in love, with all iniquity, and living delicately, and pampering thyself, how was he to bring thee up to heaven? 
If he had, thou wouldst not have abstained from vice. For if now, even in the face of threatening, thou dost not turn aside from thy wickedness, had he added no less than heaven, as the end of thy race, when wouldst thou have ceased waxing more careless, and worse by far? Neither again wilt thou be able to allege, he hath showed me indeed what things were good, but give no help, for abundant also is his promise given thee of aid. But, say you, virtue is burdensome and distasteful. While with vice great pleasure is blended, and the one is wide and broad, but the other straight and narrow. Tell me then, are they respectively such altogether, or only from the beginning? For in fact, what thou here sayest, thou sayest not intending it, in behalf of virtue, so potent a thing is truth. For suppose there were two roads, the one leading to a furnace and the other to paradise, and that the one unto the furnace were broad, the other unto paradise narrow, which road wouldst thou take in preference? For though you may now gainsay for contradiction's sake, yet things which are plainly allowed on all hands, however shameless, you will not be able to gainsay. Now that that way is rather to be chosen, which hath its beginning difficult, but not its end, I will endeavor to teach you from what is quite obvious. And if you please, let us first take in hand the arts. For these have their beginnings full of toil, but the end gainful. But say you, no one applies himself to an art without someone to compel him. For you add, so long as the boy is his own master, he will choose rather to take his ease at first, and in the end to endure the evil. How great soever, than to live heartily at the outset, and afterwards reap the fruit of those labors. Well then, to make such a choice comes of a mind left to itself, and of childish idleness, but the contrary choice of sense and manliness. And so it is with us. Were we not children in mind, we should not be like the child aforesaid, forsaken as he is, and thoughtless, but like him that hath a father. We must cast out, then, our own childish mind, and not find fault with the things themselves. And we must set a charioteer over our conscience, who will not allow us to indulge our appetites, but make us run and strive mightily. For what else but absurdity is it to inure our children with pains at first unto pursuits which have laborious beginnings, but their end good and pleasant, while we ourselves in spiritual things take just the contrary turn? And yet even in those earthly things it is not quite plain that the end will be good and pleasant, since before now untimely death or poverty or false accusation or reverse of fortune or other such things of which they are many have caused men with their long toil to be deprived of all its fruits. What is more, those who have such pursuits, though they succeed, it is no great gain which they shall reap. For with the present life all those things are dissolved. But here, not for such cold and perishable things is our race. Neither have we fears about the end, but greater and more secure is our hope after our departure hence. What pardon then can there be? What excuse for those who will not strip themselves for the evils to be endured for virtue's sake. And do they yet ask, Wherefore is the way narrow? Why thou dost not deem it right that any fornicator or lewd or drunken person should enter into the courts of earthly kings, and claimest thou for men to be led into heaven itself, with licentiousness and luxury and drunkenness and covetousness and all manner of iniquity? And how can these things be pardonable? Nay, you reply, I say not that, but why has not virtue a broad way? In good truth, if we be willing, its way is very easy. For whether is easier, tell me, to dig through a wall and take other men's goods, and so be cast into prison, or be content with what you have and freed from all fear. I have not, however, said all. For 
whither is easier tell me to steal all men's goods and revel in a few of them for a short time and then to be racked and scourged eternally or having lived in righteous poverty for a short time to live ever after in delights for let us not inquire as yet which is the more profitable but for the present which is the more easy whether again is it pleasanter to see a good dream and to be punished in reality or after having had a disagreeable dream to be really in enjoyment of course the latter tell me then in what sense dost thou call virtue harsh i grant it is harsh tried by comparison with our carelessness however that it is really easy and smooth hear what christ saith my yoke is easy and my burden is light but if thou perceivest not the lightness plainly it is for want of courageous zeal since where that is even heavy things are light and by the same rule where it is not even light things are heavy for tell me what could be sweeter and more easily obtained than at the banquet of manna yet the jews were discontented though enjoying such delightful fare what more bitter than hunger and all the other hardships which paul endured yet he leaped up and rejoiced and said now i rejoice in my sufferings what then is the cause the difference of the mind if then you frame this as it ought to be you will see the easiness of virtue what then you say does she only become such through the mind of those who pursue her she is such not from their mind alone but by nature as well which i thus prove if one had been throughout a thing painful the other throughout the contrary sort then with some plausibility might some fallen person have said that the latter was easier than the former but if they have their beginnings the one in hardship the other in pleasure but their respective ends again just opposite to these and if those ends be both infinite in the one the pleasure in the other the burden tell me which is the more easy to choose why then do many not choose that which is easy because some disbelieve and others who believe have their judgment corrupt and would prefer pleasure for a season to that which is everlasting is not this then easy not so but this cometh of a sick soul and as the reason why persons in a fever long after cool drink is not upon calculation that the momentary luxury is pleasanter than being burned up from beginning to end but because they cannot restrain their inordinate desire so also these since if one brought them to their punishment at the very moment of their pleasure assuredly they never would have chosen it thus you see in what sense vice is not an easy thing but if you will let us try this same point over again by an example in the proper subject matter tell me for instance which is pleasanter and easier only take care that we take not again the desire of the many for our rule in the matter since one ought to decide not by the sick but by the whole just as you might show me ten thousand men in a fever sinking things unwholesome upon choice to suffer for it afterwards but i should not allow such their choice which i repeat brings more ease tell me to desire much wealth or to be above that desire for i for my part think the latter if you disbelieve it let the argument be brought to the facts themselves of the case let us then suppose one man desiring much another nothing which now is in the better state tell me and which the more respectable however let that pass for this is agreed upon that the latter is a finer character than the former and we are making no inquiry about this at present but which lives the easier and pleasanter life well then 
The lover of money will not enjoy even what he has. For that which he loves he cannot choose to spend, but would gladly even carve himself out, and part with his flesh rather than with his gold. But he that despises wealth gains this the while, that he enjoys what he has quietly and with great security, and that he values himself more than it. Which then is the pleasanter? To enjoy what one has with freedom, or to live under a master, namely wealth, and not dare to touch a single thing even of one's own. Why, it seemeth to me to be much the same, as if any two men, having wives and loving them exceedingly, were not upon the same terms with them, but the one were allowed the presence and intercourse of his wife, the other not even permitted to come near his. There is another thing which I wish to mention, indicating the pleasure of the one and the discomfort of the other. He that is greedy of gain will never be stayed in that his desire, not only because it is impossible for him to obtain all men's goods, but also because whatever he may have compassed, he counts himself to have nothing. But the despiser of riches will deem it all superfluous, and will not have to punish his soul with endless desires. I say punish, for nothing so completely answers the definition of punishment, as desire deprived of gratification, a thing too which especially marks his perverse mind. Look at it in this way. He that lusts after riches, and hath increased his store, he is the sort of person to feel as if he had nothing. I ask then, what more complicated than this disease? And the strange thing is not this only, but that, although having, he thinks he has not the very things which are in his hold, and as though he had them not, he bewails himself. If he even get all men's goods, his pain is but greater, and should he gain an hundred talents, he is vexed that he hath not received a thousand, and if he receive a thousand, he is stung to the quick that it is not ten thousand, and if he receive ten thousand, he utterly bemoans himself, because it is not ten times as much. And the acquisition of more to him becomes so much more poverty, for the more he receives, so much the more he desires. So then, the more he receives, the more he becomes poor, since whoso desires more is more truly poor. When then he hath an hundred talents, is he not very poor, for he desires a thousand. When he hath got a thousand, then he becomes yet poorer, for it is no longer a thousand as before, but ten thousand, that he professes himself to want. Now if you say that to be rich and to not obtain is pleasure, you seem to me to be very ignorant of the nature of pleasure. To show that this sort of thing is not pleasure but punishment, take another case and refer the question to it, and so let us search it out. When we are thirsty, do we not therefore feel pleasure in drinking, because we quench our thirst? And is it not therefore a pleasure to drink, because it relieves us from a great torment? The desire I mean of drinking, everyone I suppose can tell. But were we always to remain in such a state of desire, we should be as badly off as the rich man in the parable of Lazarus for the matter of punishment. For his punishment was just this, that vehemently desiring one little drop, he obtained it not. And this very thing all covetous persons seem to me continually to suffer, and to resemble him where he begs that he may obtain that drop, and obtains it not, for their soul is more on fire than his. Well, indeed, hath one said, that all lovers of money are in a sort of dropsy, for as they, bearing much water in their bodies, are the more burnt up, 
so also the covetous, bearing about with them great wealth are greedy of more. The reason is that neither do the one keep the water in the parts of the body where it should be, nor the other their desire in the limits of becoming thought. Let us then flee this strange and craving disease. Let us flee the root of all evils. Let us flee that which is present hell. For it is a hell, the desire of these things. Only just lay open the soul of each, of him who despises wealth, and of him who does not so, and you will see that the one is like the distracted, choosing neither to hear nor to see anything, the other like a harbor free from waves, and he is the friend of all, as the other is the enemy. For whether one take anything of his, it gives him no annoyance, or if whether, on the contrary, one give him aught, it puffs him not up. But there is a certain freedom about him with entire security. The one is forced to flatter and feign before all, the other to no man. If now to be fond of money is to be both poor and timid, and a dissembler and a hypocrite, and to be full of tears and great penal anguish and chastisement, while he that despises wealth has all the contrary enjoyments, is it not quite plain that virtue is the more pleasant? Now we have gone through all the other bad ways also, whereby it is shown that there is no vice which has pleasure in it, had we not spoken before so much at large. Wherefore, knowing these things, let us choose virtue, to the end that we may both enjoy such pleasure as is here, and may attain unto the blessings which are to come, through the grace and loving kindness, etc., etc. Homily 15, 1 Corinthians 5, verses 1 and 2. It is reported commonly that there is fornication among you, and such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles, that one should have his father's wife, and ye are puffed up, and have not rather mourned, that he that hath done this deed might be taken away from among you. When he was discoursing about their divisions, he did not indeed at once address them vehemently, but more gently at first, and afterwards he ended in accusation, saying thus, For it hath been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. But in this place not so, but he lays about him immediately, and he makes the approach of the accusation as general as possible. For he said not, Why did such an one commit fornication? But it is reported commonly that there is fornication among you, that they might, as persons altogether aloof from his charge, take it easily, but might be filled with such anxiety as was natural, when the whole body was wounded, and the church had incurred reproach. For no one, saith he, will state it thus. Such an one hath committed fornication, but in the church of the Corinthians that sin hath been committed. And he said not, fornication is perpetrated, but is reported, such as is not even named among the Gentiles. For so continually he makes the Gentiles a topic of reproach to the believers. Thus writing to the Thessalonians, he said, Let everyone possess his own vessel and sanctification, not in the lust of concupiscence, even as the rest of the Gentiles. And to the Colossians and Ephesians, that you should no longer walk as the other Gentiles walk. Now if their committing the same sins was unpardonable, when they even outdid the Gentiles, what place can we find for them? Tell me, inasmuch as among the Gentiles, so he speaks, not only they dare no such thing, but they do not even give it a name. See to what a point he hath aggravated his charge. For when they are convicted of inventing such modes of uncleanness as the unbelievers, so far from venturing on them, 
do not even know of the sin must be exceedingly great beyond all words. And the clause among you is spoken also emphatically, that is, among you, the faithful, who have been favored with so high mysteries, the partakers of secrets, the guests invited to heaven. Dost thou mark with what indignant feeling his words overflow, with what anger against all? For had it not been for the great wrath of which he was full, had he not been setting himself against them all, he would have spoken thus, having heard that such and such a person hath committed fornication, I charge you to punish him. But, as it is, he doth not so. He rather challenges all at once, and indeed, if they had written first, this is what he probably would have said. Since, however, so far from writing, they had even thrown the fault into the shade, on this account he orders his discourse more vehemently, that a man should have his father's wife. Wherefore said he not, that he should abuse his father's wife. The extreme foulness of the deed caused him to shrink. He hurries by it accordingly, with a sort of scrupulousness, as though it had been explicitly mentioned before. And hereby again he aggravates the charge, implying that such things are ventured on among them, as even to speak plainly of was intolerable for Paul. Wherefore also, as he goes on, he uses the same mode of speech, saying, him who hath done this thing, and is again ashamed, and blushes to speak out, which also we are wont to do, in regard of the matters extremely disgraceful. And he said not his stepmother, but his father's wife, so as to strike much more severely. For so, when the mere terms are sufficient to convey the charge, he proceeds with them simply, adding nothing. And tell me not, saith he, that the fornicator is but one, the charge hath become common to all. Wherefore also he added, and ye are puffed up. He said not with the sin, for this would imply want of all reason, but with the doctrine you have heard from that person. This, however, is set not down himself, but left it undetermined, that he might inflict a heavier blow. And mark the good sense of Paul, having first overthrown the wisdom from without, and signified that it is nothing by itself, although no sin were associated with it. Then, and not till then, he discourses about the sin also. For if by way of comparison with the fornicator, who perhaps was some wise one, he had maintained the greatness of his own spiritual gift, he had done no great thing. But even when unattended with sin to take down the heathen wisdom and demonstrate it to be nothing, this was indicating its extreme worthlessness indeed. Wherefore first, as I said, having made the comparison, he afterwards mentions the man's sin also. And with him indeed he condescends not to debate, and thereby signifies the exceeding greatness of his dishonor. But to the others he saith, You ought to weep and wail, and cover your faces, but now ye do the contrary. And this is the force of the next clause. And ye are puffed up, and have not rather mourned. And why are we to weep, some might say, because the reproach hath made its way even unto the whole body of your church. And what good are we to get by our weeping? That such an one should be taken away from you. Not even here doth he mention his name, rather I should say, not anywhere, which in all monstrous things is our usual way. And he said not, ye have not rather cast him out, but, as in the case of any disease or pestilence, there is need of mourning, saith he, and of intense supplication, that he may be taken away. And you should have used prayer for this, and left nothing undone, that he should be cut off. Nor yet doth he accuse them for not having given him information, but for not having mourned so, 
so that the man should be taken away, implying that even without their teacher this ought to have been done because of the notoriety of the offense. Verse 3. For I indeed is absent in body, but present in spirit. Mark his energy. He suffers them not even to wait for his presence, nor to receive him first, and then to pass the sentence of binding. But as if on the point of expelling some conjugation, before that it have spread itself into the rest of the body, he hastens to restrain it. And therefore he subjoins the clause, I have judged already as though I were present. These things, moreover, he said, not only to urge them unto the declaration of their sentence, and to give them no opportunity of contriving something else, but also to frighten them, as one who would know what was done there. For this is the meaning of being present in spirit. As Elisha was present with Gehazi, and said, Went not my heart with thee? Wonderful! How great is the power of the gift, in that it makes all to be together and as one, and qualifies them to know the things which are far off. I have judged already as though I were present. He permits them not to have any other device. Now I have uttered my decision, as if I were present. Talk not to me then of delays and putting off, for nothing else must be done. Then, lest he should be thought too authoritative, and his speech sound rather self-willed, mark how he makes them also partners in the sentence. For having said, I have judged, he adds, concerning him that hath so done this deed, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when ye are gathered together, and my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, to deliver such an one unto Satan. Now what means in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ? According to God, not possessed with any human prejudice. Some, however, read thus, Him that hath so done this thing, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, and putting a stop there, or a break, then subjoin what follows, saying, When you are gathered together, and my spirit to deliver such an one unto Satan, and they assert that the sense of this reading is as follows. Him that hath done this thing in the name of Christ, saith Paul, deliver ye unto Satan. That is, him that hath done insult unto the name of Christ. Him that, after he had become a believer, and was called after that appellation, hath dared to do such things, deliver ye unto Satan. But to me the former way of giving it out appears the truer. What then is this? When ye are gathered together in the name of the Lord, that is, his name, in whose behalf ye have met, collecting you together. In my spirit, again he sets himself at their head, in order that when they should pass sentence, they might no longer cut off the offender, then as if he were present, and that no one might dare to judge him pardonable, knowing that Paul would be aware of the proceedings. Then making it yet more awful, he saith, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, that is, either that Christ is able to give you such grace, as you should have power to deliver him to the devil, or that he is himself together with you, passing that sentence against him. And he said not, Give up such an one to Satan, but deliver, opening unto him the doors of repentance, and delivering up such an one as it were to a schoolmaster. And again it is such an one, he nowhere can endure to mention of his name. For the destruction of the flesh, as was done in the case of the blessed Job, but not upon the same ground, for in that case it was for brighter crowns, but here for loosing of sins, that he might scourge him with a grievous sore, or some other disease. True it is, that elsewhere he saith, Of the Lord we are judged, when we suffer these things. But here desirous of making them feel it more severely, he delivereth up unto Satan. And so this too, which God hath determined, ensued, that the man's flesh was chastened. For because inordinate eating and carnal luxuriousness are the parents' of desires, it is the flesh which he chastens. 
that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus, that is, the soul, not as though this were saved alone, but because it was a settled point, that if that were saved, without all controversy, the body too would partake in its salvation. For as it became mortal, because of the soul sinning, so if this do righteousness, that also, on the other hand, shall enjoy great glory. But some maintain that the Spirit is the gracious gift, which is extinguished when we sin. In order then that this might not happen, saith he, let him be punished, that thereby becoming better, he may draw down to himself God's grace, and be found with it safe to render up in that day. So that all comes, as from one exercising a nurse's or a physician's office, not merely scourging, nor punishing rashly and at random. For the gain is greater than the punishment, one being but for a season, the other everlasting. And he said not simply, that the Spirit may be saved, but in that day. Well and seasonably doth he remind them of that day, in order that both they might more readily apply themselves to the cure, and that the person censured might the rather receive his words, not as it were of anger, but as the forethought of an anxious father. For this cause also, he said, unto the destruction of the flesh, proceeding to lay down regulations for the devils, and not suffering him to go a step too far, as in the instance of Job, God said, but touch not his life. Then having ended his sentence, and spoken it in brief, without dwelling on it, he brings in again a rebuke, directing himself against them. Verse 6. Your glorying is not good, signifying that it was they, up to the present time, who had hindered him from repenting, by taking pride in him. Next he shows that he is taking this step in order to spare not that person only, but also those to whom he writes. To which effect he adds, Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? For, saith he, although the offense be his, yet if neglected it hath power to waste the rest of the body of the church also. For when the first transgressor escapes punishment, speedily will others also commit the same faults. In these words he indicates, moreover, that their struggle and their danger is for the whole church, not for any one person. For which purpose he needed also the similitude of the leaven, for, as that saith he, though it be but little, transforms into its own nature the whole lump, so also this man, if he be let go unpunished, and if this sin turn out unavenged, will corrupt likewise all the rest. Verse 7. Purge out the old leaven, that is, this evil one. Not that he speaketh concerning this one only, rather he glances at others with him. For the old leaven is not fornication only, but also sin of every kind. And he said not, Purge, but purge out, cleanse with accuracy, so that there be not so much as a remnant nor a shadow of that sort. In saying then, Purge out, he signifies that there was still iniquity among them. But in saying that ye may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened, he affirms and declares that not over very many was the wickedness prevailing. But though he saith, As ye are unleavened, he means it not as a fact, that all were clean, but as to what sort of people you ought to be. For Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast, not with the old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So also Christ called his doctrine leaven, and further he himself dwells upon the metaphor, reminding them of an ancient history, and of the Passover and unleavened bread, and of their blessings both then and now, and their punishments and their plagues. It is festival, therefore, the whole time in which we live. For though he said, Let us keep the feast, not with a view to the presence of the Passover or of Pentecost, did he say it, 
but is pointing out that the whole of time is a festival unto Christians, because of the excellency of the good things which have been given. For what hath not come to pass that is good? The Son of God was made man for thee, hath freed thee from death, hath called thee into a kingdom. Thou, therefore, who hast obtained, and art still obtaining such things, how can it be less than thy duty to keep the feast of all thy life? Let no one, then, be downcast about poverty and disease and craft of enemies, for it is a festival, even the whole of our time. Wherefore, saith Paul, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice again, I say, rejoice. Upon the festival days no one puts on filthy garments. Neither then let us do so. For a marriage hath been made, a spiritual marriage. For the kingdom of heaven, saith he, is likened unto a certain king, which would make a marriage for his son. Now where is a king making a marriage, and a marriage for his son? What can be greater than this feast? Let no one then enter in clad in rags. Not about garments is our discourse, but about unclean actions. For if, where all wore bright apparel, one alone, being found at the marriage in filthy garments, was cast out with dishonor, consider how great strictness and purity the entrance into that marriage requires. However, not on this account only does he remind them of the unleavened bread, but also to point out the affinity of the Old Testament with the New, and to point out also that it was impossible, after the unleavened bread, again to enter into Egypt. But if any one choose to return, he would suffer the same things as they did. For those things were a shadow of these, however obstinate the Jew may be. Wherefore, shouldest thou inquire of him, he will speak no great thing. Rather, it is great which he will speak of, but nothing like what we speak of, because he knows not the truth. For he, for his part, will say, The Egyptians who detained us were so changed by the Almighty that they themselves urged and drave us out, who before held us forcibly. They did not suffer us so much as to leaven our dough. But if a man asketh me, he shall hear not of Egypt nor of Pharaoh, but of our deliverance from the deceit of the demons and the darkness of the devil, not of Moses, but of the Son of God, not of the Red Sea, but of a baptism overflowing with ten thousand blessings, where the old man is drowned. Again, shouldest thou ask the Jew why he expels all leaven from all his borders, here he will even be silent, and will not so much as state any reason. And this is because, although some indeed of the circumstances were both types of things to come, and had also certain causes in things then happening, yet others were not so, that the Jews might not deal deceitfully, that they might not abide in the shadow. For tell me, what is the meaning of the lambs, being a male, and unblemished, and a year old, and of a bone shall not be broken. And what means the command to call the neighbors also, and that it should be eaten standing, and in the evening? Or the fortifying of the house with a wall of blood? You will have nothing else to say, but over and over all about Egypt. But I can tell you the meaning both of the blood, and of the evening, and the eating altogether, and of the rule that all should be standing. But first let us explain why the leaven is cast out, of all their borders. What then is the hidden meaning? The believer must be freed from all iniquity. For as among them he perishes, with whomsoever is found old leaven, so also with us, wheresoever is found iniquity, since of course the punishment being so great, in that which is a shadow, in our case it cannot choose, but be much greater. For if they so carefully clear their houses of leaven, and pry into mouseholds, much more ought we to search out the soul so as to cast out every unclean thought. This, however, was done by them of late, but now no longer. For everywhere there is leaven, where a Jew is found. 
for it is in the midst of cities that the feast of the unleavened bread is kept, a thing which is now rather a game at play than a law. For since the truth is come, the types have no longer any place, so that by means of this example also he mightily drives the fornicator out of the church. For saith he, so far from his presence profiting, he even doth harm, injuring, on the contrary, the common estate of the body. For one knows not whence is the evil savor, while the corrupt part is concealed, and so one imputes it to the whole. Wherefore he urges upon them strongly to purge out the leaven, that ye may be, saith he, a new lump, even as ye are unleavened. For Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. He said not is dead, but more in point to the subject in hand, hath been sacrificed. Seek not then unleavened bread of this kind, since neither hast thou a lamb of the same kind. Seek not leaven of this description, seeing that thine unleavened bread is not such as this. Thus in the case of material leaven, the unleavened might become leavened, but never the reverse, whereas here there is a chance of the direct contrary occurring. This, however, he has not plainly declared, and observe his good sense. In the former epistle he gives the fornicator no hope of return, but orders that his whole life should be spent in repentance, lest he should make him less energetic through the promise. For he said not to deliver him up to Satan, that having repented, he might be commended again unto the church. But what saith he, that he may be saved in the last day? For he conducts him unto that time, in order to make him full of anxiety. And what favors he intended him after the repentance, he reveals not, imitating his own master. For as God saith, yet three days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And added not, but if she repent, she shall be saved. So also he did not say here, but if he repent worthily, we will confirm our love towards him. But he waits for him to do the work, that so he may then receive the favor. For if he had said this at the beginning, he might have set him free from the fear. Wherefore, he not only does not so, but by the instance of leaven allows him not even a hope of return, but reserves him unto that day. Purge out, so he says, the old leaven, and let us not keep the feast in the old leaven. But as soon as he had repented, he brought him in with all earnestness. But why does he call it old? It is because our former life was of this sort, or because that which is old is ready to vanish away, and is unsavory and foul, which is the nature of sin. For he neither simply finds fault with the old, nor simply praises the new, but with reference to the subject matter. And thus elsewhere he saith, new wine is as a new friend. But if it become old, then with pleasure shalt thou drink it. In the case of friendship, bestowing his praise rather upon the old than the new. And again, the ancient of days sat, here again taking the term ancient as among those laudatory expressions which confer highest glory. Elsewhere the scripture takes the term old in the sense of blame, foreseeing that the things are of various aspect, as being composed of many parts. It uses the same word both in a good and an evil import not according to the same shade of meaning, of which you may see an instance in the blame cast elsewhere on the old. They waxed old, and they halted from their paths. And again, I have become old in the midst of all mine enemies. And again, O thou that art become old in evil days. So also the leaven is often taken for the kingdom of heaven, although here found fault with. But in that place it is used with one aspect, and in this with another. But I have a strong impression that the saying about the leaven 
refers also to the priests, who suffer a vast deal of the old leaven to be within, not purging out from their borders, that is, out of the church, the covetous, the extortioners, and whatsoever would cast them out of the kingdom of heaven. For surely covetousness is an old leaven, and whenever it lights, and into whatsoever house it enters, makes it unclean, and though you may gain but little by your injustice, it leavens the whole of your substance. Wherefore, not seldom the dishonest gain, being but little, hath cast out the stock honestly laid up, however abundant, for nothing is more rotten than covetousness. You may fasten up that man's closet with key and door and bolt. You do all in vain, whilst you shut up within covetousness, the worst of all robbers, and able to carry off all. But what, say you, if there are many covetous who do not experience this? In the first place, they will experience it, though their experience come not immediately. And should they now escape, then do thou fear it the more, for they are reserved for a greater punishment. Add to this, that in the event of themselves escaping, yet those who inherit their wealth will have the same to endure. But how can this be just, you will say? It is quite just. For he that has succeeded to an inheritance full of injustice, though he have committed no repine himself, detains nevertheless the property of others, and is perfectly aware of this, and it is fair that he should suffer for it. For if this or that person had robbed, and you received a thing, and then the owner came and demanded it back, would it avail you in defense to say that you had not seized it? By no means. For what would be your plea when accused, tell me? That it was another who spoiled? Well, but you are keeping possession. That it was he who robbed, but you are enjoying it. Why these rules even the laws of the heathen recognize, which acquitting those who have seized and stolen, bid you demand satisfaction from those persons in whose possession you happen to find your things all laid up, if then you know who are the injured, restore, and do what Zacchaeus did, with much increase. But if you know not, I offer you another way yet. I do not preclude you from the remedy. Distribute all these things to the poor. This again will be a way for you to mitigate the evil. But if some have transmitted these things even to children and descendants, still in retribution they have suffered other disasters. And why speak I of things in this present life? In that day, at any rate, will none of these things be said, when both appear naked, both the spoiled and the spoilers, or rather, not alike naked. Of riches, indeed, both will be equally stripped, but the one will be full of the crimes to which they give occasion. What then shall we do on that day, when before the dread tribunal he that hath been evil entreated, and lost his all, is brought forward into the midst? and you have no one to speak a word for you. What will you say to the judge? How indeed you may be able even to corrupt the judgment, being but of men. But in that court, and at that time, you will be no longer so. No, nor yet now will you be able. For even at this moment that tribunal is present, since God both seeth our doings, and is near unto the injured, though not invoked. It being certain that whoever suffers wrong however in himself unworthy, to obtain any redress. Yet nevertheless, seeing that what is done pleases not God, he hath most assuredly one to avenge him. How then, you will say, is such an one well off, who is wicked? Nay, it will not be so unto the end. Hear what saith the prophet, Fret not thyself because of the ungodly, because as grass they shall wither away quickly. 
for where tell me where is he who wrought rapine after his departure hence where are his bright hopes where his august name are they not all past and gone is it not a dream and a shadow all that was his and this you must expect in the case of every such person both in his own person while living and in that of him who shall come after him but not such in the state of the saints nor will it be possible for you to say the same things in their case also that it is a shadow and a dream and a tale what belongs to them and if you please he who spake these things the tent-maker the sicilian the man whose very parentage is unknown let him be the example we produce you will say how is it possible to become such as he was do you then thoroughly desire it are you thoroughly anxious to become such yes you will say well then go the same way as he went and they that were with him now what way went he one saith in hunger and thirst and nakedness another silver and gold i have none thus they had nothing and yet possessed all things what can be nobler than this saying what more blessed or more abundant in riches others indeed were making their boast in the contrary things saying i have this or that number of talents of gold and acres of land without end and houses and slaves but this man in order to be naked of all things shrinks not from poverty which is the feeling of the unwise nor hides his face but he even wears it as an ornament where now be the rich man they who count up their interest simple and compound they who take from all men and are never satisfied have ye heard the voice of peter that voice which sets forth poverty as the mother of wealth that voice which has nothing yet is wealthier than those who wear diadems for this is that voice which having nothing was raising the dead and rearing up the lame and driving away devils and bestowing such gracious gifts as those who are clad in the purple robe and lead the mighty and terrible legions never were able to bestow this is the voice of those who are now removed into heaven of those who have attained unto that height thus it is possible that he who hath nothing may possess all men's goods thus may all men's goods be acquired whereas were we to get all men's goods we are bereft of all perhaps this saying seems to be a paradox but it is not but you will say how does he who hath nothing possess all men's goods doth he not much more so who hath what belongs to all by no means but the contrary for he who hath nothing commands all even as they did and throughout the world all houses were open to them and they who offered them took their coming as a favor and they came to them as to friends and kindred for so they came to the woman who was a seller of purple and she like a servant set before them what she had and to the keeper of the prison and he opened to them all his house and to innumerable others thus they had all things and had nothing for they said that none of the things which they possessed was their own therefore all things were theirs for he that considers all things which are to be common will not only use his own but also the things of others as if they belonged to him but he that parts things off and sets himself a master over his own only will not be master even of these and this is plain from an example he who possesses nothing at all neither house nor table nor garment to spare but for god's sake is bereft of all uses the things which are in common as his own and he shall receive from all whatsoever he may desire 
Thus he that hath nothing possesses the things of all, but he that has some things will not be master even of these. For first, no one will give to him that hath possessions, and secondly, his property shall belong to robbers and thieves and informers, and changing events, and be anybody's rather than his. Paul, for instance, went up and down throughout all the world, carrying nothing with him, though he went neither unto friends nor kindred. Nay, at first he was a common enemy to all, but nevertheless he had all men's goods, after he had made his entrance. But Ananias and Sapphira, hastening to gain a little more than their own, lost all, together with life itself. Withdraw then from thine own, that thou mayest use others' goods as thine own. But I must stop. I know not how I have been carried into such a transport, in speaking such words as these unto men, who think it a great thing to impart but ever so little of their own. Wherefore, let these my words have been spoken to the perfect, but to the more imperfect, this is what we may say. Give of what you have unto the needy. Increase your substance. For, saith he, he that giveth unto the poor lendeth unto God. But if you are in a hurry, and wait not for the time of retribution, think of those who lend money to men, for not even these desire to get their interest immediately, but they are anxious that the principal should remain a good long while in the hands of the borrower, provided only the repayment be secure, and they have no mistrust of the borrower. Let this be done, then, in the present case only. Leave them with God, that he may pay thee thy wages manifold, Seek not to have the whole here, for if you recover it all here, how will you receive it back there? And it is on this account that God stores them up there, inasmuch as this present life is full of decay. But he gives even here also, for seek ye, saith he, the kingdom of heaven and all these things shall be added unto you. Well then, let us look towards that kingdom and not be in a hurry for the repayment of the whole, lest we diminish our recompense but let us wait for the fit season. For the interest in these cases is not of that kind, but is such as is meet to be given by God. This then, having collected together in great abundance, so let us depart hence, that we may obtain both the present and future blessings, through the grace and loving kindness of our Lord Jesus Christ, with whom unto the Father and the Holy Spirit be glory, power, honor, now henceforth and forevermore. Amen. Homily 16. 1 Corinthians 5, verses 9-11 through 11. I wrote unto you in an epistle, not to company with fornicators, yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world, or with the covetous, or extortioners, or idolaters, for then must ye needs go out of the world. But now I have written unto you not to keep company, if any man that is called a brother be a fornicator, or a covetous, or an idolater, or a drunkard, or a railer, or an extortioner. With such an one, no, not to eat. For since he had said, Ye have not rather mourned, that such an one should be taken away, and purge out the old leaven, and it was likely that they would surmise that it was their duty to avoid all fornicators. For if he that has sinned imparts some of his own mischief to those who have not sinned, much more is it meet to keep oneself away from those without. For if one ought not to spare a friend on account of such mischief arising from him, much less any others. And under this impression, it was probable that they would separate themselves from the fornicators among the Greeks also, and the matter thus turning out impossible, they would have taken it more to heart. He used this mode of correction, saying, I wrote unto you not to keep company with fornicators, yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world, using the word altogether as if it were an acknowledged thing. 
that they might not think that he charged not this upon them, as being rather imperfect, and attempt to do it under the erroneous impression that they were perfect. He shows that this were even impossible to be done, though they wished it ever so much, for it would be necessary to seek another world. Wherefore he added, since he must needs go then out of the world, seest thou that he is no hard master, and that in his legislation he constantly guards not only what may be done, but also what may be easily done. For how is it possible, says he, for a man having care of a house and children and engaged in affairs of the city, or who is an artisan or a soldier, the greater part of mankind being Greeks, to avoid the unclean who are found everywhere? For by the fornicators of the world he means those who are among the Greeks. But now I have written unto you, if any brother be of this kind, with such an one know not to eat. Here also he glances at others who are living in wickedness. But how can one that is a brother be an idolater? As was the case once in regard to the Samaritans, who chose piety but by halves, and besides he is laying down his ground beforehand, for the discourse concerning things offered in sacrifice to idols, which after this he intends to handle, or covetous. For with these also he enters into conflict. Wherefore he said also, Why do ye not rather suffer wrong? Why do ye not endure to be defrauded? Nay, ye do wrong and defraud or a drunkard, for this also he lays to their charge, further on, as when he says, one is hungry, and another is drunken, and meats for the belly, and the belly for meats, or a railer, or an extortioner, for these two he had rebuked before. Next he adds also the reason why he forbids them not to mix with heathens of that character, implying that it is not only impossible, but also superfluous. Verse 12, for what have I to do to judge them that are without? calling the Christians and Greeks, those within, and those without, as also he says elsewhere, he must also have a good report of them that are without. And in the epistle to the Thessalonians he speaks the same language, saying, Have no intercourse with him, that he may be put to shame. And count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Here, however, he does not add the reason. Why? Because in the other case he wished to sue them. But in this not so. For the fault in this case, and in that, was not the same. But in the Thessalonians it was less, for there he is reproving indolence, but here fornication and other most grievous sins. And if any one wished to go over to the Greeks, he hinders not him from eating with such persons. This too for the same reason. So also do we act, for our children and our brethren we leave nothing undone. But of strangers we do not make much account. How then? Did not Paul care for them that are without as well? Yes, he cared for them but it was not till after they had received the gospel, and he had made them subject to the doctrine of Christ, that he laid down laws for them. But so long as they despised, it was superfluous to speak the precepts of Christ to those who knew not Christ himself. Do not ye judge them that are within, but them that are without God judgeth. For since he had said, What have I to do with judging those without? Lest anyone should think that these were left unpunished, there is another tribunal which he sets over them, and that a fearful one. And this he said, both to terrify those and console these, intimating also that this punishment, which is for a season, snatches them away from that which is undying and perpetual, which also he has plainly declared elsewhere, saying, But now being judged, we are chastened, that we should not be condemned with the world. Wherefore, take away from among yourselves that wicked person, he hath mentioned an expression found in the Old Testament, partly hinting that they too will be very great gainers 
in being freed, as it were, from some grievous plague, and partly to show that this kind of thing is no innovation, but even from the beginning, thus it seemed good to the legislator that such as these should be cut off. But in that instance, it was done with more severity, in this with more gentleness, on which account one might reasonably question why in that case he conceded that the sinner should be severely punished and stoned. But in the present instance, not so. Rather, he leads him to repentance. Why then were the lines drawn in the former instance one way and in the latter another way? For these two causes, one because these were being led into a greater trial and needed greater long-suffering, the other and that truer one, because these by their impurity were more easily to be corrected, coming as they might to repentance, but the others were likely to go on to greater wickedness. For if when they saw the first undergoing punishment, they persisted in the same things, had none at all being punished, much more would this have been their feeling. For which reason, in that dispensation, death is immediately inflicted upon the adulterer and the manslayer. But in this, if through repentance they are absolved, they have escaped the punishment. However, both here one may see some instances of heavier punishment, and in the Old Testament some less severe, in order that it may be signified in every way, that the covenants are akin to each other, and of one and the same lawgiver. And you may see the punishment following immediately both in that covenant and in this, and in both often after a long interval, nay, and oftentimes not even after a long interval, repentance alone being taken as satisfaction by the Almighty. Thus, on the one hand, in the Old Testament, David, who had committed adultery and murder, was saved by means of repentance. And in the new, Ananias, who withdrew but a small portion of the price of the land, perished together with his wife. Now, if these instances are more frequent in the Old Testament and those of the contrary kind in the new, the difference of the persons produces the difference in the economy adapted in such matters. Chapter 6, verse 1. Dare any of you, having a matter against his brother, go to law before the unjust, and not before the saints. Here also he again makes his complaint upon acknowledged grounds, for in that other place he says, It is reported commonly that there is fornication among you, and in this place dare any one of you, from the very first outset, giving signs of his anger, and implying that the thing is spoken of comes from a daring and lawless spirit. Now wherefore did he bring in, by the way of that discourse, about covetousness and about the duty of not going to law without the church, in fulfillment of his own rule, for it is a custom with him to set to right things as they fall in his way, just as when speaking about the tables which they used in common, he launched out into the discourse about the mysteries. So here, you see, since he had made mention of covetous brethren, burning with anxiety to correct those in sin, he brooks not exactly to observe order, but he again corrects the sin which had been introduced out of the regular course, and so returns to the former subject. Let us hear, then, what he also says about this. Dare any of you, having a matter with his brother, go to law before the unjust, and not before the saints. For a while he employs those personal terms to expose, discredit, and blame their proceedings. Nor does he quite from the beginning subvert the custom of seeking judgment before the believers. But when he had stricken them down by many words, then he even takes away entirely all going to law. For in the first place, he says, if one must go to law, it were wrong to do so before the unjust. But you ought not to go to law at all. This, however, he adds afterwards. For the present, he thoroughly sifts the former subject, 
namely that they should not submit matters to external arbitration. For, says he, how can it be otherwise than absurd that one who is at variance with his friend should take his enemy to be a reconciler between them? And how can you avoid feeling shame and blushing when a Greek sits to judge a Christian? And if about private matters it is not right to go to law before Greeks, how shall we submit to their decisions about other things of greater importance? Observe, moreover, how he speaks. He says not before the unbelievers, but before the unjust, using the expression of which he had most particular need for the matter before him, in order to deter and keep them away, foreseeing that his discourse was about going to law, and those who are engaged in suits seek for nothing so much as that the judges should feel great interest about what is just. He takes this as a ground of dissuasion, all but saying, Where are you going? What are you doing, O man, bringing on yourself the contrary of what you wish, and in order to obtain justice, committing yourself to unjust men? And because it would have been intolerable to be told at once not to go to law, he did not immediately add this, but only changed the judges, bringing the party engaged in the trial from without into the church. Then since it seemed easily open to contempt, I mean are being judged by those who were within, and especially at that time, for they were not, perhaps, competent to comprehend a point, nor were they such as the heathen judges, well-skilled in laws and rhetoric, inasmuch as the greater part of them were uneducated men. Mark how he makes them worthy of credit, first calling them saints. But seeing that this bore witness to purity of life, and not to accuracy in receiving instruction, observe how he orderly handles this part also, saying thus, Do ye not know that the saints shall judge the world? How then canst thou, who art in that day to judge them, endure to be judged by them now? They will not indeed judge, taking their seat in person and demanding account. Yet they shall condemn. This at least he plainly said, And if the world is judged in you, are ye unworthy to judge the smallest matters? He says not by you, but in you. Just as when he said, The queen of the south shall rise up and condemn this generation and the men of Nineveh shall arise and shall condemn this generation. For when, beholding the same sun, and sharing all the same things, we shall be found believers, but they unbelievers, they will not be able to take refuge in ignorance. For we shall accuse them, simply by the things which we have done, and many such ways of judgment will one find there. Then, that no one should think he speaks about other persons, mark how he generalizes his speech. And if the world is judged by you, are ye unworthy to judge the smallest matters? The thing is a disgrace to you, he says, and an unspeakable reproach. For since it was likely that they would be out of countenance at being judged by those that were within, nay, saith he, on the contrary, the disgrace is when you are judged by those without. For those are the very small controversies, not these. Verse 3. Know ye not that we shall judge angels? How much more than the things which pertain to this life? Some say that here the priests are darkly spoken of, but away with this. His speech is about demons, for had he been speaking about corrupt priests, he would have meant them above, when he said, The world is judged in you. For the scripture is wont to call evil men also the world. And he would not have said the same thing twice, nor would he, as if he was saying something of greater consequence, have put it down afterwards. But he speaks concerning those angels about whom Christ saith, Go ye into the fire which is prepared for the devil and his angels. And Paul, his angels are transformed as ministers of righteousness. For when the very incorporeal powers shall be found inferior to us, who are clothed with flesh, 
they shall suffer heavier punishment. But if some should still contend that he speaks of priests, what sort of priests, let us ask, those whose walk in life has been worldly, of course. In what sense, then, does he say, we shall judge angels, much more things that relate to this life? He mentions the angels in contradistinction to things relating to this life. Likely enough, for they are removed from the need of these things, because of the superior excellence of their nature. Verse 4. If, then, ye have judgments of things pertaining to this life, set them to judge who are least esteemed in the church wishing to instruct us as forcibly as possible, that they ought not to commit themselves to those without, whatsoever the matter might chance to be. Having raised what seemed to be an objection, he answers it in the first instance. For what he says is something like this. Perhaps someone will say, No one among you is wise, nor competent to pass sentence. All are contemptible. Now what follows? Even though none be wise, says he, I bid you entrust things to those who are of least weight. Verse 5. But this I speak to your shame. These are the words of one exposing their objection as being an idle pretext. And therefore he adds, Is it not so that there is not a wise man among you? No, not even one. Is the scarcity, says he, so great, so great the want of sensible persons among you? And what he subjoins strikes even still harder. For having said, It is so that there is not a wise man among you, not even one, he adds, who shall be able to judge in the case of his brother? For when brother goes to law with brother, there is never any need of understanding and talent in the person who is meditating in the cause, the feeling, and relationship contributing greatly to the settlement of such a quarrel. But brother goes to law with brother, and that before the unbelievers. Do you observe with what effect he disparaged the judges, at first by calling them unjust, whereas here, to move shame, he calls them unbelievers? For surely it is extremely disgraceful if the priest could not be the author of reconciliation, even among brethren. But recourse must be had to those without. So that when he said, those who are least esteemed, his chief meaning was not, the church's outcasts should be appointed as judges, but to find fault with them. For that it was proper to make reference to those who were able to decide, he has shown by saying, is it so that there is not a wise man among you, not even one? And with great impressiveness he stops their mouths and says, even though there were not a single wise man, the hearing ought to have been left to you who are unwise, rather than those without should judge. For what else can it be than absurd, that whereas on a quarrel arising in a house, we call in no one from without, and feel ashamed if news get abroad among strangers, of what is going on within doors, where the church is, the treasure of the unutterable mysteries. There all things should be published without. Verse 6. But brother goeth the law with brother, and this before the unbelievers. The charge is twofold, both that he goeth the law and before the unbelievers. For if even the thing by itself, to go to law with the brother, be a fault, to do it also before aliens, what pardon does it admit of? Verse 7. Now therefore, there is altogether a fault among you, that ye go to law one with another. Do you see for what place he reserved this point, and how he has cleared the discussion of it in good time? For I talk not yet, saith he, which injures or which is injured. Thus far, the act itself of going to law brings each party under his censure, and in that respect one is not at all better than another. But whether one go to law justly or unjustly, that is quite another subject. 
say not then, which did the wrong, for on this ground I at once condemn thee, even for the act of going to law. Now if being unable to bear a wrongdoer be a fault, what accusation can come up to the actual wrong? Why do ye not rather take wrong? Why do ye not rather suffer yourselves to be defrauded? Verse 8. Nay, ye do wrong and defraud, and that your brethren. Again, it is a twofold crime, perhaps even threefold or fourfold. One, not to know how to bear being wronged. Another, actually to do wrong. A third, to commit the settlement of these matters, even unto the unjust. And yet a fourth, that it should be so done to a brother. For men's offenses are not judged by the same rule, when they are committed against any chance person, and towards one's own member. For it must be a greater degree of stubbornness to make men venture upon that. In the other case, the nature of the thing is alone trampled on, but in this, the quality of the person also. Having thus, you see, abashed them from arguments on general principles, before that, from the rewards proposed, he shuts up the exhortation with a threat, making his speech more preemptory, and saying, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor adulterers, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor covetous, nor thieves, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. What sayest thou when discoursing about covetous persons? Have you brought in upon us so vast a crowd of lawless men? Yes, says he, but in doing this, I am not confusing my discourse, but going on in most regular order. For as when discoursing about the unclean, he made mention of all together, so again, on mentioning the covetous, he brings forward all, thus making his rebukes familiar to those who have such things on their conscience. For as often as mention is made of others, to hear continually of the punishment laid up for them, makes the reproof easy to be received, when it comes into conflict with their own sins. And so in the present instance he utters his threat, not at all as being conscious of their doing such things, nor as calling them to account, a thing which has special force to keep hold of the hearer, and to keep him from starting off, namely the discourse having no respect unto him, and being spoken indefinitely, and so wounding his conscience secretly. Be not deceived. Here he glances at certain who maintained what indeed most men assert now, that God is loving and good to man, and takes not vengeance upon our misdeeds. Let us not then be afraid, for never will he exact justice of any one for anything. And it is on account of these that he says, Be not deceived for it belongs to the extreme of error and delusion. After depending on good to meet with the contrary, and to surmise such things about God, as even a man no one would think of, wherefore saith the prophet in his person, Thou hast conceived iniquity, that I shall be like unto thee. I will reprove thee, and set before thy face thine iniquities. And Paul here, be not deceived, neither fornicators, he puts the one that was already condemned, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor drunkards, nor revilers shall inherit the kingdom of God. Many have laid hold of this place as extremely severe, since he places the drunkard and the reviler with the adulterer and the abominable and the abuser of himself with mankind. And yet the offenses are not equal. How then is the award of punishment the same? What shall we say then? First, that drunkenness is no small thing, nor reviling, seeing that Christ himself delivered over to hell him that called his brother fool and often that sin has brought forth death. Again, the Jewish people too committed the greatest of their sins through drunkenness. In the next place, it is not of punishment 
that he is so far discoursing, but of falling away from the kingdom. Now from the kingdom, both the one and the other are equally thrust out. But whether in hell they will find any difference, it belongs not to this present occasion to inquire, for that subject is not within our purpose just now. Verse 11. And such were some of you, but ye are washed, but ye are sanctified. In a way, to abash them exceedingly, he adds this, as if he said, Consider from what evils God hath delivered you, how great an experiment and demonstration of loving kindness he hath afforded you. He hath not limited his redemption to mere deliverance, but hath greatly extended the benefit, for he also hath made thee clean. Was this then all? Nay, but he hath also sanctified nor even is this all. He hath also justified, yet even bare deliverance from our sins were a great gift. But now he hath filled thee also with countless blessings. And this he hath done in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, not in this name or in that, yea, also in the Spirit of our God. Knowing therefore these things, beloved, and bearing in mind the greatness of the blessing which hath been wrought, let us both continue to live soberly, being pure from all things, that have been enumerated, and let us avoid the tribunals which are in the forums of the Gentiles, and the noble birth which God hath freely given us. The same let us preserve to the end. For think how full of shame it is that a Greek should take his seat and deal out justice to thee. But you will say, what if he that is within judge contrary to the law? Why should he? Tell me. For I would know by what kind of laws the Greek administers justice, and by what the Christian. Is it not quite plain that the laws of men are the rule of the Greek, but those of the church of the Christian? Surely then, with the latter, there is greater chance of justice, seeing that these laws are even sent from heaven. For in regard to those without, besides what has been said, there are many other things also to suspect, talent in speakers, and corruption in magistrates, and many other things which are the ruin of justice. But with us, nothing of this sort. What then, you will say, if the adversary be one in high place? Well, for this reason, more than all, one ought to go to law in Christian courts. For in the courts without, he will get the better of you at all events. But what if he acquiesce not, but both despise those within, and forcibly drag the cause out? Better were it to submit willingly to what you are likely to endure by compulsion, and not go to law, that thou mayest have also a reward, for if any one will go to law with thee, and take away thy coat, thou shalt let him have thy cloak also, and agree with thine adversary quickly, whilst thou art in the way with him. And why need I speak of our rules? For even the pleaders in the heathen courts very often tell us this, saying, It were better to make up matters out of court. But, O oh wealth, or rather, O oh, the absurd love of wealth, it subverts all things and casts them down. And all things are to the many an idle tale and fables because of money. Now that those who give trouble to courts of law should be worldly men is no marvel, but that many of those who have bid farewell to the world should do the very same, this is a thing from which all pardon is cut off. For if you chose to see how far you should keep from this sort of need, I mean that of the tribunals, by the rule of Scripture, and to learn for whom the laws are appointed, Hear what Paul saith, For a righteous man a law is not made, but for the lawless and insubordinate. And if he saith these things about the Mosaic law, much more about the laws of the heathen. Now then, if you commit injustice, it is plain that you cannot be just. 
but if you are injured and bear it, for this is a special mark of a just man, you have no need of the laws which are without. How then, say you, shall I be able to bear it when injured? And yet Christ hath commanded something even more than this. For not only hath he commanded you when injured to bear it, but even to give abundantly more to the wrongdoer, and in your zeal for suffering ill, to surpass his eagerness for doing it. For he said not to him that will sue thee at law, and take away thy coat, give thy coat, but together with that give also thy cloak. For I bid you overcome him, saith he, by suffering, not by doing evil. For this is the certain and splendid victory. Wherefore also Paul goes on to say, Now then, it is altogether a discomfiture to you, that ye have judgments one with another, and wherefore do ye not suffer the wrong? For that the injured person overcomes, rather than he who cannot endure being injured. This I will make evident to you. He that cannot endure injury, though he force the other into court, though he gain the verdict, yet is he then most of all defeated, for that which he would not he hath suffered, and that the adversary hath compelled him both to feel pain and to incur a lawsuit. For what is it to the point that you have prevailed, and what that you have recovered all the money? You have in the meanwhile borne what you did not desire, having been compelled to decide the matter by law. But if you endured the injustice, you overcome, deprived indeed of the money, but not at all of the victory which is annexed to such self-command. For the other had no power to oblige you to do what you did not like, and to show that this is true, tell me which conquered, the envious one or he who lay upon the dunghill, which was defeated, Job who was stripped of all, or the devil who stripped him of all, evidently the devil who stripped him of all. Whom do we admire for the victory, the devil that smote, or Job that was stricken? Clearly Job, and yet he could not retain his perishing wealth, nor save his children. Why speak I of riches and children? He could not ensure to himself bodily health. Yet nevertheless, this is the conqueror. He that lost all that he had, his riches indeed he could not keep, but his piety he kept with all strictness. But his children, when perishing, he could not help. And what then? Since what happened both made them more glorious, and besides, this was the mean, whereby he protected himself against the despiteful usage. Now had he not suffered ill and been wronged of the devil, he would not have gained that signal victory. Had it been an evil thing to suffer wrong, God would not have enjoined it upon us. For God enjoineth not evil things. What know ye not that he is the God of glory? That it could not be his will to encompass us with shame and ridicule and loss, but to introduce us to the contrary of these. Therefore he commands us to suffer wrong, and doth all to withdraw us from worldly things, and to convince us what is glory, and what shame, what loss, and what gain. But it is hard to suffer wrong, and be spitefully entreated. Nay, O man, it is not, it is not hard. How long will thy heart be fluttering about things present? For God, you may be sure, would not have commanded this, had it been hard. Just consider, the wrongdoer goes his way with the money, but with an evil conscience beside. The receiver of the wrong, defrauded indeed of some money, but enriched with confidence towards God, an acquisition more valuable than countless treasures. Knowing these things, therefore, let us of our free choice go on strict principles and not be like the unwise, who think that 
they are then not wronged, when their suffering wrong is the result of a trial, but quite the contrary. That is the greatest harm, and so in every case when we exercise self-restraint in these matters, not willingly, but after being worsted in that other quarter, for it is no advantage that a man defeated in a trial endures it, for it becomes thenceforth a matter of necessity. What then is the splendid victory? When thou lookest down on it, when thou refusest to go to law, how say you, have I been stripped of everything, saith one, and do you bid me keep silent? Have I been shamefully used, and do you exhort me to bear it meekly? And how shall I be able? Nay, but it is most easy if thou wilt look up unto heaven, if thou wilt behold the beauty that is in sight, and whither God hath promised to receive thee, if thou bear wrong nobly. Do this then, and looking up unto the heaven, think that thou art made like unto him that sitteth there upon the cherubim. For he also was injured, and he bore it. He was reproached and avenged not himself, and was spit upon, yet he asserted not his cause. Nay, he made return, in the contrary kind, to those who did such things, even in benefits without number, and he hath commanded us to be imitators of him. Consider that thou camest naked out of thy mother's womb, and that naked both thou and he that hath done thee wrong shall depart. Rather he for his part, with innumerable wounds, breeding worms. Consider that things present are but for a season. Count over the tombs of thine ancestors. Acquaint thyself accurately with past events, and thou shalt see that the wrongdoer hath made thee stronger. For his own affection he hath aggravated, his covetousness, I mean, but yours he hath alleviated, taking away the food of the beast, and besides all this he has set you free from cares, agony, envy of informers, trouble, worry, perpetual fear, and the foul mass of evils he hath heaped upon his own head. What then, saith one, if I have to struggle with hunger? Thou endurest this with Paul, who saith, Even at this present hour we both hunger and thirst and are naked. But he did it, you will say, for God's sake. Do thou it also for God's sake, for when thou obtainest from avenging, thou dost so for God's sake. But he that wronged me takes his pleasure with the wealthy, yea, rather with the devil. But be you crowned together with Paul. Therefore fear not hunger, for the Lord will not kill with hunger the souls of the righteous. And again another saith, Cast upon the Lord thy care, and he will nourish thee. For if the sparrows of the field are nourished by him, how shall he not nourish thee? Now let us not be of little faith, nor of little soul, O my beloved. For he who hath promised the kingdom of heaven and such great blessings, how shall he not give things present? Let us not covet superfluous things, but let us keep to sufficiency, and we shall always be rich. Let shelter be what we seek and food, and we shall obtain all things, both there and such as are far greater. But if you are still grieving and bowing yourself down, I should like to show you the soul of the wrongdoer after his victory, how it is become ashes, for truly sin is that kind of thing. While it is being committed, it affords a certain pleasure, but when it is finished, then the trifling pleasure is gone. One knows not how, and in its place comes dejection, and this is our feeling when we do hurt to any. Afterwards, at any rate, we condemn ourselves. So also, when we overreach, we have pleasure, but afterwards we are stung by conscience. Seest thou in any one's possession some poor man's house? Weep not for him that is spoiled, but for the spoiler. 
for he has not inflicted, but sustained an evil. For he hath robbed the other of things present, but himself he hath cast out of the blessings which cannot be uttered. For if he who giveth not to the poor shall go away into hell, what shall he suffer who takes the goods of the poor? Yet saith one, Where is the gain if I suffer ill? Indeed the gain is great, for not of the punishment of him that hath done thee harm doth God frame a compensation for thee, since that would be no great thing. For what great good is it if I suffer ill and he suffer ill? And yet I know of many who consider this the greatest comfort, and who think they have got all back again, when they see those who had insulted him undergoing punishment. But God doth not limit his recompense to these. Wouldst thou then desire to know in earnest how great are the blessings which await thee? He openeth for thee the whole heaven. He maketh thee a fellow citizen with the saints. He fits thee to bear a part in their choir. From sins he absolveth. With righteousness he crowneth. For if such as forgive offenders shall obtain forgiveness, those who not only forgive, but who also give largely to boot, what blessings shall they not inherit? Therefore bear it not with a poor spirit, but even pray for him that injured thee. It is for thyself that thou doest this. Hath he taken thy money? Well, he took thy sins too, which was the case with Naaman and Gehazi. How much wealth wouldst thou not give, to have thine iniquities forgiven thee? This, believe me, is the case now. For if thou endure nobly and curse not, thou hast bound on thee a glorious crown. It is not my word, but thou hast heard Christ speaking. Pray for those that despitefully use you, and consider the reward how great, that ye may be like your Father which is in the heavens. So then you have been deprived of nothing, yea, you have been a gainer, you have received no wrong, rather you have been crowned, and that you are become better disciplined in soul, and made like to God, are set free from the care of money, are made possessor of the kingdom of heaven. All these things, therefore, taking into account, let us restrain ourselves in injuries, beloved, in order that we may both be freed from the tumult of this present life, and cast out all unprofitable sadness of spirit, and may obtain the joy to come, through the grace and loving kindness of our Lord Jesus Christ, with whom to the Father and the Holy Spirit be glory, power, honor, now, henceforth, and forever and ever. Amen. Homily 17, 1 Corinthians 6, 12 All things are lawful for me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought into the power of any. Here he glances at the gluttons, for since he intends to assail the fornicator again, and fornication arises from delicacy and want of moderation, he strongly chastises this passion. It cannot be that he speaks thus with regard to things forbidden, such not being lawful, but he speaks of things which seem to be indifferent. To illustrate my meaning, it is lawful, he says, to eat and to drink, but it is not expedient with excess. And so that marvelous and unexpected turn of his, which he is often wont to adapt, bringing his clear argument round to its contrary. This he manages to introduce here also, and he signifies that to do what is in one's power not only is not expedient, but even is not a part of power, but of slavery. And first he dissuades them on the ground of the inexpediency of the thing, saying, they are not expedient. In the next place, on that of its contrary to itself, saying, I will not be brought under the power of any. This is his meaning. You are at liberty to eat, says he. Well then, remain in liberty, 
and take heed that you do not become a slave to this appetite. For he who uses it properly, he is master of it, but he that exceeds the proper measure is no longer its master, but its slave, since gluttony reigns paramount within him. Do you perceive how, where the man thought he had authority, Paul points out that he is under authority, for this is his custom, as I was saying before, to give all objections a turn the contrary way. It is just this which he has done here, for Mark each of them was saying, I have power to live delicately. He replies, in doing so, thou art not so much acting as one who had power over a thing, but rather as being thyself subject to some such power. For thou hast not power even over thine own belly, so long as thou art dissolute. But it hath power over thee, and the same we may say of riches also, and of all other things. Verse 13. Meats for the belly. By the belly here he means not the stomach, but the stomach's voraciousness. As when he says, whose God is their belly, not speaking about that part of the body, but about greediness. To prove that so it is, hear what follows, and the belly for meats, but the body is not for fornication, but for the Lord. And yet the belly also is of the body, but he puts down two pairs of things, meats and gluttony, which he terms the belly, Christ and the body. What then is the meaning of meats for the belly? Meats, he says, are on good terms with gluttony, and it with them. It cannot therefore lead us unto Christ, but drags toward these. For it is a strong and brutal passion, and makes us slaves, and puts us upon ministering to the belly. Why then art thou excited and gaping after food, O man? For the end of that service is this, and nothing further shall be seen of it. But as one waiting on some mistress, it abides keeping up the slavery, and advances no further, and has no other employment but this same fruitless one. And the two are connected together and destroyed together. The belly with the meats, and the meats with the belly, winding out a sort of interminable course. Just as from a corrupt body worms may be produced, and again by worms the body consumed, or as it were a wave swollen high and breaking, having no further effect. But these things, he says, not concerning food in the body, but it is the passion of greediness and excess in eatables which he is censuring, and what follows shows it, for he proceeds, but God will destroy both it and them, speaking not of the stomach, but of immoderate desire, not of food, but of high feeding, for with the former he is not angry, but even lays down rules about them, saying, having food and raiment, let us be therewith content. However, thus he stigmatizes the whole thing, its amendments after advice is giving, being left by him to prayer. But some say that the words are a prophecy, declaring the state which shall be in the life to come, and that there shall not be any eating or drinking. Now if that which is moderate shall have an end, much more ought we to abstain from excess. Then, lest anyone should suppose that the body is the object of his censure, and suspect that from a part he is blaming the whole, and say that the nature of the body was the cause of fornication, hear what follows. I blame not, he says, the nature of the body, but the immoderate license of mind. And therefore he subjoins, Now the body is not for fornication, but for the Lord. For it was not formed for this purpose, to live licentiously and commit fornication, as neither was the belly to be greedy, but that it might follow Christ as a head, and that the Lord might be set over the body. Let us be overcome with shame. Let us be horror-struck. 
that after we have been counted worthy of such great honor as to become members of him that sitteth on high, we defile ourselves with so great evils. Having now sufficiently condemned the gluttons, he uses also the hope of things to come to divert us from this wickedness, saying, verse 14, But God hath both raised up the Lord, and will raise up us also by his own power. Do you perceive again his apostolic wisdom? For he is always establishing the credibility of the resurrection from Christ, and especially now. For if our body be a member of Christ, and Christ be risen, the body also shall surely follow the head, through his own power. For since he had asserted a thing disbelieved, and not to be apprehended by reasoning, he hath left entirely to his incomprehensible power the circumstances of Christ's own resurrection, producing this too as no small demonstration against them. And concerning the resurrection of Christ, he did not insert this, for neither did he say, But God shall also raise up the Lord, for the thing was past and gone, but how? But God hath both raised up the Lord, nor was there need of any proof. But concerning our resurrection, since it has not yet come to pass, he spoke not thus, but how? And will raise up us also by his own power. By the reliance to be placed on the power of the worker, he stops the mouths of the gainsayers. Further, if he ascribe unto the Father the resurrection of Christ, let not this at all disturb thee. For not as though Christ were powerless, hath he put this down. For he it is himself who saith, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And again, I have power to lay down my life, and I have power to take it again. And Luke also in Acts says, To whom also he showed himself alive. Wherefore then does Paul so speak? Because both the acts of the Son are imputed unto the Father, and the Father unto the Son. For he saith, Whatsoever things he doeth, these also doeth the Son likewise. And very opportunely hath he here made mention of the resurrection, keeping down by those hopes the tyranny of gluttonous desire, and all but saying, Thou hast eaten, hast drunk to excess, and what is the result? Nothing save only destruction. Thou hast been conjoined unto Christ, and what is the result? A great and marvelous thing, the future resurrection, that glorious one, and transcending all utterance. Let no one therefore go on disbelieving the resurrection. But if a man disbelieve, let him think how many things he made from nothing, and admit it as a proof also of the other. For the things which are already past are stranger by far, and fraught with overpowering wonder. Just consider, he took earth and mixed it and made man, earth which existed not before this. How then did the earth become man, and how was it produced from nothing, and how all the things that were made from it, the endless sorts of irrational creatures, of seeds, of plants, no pangs of travail, having proceeded in the one case, no rains having come down upon the others, no tillage seen, no oxen, no plow, nor anything else contributing to their production. Why, for this cause, the lifeless and senseless thing was made to put forth in the beginning so many kinds of plants and irrational creatures, in order that from the very first he might instruct thee in the doctrine of the resurrection. For this is more inexplicable than the resurrection. For it is not the same thing to rekindle an extinguished lamp and to show fire that has never yet appeared. It is not the same thing to raise up again a house which has fallen down and to produce one which has never at all had an existence. For in the former case, if nothing else, yet the material was given to work with, but in the latter not even the substance appeared. Wherefore he made first that which seemed to be the more difficult, 
to the end that hereby thou mightest admit that which is the more easy. More difficult, I say, not to God, but as far as our reasonings can follow the subject. For with God nothing is difficult. But the painter who has made one likeness will make ten thousand with ease. So also with God it is easy to make worlds without number and end. Rather, as it is easy for you to conceive a city and worlds without bound, so unto God it is easy to make them, or rather again, it is easier by far than what I said. For thou consumest time, brief it be in thy conception. But God not even this, but as much as stones are heavier than any of the lightest things, yea, even than our minds, so much is our mind surpassed by the rapidity of God's work of creation. Do you marvel at his power on the earth? Think again how the heaven was made, not yet being, how the innumerable stars, how the sun, how the moon, and all these things not yet being. Again, tell me how, after they were made, they stood fast, and upon what? What foundation have they, and what the earth? What comes next to the earth? And again, what after that which came next to the earth? Do you see into what an eddy the eye of your mind is plunged, unless you quickly take refuge in faith and the incomprehensible power of the Maker? But if you choose from human things also to make conjecture, you will be able by degrees to find wings for your understanding. What kind of human things may be asked? Do you not see the potters, how they fashion the vase which had been broken in pieces and become shapeless? Those who fuse the ore from the mind, how the earth in their hands turns out gold or silver or copper? Others again who work in glass, how they transform the sand into one compact and transparent substance? Shall I speak of the dressers of leather, the dyers of purple vestments, and how they make that which had received their tint show as one thing when it had been another. Shall I speak of the generation of our own race? Doth not a small seed at first without form, and without any impress, enter into the womb which receives it? Whence then the so intricate formation of the living creature? What is the wheat? Is it not cast a naked seed into the earth? After it had been cast there, doth it not decay? Whence is the ear, the beard, the stalk, and all the other parts? Doth not often a little grain of a fig fall into the ground, and produce both root and branches and fruit? And dost thou hereupon admit each of these, and make no curious inquiries? And of God alone dost thou demand account, in his work of changing the fashion of our body? And how can such things be pardoned? These things and such like, let us speak to the Greeks. For to those who are obedient to the scriptures, I have no occasion to speak at all. I say, if you intend to pry curiously into all his doings, what shall God have more than men? And yet even of men, there are many about whom we do not so inquire. Much more than ought we to abstain from impertinent inquiry about the wisdom of God and from demanding accounts of it. In the first place, because he is trustworthy who affirmeth. In the second place, because the matter admits not investigation by reasonings. For God is not so abjectly poor as to work such things only, as can be apprehended by the weakness of thy reasonings. And if thou comprehendest not the work of an artisan, much less of God, the best of artificers, disbelieve not then the resurrection, for very far will ye be from the hope of that which is to come. And what is the wise argument of the gainsayers? Rather, I should say, their exceedingly simple one. Why, how, when the body is mixed up with the earth, 
and is become earth, and this again is removed elsewhere, how, say they, shall it rise again? To thee this seems impossible, but not to the unsleeping eye. For unto that all things are clear, and thou in that confusion seest no distinction of parts, but he knows them all, since also the heart of thy neighbor thou knowest not, nor the things in it, but he knoweth all. If then, because of thy not knowing how God raiseth men up, thou believest not that he doth raise them, wilt thou disbelieve that he knoweth also what is in thy mind? For neither is that obvious to view, and yet in the body it is visible matter, though it be dissolved, but those thoughts are invisible. Shall he then, who knoweth with all certainty the invisible things, not see the things which be visible, and easily detached the scattered parts of the body? I suppose this is plain to everyone. Do not then disbelieve the resurrection, for this is a doctrine of the devil. This is what the devil is earnest for. Not only that the resurrection may be disbelieved, but good works also may be done away with. For the man who does not expect that he shall rise again and give an account of the things which he has done will not quickly apply himself to virtue, and from not applying himself to virtue will in turn come to disbelieve the resurrection entirely. For both these are established by each other, vice by unbelief and unbelief by vice. For the conscience filled with many wickednesses, fearing and trembling for the recompense to come, and not willing to provide itself with comfort by changing to what is most excellent, is fain to repose in unbelief. Thus, when thou deniest resurrection and judgment, the other for his part will say, Then shall I also not have to render account of my bold deeds. But what saith Christ? Do ye err, not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God? For God would not have wrought so many things had he not intended to raise it up again, but to dissolve and blot us out in annihilation. He would not have spread out this heaven. He would not have stretched the earth beneath. He would not have made all the rest of the universe, only for this short life. But of all these are for the present, what will he not do for that which is to come? If, on the contrary, there is to be no future life, we are in this respect of far meaner account than the things which have been made for our sakes. For both the heaven and the earth and the sea and the rivers are more lasting than we are, and some even of the brutes. Since the raven and the race of elephants and many other creatures have a longer enjoyment of the present life. To us, moreover, life is short and toilsome, but not to them. Theirs is both long and freer from grief and cares. What then, tell me, hath he made the slaves better than the masters? Do not, I beseech thee, do not reason thus, O man, nor be so poverty-stricken in mind, nor be ignorant of the riches of God, having such a master. For even from the beginning God desired to make thee immortal, but thou wert not willing, since the things also of that time were dark hints of immortality, the converse with God, the absence of unease from life, the freedom from grief and cares and toils, and other things which belong to a temporary existence. For Adam had no need either of a garment or a shelter, or any other provision of this sort, but rather was like to the angels, and many of the things to come he foreknew, and was filled with great wisdom, even what God did in secret. He knew, I mean, with regard to the woman. Wherefore also he said, This is now bone of my bone, and flesh of my flesh. Labor came into being afterwards. So did sweat. So did shame and cowardice and want of confidence. But on that day there was no grief, nor pain, nor lamentation. But he abode not in that dignity. What then saith one am I to do? Must I perish on his account? 
I reply, first, it is not on his account, for neither hast thou remained without sin. Doth it be not the same sin, at least there is some other which thou hast committed. And again, you have not been injured by his punishment, but rather have been a gainer. For if you had been to remain altogether mortal, perchance what is said would have had some reason in it. But now thou art immortal, and if thou wilt, thou mayest shine brighter than the sun itself. But, says one, had I not received a mortal body, I had not sinned. Tell me then, had he a mortal body when he sinned? Surely not. For if it had been mortal before, it would not have undergone death as a punishment afterwards. And that a mortal body is no hindrance to virtue, but that it keeps men in order, and is of the greatest service, is plain from what follows. If the expectation of immortality alone so lifted up Adam, had he been even a mortal in reality, to what a pitch of arrogance would he not have proceeded? And as things are, after sinning, you may do away with your sins, the body being abject, falling away, and subject to dissolution. For these thoughts are sufficient to a sober man. But if you had sinned in an immortal body, your sins were likely to have been more lasting. Mortality, then, is not the cause of sin. Accuse it not. But the wicked will is the root of all the mischief. For why was not Abel at all the worse for his body? Why are the devils not all the better for being incorporeal? Wilt thou hear why the body's becoming mortal, so far from hurting, has been positively useful? Mark how much thou gainest thereby. If thou art sober, it drags thee back and pulls thee off from wickedness by grief and pains and labors, and all other such things, but it tempts men out to uncleanness. Perhaps you will say, not the body, but incontinence, thought this. For all these things which I was mentioning certainly do belong to the body, on which account it is impossible that a man who has entered into this life should escape disease and pain and lowness of spirits, but that he commits no uncleanness is possible. Thus it appears that if the affections of vice were part of the nature of the body, they would be universal, since all things natural are so. But to commit fornication is not so. Pain indeed cometh of nature, but to commit fornication proceeds from deliberate purpose. Blame not the body then. Let not the devil take away thine honor, which God hath given thee. For if we choose, the body is an excellent brittle to curb the wanton sallies of the soul and pull down haughtiness, to repress arrogance, to minister to us in the greatest achievements of virtue. For tell me not of those who have lost their senses, since we often see horses, after they have thrown out their drivers, dashing with their reins over the precipices, and yet we do not blame the rain, for it is not the breaking of that which caused it all, but the driver not holding them, in was the ruin of everything. Just so do thou reason in this case, if thou seest a young person living in orphanhood and doing innumerable evil things, blame not the body, but the charioteer who is dragged on, I mean the man's faculty of reasoning, for as the reins give no trouble to the charioteer, but the charioteer is the cause of all the mischief through his not holding them properly, and therefore do they often exact a penalty of him, entangling themselves about him, and dragging him on, and compelling him to partake in their own mishap. So it is also in the case before us. I say the reins, keep in the horse's mouth as long as you held me, but since you threw me away, I require for satisfaction your contempt, and I intertwine myself about you, and drag you along, so as not to incur the same usage again. Let no one then blame the reins, but himself and his own corrupt mind. For over us too is a charioteer, even reason, 
and the reins are the body, connecting the horses with the charioteer. If then these be in good condition, you will suffer no harm. But if you let them go, you have annihilated and ruined everything. Let us be temperate then, and lay all blame, not on the body, but on the evil mind. For this is the devil's special work, to make foolish men accuse the body, and God and their neighbor, rather than their own perverted minds. Lest, having discovered the cause, they get free from the root of the evils. But do ye, being aware of his design, direct your wrath against him, and having set the charioteer upon the car, bend the eye of your minds towards God. For in all other instances, he that appoints the games contributes nothing, but only awaits the end. But in this case, he is all in all, who appointed the contest, even God. Him, therefore, let us render propitious, and surely we shall obtain the blessing in store, through the grace and loving kindness of our Lord Jesus Christ, to whom with the Father and the Holy Spirit be glory, power, honor, now henceforth and forevermore. Amen. Homily 18, 1 Corinthians 6.15 Know ye not that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them the members of an harlot? God forbid. Having passed on from the fornicator to the covetous person, he comes back to the former from the latter, no longer henceforth discoursing with him, but with the others who had not committed fornication. And in the act of securing them, lest they fall into the same sins, he assails them again. For he that has committed sin, though you direct your words to another, is stung even in that way, his conscience being thoroughly awakened and scourging him. Now the fear of punishment, indeed, was enough to keep them in chastity. But seeing that he does not wish by fear alone to set these matters right, he also adds threatenings and reasonings. Now upon that other occasion, having stated the sin and prescribed the punishment, and pointed out the harm which intercourse with the fornicator brought upon all, he left off and passed to the subject of covetousness. And having threatened the covetous and all the rest whom he numbered with expulsion from the kingdom, he so concluded his discourse. But here he takes in hand the work of admonition in yet a more terrific manner. For as he that only punishes a sin and does nothing to point out its most extreme lawlessness produces no great effect by his chastisement, so again he who only abashes and fails to terrify by his mode of punishing does not very keenly hit men of hardened minds. Wherefore does Paul both? Here he abashes, saying, Know ye not that we shall judge angels? There again he terrifies, saying, Know ye not that the covetous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? And in regard to the fornicator, he again uses this order of discourse, for having terrified him by what he had said before, first cutting him off and delivering him to Satan, and then reminding him of that day which is coming, he abashes him again by saying, Know ye not that your bodies are members of Christ? Thenceforth speaking as to children of noble birth. For whereas he had said, Now the body is for the Lord, he indicates it more plainly now. And in another place as well, he does this same thing, saying, Now ye are the body of Christ, and members in particular. And the same figure he often employs, not on the same subjects, but at one time to show his love, and at another to increase their fear. But here he has employed it to startle and fill them with alarm. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them the members of an harlot? God forbid. Nothing can be apter to strike horror than this expression. He said not, Shall I take the members of Christ and join them on to a harlot? But what? Make them the members of an harlot, which surely should strike more keenly. Then he makes out how the fornicator becomes this, saying thus, 
know ye not that he that is joined unto an harlot is one body how is this evident for two saith he shall be one flesh verse seventeen but he that is joined unto the lord is one spirit for the conjunction suffers the two no longer to be two but makes them both one now mark again how he proceeds by means of the bare general terms conducting his accusation in the names of the harlot and of christ verse eighteen flee fornication he said not abstain from fornication but flee that is with all zeal make to yourselves deliverance from that evil every sin which a man committeth is without the body but he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body this is less than what before but since he had to speak of fornicators he amplifies that guilt by topics drawn from all quarters from greater things and smaller alike making it the charge heinous and in fact that former topic was addressed to the more religious but this to the weaker sort for this also is characteristic of the wisdom of paul not only to allege the great things wherewith to abash men but the lesser also and the consideration of what is disgraceful and unseemly what then say you does not the murderer stain his hand what of the covetous person and the extortioner i suppose it is plain to every one but since it was not possible to mention anything worse than the fornicator he amplifies the crime in another way by saying that in the fornicator the entire body becomes defiled for it is as polluted as if it had fallen into a vessel of filth and been immersed in defilement and this too is our way for from covetous and extortion no one would make haste to go into a bath as if nothing had happened returns to his house whereas from intercourse with an harlot as having become altogether unclean he goes to a bath to such a degree does the conscience retain from this sin a kind of sense of unusual shame both however are bad both covetousness and fornication and both cast into hell but as paul doeth everything with good management so by whatever topics he had he magnified the sin of fornication verse nineteen know ye not that your body is the temple of the holy ghost which is within you he did not merely say of the spirit but which is in you which was the part of one who also was soothing and again explaining himself still further he added which ye have from god he hath mentioned him that give also both exalting the hearer and putting him in fear both by the magnitude of the deposit and by the loving desire of him that has made it and ye are not your own this is not only to abash but even to force men toward virtue for what says he dost thou what thou wilt thou art not thine own master but these things he said not to take away free will for so in saying all things are lawful for me but all things are not expedient he does not take away our liberty and here again writing ye are not your own he makes no infringement upon freedom of choice but he leads away from vice and indicates the guardian care of the lord and therefore he added for ye are bought with a price but if i am not my own upon what ground do you demand of me duties to be done and why do you go on to say again glorify therefore god in your body and in your spirit which are god's what then is the meaning of ye are not your own and what does he wish to prove thereby to settle them in a state of security against sin and against following the extravagant desires of the mind for indeed we have many extravagant wishes but we must repress them for we can and if we could not exhortation would be in vain mark accordingly how he secures his ground for having said ye are not your own he adds not but are under compulsion but ye are bought with a price 
Why sayest thou this? Surely on another ground, one might say perhaps, you should have persuaded men, pointing out that we have a master. But this is common to the Greeks, also together with us. Whereas the expression, ye are bought with a price, belongs to us peculiarly. For he reminds us of the greatness of the benefit and of the mode of our salvation, signifying that when we were alienated, we were bought, and not simply bought, but with a price. Glorify, then, take up and bear, God in your body and in your spirit. Now these things, he says, that we may not only flee fornication in the body, but also in the spirit of our mind, abstain from every wicked thought and from driving away grace, which are God's. For as he had said your, he added therefore, which are God's, continually reminding us that all things belong to the Lord, both body and soul and spirit. For some say that the words in the spirit mean the gracious gift. For if that be in us, God is glorified. And this will be if we have a clean heart. But he has spoken of these things as God's, not only because he brought them into being, but also because when they were alienated, he won them again a second time, paying as the price the blood of the Son. Mark how he has brought the whole to completion in Christ, how he hath raised us up into heaven. Ye are members of Christ, saith he, ye are the temple of the Spirit. Become not then members of an harlot. For it is not your body which is insulted, since it is not your body at all, but Christ's. And these things he spake, both to make manifest his loving kindness, in that our body is his, and to withdraw us from all evil license. For if the body be another's, you have no authority, says he, to insult another's body, and especially when it is the Lord's, nor yet to pollute the temple of the Spirit. For if any one who invades a private house and makes his way reveling into it, must answer for it most severely, think what dreadful things he shall endure who makes the temple of the king a robber's lurking place. Considering these things, therefore, reverence thou him that dwelleth within. For the paraclete is he. Thrill before him that is enfolded and cleaves unto thee. For Christ is he. Hast thou indeed made thyself members of Christ? Think thus and continue chaste, whose members they were and whose they have become. Erewhile they were members of an harlot, and Christ hath made them members of his own body. Thou hast therefore henceforth no authority over them. Serve him that hath set thee free. For supposing you had a daughter, and in extreme madness had let her out to a procurer for hire, and made her live a harlot's life, and then a king's son were to pass by, and free her from that slavery, and join her in marriage to himself, you could have no power thenceforth to bring her into the brothel, for you have given her up once for all and sold her. Such as this is our case also. We let our own flesh for hire unto the devil, that grievous procurer. Christ saw and set it free, and withdrew it from that evil tyranny. It is not then ours any more, but his who delivered it. If you be willing to use it as a king's bride, there is none to hinder. But if you bring it where it was before, you will suffer just what they ought, who are guilty of such outrages. Wherefore, you should rather adorn instead of disgracing it, for you have no authority over the flesh in the wicked lust, but in those things alone which God may enjoin. Let the thought enter your mind at least from what great outrage God hath delivered it. For in truth never did any harlot expose herself so shamefully as our nature before this. For robberies, murders, and every wicked thought entered in and lay with the soul, and for a small and vulgar hire, the present pleasure. For the soul being mixed up with all wicked devices and deeds, 
reaped this reward and no other. However, in the time before this, bad though it were to be such as these, it was not so bad. But after heaven, after the king's courts, after partaking of the tremendous mysteries, again to be contaminated, what pardon shall this have? Or dost thou not think that the covetous too, and all those whom he recounted before, have the devil to lie with them? And dost thou not judge that the women who beautify themselves for pollution have intercourse with him? Why, who shall gainsay this world? But if any be contentious, let him uncover the soul of the women who behave in this unseemly manner, and he will surely see that wicked demon closely entwined with him. For it is hard, brethren, it is hard, perchance, even impossible, when the body is thus beautified, for the soul to be beautified at the same time. But it must needs be that the one must needs be neglected while the other is cared for. For it is not natural that these should take place together. Wherefore he saith, He that is joined to an harlot is one body, but he that is joined to the Lord is one spirit. For such in one becomes henceforth spirit, although the body envelop him. For when nothing corporeal, nor gross, nor earthly is around him, the body doth but merely envelop him. When the whole government of him is in the soul and the spirit, in this way God is glorified. Wherefore, both in the prayer we are commanded to say, Hallowed be thy name. And Christ saith also, Let your light shine before men, that they may see your good works, and glorify your Father which is in heaven. So do the heavens also glorify him, uttering no voice, but by the view of them attracting wonder, and referring the glory unto the great artificer. So let us glorify him also, or rather more than they. For we can if we will. For not so much do the heaven nor the day, nor night glorify God as a holy soul. For as one that gazeth upon the beauty of the heaven saith, Glory be to thee, O God, how fair a work hast thou formed. So too, when beholding virtue in any man, nay, and much more so in the latter instance, for from those works of creation all do not glorify God. But many even assert that the things which exist are self-moving, and others impute to demons the workmanship of the world and providence. And these indeed greatly and unpardonably err, but in regard to the virtue of man, no one shall have power to hold these shameless opinions, but shall assuredly glorify God, when he seeth him that serveth him living in goodness. For who shall help being astonished, when one being a man and partaking of our common nature, and who lives among other men, like adamant, yield not at all to the swarm of passions, when being in the midst of fire and iron and wild beasts, he is even harder than adamant, and vanquishes all for the word of godlessness' sake. When he is injured and blesses, when he is evil reported of and praises, when he is despitefully used and praised for those who injure him, when he is plotted against and does good to those that fight with him and lay snares for him. For these things and such as these will glorify God more than the heaven. For the Greeks, when they behold the heavens, feel no awe, but when they see a holy man exhibiting a severe course of life with all strictness, they shrink away and condemn themselves since when he that partakes of the same nature as themselves is so much above them, a great deal more so than the heaven is above the earth, even against their inclination, they think that it is a divine power which works these things. Wherefore he saith, And may glorify your Father which is in the heavens. Wilt thou learn also from another place how by the life of his servants God is glorified, and how by miracles? Nebuchadnezzar, once on a time, threw the three children into the furnace when he saw that the fire had not prevailed over them. He saith, Blessed be God, who hath sent his angel and delivered his servants out of the furnace. 
because they trusted in him and have changed the word of the king. How sayest thou, hast thou been despised, and dost thou admire those who have spit upon you? Yes, saith he, and for this very reason that I was despised, and of the marvel he gives this reason, so that not because of the miracle alone was glory given to God at that time, but also because of the purpose of those who had been thrown in. Now if any one would examine this point, and the other, as they are in themselves, this would appear not less than that, for to persuade souls to brave a furnace is not less in respect of the wonder than to deliver from a furnace. For how can it be otherwise than astonishing, for the emperor of the world, with so many arms around him, and legions and generals and viceroys and consuls, in land and sea subject to his sway, to be despised by captive children, for the bound to overcome the binder and conquer all that army. Neither was there any power in the king and his company to do what they would, no, not even with the furnace for an ally, but the naked and the slaves and the strangers, and the few, for what number could be more contemptible than three, being in chains, vanquished an innumerable army. For already now was death despised, since Christ was henceforth about to sojourn in the world. And as when the sun is on the point of rising, and before his rays appear, the light of the day groweth bright, so also when the Son of Righteousness was about to come, death henceforth began to withdraw himself. What could be more splendid than that theater? What more conspicuous than that victory? What more signal than those new trophies of theirs? The same thing is done in our time also. Even now there is a king of the Babylonish furnace. Even now he kindles a flame fiercer than that. There is even now such an image, and one who giveth command to admire it. At his side are satraps and soldiers and bewitching music, and many gaze in admiration upon this image, so artful, so great, for somewhat of the same kind of thing as that image is covetousness which doth not despise even iron. But unlike as the materials are, whereof it is composed, it giveth command to admire all, both brass and iron, and things much more ordinary than they. But as these things are, so also even now are there some who are emulous of these children, who say, Thy gods we serve not, and thine image we worship not, but both the furnace of poverty we endure, and all other distresses, for the sake of God's laws, and the wealthy for their part, even as those at that time worship this image too, oftentimes and are burnt, and those who possess nothing despise even this, and although in poverty are more in the due than those who live in affluence. Even as at that time, they who cast into the fire were burnt up, but those in the midst of it found themselves, as it were, in rain and dew. Then also that tyrant was more burnt up with the flame, his wrath kindling him violently than those children. As to them, the fire had no power even to touch the ends of their hair, but more fiercely than that fire did wrath burn up his mind. For consider what a thing it was, that, with so many to look on, he should be scorned by captive children. And it was a sign for the time to come, that his taking their city also had not been through his own might, but by reason of the sin of the multitude among them. Since if he had not power to overcome these men in chains, and that when they were cast into a furnace, how could he have overcome the Jews in regular warfare, had they been all such as these? From which it is plain that the sins of the multitude betrayed that city. But mark also the children's freedom from vainglory, for they did not leap into the furnace, but kept beforehand the commandment of Christ, where he says, Pray that ye enter not into temptation. Neither did they shrink when they were brought to it, but stood in the midst nobly, neither contending without a summons, nor yet when summoned playing the coward, 
but ready for everything and noble and full of all boldness of speech. But let us hear also what they say, that from this also we may learn their high self-commanding spirit. There is a God in heaven able to deliver us. They take no care for themselves, but even when about to be burned, the glory of God is all their thought. For what they say comes to this, lest perchance if we are burnt, thou shouldest charge God with weakness. We now declare unto thee accurately our whole doctrine. There is a God in heaven, not such as this image here on earth, this lifeless and mute thing, but able to snatch even from the midst of the burning fiery furnace. Condemn him not then of weakness, for permitting us to fall into it. So powerful is he, that after our fall, he is able to snatch us out again of the flame. For if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. Observe that they, by a special dispensation, are ignorant of the future. For if they had foreknown, there would have been nothing admirable in their doing what they did. For what marvel is it, if, when they had a guarantee for safety, they defied all terrors? Then God indeed would have been glorified, in that he was able to deliver from the furnace. But they would not have been wondered at, inasmuch as they would not have cast themselves into any dangers. For this cause he suffered them to be ignorant of the future, that he might glorify them the more. And as they cautioned the king that he was not to condemn God of weakness, though they might be burnt, so God accomplished both purposes, the showing forth of his own power and the causing the zeal of the children to appear more conspicuous. From whence then arose their doubting, and their not feeling confident that they should at all events be preserved. Because they esteemed themselves assuredly to mean and unworthy of such a benefit, and to prove that I say not this upon conjecture, when they fell into the furnace, they bewailed themselves after this sort, saying, We have sinned, we have done iniquity, we cannot open our mouth. And therefore they said, But if not, but if they did not plainly say this, namely, God is able to deliver us, but if he deliver us not, for our sin's sake, he will not deliver us. Wonder not at it. For they would have seemed to the barbarians to be sheltering the weakness of God under the pretext of their own sins. Wherefore his power only is what they speak of, the reason they allege not. And besides, they were well disciplined not to be over-curious about the judgments of God. With these words, then, they entered into the fire, and they neither cast insult upon the king, nor overturned the statue. For such should the courageous man be, temperate and mild, and that especially in dangers, that he may not seem to go forth to such contests in wrath and vainglory, but with fortitude and self-possession. For whoso deals insolently and undergoes the suspicion of those faults, but he that endures and is forced into the struggle and goes through the trial with meekness, is not only admired as brave, but his self-possession also and consideration cause him to be no less extolled. And this is what they did at that time, showing forth all fortitude and gentleness and doing nothing for reward, nor recompense or return. Though he be not willing, so it stands, to deliver us, we will not serve thy gods. For we have already our recompense, in that we are counted worthy to be kept from all impiety, and for that end to give our bodies to be burned. We then also having already our recompense, for indeed we have it, in that we have been vouchsafed the full knowledge of him, vouchsafed to be made members of Christ. Let us take care that we make them not members of an harlot. For with this most tremendous saying we must conclude our discourse, in order that having the fear of the threat in full efficacy, we may remain purer than gold, 
this fear helping to make us so, for so shall we be able, delivered from all fornication, to see Christ, whom God grant us all to behold with boldness at that day, through the grace and loving kindness of our Lord Jesus Christ, with whom to the Father and the Holy Spirit be glory, power, honor, now, henceforth, and forevermore. Amen. Homily 19, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. Now concerning the things whereof he wrote unto me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, because of fornications, let every man have his own wife, and every woman have her own husband. Having corrected the three heaviest things laid to their charge, one the distraction of the church, another about the fornicator, a third about the covetous person, he thenceforward uses a milder sort of speech. He interposes some exhortation and advice about marriage and virginity, giving the hearer some respite from more unpleasant subjects. But in the second epistle, he does the contrary. He begins from the milder topics and ends with the more distressing. And here also, after he has finished his discourse about virginity, he again launches forth into a matter more akin to reproof, not setting all down in regular order, but varying his discourse in either kind as the occasion required and the exigency of the matters in hand. Wherefore he says, Now is concerning the things whereof ye wrote unto me, for they had written to him whether it was right to abstain from one's wife or not. And writing back an answer to this, in giving rules about marriage, he introduces also the discourse concerning virginity. It is good for a man not to touch a woman. For if, says he, thou inquire what is the excellent and greatly superior course, it is better not to have any connection whatever with a woman. But if what is safe and helpful to thine own infirmity be connected by marriage, but since it was likely, as also happens now, that the husband might be willing, but the wife not, or perhaps the reverse. Mark how he discusses each case. Some indeed say that this discourse was addressed by him to priests, but I, judging from what follows, could not affirm that it was so, since he would not have given his advice in general terms. For if he were writing these things only for the priests, he would have said, It is good for the teacher not to touch a woman. But now he has made it of universal application, saying, It is good for man, not for a priest only. And again, art thou loosed from a wife? Seek not a wife. He said not, You who are a priest and teacher, but indefinitely. And the whole of his speech goes on entirely in the same tone. And after he had said, Nevertheless, because of fornications, let every man have his own wife. By the very cause alleged for the concession, he guides man to countenance. Verse 3. Let the husband pay the wife the honor due to her, in like manner the wife the husband. Now what is the meaning of the due honor? The wife hath not power over her own body, but is both the slave and the mistress of the husband. And if you decline the service which is due, you have offended God. But if thou wish to withdraw thyself, it must be with the husband's permission, though it be but for a short time. For this is why he calls the matter a debt, to show that no one is master of himself, but that they are servants to each other. When therefore thou seest an harlot tempting thee, say, My body is not mine, but my wife's. The same also let a woman say to those who would undermine her chastity, My body is not mine, but my husband's. Now if neither husband nor wife hath power even over their own body, much less have they over their property. 
Hear ye all that have husbands and all that have wives, that you must not count your body your own, much less your money. Elsewhere I grant he gives to the husband abundant precedence, both in the New and the Old Testament, saying, Thy turning shall be towards thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. Paul doth so too, by making a distinction thus, in writing, Husbands love your wives, and let the wife see that she reverence her husband. But in this place we hear no more of greater and less, but it is one and the same right. Now why is this? Because his speech was about chastity. In all other things, says he, let the husband have the prerogative, but not so where the question is about chastity. The husband hath not power over his own body, neither the wife. There is great equality of honor and no prerogative. Verse 5. Defraud not one the other, except it be with consent for a time. What can this mean? Let not the wife, says he, exercise continence if the husband be unwilling, nor yet the husband without the wife's consent. Why so? Because great evils spring from this sort of continence. For adulteries and fornications and the ruin of families have often arisen from hence. For if, when men have their own wives, they commit fornication, much more if you defraud them of this consolation. And well, says he, defraud not. Fraud here and debt above, that he might show the strictness of the right of dominion in question. For that one should practice continence against the will of the other is defrauding, but not so, with the other's consent. Any more than I count myself defrauded, if, after persuading me, you take away anything of mine, since he only defrauds who takes against another's will, and by force, a thing which many women do, working sin together than righteousness, and thereby becoming accountable for the husband's uncleanness, and rendering all asunder, whereas they should value concord above all things. Now since this is more important than all besides, we will, if you please, consider it with a view to actual cases. Thus suppose a wife and husband, and let the wife be continent, without consent of her husband. Well then, if hereupon he commit fornication, or, though abstaining from fornication, fret and grow restless, and be heated, and quarrel, and give all kind of trouble to his wife, where is all the gain of the fasting and the continence? A breach being made in charity, there is none. For what strange reproaches, how much trouble, how great a war must, of course, arise, since, when in a house man and wife are at variance, the house will be no better off than a ship in a storm, where the master is upon ill terms with the man at the head. Wherefore he saith, Defraud not one the other, unless it be by consent for a time, that ye may have leisure for fasting and prayer. It is prayer with unusual earnestness, which he here means. For if he is forbidding those who have intercourse with one another to pray, how could pray without ceasing have any place? Is it possible, then, to live with a wife, and yet give heed unto prayer? But by continence prayer is made more perfect. For he did not say merely, that ye may pray, but that ye may have leisure for it. For though what he speaks of might cause, not uncleanness, but much occupation, and come together again, that Satan tempt you not. Thus, lest it should seem to be a matter of express enactment, he adds the reason, and what is it, that Satan tempt you not, and that you may understand that it is not the devil only who causeth this crime, I mean adultery, 
he adds, because of your incontinence. But this I say by permission and not of commandment, for I would that all men were even as I myself, in a state of continence. This he doth in many places, when he is advising about difficult matters, he brings forward himself and says, Be ye followers of me. But everyone had his own gift of God, one after this manner and another after that. Thus, since he had heavily charged them, saying, For your incontinence, he again comforts them by the words, Everyone hath his own gift of God, not declaring this, that towards that virtue there is no need of zeal on our parts, but, as I was saying before, to comfort them. For if it be a gift, and a man contributes nothing thereunto, how sayest thou? But I say to the unmarried and widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I. But if they cannot contain themselves, let them marry. Do you see the strong sense of Paul, how he both signifies that countenance is better, and yet puts no force on the person who cannot attain to it, fearing lest some offense arise? For it is better to marry than to burn. He indicates how great is the tyranny of concupiscence. What he means is something like this. If you have to endure much violence and burning desire, withdraw yourself from your pains and toils, lest haply you be subverted. Verse 10. But to the married I command, yet not I but the Lord, because it is a law expressly appointed by Christ, which he is about to read to them, about the not putting away a wife without fornication. Therefore he says, not I. True it is that what was spoken before, though it be not expressly stated, yet it also is his decree. But this you see he had delivered in express words, so that the words I and not I have this difference of meaning, for that you might not imagine even his own words to be human. Therefore he added, for I think that I also have the Spirit of God. Now what is that which to be married the Lord hath commanded? that a wife should not be separated from her husband. But if she be separated, let her remain unmarried, or be reconciled unto her husband, and that the husband should not put away his wife. Here, seeing that both on the score of continence and other pretexts, and because of infirmities and temper, it fell out that separations took place. It were better, he says, that such things should not be at all. But, However, if they take place, let the wife remain with her husband, if not to cohabit with him, yet so as not to introduce any other to be her husband. Verse 12. But to the rest speak I, not the Lord. If any brother have a wife that believeth not, and she be well pleased to dwell with him, let him not put her away. And if any woman have an husband that believeth not, and he be well pleased to dwell with her, let her not leave him. For as when discoursing about separating from fornicators, he made the matter easy by the correction which he applied to his words, saying, Howbeit not altogether with the fornicators of this world. So also in this case he provideth for the abundant easiness of the duty, saying, If any wife have a husband, or husband a wife, that believeth not, let him not put her away. What sayest thou? If he be an unbeliever, let him remain with the wife, but not if he be a fornicator. And yet, fornication is a less sin than unbelief. I grant fornication is a less sin, but God spares the infirmities extremely. And this is what he doth about the sacrifice, saying, Leave the sacrifice and be reconciled to thy brother. This also in the case of the man who owed ten thousand talents. For him too, he did not punish for owing him ten thousand talents, but for demanding back a hundred pence from his fellow servant. 
he took vengeance on him. Then, lest the woman might fear, as though she became unclean because of intercourse with her husband, he says, For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. And yet, if he that is joined to an harlot is one body, it is quite clear that the woman also who is joined to an adulterer is one body. Well, it is one body. Nevertheless, she becomes not unclean. But the cleanness of the wife overcomes the uncleanness of the husband. And again, the cleanness of the believing husband overcomes the uncleanness of the unbelieving wife. How then, in this case, is the uncleanness overcome? And therefore, the intercourse allowed. While in the woman with whom fornication was committed, the husband is not condemned in casting her out. Because here there is hope that the lost member may be saved through the marriage. But in the other case, the marriage has already been dissolved. And there again, both are corrupted. But here the fault is in one only of the two. I mean something like this. She that has been but once guilty of fornication is abominable. If then he that is joined to an harlot is one body, he also becomes abominable by having connection with an harlot. Wherefore, all the purity flits away. But in the case before us, it is not so. But how? The adulterer is unclean, but the woman is not unclean. For if indeed she were a partner with him, in that wherein he is unclean, I mean his impiety, she herself would also become unclean. But now the adulterer is unclean in one way, and the wife holds communion with him in another, wherein he is not unclean. For marriage and mixture of bodies is that wherein the communion consists. Again, there is a hope that this man may be reclaimed by his wife, for she is made completely his own. But for the other, it is not very easy. For how will she who dishonored him in former times and became another's and destroyed the rights of marriage have power to reclaim him whom she had wronged, him moreover who still remains to her as an alien? Again, in that case, after the fornication, the husband is not a husband. But here, although the wife be an idolatress, the husband's rights are not destroyed. However, he doth not simply recommend cohabitation with an unbeliever, but with this qualification, that he wills it. Wherefore he saith, and he himself be well pleased to dwell with her. For tell me, what harm is there when the duties of piety remain unimpaired, and there are good hopes about the unbeliever, that those already joined should so abide, and not bring in occasions of all sorts of unnecessary warfare? For the question now is not about those who have never yet come together, but about those who are already joined. He did not say, if anyone wished to take an unbelieving wife, but if anyone hath an unbelieving wife, which means, if any after marrying or being married have received the word of godliness, and then the other party which had continued in unbelief still yearn for them to dwell together, let not the marriage be broken off. For, saith he, the unbelieving husband is sanctified by his wife. So great is the superabundance of thy purity. What then? Is the Greek holy? Certainly not. For he said not, he is holy, but he is sanctified by his wife. And this he said, not to signify that he is holy, but to deliver the woman as completely as possible from her fear, and lead the man to desire the truth. For the uncleanness is not in the bodies wherein there is communion, but in the mind and the thoughts. And here follows the proof, namely, that if thou, continuing unclean, have offspring, 
the child not being of thee alone is of course unclean or half clean but now it is not unclean to which effect he adds else were your children unclean but now are they holy that is not unclean but the apostle calls them holy by the intensity of the expression again casting out the dread arising from that sort of suspicion verse 15 but if the unbelieving depart let him depart for in this case the matter is no longer fornication but what is the meaning of if the unbelieving depart for instance if he bid thee sacrifice and take part in his ungodliness on account of thy marriage or part company it were better the marriage were annulled and no breach made in godliness wherefore he adds a brother is not bound, nor yet a sister in such cases. If day by day he buffet thee, and keep up combats on this account, it is better to separate. For this is what he glances at, saying, But God hath called us unto peace. And when it comes to that, it is the other party who hath furnished the ground of separation, even as he did who committed uncleanness. Verse 16. For what knowest thou, O wife, whether thou shalt not save thine husband? This again refers to that expression, let her not leave him. That is, if he make no disturbance, remain, saith he, for there is even profit in this. Remain and advise and give counsel and persuade, for no teacher will have such power to convince as a wife. And neither on the one hand doth he lay any necessity upon her, and absolutely demand the point of her, that he may not, again, do what would be too painful, nor on the other hand doth he tell her to despair but he leaves the matter in suspense through the uncertainty of the future saying for what knowest thou o wife whether thou shalt save thy husband or how knowest thou o man whether thou shalt save thy wife and again verse 17 but as god hath distributed to every man as the lord hath called every one so let him walk is any one called being circumcised let him not be uncircumcised as any called in uncircumcision, let him not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing, but the keeping of the commandments of God. Let every man abide in the same calling wherein he was called. Art thou called being a slave? Care not for it. These things contribute nothing unto the faith, saith he. Be not then contentious, neither be troubled, for the faith hath cast out all these things. Let every one abide in the same calling wherein he was called. Hast thou been called, having an unbelieving wife? Continue to have her. Cast not out thy wife for the faith's sake. Hast thou been called being a slave? Care not for it. Continue to be a slave. Hast thou been called, being in uncircumcision? Remain uncircumcised. Being circumcised, didst thou become a believer? Continue circumcised. For this is the meaning of as God hath distributed unto every man, for these are no hindrances to piety. Thou art called being a slave, another with an unbelieving wife, another being circumcised. Astonishing, where has he put slavery? As circumcision profits not, and uncircumcision does no harm, so neither doth slavery nor yet liberty. But that he might point out this with surpassing clearness, he says, But even if thou canst become free, use it rather, that is, rather continue a slave. Now, upon what possible ground does he tell the person who might be set free to remain a slave? He means to point out that slavery is no harm, but rather an advantage. No, we are not ignorant that some say the words, use it rather, are spoken with regard to liberty, interpreting it, if thou canst become free, become free. 
but the expression would be very contrary to Paul's manner if he intended this, for he would not, when consoling the slave and signifying that he was in no respect injured, have told him to get free, since perhaps someone might say, What then, if I am not able? I am an injured and degraded person. This then is not what he says, but as I was explaining, meaning to point out that a man gets nothing by being made free, he says, though thou hast it in thy power to be made free, remain rather in slavery. Next he adds also the cause, for he that is called in the Lord, being a slave, is the Lord's free man. Likewise also, he that is called being free is Christ's servant. For, saith he, in the things that relate to Christ, both are equal. And like as thou art the slave of Christ, so also is thy master. How then is the slave a free man? Because he has freed thee not only from sin, but also from outward slavery, continuing a slave. For he suffers not even the slave to be a slave, not though he be a man abiding in slavery. And this is the great wonder. But how is the slave a free man while continuing a slave? When he is freed from passions and the diseases of the mind, when he looks down upon riches and wrath and all the other like passions. Verse 23, Ye are bought with a price, be not ye the servants of men. This saying is addressed not only to slaves, but also to free men. For it is possible for one who is a slave not to be a slave, and for one who is a free man to be a slave. And how can one be a slave and not a slave? When he doeth all for God, when he feigns nothing, and doeth nothing out of eye service towards men. That is how one that is a slave to men can be free. Or again, how doth one that is free become a slave, when he serves men in any evil service, either for gluttony or desire of wealth, or for office sake? For such an one, though he be free, is of a more slavish sort than all men. And consider both these points. Joseph was a slave, but not a slave to men. Wherefore, even in slavery, he was freer than all that are free. For instance, he yielded not to his mistress, yielded not to the purposes which she who possessed him desired. Again, she was free, yet none ever so like a slave, courting and beseeching her own servant. But she prevailed not on him who was free to do what he would not. This then was not slavery, but it was liberty of the most exalted kind. For what impediment to virtue had he from his slavery? Let men hear, both slaves and free, which was the slave, he that was entreated or she that did entreat, she that besought or he that despised her supplication. In fact, there are limits set to slaves by God himself, and up to what points one ought to keep them. This is also exacted, and to transgress them is wrong. Namely, when your master commands nothing which is unpleasing to God, it is right to follow and to obey, but no further. For thus the slave becomes free, and if you go further, even though you are free, you are become a slave. At least he intimates this, saying, Be not ye the servants of men. But if this be not the meaning, if he bade them forsake their masters and strive contentiously to become free, in what sense did he exhort them, saying, Let every one remain in the calling in which he is called? And in another place, as many servants as are under the yoke, let them count their own masters worthy of all honor. And those that have believing masters, let them not despise them, because they are brethren who partake of the benefit. And writing to the Ephesians also, and the Colossians, he ordains and exacts the same rules. Whence it is plain that it is not this slavery which he annuls, 
but that which, caused as it is by vice, befalls free men also, and this is the worst kind of slavery, though he be a free man who is in bondage to it. For what profit had Joseph's brethren to their freedom? Were they not more servile than all slaves, both speaking lies to their father and to merchants using false pretenses, as well as to their brother? But not such was the free man. Rather, everywhere in all things he was true, and nothing had power to enslave him, neither chain nor bondage, nor the love of his mistress, nor his being in a strange land. But he abode free everywhere, for this is liberty in the truest sense, when even in bondage it shines through. Such a thing as Christianity, and slavery to bestow freedom, and as that which is by nature an easily vulnerable body, then shows itself to be invulnerable, when having received a dart it suffers no harm. So also he that is strictly free then shows himself, when even under masters he is not enslaved. For this cause his bidding is, remain a slave. But if it is impossible for one who is a slave to be a Christian, such as he ought to be, the Greeks will condemn true religion of great weakness. Whereas if they can be taught that slavery in no way impairs godliness, they will admire our doctrine. For if death hurt us not, nor scourges, nor chains, much less slavery, fire and iron and tyrannies innumerable, and diseases and poverty and wild beasts, and countless things are more dreadful than these, have not been able to injure the faithful men. Nay, they have made them even mightier. And how shall slavery be able to hurt? It is not slavery itself, beloved, that hurts. But the real slavery is that of sin. And if thou be not a slave in this sense, be bold and rejoice. No one shall have power to do thee any wrong having the temper which cannot be enslaved. But if thou be a slave to sin, even though thou be ten thousand times free, thou hast no good of thy liberty. For tell me, what profit is it when, though not in bondage to a man, thou liest down in subjection to thy passions? Since men indeed often know how to spare, but those masters are never satiated with thy destruction. Art thou in bondage to a man? Why, thy master also is slave to thee in arranging about thy food, in taking care of thy health and clothes, and in looking after thy shoes and all the other things. And thou dost not fear so much lest thou should offend thy master, as he fears lest any of those necessaries should fail thee. But he sits down whilst thou standest. And what of that, since this may be said of thee as well of him? Often at least, when thou art lying down and sleeping sweetly, he is not only standing, but undergoing endless discomforts in the marketplace and he lies awake more painful than thou. For instance, what did Joseph suffer from his mistress to be compared what she suffered from her evil desire? For he indeed did not the things which she wished to put upon him, but she performed everything which her mistress ordered her. I mean her spirit of unchastity, which left not off until it had put her to open shame. What master commands such things? What savage tyrant? Entreat thy slave, that is the word, Flatter the person, bought with thy money, supplicate the captive. Even if he reject thee with disgust, again beseech him. Even if thou speakest to him oftentimes, and he consent not, watch for his being alone, and force him, and become an object of derision. What can be more dishonorable, what more shameful than these words? And if even by these means you make no progress, why accuse him falsely, and deceive your husband? Mark how mean... How shameful are the commands! How unmerciful and savage and frantic! What command does the master ever lay on his servant? 
such as those which her wantonness then laid upon that royal woman. And yet she dared not disobey. But Joseph underwent nothing of this sort, but everything on the contrary which brought glory and honor. Would you like to see yet another man under severe orders from a hard mistress, and without spirit to disobey any of them? Consider Cain, what commands were laid on him by his envy. He ordered him to slay his brother, to lie unto God, to grieve his father, to cast off shame. And he did it all, and in nothing refused to obey. And why marvel that over a single person so great should be the power of this mistress? She hath often destroyed entire nations. For instance, the Midianish women took the Jews, and all but bound them in captivity, their own beauty and kindling desire, was the means of their vanquishing that whole nation. Paul then, to cast out this sort of slavery, said, Become not servants of men, that is, obey not men commanding unreasonable things. Nay, obey not yourselves. Then having raised up their mind and made it mount on high, he says, verse 25, Now concerning virgins I have no commandment of the Lord, but I give my judgment as one that hath obtained mercy of the Lord to be faithful. Advancing on his way in regular order, he proceeds next to speak concerning virginity. For after that he had exercised them and prescribed measures to them in his words concerning continence. He goes forth towards what is greater, saying, I have not any commandment, but I esteem it to be good. For what reason? For the self-same reason as he had mentioned respecting continence. Verse 27. Art thou bound unto a wife? Seek not to be loosed. Art thou loosed from a wife? Seek not a wife. These words carry no contradiction to what had been said before, but rather the most entire agreement with them. For he says in that place also, except it be by consent, as here he says, Art thou bound unto a wife? Seek not separation. This is no contradiction, for its being against consent makes a dissolution. But if with consent both live continently, it is no dissolution. Then at least this should seem to be laying down a law. He subjoins, But if thou marry, thou hast not sinned. He next alleges the existing state of things, the present distress, the shortness of the time, and the affliction. For marriage draws along with it many things, which indeed he hath glanced at, as well here as also in the discourse about continence, there by saying, The wife hath not power over herself, and here by the expression, Thou art bound. But if thou marry, thou hast not sinned. He is not speaking about her who hath made choice of virginity, for if it comes to that, she hath sinned, since if the widows are condemned for having to do with second marriages after they have once chosen widowhood, much more the virgins, but such shall have trouble in the flesh. And pleasure too, you will say, but observe how he curtails this by the shortness of the time, saying, The time is short, that is, we are exhorted to depart now and go forth. But thou art running further in, and yet even although marriage had no troubles, even so ought we to press on towards things to come. But when it hath affliction too, what need to draw oneself from additional burden? What occasion to take up such a load, when even after taking it, you must use it as having it not. For those even that have wives must be, he saith, as though they had none. Then having interposed something about the future, he brings back his speech to the present. For some of his topics are spiritual, as that the one careth about the things which be her husband's, the other about those which be God's. Others relate to this present life, as I would have you without carefulness. But such with all this he leaves it to their own choice inasmuch as he who, after proving what is best, goes back to compulsion, seems as if he did not trust his own statements. 
wherefore he rather attracts them by concession and checks them as follows verse thirty five but this i speak for your own profit that i may cast a snare upon you but for that which is comely and that ye may persevere in attendance let the virgins hear that not by that one point is virginity defined for she that is careful about the things of the world cannot be a virgin nor comely thus when he said there is a difference between a wife and a virgin he added this as the difference that wherein they are distinguished from each other and laying down the definition of a virgin and her that is not a virgin he names not marriage nor continence but leisure and multiplicity of engagement for the evil is not in the cohabitation but in the impediment to the strictness of life verse thirty six but if any man think that he behaveth himself uncomely toward his virgin here he seems to be talking about marriage but all that he says relates to virginity for he allows even a second marriage saying only in the lord now what means in the lord with chastity with honor for this is needed everywhere and must be pursued for else we cannot see god now if we have passed lightly by what he says of virginity let no one accuse us of negligence for indeed an entire book hath been composed by us upon this topic and as we have there with all the accuracy which we could gone through every branch of the subject we consider it a waste of words to introduce it all again here wherefore referring the hearer to that work as concerns these things we will say this one thing here it must follow after continence for saith he follow after peace and holiness without which no one shall see the lord therefore that we may be accounted worthy to see him whether we be in virginity or in the first marriage or the second let us follow after this that we may obtain the kingdom of heaven through the grace and loving kindness of our lord jesus christ to whom with the father and the holy spirit be glory power honor now henceforth and for everlasting ages amen homily 20 first corinthians 8 verse 1 now concerning things offered to idols we know that we all have knowledge knowledge puffeth up but charity edifieth it is necessary first to say what the meaning of this passage is for so shall we readily comprehend the apostle's discourse for he that sees a charge brought against any one except he first perceive the nature of the offence will not understand what is said what then is it of which he was then accusing the corinthians a heavy charge and the cause of many evils well what is it many among them having learnt that not the things which enter in defile the man but the things which proceed out and that idols of all kinds wood and stone and demons have no power to hurt or help had made in a moderate use of their perfect knowledge of this to the harm of both of others and of themselves they had both gone in where idols were and had partaken of the tables there and were producing thereby great and ruinous evil for on the one hand those who still retained the fear of idols and who knew not how to condemn them took part in those meals because they saw the more perfect sort doing this and hence they got the greatest injury since they did not touch what was set before them with the same mind as the others but as things offered in sacrifice to idols and the thing was becoming a way to idolatry on the other hand these very persons who pretended to be more perfect were injured in no common way partaking in the tables of devils this then was the subject of complaint now this blessed man being about to correct it did not immediately begin to speak vehemently for that which was done came more of folly than of wickedness wherefore in the first instance there was need rather of exhortation than of severe rebuke and wrath now herein observe his good sense 
how he immediately begins to admonish. Now as touching things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Leaving alone the weak, which he always doth, he discourses with the strong first. But this is what he did also in the epistle to the Romans, saying, But thou, why dost thou judge thy brother? For this is the sort of person that is able to receive rebuke also with readiness, exactly the same when he doth hear also. And first he makes void their haughtiness by declaring that this very thing, which they consider as peculiar to themselves, the having perfect knowledge, was common to all. Thus we know, saith he, that we all have knowledge. For if allowing them to have high thoughts, he had first pointed out how hurtful the thing was to others, he would not have done them so much good as harm. For the ambitious soul, when it plumes itself upon anything, even though the same do harm to others, yet strongly adheres to it, becomes the tyranny of vainglory. Wherefore Paul first examines the matter itself by itself, just as he had done before in the case of the wisdom from without, demolishing it with a high hand. But in that case he did it as we might have expected, for the whole thing was altogether blameworthy, and his task was very easy. Wherefore he signifies it to be not only useless, but even contrary to the gospel. But in the present case it was not possible to do this, for what was being done was of knowledge and perfect knowledge. It was not then either safe to overthrow it, and yet in no other way was it possible to cast out the vainglory which had resulted from it. What then doeth he? First, by signifying that it was common, he curbs that swelling pride of theirs. For they who possess something great and excellent are more elated, when they are the only ones who have it. But if it be made out that they possess it in common with others, they no longer have so much of this feeling. First, then, he makes it common property, because they considered it to belong to themselves alone. Next, having made it common, he does not make himself singly a share in it with them. For in this way, too, he would rather set them up, for as to be the only possessor elates, so to have one partner or two perhaps among leading persons has this effect just as much. For this reason, he does not mention himself at all. He said not, I too have knowledge, but we know that we all have knowledge. This then is one way, and the first by which he cast down their swelling pride. The next hath greater force. What then is this? In that he shows that not even this thing itself was in all points complete, but imperfect, and extremely so, and not only imperfect, but also injurious, unless there were another thing joined together with it. For having said that we have knowledge, he added, knowledge puffeth up, but charity edifieth, so that when it is without charity, it lifts men up to absolute arrogance, and yet not even charity, you will say, without knowledge hath any advantage. Well, this he did not say, but admitting it as a thing allowed by all, he signifies that knowledge stands in extreme need of charity. For he who loves, inasmuch as he fulfills the commandment, which is most absolute of all, even though he have some defects, will quickly be blessed with knowledge because of his love, as Cornelius and many others. But he that hath knowledge but hath not charity, not only shall he gain nothing more, but shall also be cast out of that which he hath, in many cases falling into arrogance. It seems then that knowledge is not productive of charity, but on the contrary debars from it him that is not on his guard, puffing him up and elating him. For arrogance is wont to cause divisions, but charity both draws together and leads to knowledge. And to make this plain, he saith, but if any man love God, the same is known of him, so that I forbid not this, saith he, namely your having perfect knowledge. 
but you're having it with charity that I enjoin. Else is it no gain, but rather loss. Do you see how he already sounds the first note of his discourse concerning charity? For since all these evils were springing from the following roots, i.e., not from perfect knowledge, but from their not greatly loving nor sparing their neighbors, whence ensued both their variance and their self-satisfaction, and all the rest which he had charged with them, both before this and after he is continually providing for charity, so correcting the fountain of all good things. Now why, saith he, are ye puffed up about knowledge? For if ye have not charity, ye shall even be injured thereby. For what is worse than boasting? But if the other be added, the first also will be in safety. For although you may know something more than your neighbor, if you love him, you will not set yourself up, but lead him also to the same. Wherefore also, having said, knowledge puffeth up, he added, but charity edifieth. He did not say, behaveth itself modestly, but what is much more and more gainful, for their knowledge was not only puffing them up, but also distracting them. On this account, he opposes the one to the other. And then he adds a third consideration, which was a force to set them down. What then is this? That although charity be joined with it, yet not even in that case is this our knowledge perfect. And therefore he adds, verse 2, But if any man think that he knoweth anything, he knoweth nothing, yet as he ought to know. This is a mortal blow. I dwell not, saith he, on the knowledge being common to all. I say not that by hating your neighbor and by arrogance you injure yourself most, but even though you have it by yourself alone, though you be modest, though you love your brother, even in this case you are imperfect in regard of knowledge. For as yet thou knowest nothing as thou oughtest to know. Now if we possess, as yet, exact knowledge of nothing, how is it that some have rushed on to such a pitch of frenzy, as to say that they know God with all exactness? Whereas, though we had an exact knowledge of all other things, not even in this case were it possible to possess this knowledge to such an extent. For how wide he is apart from all things, it is impossible even to say. And mark how he pulls down their swelling pride. For he said not of the matters before us, ye have not the proper knowledge, but about everything. And he did not say, ye, but no one whatever, be it Peter, be it Paul, be it anyone else. For by this he both soothed them and carefully kept them under. Verse 3. But if any man love God, the same he doth not say, knoweth him, but is known of him. For we have not known him, but he hath known us. And therefore did Christ say, Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. And Paul elsewhere, Then shall I know perfectly, even as also I am known. Observe now, I pray, by what strong considerations he brings down their high-mindedness. First he points out that not they alone knew the things which they knew, for we all, he saith, have knowledge. Next, that the thing itself was hurtful, so long as it was without charity, for knowledge, saith he, puffeth up. Thirdly, that even joined with charity, it is not complete or perfect. For if any man thinketh that he knoweth anything, he knoweth nothing, as yet he ought to know. So he speaks. In addition to this, that they have not even this from themselves, but by gift from God. For he said not, hath known God, but is known of him. Again, that this very thing comes of charity, which they have not as they ought. For if any man, saith he, love God, the same is known of him. Having then so much at large allayed their irritation, he begins to speak doctrinally, 
saying thus, verse 4, With regard, then, to the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, and that there is none other god save one. Look what a strait he hath fallen into, for indeed his mind is to prove both, that one ought to abstain from this kind of banquet, and that it hath no power to hurt those who partake of it, things which were not greatly in agreement with each other. For when they were told that they had no harm in them, they would naturally run to them as in different things. But when forbidden to touch them, they would suspect, on the contrary, that their having power to do hurt occasioned the prohibition. Wherefore, you see, he puts down their opinion about idols, and then states as a first reason for their abstaining the scandals which they place in the way of their brethren. In these words, now concerning the eating things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world. Again, he makes it common property, and doth not allow this to be theirs alone, but extends the knowledge all over the world. For not among you alone, he says, but everywhere on earth this doctrine prevails. What then is it, that an idol is nothing in the world, and that there is none other god but one? What then, are there no idols, no statues? Indeed there are, but they have no power, neither are they gods but stones and demons. For he is now setting himself against both parties, both the grosser sort among them, and those who are accustomed lovers of wisdom. Thus seeing that the former know of no more than the mere stones, the others assert that certain powers reside in them, which they also call gods. To the former, accordingly, he says, that an idol is nothing in the world. To the other, that there is none other god save one. Do you mark how he writes these things, not simply as laying down doctrine, but in contradistinction to those without, a thing indeed which we must at all times narrowly observe, whether he says anything abstractly, or whether he is opposing any persons. For this contributes in no ordinary way to the accuracy of our doctrinal views, and to the exact understanding of his expressions. Verse 5. For though there be that be called gods, whether in heaven or upon earth, as there be gods many and lords many, but to us there is one God, the Father of whom are all things, and we in him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by him. Since he had said that an idol is nothing, and that there is no other God, and yet there were idols, and there were those that were called gods, that he might not seem to be contradicting plain facts, he goes on to say, for though they are that be called gods, as indeed there are, not absolutely there are, but called not in reality, having this but in name, be it in heaven or be it in earth, in heaven meaning the sun and the moon, and the remainder of the choir of stars, for these two the Greeks worshipped, but upon the earth demons and all those who had made gods of men. But to us there is but one God, the Father. In the first instance, having expressed it without the word Father, and said that there is none other God but one, he now adds this also, when he had utterly cast out the others. Next he adduces what indeed is the greatest token of divinity, of whom are all things. For this implies also that those others are not gods. For it is said, let the gods who made not the heavens and the earth perish. Then he subjoins what is not less than this, and we in him. For when he saith, of whom are all things, he means the creation and the bringing of things out of nothing into existence. But when he saith, and we in him, he speaks of the word of faith and mutual appropriation. As also he said before, but of him are ye also in Christ Jesus. In two ways we are of him, by being made when we were not, and being made believers. For this also is a creation, 
a thing which he also declares elsewhere, that he might create in himself of twain one new man. And there is one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by him. And in regard to Christ again, we must conceive of this in like manner, for by him both the race of men was produced out of nothing into existence, and returned from error to truth. So that, as to the phrase of whom, it is not to be understood apart from Christ, for of him through Christ were we created. Nor yet, if you observe, hath he distributed the names, as if by allotment, assigning to the Son the name Lord, and to the Father God. For the scripture useth also often to interchange them, as when it saith, The Lord saith unto my Lord, and again, Wherefore God thy God hath anointed thee, and of whom is Christ according to the flesh, who is God over all. And in many instances you may see these names changing their places. Besides, if they were allotted to each nature severally, and if the Son were not God, and God as the Father, yet continuing a son, after saying, But to us there is but one God, it would have been superfluous, his adding the word Father with a view to declare the unbegotten. For the word God was sufficient to explain this, if it were such as to denote him only. And this is not all, but there is another remark which may be made, that if you say, Because it is said one God, therefore the word God doth not apply to the Son, Observe that the same topic holds of the Son also. For the Son also is called one Lord. Yet we do not maintain that, therefore, the term Lord applies to him alone. So then, the same force as the expression one has applied to the Son, it has also applied to the Father. And as the Father is not thrust out from being the Lord, in the same sense as the Son is the Lord, because he, the Son, is spoken of as one Lord, so neither does it cast out the Son from being God, in the same sense, as the Father is God, because the Father is styled one God. Now, if any were to say, why hath he made no mention of the Spirit, our answer might be this. His argument was with idolaters, and the contention was about God's many and Lord's many. And this is why, having called the Father God, he called the Son Lord. If now he ventured not to call the Father Lord together with the Son, lest you might suspect him to be speaking of two lords, nor yet the Son God with the Father, lest he might be supposed to speak of two gods, why marvel at his not having mentioned the Spirit? This contest was so far with the Gentiles, his point to signify that with us there is no plurality of gods. Wherefore, he keeps hold continually of this word, one, saying, There is none other God but one, and to us there is one God and one Lord, from which it is plain that to spare the weakness of the hearers, he used this mode of explanation, and for this reason made no mention at all of the Spirit. For if it be not this, neither ought he to make mention of the Spirit elsewhere, nor to join him with the Father and the Son. For if he be rejected from the Father and Son, much more ought he not to be put in the same rank with them in the matter of baptism, where most especially the dignity of the Godhead appears, and when gifts are bestowed which pertain to God alone to afford. Thus then I have assigned the cause why in this place he is passed over in silence. Now do thou... If this be not the true reason, tell me why he is ranked with them in baptism. But thou canst not give any other reason, but his being of equal honor. At any rate, when he has no such constraint upon him, he puts him in the same rank, saying thus, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the love of God and the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Ghost be with you all. And again, there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are diversities of administrations, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of operations, but the same God. 
but because now his speech was with the Greeks, and the weaker sorts of the converts from among the Greeks, for this reason he husbands it so far. And this is what the prophets do in regard to the Son. No are making mention of him plainly, because of the infirmity of the hearers. Verse 7. But not in all is knowledge, saith he. What knowledge doth he mean, about God or about things offered in sacrifice to idols? For either he here glances at the Greeks, who say that there are many gods and lords, and who know not him that is truly God, or at the converts from among Greeks, who are still rather infirm, such as did not know clearly that they ought not to fear idols, and that an idol is nothing in the world. But having said this, he gently soothes and encourages the latter, for there was no need of mentioning all that he had to reprove, particularly as he intended to visit them again with more severity. But some with conscience of the idol unto this present day eat it as a thing offered in sacrifice unto idols, and their conscience being weak is defiled. They still tremble at idols, he saith, for tell me not of the present state of things, that you have received the true religion from your ancestors, but carry back your thoughts to those times, and consider when the gospel was just set on foot, and impiety was still at its height, and altars burning, and sacrifices and libations offered up, and the greater part of men were Gentiles. Think, I say, of those who from their ancestors had received impiety, and who were the descendants of fathers and grandfathers, and great-grandfathers like themselves, and who had suffered great miseries from the demons. How much they have felt after their sudden change! How would they tremble at and dread the assaults of the demons! For their sake also he employs some reserve, saying, But some with conscience of the thing offered in sacrifice to idols. Thus he neither exposes them openly, not to strike them hard, nor doth he pass by them altogether, but makes mention of them in a vague manner, saying, Now some with conscience of the idol sacrifice, even until now eat it as a thing offered in sacrifice to an idol, that is, with the same thoughts as they did in former times. And their conscience being weak is defiled, not yet being able to despise, and once for all laugh them to scorn, but still in some doubt, just as if a man were to think, that by touching a dead body he should pollute himself, according to the Jewish custom, and then seeing others touch it with a clear conscience, but not with the same mind, touching it himself would be polluted. This was their state of feeling at that time. For some, saith he, with conscience of the idol, do it even until now. Not without cause did he add, even until now, but to signify that they gained no ground by their refusing to condescend, for this was not the way to bring them in but in some other way persuading them by word and by doctrine. And their conscience being weak is defiled. Nowhere as yet doth he state his argument about the nature of the thing, but turns himself this way and that, as concerning the conscience of the person partaking. For he was afraid, lest, in his wish to correct the weak person, he should inflict a heavy blow upon the strong one, and make him weak. On which account he spares the one no less than the other, nor doth he allow the thing itself to be thought of any consequence, but makes his argument very full to prevent any suspicion of the kind. Verse 8. But meat commendeth us not to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, neither if we eat not are we the worse. You see how he again takes down their high spirit, and that after saying that not only they, but all of us have knowledge, and that no one knoweth anything as he ought to know, and that knowledge puffeth up, then having sued them, and said that this knowledge is not in all, and that weakness is the cause of these things being defiled, in order that they may not say, And what is it to us if knowledge be not in all, 
why then has not such an one knowledge why is he weak i say in order that they might not rejoin in these terms he did not proceed immediately to point out clearly that for fear of the other's harm one ought to abstain but having first made a sort of skirmish upon mention of him he points out what is more than this what then is this that although no one were injured nor any perversion of another ensued not even in this case were it right to do so for the former topic by itself is laboring in vain since he that hears of another being hurt while himself has the gain is not very apt to abstain but then rather he doeth so when he finds out that he himself is no way advantaged by the thing wherefore he puts this down first saying but meat commendeth us not to god see how cheap he holds that which was accounted to spring from perfect knowledge for neither if we eat are we the better that is stand higher in god's estimation as if we had done anything good or great neither if we eat not are we the worse that is fall in any way short of others so far then he has signified that the thing itself is superfluous and as nothing for that which being done profits not and that which being left undone injures not must be superfluous but as he goes on he discourses all the harm which was likely to arise from the matter for the present however that which befell the brethren is his subject verse nine for take heed saith he lest anyhow this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to the weak among the brethren he did not say your liberty is become a stumbling block nor did he positively affirm it that he might not make them more shameless but how take heed frightening them and making them ashamed and leading them to disavow any such conduct and he said not this your knowledge which would have sounded more like praise nor this your perfectness but your liberty a thing which seemed to savor more of rashness and obstinacy and arrogance neither said he to the brethren but to those of the brethren who are weak enhancing his accusation from their not even sparing the weak and those too their brethren for let it be so that you correct them not nor arouse them yet why supplant them too and make them to stumble when you ought to stretch out your hand but for that you have no mind well then at least avoid casting them down since if one were wicked he required punishment if weak healing but now he is not only weak but also a brother verse ten for when any one seeth thee who has knowledge sitting down in an idol's temple shall not the conscience of him that is weak be emboldened unto the eating of things offered in sacrifice to idols after having said take heed lest this your liberty become a stumbling block he explains how and in what manner it becomes so and he continually employs the term weakness that the mischief may not be thought to arise from the nature of the thing nor demons appear formidable as thus at present saith he a man is on the point of withdrawing himself entirely from idols but when he sees you fond of loitering about them he takes the circumstance for recommendation and abides there himself also so that not only his weakness but also your ill-timed behavior helps to further the plot against him for it is you who make him weaker verse eleven and through thy meat the weak brother will perish for whom christ died for there are two things which deprive you of excuse in this mischief one that he is weak the other that he is thy brother rather i should say there is a third also and one more terrible than all what then is this that whereas christ refused not even to die for him thou canst not bear even to accommodate thyself to him by these means you see he reminds the perfect man also what he too was before and that for him he died and he said not for whom even to die was thy duty 
but what is much stronger that even christ died for his sake did thy lord then not refuse to die for him and dost thou so make him of none account as not even to abstain from a polluted table for his sake yea dost thou permit him to perish after the salvation so wrought and what is more grievous of all for in a morsel of meat for he said not for thy perfectness nor for thy knowledge but for thy meat so that the charges are four and these extremely heavy that it was a brother that he was weak and one of whom christ made so much account as even to die for him and that after all this for a morsel of meat he is destroyed verse twelve but when ye sin thus against the brethren and wound their weak conscience ye sin against christ do you observe how quietly and gradually he hath brought their offence up to the very summit of iniquity and again he makes mention of the infirmity of the other sort and so the very thing which these consider to make for them and he everywhere turns round upon their own head and he said not putting stumbling blocks in their way but wounding so as by force of his expression to indicate their cruelty for what can be more savage than a man who wounds the sick and yet no wound is so grievous as making a man to offend often in fact this is also the cause of death but how do they sin against christ in one way because he considers the concerns of his servants as his own in another because those who are wounded go to make up his body and that which is part of him in a third way because that work of his which he built up by his own blood these are destroying for their ambition's sake verse 13 wherefore if meat make my brother to offend i will eat no meat for ever this is like the best of teachers to teach in his own person the things which he speaks nor did he say whether justly or unjustly but in any case i say not such is his tone meat offered in sacrifice to an idol which is already prohibited for another reason but of any even of those things which are within license and are permitted gives offence from these also will i abstain and not one or two days but all the time of my life for he saith i will eat no flesh for ever and he said not lest i destroy my brother but simply lest i give offence to my brother for indeed it comes of folly in the extreme that what things are greatly cared for by christ and such as he should have even chosen to die for them these we should esteem so entirely beneath our notice as not even to abstain from meats on their account now these things might be unseasonably spoken not to them only but also to us apt as we are to esteem lightly the salvation of our neighbors and to utter those satanical words i say satanical for the expression what care i though such an one be offended and such another perish savors of his cruelty and inhuman mind and yet in that instance the infirmity also of those who were offended and had some share in the result but in our case it is not so sinning as we do in such a way as to offend even the strong for when we smite and raven and, and overreach and use the free as if they were slaves whom is not this enough to offend tell me not of such a man's being a shoemaker another a dyer another a brazier but bear in mind that he is a believer and a brother but why these are they whose disciples we are the fishermen the publicans the tent makers of him who was brought up in the house of a carpenter and who deigned to have his wife betrothed for a mother and who was laid after his swaddling clothes in a manger and who had not where to lay his head of him whose journeys were so long that his very journeying was enough to tire him down of him who was supported by others think on these things and esteem the pride of man to be nothing but count the tent maker as well thy brother as him that is born upon a chariot and hath innumerable servants and makes a grand show in the market-place 
nay, rather the former than the latter, since the term brother would more naturally be used, where there is the greater resemblance, which then resembles the fisherman, he who is supported by daily labor, and had neither servant nor dwelling, but is quite beset with privations, or that other who is surrounded with such vast pomp, and who acts contrary to the laws of God, despise not him that is more of the two thy brother, for he comes nearer to the apostolic pattern. Not, however, you say, of his own accord, but by compulsion, for he doth not this of his own mind. How comes this? Hast thou not heard, judge not, that ye not be judged? But to convince thyself that he doeth it not against his inclination, approach and give him ten thousand talents of gold, and thou shalt see him putting it away from him. And thus, even though he have received no wealth by inheritance from his ancestors, yet when it is in his power to take it, and he lets it not come near him, neither adds to his goods, he exhibits a mighty proof of his contempt of wealth. For so John was the son of Zebedee, that extremely poor man. Yet I suppose we are not therefore to say that his poverty was forced upon him. Whensoever then thou seest one clearing wood, smiting with a hammer, covered with soot, do not therefore hold him cheap, but rather for that reason admire him. Since even Peter girded himself and handled the dragnet and went a-fishing after the resurrection of the Lord. And why say I, Peter, for this same Paul himself, after his incessant runnings to and fro, and all those vast miracles, standing in the tent-maker's shop, sewed hides together, while angels were reverencing him and demons trembling. And he was not ashamed to say, Unto my necessities, and those who are with me, these hands have ministered. What say I, that he was not ashamed? Yea, he gloried in this very thing. But you will say, Who is there now to be compared with the virtue of Paul? I too am well aware that there is no one. Yet not on this account are those who live now to be despised. For if for Christ's sakes thou give honor, though one be last of all, yet if he be a believer, he shall justly be honored. For suppose a general and a common soldier both present themselves before you, being friends of the king, and you open your house to both, in which of their persons would you seem to pay most honor to the king? Plainly in that of the soldier. For there were in the general, besides his loyalty to the king, many other things apt to win such a mark of respect from you. But the soldier had nothing else but his loyalty to the king. Wherefore, God bade us call to our suppers and our feasts the lame and the maimed and those who cannot repay us. For these are most of all properly called good deeds, which are done for God's sake. Whereas if thou entertain some great and distinguished man, it is not such pure mercy that thou doest, but some portion many times is assigned to thyself also both by vainglory and by return of the favor, and by thy rising in many men's estimation on account of thy guest. At any rate, I think I could point out many who with this view pay courts to the more distinguished among the saints, namely, that by their means they may enjoy a greater intimacy with rulers, and that they may find them henceforward more useful in their own affairs and to their families. And many such favors do they ask and recompense from those saints, a thing which mars the repayment of their hospitality they seeking it with such a mind. And why need I say this about the saints? Since he who seeks, even from God, the rewards of his labors in the present life, and follows after virtue, for this world's good, is sure to diminish his recompense. But he that asks for all his crowns, wholly there, is found far more admirable. Like that, Lazarus, who even now is receiving there all his good things. Like those three children, who, when they were on the point of being thrown into the furnace, said, there is a God in heaven able to deliver us. And if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we serve not thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. Like Abraham, who even offered his son and slew him, 
and this he did not for any reward but esteeming this one thing the greatest recompense to obey the lord these let us also imitate for so shall we be visited with a return of all our good deeds that abundantly because we do all with such a mind as this so shall we obtain also the brighter crowns and god grant that we may all obtain them through the grace and loving kindness of our lord jesus christ with whom to the father and the holy spirit be glory power honor now henceforth and for everlasting ages amen homily 21 first corinthians 9 verse 1 am i not an apostle am i not free have i not seen jesus christ our lord are not ye my work in the lord inasmuch as he had been saying if meat make my brother to offend i will eat no flesh while the world standeth lest i make my brother to offend a thing which he had not yet done but professed he would do if need require lest any man should say thou vaultest thyself at random and art severe in discourse and utterest words of promise a thing easy to me or to anybody but if these sayings come from thy heart show by deeds something which thou hast slighted in order to avoid offending thy brother for this cause i say and what follows he is compelled to enter on the proof of this also and to point out how he was used to forgo even things permitted that he might not give offence although without any law to enforce his doing so and we are not yet come to the admirable part of the matter though it be admirable his abstaining even from things lawful to avoid offence but it is his habit of doing so at the cost of so much trouble and danger for why saith he speak of the idle sacrifices since although christ had enjoined that those who preach the gospel should live at the charge of their disciples i did not so but chose if need were to end my life with famine and to die the most grievous of deaths so i might avoid receiving of those whom i instruct not because they would otherwise be offended but because his not receiving would edify them a much greater thing for him to do and to witness this he summons themselves among whom he was used to live in toil and in hunger nourished by others and put to straits in order not to offend them and yet there was no ground for their taking offence for it would but have been a law which he was fulfilling but for all this by a sort of supererogation he used to spare them now if he did more than was enacted lest they should take offence and abstained from permitted things to edify others what must they deserve who abstain not from idle sacrifices and that when many perish thereby a thing which even apart from all scandal one ought to shrink from as being the table of devils the sum therefore of this whole topic is this which he works out in many verses but we must resume it and make a fresh entrance on what he hath alleged for neither hath he set it down thus expressedly as i have worded it nor doth he leap at once upon it but begins from another topic thus speaking am i not an apostle for besides all that hath been said this also makes no small difference that paul himself is the person thus conducting himself as thus to prevent their alleging you may taste of the sacrifices sealing yourself at the same time for a while he withstands not that statement but argues though it were lawful your brethren's harm should keep you from doing so and afterwards he proves that it is not even lawful in this particular place however he is engaged in establishing the former point from the circumstances relating to himself and intending presently to say that he had received nothing from them 
he sets it not down at once, but his own dignity is what he first affirms. Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Thus to hinder their saying, True, thou didst not receive, but the reason thou didst not was its not being lawful. He sets down, therefore, the causes, why he might reasonably have received, had he been willing to do so. Further, that there might not seem to be anything invidious in regard of Peter, and such as Peter, in his saying these things, for they did not use to decline receiving. He first signifies that they had authority to receive, and then that no one might say, Peter had authority to receive, but thou hadst not. He possesses the hearer beforehand, with these high statements concerning himself, and perceiving that he must praise himself, for that was the way to correct the Corinthians. Yet disliking to say anything great of himself, see how he hath tempered both feelings as the occasion required, limiting his own panegyric, not by what he knew of himself, but by what the subject matter of necessity required. For he might have said, I most of all had a right to receive, even more than they, because I have labored more abundantly than they. But this he omits, being a point wherein he surpassed them, and those points wherein they were great, and which were just grounds for their receiving, those only he sets down as follows. Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? I.e., have I not authority over myself? Am I under any to overrule me and forbidding my receiving? But they have an advantage over you, and having been with Christ, nay, is this denied me, with a view to which he saith, Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? For last of all, saith he, as unto one born out of due time, he appeared unto me also. Now this likewise was no small dignity, since many prophets, saith he, and righteous men have desired to see the things which ye see, and have not seen them. Days will come when ye shall desire to see one of these days. What then, though thou be an apostle and free, and hast seen Christ, if thou hast not exhibited any work of an apostle, how then can it be right for thee to receive? Wherefore, after this he adds, are ye not my work in the Lord? For this is the great thing, and those others avail nothing. Apart from this, even Judas himself was an apostle and free, and saw Christ, because he had not the work of an apostle. All those things profited him not. You see then why he adds this also, and calls themselves to be witnesses of it. Moreover, because it was a great thing which he had uttered, see how he chastens it, adding, In the Lord, the work is God's, not mine. Verse 2. If I be not an apostle unto theirs, yet doubtless I am unto you. Do you see how far he is from enlarging here without necessity? And yet he had the whole world to speak of, and barbarous nations in sea and land. However, he mentions none of these things, but carries his point on the first onset, and even granting more than he need. As if he had said, Why need I dwell on things over and above, since these even alone are enough for my present purpose? I speak not, you will observe, of my achievements in other quarters, but of those which have you for witnesses, upon which it follows, that if from no other quarter, yet from you I have a right to receive. Nevertheless, from whom I had most right to receive, even you whose teacher I was, from those I received not. If I be not an apostle to others, yet doubtless I am to you. Again he states his point as one coming to close quarters for the whole world had him for its apostle. However, saith he, I say not that, I am not contending nor disputing, but what concerns you so much I lay down, for the seal of mine apostleship are ye, i.e. its proof. 
Should anyone, moreover, desire to learn whence I am an apostle, you are the persons whom I bring forward. For all the signs of an apostle have I exhibited among you, and not one have I failed in. As also he speaks in the second epistle, saying, Though I be nothing, yet the signs of an apostle were wrought among you in all patience, in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. For what is it wherein ye were inferior to the other churches? Wherefore he saith, The seal of mine apostleship are ye. For I both exhibited miracles and taught by word, and underwent dangers, and showed forth a blameless life. And these topics you may see fully set forth by these two epistles. Now he lays before them the demonstration of each with all exactness. Verse 3. Mine answer to them that do examine me is this. What is mine answer to them that do examine me is this. To those who seek to know whereby I am proved to be an apostle, or who accuse me as receiving money, or inquire the cause of my not receiving, or would fain show that I am not an apostle, to all such my instruction given to you, and these things to which I am about to say may stand for a full explanation and apology. What then are these? Verse 4 and 5. Have we not power to eat or to drink? Have we not power to lead about a sister, a wife? Why, how are these sayings an apology? Because when it appears that I abstain even from the things which are allowed, it cannot be just to look suspiciously on me as a deceiver or one acting for gain. Wherefore, from what was before alleged, and from my having instructed you, and from this which I have now said, I have matter sufficient to make my apology to you, and all who examine me I meet upon this ground, alleging both what has gone before, and this which follows. Have we not power to eat and to drink? Have we not power to lead about a sister, a wife? Yet for all this, having it, I abstain. What then? Did he not use to eat or to drink? It were most true to say that in many places he really did not eat nor drink. For in famine saith he, and in thirst, and in nakedness, we were abiding. Here, however, this is not his meaning, but what? We eat not nor drink, receiving of those whom we instruct, though we have a right so to receive. Have we not power to lead about a sister, a wife, even as the other apostles, and as the brethren of the Lord, and Cephas? Observe his skillfulness. The leader of the choir stands last in his arrangement, since that is the time for laying down the strongest of all one's topics. Nor was it so wonderful for one to be able to point out examples of this conduct in the rest, as in the foremost champion, and in him who was entrusted with the keys of heaven. But neither does he mention Peter only, but all of them, as if he had said, whether you seek the inferior sort or the more eminent, in all you find patterns of this sort drawn out for you. For the brethren too of the Lord, being free from their first unbelief, had come to be among those who were approved, although they attained it not to the apostles. And accordingly, the middle place is that which he hath assigned to them, setting down those who were in the extremes before and after. Verse 6. Were I only and Barnabas, have not we power to forbear working? See his humility of mind, and his soul purified from all envy, how he takes care not to conceal him whom he knew to be a partaker with himself in this perfection. For if the other things be common, how is not this common? Both they and we are apostles, and we are free, and have exhibited the works of the apostles, and have seen Christ. Wherefore, we likewise have power both to live without working, and to be supported by our disciples. Verse 7. Who goeth a warfare at any time at his own charges? For instance, which was the strongest point he had proved from the apostles, that it is lawful to do so? He next comes to examples 
and to the common practice, as he uses to do. Who goeth a warfare at his own charges, saith he? But do thou consider, I pray, how very suitable are the examples which he brings to his proposed subject, and how he mentions first that which is accompanied with danger, viz. soldiership in arms and wars. For such a kind of thing was the apostolate, nay, rather, much more hazardous than these. For not with men alone was their warfare, but with devils also, and against the prince of those beings was their battle array. What he saith, therefore, is this. Not even do heathen governors, cruel and unjust as they are, require their soldiers to endure service and peril, and live on their own means. How then could Christ ever have required this? Nor is he satisfied with one example, for to him who is rather simple and dull, this also is wont to come as a great refreshment. Viz their seeing the common custom also going along with the laws of God. Wherefore he proceeds to another topic also, and says, Who planteth the vineyard, and eateth not the fruit thereof? For as by the former he indicated his dangers, so by this his labor, and abundant travail and care. He adds likewise a third example, saying, Who feedeth the flock, and eateth not the milk thereof? He is exhibiting the great care which it becomes the teacher to take of those who are under his rule. For in fact the apostles were both soldiers and husbandmen and shepherds, not of the earth, nor of irrational animals, nor in such wars are perceptible by sense, but of reasonable souls, and in battle array with the devils. It also must be remarked how everywhere he preserves moderation, seeking the useful only, not the extraordinary. For he said not, Who goeth a warfare, and is not enriched, but who goeth a warfare at any time at his own charges? Neither did he say, Who planteth the vineyard, and gathereth not gold, nor spareth to collect the whole fruit? But who eateth not the fruit thereof? Neither did he say, Who feedeth a flock, and maketh not merchandise of the lambs? But what? Eateth not the milk thereof? Not of the lambs, but of the milk, signifying that a little relief should be enough for the teacher, even his necessary food alone. So much for those who would devour all, and gather the whole of the fruit. So likewise the Lord ordained, saying, The laborer is worthy of his hire. And not this only doth he establish by his illustrations, but he implies also what kind of man a priest ought to be. For he ought to possess both the courage of a soldier and the diligence of a husbandman, and the carefulness of a shepherd, and after all these to seek nothing more than necessaries. Having shown, as you see, both from the apostles, that it is not forbidden the teacher to receive, and from illustrations found in common life, he proceeds also to a third head, thus saying, verse 8, Say I these things as a man, or saith not the law the same also? For since he had hitherto alleged nothing out of the scriptures, but put forward the common custom, think not, saith he, that I am confident in these alone, nor that I go to the opinions of men for the ground of these enactments. For I can show that these things are also well-pleasing to God, and I read an ancient law enjoining these things. Wherefore also he carries on his discourse in the form of a question, which is apt to be done in things fully acknowledged. Thus saying, Say I these things as a man, i.e., do I strengthen myself only by human examples, or saith not the law the same also? Verse 9. For it is written in the law of Moses, Thou shalt not muzzle the ox which treadeth out the corn. And on what account hath he mentioned this, having the example of the priests? Wishing to establish it far beyond what the case required, Further, lest any should say, And what have I to do with the saying about the oxen? He works it out more exactly, saying, Doth God take care for oxen? Doth God then tell me, Take no care for oxen? Well, he doth take care of them, but not so much as to make a law concerning such a thing as this. So that had he not been hinting at something more important, 
exercising the Jews in mercy in the case of the brutes, and through these discoursing with them of the teachers also, he would not have taken so much interest in it, as even to make a law to permit the muzzling of oxen. Wherein he points out another thing likewise, that the labor of teachers both is great and ought so to be. And again another thing, what then is this? That whatever is said by the Old Testament, inculcating care for brutes, in its principal meaning bears the instruction of human beings, as in fact do all the rest. The precepts, for example, concerning various garments, and those concerning vineyards and seeds, and not making the ground bear diverse crops, and the precepts concerning leprosy, and in a word, all the rest. For they being of a duller sort, he was discoursing with them from these topics, advancing them by little and little. And see now, in what follows, he doth not even confirm it, as being clear and self-evident. For having said, Doth God take care for oxen? He added, Or saith he it altogether for ourselves? not adding even the altogether at random, but that he might not leave the hearer anything whatever to reply. And he dwells upon the metaphor, saying and declaring, For our sakes no doubt it is written, that he who ploweth ought to plow in hope, i.e. the teacher ought to enjoy the returns of his labors, and he that thresheth ought to partake of his hope in hope. And observe his wisdom, in that from the seed he transferred the matter to the threshing floor, Herein also, again, manifesting the many toils of the teachers, that they in their own persons both plow and tread the floor, and of the plowing, because there was nothing to reap but labor only, he used the word hope, but of treading the floor he presently allows the fruit, saying, He that thresheth is a partaker of his hope. Further, lest any should say, Is this, then, the return for so many toils? He adds in hope, i.e., which is to come, no other thing, therefore, doth the mouth of this animal, being unmuzzled, declared, than this, that the teachers who labor ought also to enjoy some return. Verse 11. If we have sown unto you our spiritual things, is it a great matter if we should reap your carnal things? Lo, he addresses also a fourth argument for the duty of yielding support. For since he had said, Who goeth a warfare at any time at his own charges? And who planteth a vineyard? And who feedeth a flock? and had introduced the ox that treadeth the corn, he points out likewise another most reasonable cause, on account of which they might justly receive, viz. as having bestowed much greater gifts, not now as having labored only. What is it then? If we have sown unto you spiritual things, is it a great matter if we shall reap your carnal things? Seest thou a most just allegation, and fuller of reason than all the former? For in those instances, says he, carnal is the seed, Carnal also is the fruit, but here not so, but the seed is spiritual, the return carnal. Thus to prevent high thoughts in those who contribute to their teachers, he signified that they received more than they give. As if he had said, Husbandmen, whatsoever they sow, this also do they receive. But we, sowing in your souls spiritual things, do reap carnal, for such is the kind of support given by them. Further, and still more, to put them to the blush. Verse 12. If others be partakers of this power over you, are not we rather? See also again another argument, and this too from examples, though not of the same kind. For it is not Peter whom he mentions here, nor the apostles, but certain other spurious ones, with whom he afterwards enters into combat, and concerning whom he says, If a man deliver you, if a man take of you, if a man exalt himself, if a man smite you on the face, and already he is sounding the prelude to the fight with them. Wherefore, neither did he say, If others take of you, but pointing out their insolence, 
in tyranny and trafficking, he says, if others be partakers of this power over you, i.e. rule you, exercise authority, use you as servants, not taking only, but quite as a matter of business and with much authority. Wherefore, he added, are not we much rather, which he would not have said if the discourse were concerning the apostles. But it is evident that he hints at certain pestilent men and deceivers of them, so that besides the law of Moses, even ye yourselves have made a law in behalf of the duty of contribution. And having said, are not we much rather, he does not prove why much rather, but leaves it to their consciences to prove them of that, wishing at once both to alarm and to abash them more thoroughly. Nevertheless, we have not used this power, i.e., have not received. Do you see, when he had by so many reasons before proved that receiving is not unlawful, how he next says, we receive not, that he might not seem to abstain as from a thing forbidden. For not because it is unlawful, saith he, do I not receive, for it is lawful, and this we have many ways shown, from the apostles, from the affairs of life, the soldier, the husbandman, and the shepherd, from the law of Moses, from the very nature of the case, in that we have sown unto you spiritual things, from what yourselves have done to those others. But as he had laid down these things, lest he should seem to put to shame the apostles who were in the habit of receiving, abashing them and signifying that not as from a forbidden thing doth he abstain from it. So again, list by his large store of proof and many examples, by which he had pointed out the propriety of receiving, he should seem to be anxious to receive himself, and therefore to say these things. He now corrects it, and afterwards he laid it down more clearly, where he says, But I have not written these things, that it should be so done unto me. But here his words are, We have not used this power. And what is still a greater thing, neither could have any this to say, that being in abundance we declined using it. Rather, when necessity pressed upon us, we would not yield to the necessity, which also in the second epistle he says, I robbed other churches, taking wages of them, to do you service, and when I was present with you and wanted, I was chargeable to no man. And in this epistle again, we both hunger and thirst and are naked, and are buffeted. And here again he hints the same thing, saying, But we suffer all things. For by saying, We suffer all things, he intimates both hunger and great straits, and all the other things. But not even thus have we been compelled, saith he, to break the law, which we laid down for ourselves. Wherefore, lest we should give some hindrance to the gospel of Christ. For since the Corinthians were rather weak-minded, lest we should wound you, saith he, by receiving we choose to do even more than was commanded, rather than hinder the gospel, i.e. your instruction. Now if we in a matter left free to us, and when we were both enduring much hardship and having apostles for our pattern, used abstinence, lest we should give hindrance, and he did not say subversion, but hindrance, nor simply hindrance, but any hindrance, that we might not, so to speak, cause so much as the slightest suspense and delay to the course of the word. If now, saith he, we used so great care, how much more ought you to abstain, who both come far short of the apostles, and have no law to mention, giving you permission, but contrawise are both putting your hand to things forbidden, and things which tend to the great injury of the gospel." not to its hindrance only, and not even having any pressing necessity in view. For all this discussion he had moved on account of these Corinthians, who were offending their weaker brethren by eating of things sacrificed to idols. These things also let us listen to, beloved, that we may not despise those who are offended, 
nor caused any hindrance to the gospel of Christ, that we may not betray our own salvation. And say not thou to me, when thy brother is offended, this or that whereby he is offended hath not been forbidden, it is permitted. For I have something greater to say to thee. Although Christ himself have permitted it, yet if thou seest any injury, stop and do not use the permission. For this also did Paul, when he might have received. Christ having granted permission, he received not. Thus hath our Lord in his mercy mingled much gentleness with his precepts, that it might not be all merely of commandment, but that we might do much also of our own mind. Since it was in his power, had he not been so minded, to extend the commandments further, and to say, He who fasts not continually, let him be chastised. He who keeps not his virginity, let him be punished. He that doth not strip of all that he hath, let him suffer the severest penalty. But he did not so, giving thee occasion, if thou wilt, to be forward in doing more. Wherefore, both when he was discoursing about virginity, he said, He that is able to receive it, let him receive it. Yet in the case of the rich man, some things he commanded, but some he left to the determination of his mind. For he said not, Sell what thou hast, but if thou wilt be perfect, sell. But we are not only not forward to do more, and to go beyond the precepts, but we fall very short even of the measure of things commanded. And whereas Paul suffered hunger, that he might not hinder the gospel, we have not the heart even to touch what is in our own stores. Though we see innumerable souls overthrown, yea, saith one, let the moth eat, and let not the poor eat. Let the worm devour, and let not the naked be clothed. Let all be wasted away with time, and let not Christ be fed. And this, when he hungereth. Why, who said this? It will be asked, Nay, this is the very grievance, that not in words, but in deeds, these things are said. For it were less grievous uttered in words, than done in deeds. For is not this the cry, day by day, of the inhuman and cruel tyrant? covetousness to those who are led captive by her. Let your goods be set before informers and robbers and traders for luxury, and not before the hungry and needy for their sustenance. Is it not ye then who make robbers? Is it not ye who minister fuel to the fire of the envious? Is it not ye who make vagabonds and traders, putting your wealth before them for a bait? What madness is this? For a madness it is and a plain distraction, to fill your chests with the peril, and overlook him that is made after God's image and similitude, naked and trembling with cold, and with difficulty keeping himself upright. But he pretends, saith one, this tremor and weakness, and dost thou not fear, lest a thunderbolt from heaven, kindled by this word, should fall upon thee? For I am bursting with wrath, bear with me. Thou, I say, pampering and fattening thyself, and extending thy potations to the dead of night, and comforting thyself in soft coverlets, dost not deem thyself meet for judgment, so lawlessly using the gifts of God. For wine was not made that we should be drunken, nor food that we should pamper our appetites, nor meats that we should distend the belly. But from the poor, the wretched, from him that is as good as dead, from him demandest thou strict accounts. And dost thou not fear Christ's tribunal, so full of all awfulness and terror? Why, if he do play the hypocrite, he doth it of necessity and want because of thy cruelty and inhumanity, requiring the use of such masks and refusing all inclination to mercy. For who is so wretched and miserable as without urgent necessity for one loaf of bread to submit to such disgrace and to bewail himself and endure so severe a punishment? So that this hypocrisy of his goeth about the herald of thine inhumanity. For since by supplicating and beseeching 
and uttering piteous expressions and lamenting and weeping and going about all day he doth not obtain even necessary food he devised perhaps even this contrivance also the disgrace and blame whereof falls not so much on himself as on thee for he indeed is meet to be pitied because he hath fallen into so great necessity but we are worthy of innumerable punishments because we compel the poor to suffer such things for if we would easily give way never would he have chosen to endure such things and why speak i of nakedness and trembling for i will tell a thing yet more to be shuddered at that some have been compelled even to deprive their children of sight at an early age in order that they might touch our insensibility for since when they could see and went about naked neither by their age nor by their misfortunes could they win favor of the unpitying they added to so great evils another yet sterner tragedy that they might remove their hunger thinking it to be a lighter thing to be deprived of this common light and that sunshine which is given to all than to struggle with continual famine and endure the most miserable of deaths thus since you have not learned to pity poverty but delight yourselves in misfortunes they satisfy your insatiable desire and both for themselves and for you kindle a fiercer flame in hell and to conceive you that this is the reason why these and such like things are done i will tell you of an acknowledged and certain proof which no man can gainsay there are other poor men of light and unsteady minds and not knowing how to bear hunger but rather enduring everything than it these having often tried to deal with you by piteous gestures and words and finding that they availed nothing have left off those supplications and thenceforward your very wonder workers are surpassed by them some chewing the skins of worn out shoes and some affixing sharp nails into their heads others lying about in frozen pools with naked stomachs and others enduring different things yet more horrid than these that they may draw around them the ungodly spectators and thou while these things are going on standest laughing and wondering the while and making a fine show of other men's miseries our common nature disgracing itself and what could a fierce demon do more next you give him money in abundance that he may do these things more promptly and to him that prays and calls on god and approaches with modesty you neither vouchsafe an answer nor a look rather you utter to him continually teasing you those disgusting expressions ought this fellow to live or at all to breathe and see the sun whereas to the other sort you are both cheerful and liberal as though you were appointed to dispense the prize of that ridiculous and satanic unseemliness wherefore with more propriety to those who appoint these sports and bestow nothing till they see others punishing themselves might these words be addressed ought these men to live to breathe at all and see the sun who transgress against our common nature who insult god for whereas god saith give alms and i give thee the kingdom of heaven thou hearest not but when the devil shows thee a head pierced with nails on a sudden thou hast become liberal and the contrivance of the evil spirit pregnant with so much mischief hath wrought upon thee more than the promise of god bringing innumerable blessings if gold were to be laid down to prevent the doing of these things or the looking upon them when done there is nothing which thou oughtest not to practice and endure to get rid of so excessive madness but ye contrive everything to have them done and look on the doing of them as yet askest thou then tell me to what end is hellfire nay ask not that any more but how is there one hell only for of how many punishments are not they worthy who gets up this cruel and merciless spectacle 
and laugh at what both they and yourselves ought to weep over, yea, rather of the two, ye who compel them to such unseemly doings. But I do not compel them, say you. What else but compelling is it? I should like to know. Those who are more modest and shed tears, and invoke God, thou art impatient, even of listening to. But for these thou both findest silver in abundance, and bringest around thee many to admire them. Well, let us depart, say you, pitying them, and dost thou too enjoin this. Nay, it is not pity, O man, to demand so severe a punishment for a few pence, to order men to maim themselves for necessary food, and cut into many pieces the skin of their head so mercilessly and pitifully. Gently say you, for it is not we who pierce those heads. Would it were thou, and the horror would not be so horrible. For he that slays a man does a much more grievous thing than he who bids him slay himself, which indeed happens in the case of these persons. For they endure more bitter pains when they are bidden to be themselves the executors of these wicked commands. And all this in Antioch, where men were first called Christians, wherein are bred the most civilized of mankind, where in old time the fruit of charity flourished so abundantly, for not only to those at hand, but also to those very far off, they used to send, and this when famine was expected. What then ought we to do, say you, to cease from this savage practice, and to convince all that are in need, that by doing these things they will gain nothing? But if they modestly approach, they shall find your liberality great. Let them be once aware of this, even though they be of all men most miserable, they will never choose to punish themselves so severely, I pledge myself. Nay, they will even give you thanks for delivering them both from the mockery and the pain of that way of life. But as it is, for charioteers you would sell even your own children, and for dancers you would throw away your very souls, while for Christ and hungered you spare not the smallest portion of your substance. But if you give a little silver, you think as much of it as if you had laid out all you have not knowing that not the giving, but the giving liberally, this is true almsgiving. Wherefore also, it is not those simply who give, whom the prophet proclaims and calls happy, but those who bestow liberally. For he doth not say simply, he hath given, but what? He hath dispersed abroad, he hath given to the poor. For what profit is it, when out of it thou givest, as it were, a glass of water out of the sea, and even a widow woman's magnanimity is beyond thy emulation. And how wilt thou say, Have mercy on me, O Lord, according to thy great mercy, and according to the multitude of thy mercies, blot out my transgression, thyself not showing mercy according to any great mercy, nay, haply not according to any little. For I am greatly ashamed, I own, when I see many of the rich riding upon their golden-bitted chargers, with a train of domestics clad in gold, and having couches of silver, and other and more pomp, and yet, when there is need to give to a poor man, becoming more beggarly than the very poorest. But what is their constant talk? He hath, they say, the common church allowance. And what is that to thee? For thou wilt not be saved because I give. Nor if the church bestow, hast thou blotted out thine own sins. For this cause givest thou not. Because the church ought to give to the needy. Because the priests pray, wilt thou never pray thyself. And because others fast, wilt thou be continually drunken? Knowest thou not that God enacted not almsgiving so much for the sake of the poor, as for the sake of the persons themselves who bestow? But dost thou suspect the priest? Why this thing itself, to begin with, is a grievous sin? However, I will not examine the matter too nicely. Do thou it all in thine own person, and so shalt thou reap a double reward. 
since in fact what we say in behalf of almsgiving, we say not that thou shouldest offer to us, but that thou shouldest thyself minister by thine own hands. For if thou bringest thine alms to me, perhaps thou mayest even be led captive by vainglory, and oftentimes likewise thou shalt go away offended through suspicion of something evil. But if ye do all things by yourselves, ye shall both be rid of offenses and of unreasonable suspicion, and greater is your reward. Not therefore to compel you to bring your money hither do I say these things, nor from indignation on account of the priests being ill-reported of. For if one must be indignant and grieve, for you should be our grief who say this ill, since to them who are spoken ill of falsely and vainly, the reward is greater, but to the speakers the condemnation and punishment is heavier. I say not these things, therefore, in their behalf, but in solicitude and care for you. For what marvel is it if some in our generation are suspected, when in the case of those holy men who imitated the angels, who possessed nothing of their own, I mean the apostles, there was a murmuring in the ministration to the widows, that the poor were overlooked, when not one said that aught of the things he possessed was his own, but that they had all things in common. Let us not then put forward these pretexts, nor account it an excuse, that the church is wealthy, but when you see the greatness of her substance, bear in mind also the crowds of poor, who are on her list, the multitudes of her sick, her occasions of endless expenses. Investigate, scrutinize, there is none to forbid, nay, they are even ready to give you an account. But it is something beyond which I want you to do. Namely, when we have given our accounts and proved that our expenditure is no less than our income, nay, sometimes more, I would gladly ask you this further question. When we depart hence and shall hear Christ saying, Ye saw me hungry and gave me no meat, naked and ye clothed me not, what shall we say? What apology shall we make? Shall we bring forward such and such a person who disobeyed these commands? or some of the priests who were suspected. Nay, what is this to thee? For I accuse thee, saith he, of those things wherein thou hast thyself sinned. And the apology for these would be to have washed away thine own offenses, not to point to others whose errors have been the same as thine. In fact, the church, through your meanness, is compelled to have such property as it has now. Since if men did all things according to the apostolic laws, its revenue should have been your goodwill which were both a secure chest and an inexhaustible treasure. But now when ye lay up for yourselves treasures upon the earth and shut up all things in your own stores, while the church is compelled to be at charges with bands of widows, choirs of virgins, surgeonings of strangers, distresses of foreigners, the misfortunes of prisoners, the necessities of the sick and maimed, and other such like causes, what must be done? Turn away from all these and block up so many ports, who then could endure the shipwrecks that would ensue, the weepings, the lamentations, the wailings which would reach us from every quarter? Let us not then speak at random what comes into our mind. For now, as I have just said, we are really prepared to render up our accounts to you. But even if it were the reverse, and ye had corrupt teachers, plundering and grasping at everything, not even so were their wickednesses an apology for you. For the lover of mankind and all-wise and only-begotten Son of God seeing all things and knowing the chance that, in so great length of time, and in so vast a world, there would be many corrupt priests, let the carelessness of those under their rule should increase through their neglect, removing every excuse for indifference. In Moses' seat, saith he, sit the scribes and the Pharisees, all things, therefore, whatsoever they bid you do, do ye, but do not ye after their works, implying that even if thou hast a bad teacher, this will have no power to profit thee, 
except thou attend to the things which are spoken. For not from what thy teacher hath done, but from what thou hast heard and disobeyed, from that, I say, doth God pass his sentence upon thee. So that if thou doest the things commanded, thou shalt then stand with much boldness. But if thou disobey the things spoken, even though thou shouldest show ten thousand corrupt priests, this will not plead for thee at all, since Judas also was an apostle. But nevertheless, this shall never be an apology for the sacrilegious and covetous. Nor will any be able, when accused, to say, Why, the apostle was a thief and sacrilegious and a traitor. Yea, this very thing shall most of all be our punishment and condemnation, that not even by the evils of others we were corrected. For this cause also these things were written, that we might shun all emulation of such things. Wherefore, leaving this person and that, let us take heed to ourselves, for each of us shall give an account of himself to God. In order, therefore, that we may render up this account with a good defense, let us well order our own lives, and stretch out a liberal hand to the needy, knowing that this only is our defense, and showing ourselves to have rightly done the things commanded, that there is no other whatever. And if we be able to procure this, we shall escape those intolerable pains of hell, and obtain the good things to come, unto which may we all attain, by the grace and mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, with whom to the Father and the Holy Ghost be glory, power, and honor, now and ever, world without end. Amen. Homily 22, 1 Corinthians 9, 13, and 14. Do ye not know that they which minister about holy things live of the temple, and they which wait at the altar are partakers with the altar? Even so hath the Lord ordained that they which preach the gospel should live of the gospel. He takes great care to show that the receiving was not forbidden, whereupon, having said so much before, he was not content, but proceeds also to the law, furnishing an example closer to the point than the former. For it was not the same thing to bring forward the oxen, and to put forward the law expressly given concerning priests. But consider, I pray, in this also the wisdom of Paul, how he mentions the matter in a way to give it dignity. For he did not say, they which minister about holy things, receive of those who offer them. But what? They eat of the temple, so that neither they who receive may be blamed, nor they who give may be lifted up. Wherefore also, what follows he hath set down in the same way. For neither did he say, they which wait at the altar receive of them which sacrifice, but are partakers with the altar. For the things offered now no longer belong to those who offered them, but to the temple and the altar. And he said not, they receive the holy things, but they eat of the temple, indicating again their moderation, and that it behooves them not to make money nor to be rich. And though he say that they are partakers with the altar, he doth not speak of equal distribution, but of relief given them as their due. And yet the case of the apostles was much stronger, for in the former instance the priesthood was an honor, but in the latter it was dangers and slaughters and violent deaths. Wherefore, all the other examples together did not come up to the saying, If we have sown unto you spiritual things, since in saying we have sown, he points out the storms and the dangers and the snares, and the unspeakable evils which they had endured in preaching. Nevertheless, though the superiority was so great, he was unwilling either to abase the things of the old law, or to exalt the things which belonged to himself. Nay, he even contracts his own, reckoning the superiority not from the dangers, but from the greatness of the gift. For he said not, if we have jeopardized ourselves, or exposed ourselves to snares, but if we have sown unto you spiritual things. And the part of the priests as far as possible he exalts, saying, 
they which minister about holy things, and they that wait at the altar, thereby intending to point out their continual servitude and patience. Again, as he had spoken of the priests among the Jews, and both of the Levites and the chief priests, so he hath expressed each of the orders, both the inferior and the superior, the one by saying, They which minister in holy things, and the other by saying, They which wait at the altar. For not to all was one work commanded, but some were entrusted with the coarser, others with the more exalted offices. Comprehending therefore all these, lest any should say, Why talk to us of the old law? Knowest thou not that ours is the time of more perfect commandments? After all those topics, he placed that which is strongest above all, saying, Verse 14, Even so hath the Lord ordained, that they who preach the gospel should live of the gospel. Nor doth he even here say that they are supported by men, but as in the case of the priests of the temple and of the altar, so likewise here of the gospel. And there he saith, Eat, so here live, not make merchandise nor lay up treasures. For the laborer, saith he, is worthy of his hire. Verse 15, But I have used none of these things. What then, if thou hast not used them now, saith one, but intendest to use them at a future time, and on this account sayest these things? Far from it, for he speedily corrected the notion, thus saying, Neither have I written these things, that it should be so done unto me. And see with what vehemence he disavows and repels the thing. For it were better for me to die, than that any man should make my glorying void. And not once nor twice, but many times he uses this expression. For above he said, We have not used this power. And after this again, That I abuse not my power. And here, But I have used none of these things. These things, what things? The many examples. That is to say, many things giving me license. The soldier, the husbandman, the shepherd, the apostles, the law, the things done by us unto you, the things done by you unto the others, the priests, the ordinance of Christ. By none of these things have I been induced to abolish my own law and to receive, and speak not to me of the past, although I could say that I have endured much even in past times on this account. Nevertheless, I am not confident on the ground of it alone, but likewise concerning the future, I pledge myself that I would choose rather to die of hunger than be deprived of these crowns. For it were better for me to die, saith he, than that any man should make my glorying void. He said not that any man should abolish my law, but my glorying. For lest any should say, he doth it indeed, but not cheerfully, but with lamentation and grief, willing to show the excess of his joy and the abundance of his zeal, he even calls the matter glorying. So far was he from vexing himself that he even glories and chooses rather to die than to fall from this glorying. So much dearer to him even than life itself was that proceeding of his. Next he exalts it from another consideration also, and signifies that it was a great thing, not that he might show himself famous, for far was he from that disposition, but to signify that he rejoices, and with a view more abundantly to take away all suspicion. For on this account, as I before said, he also called it a glorying. And what saith he? Verses 16, 17, and 18. For though I preach the gospel, I have nothing to glory of, for necessity is laid upon me. Yea, woe to me if I preach not the gospel. For if I do this thing willingly, I have a reward. But if against my will, a dispensation is committed unto me. What is my reward then? That when I preach the gospel, I may make the gospel of Christ without charge, that I abuse not my power in the gospel. What sayest thou, tell me, if thou preach the gospel, it is nothing for thee to glory of. 
but it is if thou make the gospel of Christ without charge. Is this therefore greater than that? By no means. But in another point of view, it hath some advantage, inasmuch as the one is a command, but the other is a good deal of my own free will. For what things are done beyond the commandment have a reward in this respect, but such as are in the nature of a commandment, not so great. And so in this respect, he says, the one is more than the other, not in the very nature of the thing. For what is equal to preaching, since it maketh men vie even with the angels themselves? Nevertheless, the one being a commandment and a debt, the other the forwardness of free will. In this respect, this is more than that. Wherefore he saith, explaining the same, what I just now mentioned. For if I do this thing willingly, I have a reward. But if against my will, a dispensation is committed unto me. Taking the words willing and against my will, of its being committed and not committed to him. And thus we must understand the expression, for necessity is laid upon me, not as though he did aught of these things against his will, God forbid, but as though he were bound by the things commanded, and for contradistinction to the liberty in receiving, before mentioned. Wherefore also Christ said to the disciples, When ye have done all, say, We are unprofitable servants, for we have done that which was our duty to do. What then is my reward? That when I preach the gospel, I may make the gospel without charge. What then, tell me, hath Peter no reward? Nay, who can ever have so great an one as he? And what shall we say of the other apostles? How then, said he, if I do this thing willingly, I have reward. But if against my will, a dispensation is committed unto me. Seest thou here also his wisdom? For he said not, but if against my will, I have no reward. But a dispensation is committed unto me implying that even thus he hath a reward, but such as he obtains who hath performed what was commanded, not such as belongs to him, who hath of his own resources been generous and exceeded the commandment. What then is the reward? That when I preach the gospel, saith he, I may make the gospel without charge, that I abuse not my power in the gospel. See how throughout he uses the term power, imitating this, as I have often observed, that neither are they who receive worthy of blame. But he added in the gospel, partly in order to specify the work of preaching, partly also to forbid our carrying the matter out into every case. For the teacher ought to receive, but not the mere drone also. Verse 19, For though I be free from all men, yet I made myself slave unto all, that I may gain the more. Here again he introduces another high step in advance. For a great thing it is even not to receive, but this which he is about to mention is much more than that. What then is that which he says? Not only have I not received, saith he, not only have I not used this power, but I have even made myself a slave, and in a slavery manifold and universal, for not in money alone, but which was much more than money, and employments many and various have I made good this same rule. And I have made myself a slave when I was subject to none, having no necessity in any respect. For this is the meaning of, though I be free from all men, and not even to any single person have I been a slave, but to the whole world. Wherefore also he subjoined, I have made myself servant unto all. That is, to preach the gospel I was commanded, and to proclaim the things committed to my trust, but the contriving and devising numberless things besides, all that was of my own zeal. For I was only under obligation to invest the money, whereas I did everything in order to get a return for it attempting more than was commanded. Thus doing, 
as he did all things of free choice, in zeal and love to Christ, he had an insatiable desire for the salvation of mankind. Wherefore also he was used to overpass, by a very great deal, the lines marked out, in every way springing higher than the very heaven. Next, having mentioned his servitude, he describes in what follows the various modes of it. And what are these? Verse 20, And I became, says he, to the Jews as a Jew, that I may gain the Jews. And how did this take place? Because he circumcised, that he might abolish circumcision. Wherefore he said not a Jew, but as a Jew, which was an economy. What sayest thou, the herald of the world, and he who touched the very heavens, and shone so bright in grace, doth he all at once descend so low? Yea, for this is to ascend. For you are not to look to the fact only of his descending, but also to his rising up him that was bowed down, and bringing him up to himself. To them that are under the law, as under the law, that I might gain them that are under the law. Either it is the explanation of what went before, or he hints at some other thing besides the former, calling those Jews who were such originally, and from the first, but under the law, the proselytes, or those who became believers, and yet adhered to the law. For they were no longer as Jews, yet under the law. And when was he under the law? When he shaved his head, when he offered sacrifice. Now these things were done, not because his mind changed, since such conduct would have been wickedness, but because his love condescended for that he might bring over to this faith those who were really Jews. He became such himself, not really, showing himself such only, but not such in fact, nor doing these things from a mind so disposed. Indeed, how could he, zealous as he was to convert others also, in doing these things for no other cause, but that he might free others who did them from that degradation? Verse 21. To them that are without law as without law, these were neither Jews, nor Christians, nor Greeks, but outside of the law, as was Cornelius, and if there were any others like him. For among these also, making his appearance, he used to assume many of their ways. But some say that he hints at his discourse with the Athenians from the inscription on the altar, and that so he saith to them that are without law, as without law. Then, lest any should think that the matter was a change of mind, he added, but being without law to God, but under the law to Christ, i.e. so far from being without law, I am not simply under the law, but I have that law which is much more exalted than the elder one, viz. that of the Spirit and of grace. Wherefore he adds to Christ. Then again, having made them confident of his judgment, he states also the gain of such condescension, saying that I might gain them that are without law, and everywhere he brings forward the cause of his condescension, and stops not even here, but says, verse 22, To the weak also became I as weak, that I might gain the weak. In this part coming to their case, with a view to which also all these things have been spoken. However, those were much greater things, but this more to the purpose. Whence also he hath placed it after them. Indeed, he did the same thing likewise in his epistle to the Romans, when he was finding fault about meats and in so many other places. Next, not to waste time by naming all severally, he saith, I am made all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. Seest thou how far it is carried? I am made all things to all men, not expecting however to save all, but that I may save, though it be but a few. And so great care and service have I undergone, as one naturally would who was about saving all. Far however from hoping to gain all, which was truly magnanimous, 
and a proof of burning zeal, since likewise the sower sowed everywhere, and saved not all the seed, notwithstanding he did his part, and having mentioned the fewness of those who are saved, again adding, by all means, he consoled those to whom this was a grief. For, though it be not possible that all the seed should be saved, nevertheless it cannot be that all should perish. Wherefore he said, by all means, because one who so ardently zealous must certainly have some success. Verse 23. And I do all things for the gospel's sake, that I may be a fellow partaker thereof. That is, that I may seem also myself to have added some contribution of mine own, and may partake of the crowns laid up for the faithful. For as he spake of living of the gospel, i.e. of the believers, so also here, that I might be fellow partaker in the gospel, that I might be able to partake with them that have believed in the gospel. Do you perceive his humility? How, in the recompense of rewards, he places himself as one of the many, though he had exceeded all his labors, whence it is evident that he would in his reward also. Nevertheless, he claims not to enjoy the first prize, but is content. If so be, he may partake with the others in the crowns laid up for them. But these things he said, not because he did this for any reward, but that hereby at least he might draw them on, and by these hopes might induce them to do all things for their brethren's sake. Seest thou his wisdom, seest thou the excellency of his perfection, how he wrought beyond the things commanded, not receiving, when it was lawful to receive. Seest thou the exceeding greatness of his condescension, how he that was under the law to Christ, and kept that highest law to them that were without the law, was as one without the law, to the Jews, as a Jew, in either kind showing himself preeminent and surpassing all. This also do thou, and think not to being eminent, that thou lowerest thyself, when for thy brother's sake thou submittest to some abasement. For this is not to fall, but to descend. For he who falls lies prostrate, hardly to be raised up again. But he who descends shall also rise again with much advantage. As also Paul descended indeed alone, but ascended with the whole world, not acting apart, for he would not have sought the gain of them that are saved, had he been acting, since the hypocrite seeks men's perdition, and feigns that he may receive, not that he may give, but the apostle not so, as a physician rather, as a teacher, as a father, the one to the sick, the other to the disciple, the other to the son, condescends for his correction, not for his hurt. So likewise did he, to show that the things which have been stated were not pretense, in a case where he is not compelled to do or say any such thing, but means to express his affection and his confidence, hear him saying, neither life nor death, nor angels nor principalities, nor powers nor things present, nor things to come, nor height nor depth, nor any other creature, shall be able to separate us from the love which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Seest thou a love more ardent than fire? So let us also love Christ, for indeed it is easy, if we will, for neither was the apostle such by nature. On this account you see his former life was recorded, so contrary to this, that we may learn that the work is of free will, and that to the willing all things are easy. Let us not then despair, but even though thou be a reviler, or covetous, or whatsoever thou art, consider that Paul was a blasphemer and persecutor and injurious, and the chief of sinners and suddenly rose to the very summit of virtue, and his former life proved no hindrance to him, and yet none with so great frenzy clings to vice as he did to the war against the church. For at that time he put his very life into it, and because he had not ten thousand hands, 
that he might stone Stephen with all of them. He was vexed. Notwithstanding, even thus he found how he might stone him with more hands, to wit, those of the false witnesses, whose clothes he kept. And again, when he entered into houses, like a wild beast, and no otherwise did he rush in, hauling, tearing, men and women, filling all things with tumult and confusion, and innumerable conflicts. For instance, so terrible was he that the apostles, even after his most grievous change, did not yet venture to join themselves to him. Nevertheless, after all those things, he became such as he was, for I need not say more. Where now are they who build up the necessity of fate against the freedom of the will? Let them hear these things, and let their mouths be stopped, for there is nothing to hinder him that willeth to become good, for even though before he should be one of the vilest. And in fact we are more aptly disposed that way, inasmuch as virtue is agreeable to our nature, and vice contrary to it, even as sickness and health. For God hath given us eyes, not that we may look wantonly, but that, admiring his handiwork, we may worship the Creator. And that this is the use of our eyes is evident from the things which are seen. For the luster of the sun and of the sky we see from an immeasurable distance, but a woman's beauty we cannot discern so far off. Seest thou that for this end our eye was chiefly given? Again he made the ear, that we should entertain not blasphemous words, but saving doctrines. Wherefore, you see, when it receives anything dissident, both our soul shudders, and our very body also. For, saith one, the talk of him that sweareth much, maketh the hair stand upright. And if we hear anything cruel or merciless, again our flesh creeps. But if anything decorous and kind, we even exult and rejoice. Again, if our mouth uttereth base words, it causes us to be ashamed and hide ourselves. But if grave words, it utters them with ease and all freedom. Now for those things which are according to nature, no one would blush, but for those which are against nature. And the hands, when they steal, hide themselves and seek excuses. But if they give alms, they even glory, so that if we will, we have from every side a great inclination towards virtue. But if thou talk to me of the pleasure which arises from vice, consider that this also is a thing which we reap more of from virtue. For to have a good conscience, and to be looked up to by all, and to entertain good hopes, is of all things most pleasant to him that has seen into the nature of pleasure, even as the reverse is of all things the most grievous to him that knows the nature of pain, such as to be reproached by all, to be accused by our own conscience, to tremble and fear both at the future and the present. And that what I say may become more evident, let us suppose for argument's sake one man having a wife, yet defiling the marriage bed of his neighbor, and taking pleasure in this wicked robbery, enjoying his paramour. Then let us again oppose to him another who loves his own spouse, and that the victory may be greater and more evident that the man who enjoys his own wife only have a fancy also for the other, the adulteress, but restrain his passion and do nothing evil, although neither is this pure chastity, however granting more than is necessary, that you may convince yourself how great is the pleasure of virtue. For this cause have we so framed our story. Now then, having brought them together, let us ask them accordingly, whose is the pleasanter life? And you will hear the one glorying and exulting in the conquest over his lust. But the other, or rather, there is no need to wait to be informed of anything by him. For thou shalt see him, though he deny it times without number, more wretched than men in a prison. For he fears and suspects all, both his own wife and the husband of the adulteress, and the adulteress herself, and domestics and friends and kinsmen, 
and walls and shadows and himself and what is worst of all he hath his own conscience crying out against him barking aloud every day but if he should also bring to mind the judgment seat of god he will not be able even to stand and the pleasure is short but the pain from it unceasing for both at even and in the night in the desert and the city and everywhere the accuser haunts him pointing to a sharpened sword and the intolerable punishments and with that terror consuming and wasting him but the other the chaste person is free from all these things and is at liberty and with comfort looks upon his wife his children his friends and meets all with unembarrassed eyes now if he that is enamoured but is master of himself enjoys so great pleasure he that indulges no such passion but is truly chaste what harbour what calm will be so sweet and serene as the mind which he will attain and on this account you may see few adulterers but many chaste persons but if the former were the pleasanter it would be preferred by the greater number and tell me not of the terror of the laws for this is not that which restrains them but the excessive unreasonableness and the fact that the pains of it are more than the pleasures and the sentence of the conscience such then is the adulterer now if you please let us bring before you the covetous laying bare again another lawless passion for him too we shall see afraid of the same things and unable to enjoy real pleasure in that calling to mind both those whom he hath wronged and those who sympathize with them and the public sentence of all concerning himself he hath ten thousand agitations and this is not his only vexation but not even his beloved object can he enjoy for such is the way of the covetous not that they may enjoy do they possess but that they may not enjoy but if this seem to thee a riddle hear next what is yet worse than this and more perplexing that not in this way only are they deprived of the pleasure of their goods by their not venturing to use them as they would but also by their never being filled with them but living in a continual thirst then which what can be more grievous but the just man is not so but is delivered both from trembling and hatred and fear and this incurable thirst and as all men curse the one even so do all men conspire to bless the other and as the one hath no friend so hath the other no enemy what now these things being so acknowledged can be more unpleasing than vice or more pleasant than virtue nay rather though we should speak for ever no one shall be able to represent in discourse either the pain of this or the pleasure of the other until we shall experience it for then shall we find vice more bitter than gall when we shall have fully tasted the honey of virtue not but vice is even now unpleasant and disgusting and burdensome and this not even her very votaries gainsay but when we withdraw from her then do we more clearly discern the bitterness of her commands but if the multitude run to her it is no marvel since children also oftentimes choosing things less pleasant despise those which are more delightful and the sick for a momentary satisfaction lose the perpetual and more certain joy but this comes of the weakness and folly of those who are possessed with any fondness not of the nature of the things for it is the virtuous man who lives in pleasure he who is rich indeed and free indeed but if any one would grant the rest to virtue liberty security freedom from cares the fearing no man the suspecting no man but would not grant it pleasure to laugh and that heartily occurs to me i confess as the only cause to be taken for what else is pleasure but freedom from care and fear and despondency and the not being under the power of any and whether is in pleasure tell me the man in frenzy and convulsions who is goaded by diverse lusts and is not even himself 
or he who is freed from all these waves, and is settled in the love of wisdom, as it were in a harbor? Is it not evident the latter? But this would seem to be a thing particular to virtue, so that vice hath merely the name of pleasure, but of the substance it is destitute, and before the enjoyment it is madness, not pleasure, but after the enjoyment, straightway this also is extinguished. Now then, if neither at the beginning nor afterwards can one discern the pleasure of it, when will it appear, and where? And that thou mayest more clearly understand what I say, let us try the force of the argument in an example. Now consider, one is enamored of a fair and lovely woman. This man, as long as he cannot obtain his desire, is like unto men besides themselves and frantic. But after he hath obtained it, he hath quenched his appetite. If therefore neither at the beginning doth he feel pleasure, for the affair is madness, nor in the end, for by the indulgence of his lust he cools down his wild fancy, where after all are we to find it? But our doings are not such, but both at the beginning they are freed from all disturbance, and to the end the pleasure remains in its bloom. Nay, rather, there is no end of our pleasure, nor have our good things a limit, nor is this pleasure ever done away. Upon all these considerations, then, if we love pleasure, let us lay hold on virtue, that we may win good things both now and hereafter, unto which may we all attain, through the grace and mercy, etc. 1 Corinthians 9.24 Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize. Having pointed out the manifold usefulness of condescension, and that this is the highest perfectness, and that he himself having risen higher than all towards perfection, or rather having gone beyond it by declining to receive, descended lower than all again, and having made known to us the times for each of these, both for the perfectness and for the condescension, he touches them more sharply in what follows, convertly intimating that this which was done by them, and which was counted a mark of perfectness, is a kind of superfluous and useless labor. And he said it not thus out clearly, lest they should become insolent, but the methods of proof employed by him makes this evident. And having said that they sin against Christ and destroy the brethren, and are nothing profited by this perfect knowledge, except charity be added, he again proceeds to a common example, and saith, Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize. Now this he saith, not as though here also one only out of many would be saved, far from it, but to set forth the exceeding diligence which it is our duty to use. For as there, though many descend into the course, not many are crowned, but this befalls one only, and it is not enough to descend into the contest, nor to have anointed oneself and wrestle. So likewise here it is not sufficient to have believed, and to have contended in any way, but unless we have so run, as unto the end to show ourselves unblameable, and to come near the prize, it will profit us nothing. For even though thou consider thyself to be perfect according to knowledge, thou shalt not attain the whole. Which hinting at, he said, so run that ye may obtain. They had not then yet, as it seems, attained. And having said thus, he teaches them also the manner. Verse 25. And every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. What is all things? He doth not abstain from one, and err in another, but he masters entirely gluttony and lavishness and drunkenness, and all his passions. For this, saith he, takes place even in the heathen games. For neither is excess of wine permitted to those who contend at the time of the contest, nor wantonness, lest they should weaken their vigor. 
nor yet so much as to be bruised about anything else, but separating themselves altogether from all things, they apply themselves to their exercise only. Now, if there these things be so, where the crown falls to one, much more here, where the incitement to emulation is more abundant, for here neither is one to be crowned alone, and the rewards also far surpass the labors. Wherefore also he puts it so as to shame them, saying, Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. Verse 26. I therefore so run, not as uncertainly. Thus having shamed them from those that are without, he next brings forward himself also, which kind of thing is the most excellent method of teaching, and accordingly we find him everywhere doing so. But what is not as uncertainly? Looking to some mark, saith he, not at random and in vain, as ye do. For what profit have ye of entering into idle temples and exhibiting forsooth that perfectness? None. But not such am I, but all things whatsoever I do, I do for the salvation of my neighbor. Whether I show forth perfectness, it is for their sake or condescension, for their sake again. Whether I surpass Peter in declining to receive, it is that they may not be offended, or descend lower than all. Being circumcised and shaving my head, it is that they may not be subverted. This is not uncertainly. But thou, why dost thou eat in idle temples, tell me? Nay, thou canst not assign any reasonable cause. For meat commendeth thee not to God, neither if thou eat art thou the better, nor if thou eat not art thou the worse. Plainly then thou runnest inconsiderately, and at random, for this is uncertainly. So fight I, not as one that beateth the air. This he saith, again intimating that he acted not at random, nor in vain. For I have one at whom I may strike, i.e. the devil. But thou dost not strike him, but rashly throwest away thy strength. Now so far then, altogether bearing with him, he thus speaks. For since he had dwelt somewhat vehemently with them in the preceding part, he now, on the contrary, keeps back his rebuke, reserving for the end of the discourse the deep wound of all, since here he only says that they act at random and in vain, but afterwards signifies that it is at the risk of no less than utter ruin to their own soul, and that even apart from all injury to their brethren, neither are they themselves guiltless in daring so to act. Verse 27. But I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest by any means, after that I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. Here he implies that they are subject to the very lust of the belly, and give up the reins to it, and under a pretense of perfection fulfill their own greediness, a thought which before also he was travailing to express, when he said, meats for the belly, and the belly for meats. For since both fornication is called by luxury, and it also brought forth idolatry, he naturally oftentimes inveighs against this disease, and pointing out how great things he suffered for the gospel, he sets this also down among them. As I went, saith he, beyond the commands, and this when it was no light matter for me, for we even endure all things, it is said. So also here I submit to much labor, in order to live soberly. Stubborn as appetite is, and the tyranny of the belly, nevertheless I brittle it, and give not myself up to the passion but endure all labor, not to be drawn aside by it. For do not, I pray you, suppose that by taking things easily I arrive at this desirable result. For it is a race and a manifold struggle, and a tyrannical nature continually rising up against me, 
and seeking to free itself. But I bear not with it, but keep it down and bring it into subjection with many struggles. Now this he saith, that none may despairingly withdraw from the conflicts in behalf of virtue, because the undertaking is laborious. Wherefore he saith, I keep under and bring into subjection. He said not, I kill, for the flesh is not to be hated, but I keep under and bring into subjection, which is the part of a master, not of an enemy, of a teacher, not of a foe, of a schoolmaster, not of an adversary, lest by any means having preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. Now if Paul feared this, who had taught so many, and feared it after his preaching, and becoming an angel, and undertaking the patronage of the whole world, what can we say? For think not, saith he, because ye have believed, that this is sufficient for your salvation. Since if to me neither preaching nor teaching nor bringing over innumerable persons is enough for salvation, unless I exhibit my own conduct also unblameable much less to you. Then he comes to other illustrations again, and as above he alleged the examples of the apostles, and those of common custom, and those of the priests, and his own, so also here those of the Olympic Games. And having set down his own conduct, he again proceeds to the histories of the Old Testament. And because what he has to say will be somewhat unpleasing, he makes his exhortation general, and discourses not only concerning the subject before him, but also generally concerning all the evils among the Corinthians. And in the case of the heathen games, Know ye not, saith he, but here, chapter 10, verse 1, Moreover, brethren, I would not that ye should be ignorant. Now this he said, implying that they were not very well instructed in these things. And what is this, which thou wouldest not have us ignorant of? Verses 1 through 5. That all our fathers, saith he, were under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and did all eat the same spiritual meat, and drink the same spiritual drink. For they drank of a spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ, and with the more part of them God was not well pleased. And wherefore saith he these things, to point out that as they were nothing profited by the enjoyment of so great a gift, so neither these by obtaining baptism, and partaking of spiritual mysteries, except they go on and show forth a life worthy of this grace. Wherefore also he introduces the types, both of baptism and of the mysteries. But what is, they were baptized into Moses, like as we, on our belief in Christ and his resurrection, are baptized, as being destined in our own persons to partake in the same mysteries. For we are baptized, saith he, for the dead, i.e. for our own bodies. Even so, they put in confidence in Moses, i.e. having seen him cross first, ventured also themselves into the waters. But because he wished to bring the type near the truth, he speaks it not thus, but uses the terms of the truth even in the type. Further, as this was a symbol of the font, so that which follows of the holy table. For as thou eatest the Lord's body, so they the manna, and as thou drinkest the blood, so they water from a rock. For though they were things of sense which were produced, yet were they naturally exhibited, not according to the order of nature, but according to the gracious intention of the gift, and together with the body nourished also the soul, leading it unto faith. On this account, you see, touching the food, he made no remark, for it was extraordinary, not in mode only, but in nature also, for it was manna. But respecting the drink, since the matter only of the supply was extraordinary, and required proof, therefore, having said that they drank the same spiritual drink, he added, for they drank of a spiritual rock that followed them. 
and he subjoined, and that rock was Christ, for it was not the nature of the rock which sent forth the water. Such is his meaning. Else would it as well have gushed out before this time. But another sort of rock, a spiritual one, performed the whole, even Christ, who was everywhere with them, and wrought all the wonders. For on this account he said, that followed them. Perceivest thou the wisdom of Paul, how in both cases he points out him as the giver, and thereby brings the type nigh to the truth. For he who set those things before them, saith he, the same also hath prepared this our table, and the same person both brought them through the sea, and thee through baptism, and before them set manna, and before thee his body and blood. As touching his gift then, such is the case, now let us observe also what follows, and consider whether when they showed themselves unworthy of the gift, he spared them. Nay, this thou canst not say. Wherefore also he added, but with most of them God was not well pleased. Although he had honored them with so great honor, yea, it profited them nothing, but most of them perished. The truth is, they all perished, but that he might not seem to prophesy total destruction to these also, Therefore he said, the more part. And yet they were innumerable, but their number profited them nothing. And these were all so many tokens of love, but not even did this profit them, inasmuch as they did not themselves show forth the fruits of love. Thus, since most men disbelieve the things said of hell, as not being in presence or in sight, he alleges the things heretofore done as an indication that God doth punish all who sin, even though he have bestowed innumerable benefits upon them. For if ye disbelieve the things to come, so he speaks, yet surely the things that are past ye will not disbelieve. Consider, for example, how great benefits he bestowed on them. From Egypt and the slavery, there he set them free, the sea he made their path. From heaven he brought down manna, from beneath he sent forth strange and marvelous fountains of water. He was with them everywhere, doing wonders, and fencing them in on every side. Nevertheless, since they showed forth nothing worthy of this gift, he spared them not, but destroyed them all. Verse 5. For they were overthrown, saith he, in the wilderness, declaring by this word both the sweeping destruction and the punishments, and the vengeance inflicted by God, and that they did not so much as attain to the rewards set immediately before them. Neither were they in the land of the promise, when he did these things unto them. But without and afar somewhere, and wide of that country, he thus visiting them with a double vengeance, both by not permitting them to see the land, and this too, though promised unto them, and also by actual severe punishment. And what are these things to us, say you? To thee surely they belong. Therefore also he adds, verse 6, Now these things were figures of us, for as the gifts are figures, even so are the punishments figures, and as the baptism and table were sketched out prophetically, so also by what ensued, the certainty of punishment coming on those who are unworthy of this gift was proclaimed beforehand for our sake, that we by these examples might learn a soberness. Wherefore also he adds, to the intent that we should not lust after evil things, as they also lusted. For as in the benefits the types went before, and the substance followed, such shall be the order also in the punishments. Seest thou how he signifies, not only the fact that these shall be punished, but also the degree more severely than those ancients. For if the one be type and the other substance, 
it must needs be that the punishments should as far exceed as the gifts, and see against whom he inveighs first, against those who would eat in the idol temples. For having said that we should not lust after evil things, which was general, he subjoins that which is particular, implying that each of their sins arose from evil lusting. And first he said this, verse 7, Neither be ye idolaters, as some of them, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and to drink, and rose up to play. Do you hear how at length he calls them idolaters? Here indeed making the declaration, but afterwards bringing the proof. And he assigned the cause too. Wherefore they ran to those tables, and this was gluttony. Wherefore, having said, to the intent that we should not lust after evil things, and having added, nor be idolaters, he names the cause for such transgression. And this was gluttony, for the people sat down, saith he, to eat and to drink, and he adds the end thereof, they rose up to play, for even as they, saith he, from sensuality passed into idolatry, so there is a fear, lest ye also may fall from the one into the other. Do you see how he signifies that these perfect men, forsooth, were more imperfect than the others? And he was striking at them, not in this respect only, their not bearing with their brethren throughout, but also in that the one sin from ignorance, but the others from gluttony. And the ruin of the former he imputes to these for punishment, but allows not these to lay upon another the cause of their own sin, but pronounces them responsible both for their injury and for their own. Neither let us commit fornication as some of them committed. Wherefore doth he here make mention of fornication again, having so largely discoursed concerning it before? It is ever Paul's custom, when he brings a charge of many sins, both to set them forth in order, and separately to proceed with his proposed topics, and again in his discourses concerning other things, to make mention also of the former, which thing God also used to do in the Old Testament, in reference to each several transgression, reminding the Jews of the calf, and bringing that sin before them. This then, you see, Paul also does here, at the same time, both reminding them of that sin, and teaching that the parent of this evil also was luxury and gluttony. Wherefore also he adds, Neither let us commit fornication, as some of them committed, and fell in one day three and twenty thousand. And wherefore names he not likewise the punishment for their idolatry? It is because it was clear and more notorious, or because the plague was not so great at that time as the matter of Balaam, when they joined themselves to Baal Peor, the Midianite women appearing in the camp and alluring them to wantonness according to the counsel of Balaam. For that this evil counsel was Balaam's, Moses showeth after this. In the following statements at the end of the book of Numbers, Balaam also, the son of Beor, they slew in the war of Midian with the women, and brought the spoils, and Moses with wrath, and said, Wherefore have ye saved all the women alive? For these were to the children of Israel for a stumbling block, according to the word of Balaam, to cause them to depart from and despise the word of the Lord for Peor's sake. Verse 9. Neither let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted, and were destroyed of serpents. By this he again hints at another charge which he likewise states at the end, blaming them because they contended about signs and murmured on account of temptations, saying, When will the good things come? When the rewards? Wherefore also he adds, on this account correcting and alarming them. Verse 10. Neither murmur ye, as some of them also murmured, and were destroyed of the destroyer. For what is required is, 
not only to suffer for Christ, but also nobly to bear the things that come on us, and with all gladness, since this is the nature of every crown. Yea, and unless this be so, punishment rather will attend men, taking calamity with a bad grace. Wherefore also the apostles, when they were beaten, rejoiced, and Paul gloried in his suffering. Verse 11. Now all these things happened unto them for ensamples, and they were written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the world are come. Again he terrifies them, speaking of the ends, and prepares them to expect things greater than had already taken place. For that we shall suffer punishment is manifest, saith he, from what hath been said, even to those who disbelieve the statements concerning hellfire, but that the punishment also will be more severe is evident from the more numerous blessings which we have enjoyed, and from the things of which those were but figures. Since if in the gifts one go beyond the other, it is more evident that so it will be in the punishment likewise. For this cause he both calls them types, and said that they were written for us, and made mention of an end, that he might remind them of the consummation of all things. For not such will be the penalties then, as to admit of a termination, and be done away, but the chastisement will be eternal, for even as the punishments in this world are ended with the present life, so those in the next continually remain. But when he said the ends of the world, he means nothing else, but that the fearful judgment is henceforth nigh at hand. Verse 12. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he stand take heed lest he fall. Again he cast down their pride, who thought highly of their knowledge. For if they who had so great privileges suffered such things, and some for murmuring alone were visited with such punishment, and others for tempting, and neither their multitude moved God to repent, nor their having attained to such things, much more shall it be so in our case, except when we be sober. And well, said he, he that thinketh he standeth, for this is not even standing as one ought to stand, to rely on yourself, for quickly will such in one fall, since they too, had they not been high-minded and self-confident, but of a subdued frame of mind, would not have suffered these things. Whence it is evident that boasting first of all, and carelessness afterwards, and gluttony are the sources of these evils. Wherefore, even though you stand, take heed lest you fall. For our standing here is not secure standing. No, not until we be delivered out of the waves of this present life, and have sailed into that tranquil haven. Be not therefore high-minded at thy standing, but guard against thy falling. For of Paul feared, who was firmer than all, much more ought we to fear. Now the apostle's word, as we have seen, was, Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. But we cannot say even this, all of us, so to speak, having fallen and lying prostrate on the ground. For to whom am I to say this? To him that committeth extortion every day? Nay, he lies prostrate with a mighty fall. To the fornicator, he too is cast down to the ground. To the drunkard, he also is fallen, and knoweth not even that he is fallen. So that it is not the season for this word, but for that saying of the prophet, which he spake to the Jews also, He that falleth does not rise again. For all are fallen, and to rise again they have no mind. So that our exhortation is not concerning the falling, but concerning the ability of them that are fallen to rise. Let us rise again then, late though it be, beloved. Let us rise again, late though it be, beloved. Let us rise again, and let us stand nobly. How long do we lie prostrate? How long are we drunken, besotted with the excess desire of the things of this life? 
It is a meet opportunity now to say, To whom shall I speak and give warning? So deaf are all men become, even to the very instruction of wisdom, and thence filled with abundance of evils, and were it possible to discern their souls naked, as in armies when the battle is ended, when may behold some dead and some wounded, so also in the church we might see. Wherefore I beseech and implore you, let us stretch out a hand to each other, and thoroughly raise ourselves up. For I myself am one of them that are smitten, and require one to apply some remedies. Do not whoever despair on this account. For what if the wounds be severe, yet are they not incurable? Such is our physician, only let us feel our wounds, although we be arrived at the very extreme of wickedness. Many are the ways of safety which he strikes out for us. Thus if thou forbear to be angry with thy neighbor, thine own sins shall be forgiven. For if ye forgive men, saith he, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. And if thou give alms, he will remit thee thy sins. For break off thy sins, saith he, by alms. And if thou pray earnestly, thou shalt enjoy forgiveness. And this the widow signifieth, who prevaileth upon that cruel judge by the importunity of her prayer. And if thou accuse thine own sins, thou hast relief. For declare thou thine iniquities first, that thou mayest be justified. And if thou art sorrowful on account of these things, this too will be to thee a powerful remedy. For I have seen, saith he, that he was grieved, and went sorrowful, and I have healed his ways. And if, when thou sufferest any evil, thou bear it nobly, thou hast put away the whole. For this also did Abraham say to the rich man, that Lazarus received his evil things, and here he is comforted. And if thou hast pity on the widow, thy sins are washed away. For judge, saith he, the orphan, and plead for the widow, and come, let us reason together, saith the Lord. And if your sins be as scarlet, I will make them white as snow. And if they be crimson, I will make them white as wool. For not even a single scar of the wounds doth he suffer to appear. Yea, and though we be come to that depth of misery into which he fell, who devoured his father's substance and fed upon husks, and should repent, we are undoubtedly saved. And though we owe ten thousand talents, if we fall down before God and bear no malice, all things are forgiven us. Although we have wandered away to that place whither the sheep strayed from his keeper, even thence he recovers us again. Only let us be willing, beloved, for God is merciful. Wherefore, both in the case of him that owed ten thousand talents, he was content with his falling down before him. And in the case of him who had devoured his father's goods, with his return only, and in the case of the sheep, with its willingness to be born. Consider, therefore, the greatness of his mercy. Let us here make him propitious unto us, and let us come before his face by a public confession, that we may not depart hence without excuse, and have to endure that extreme punishment. For if in the present life we exhibit even an ordinary diligence, we shall gain the greatest rewards. But if we depart, having become nothing better here, even though we repent ever so earnestly there, it will do us no good. For it was our duty to have stricken while yet remaining within the lists. Not after the assembly was broken up idly to lament and weep, as that rich man did, bewailing and deploring himself, but to no purpose now and in vain, since he overlooked the time in which he ought to have done these things. And not he alone, but many others there are like him now, among the rich, not willing to despise wealth, but despising their own souls for wealth's sake. At whom I cannot but wonder, when I see men continually interceding with God for mercy, whilst they are implacably set against their own good, and unsparing of their very soul, as if it were an enemy, 
Let us not then trifle, beloved. Let us not trifle nor delude ourselves, beseeching God to have mercy on us, whilst we ourselves prefer both money and luxury, and in fact all things to his mercy. For neither if any one brought before thee a case, and said in accusation of such an one, that being to suffer ten thousand deaths, and having it in his power to rid himself of the sentence by a little money, he chose rather to die than to give up any of his property, would you say that he was worthy of any mercy or compassion? Now in this same way do thou also reason touching thyself, for we too act in this way, and making light of our own salvation, we are sparing of our money. How then dost thou beseech God to spare thee, when thou thyself art so unsparing of thyself, and honorest money above thy soul? Wherefore also I am greatly astonished to see how great witchery lies hid in wealth, or rather not in wealth, but in the souls of those that are beguiled. For there are there are those who utterly deride the sorcery, for which among the things therein is really capable of bewitching us. Is it not inanimate matter? Is it not transitory? Is not the possession thereof unworthy of trust? Is it not full of fears and dangers, nay, of murders and conspiracy, of enmity and hatred, or carelessness and much vice? Is it not dust and ashes? What madness have we here? What disease? But, say you, we ought not merely to bring such accusations against those that are so diseased, but also to destroy the passion. And in what other way shall we destroy it, except by pointing out its baseness, and how full it is of innumerable evils? But of this, it is not easy to persuade a lover concerning the objects of his love. Well then, we must set full in his view another sort of beauty, but incorporeal beauty he sees not, being yet in his disease. Well then, let us show him some beauty of the corporeal kind, and say to him, Consider the meadows and the flowers therein, which are more sparkling than any gold, and more elegant and transparent than all kinds of precious stones. Consider the limpid streams from their fountains, the streams which, like oil, flow noiselessly out of the earth. Ascend to heaven and behold the luster of the sun, the beauty of the moon, the stars that cluster like flowers. Why, what is this, say you? since we do not, I suppose, make use of them as of wealth. Nay, we use them more than wealth, inasmuch as the use thereof is more needful, the enjoyment more secure. For thou hast no fear, lest, like money, any one should take them and go off with them. But you may ever be confident of having them, and that without anxiety or care. But if thou grieve, because thou enjoyest them in common with others, and dost not possess them alone like money, it is not money, but mere covetousness, which thou seemest to me to be in love with, nor would even the money be an object of thy desire, if it had been placed within the reach of all in common. Therefore, since we have found the beloved object, I mean covetousness, come, let me show thee how she hates and abhors thee, how many swords she sharpens against thee, how many pits she digs, how many nooses she ties, how many precipices she prepares, that thus at any rate thou mayest do away with the charm, Whence then are we to obtain this knowledge? From the highways, from the wars, from the sea, from the courts of justice. For she hath both filled the sea with blood, and the swords of the judges she often dies with blood contrary to law, and arms those who on the highways lie in wait day and night, and persuades men to forget nature, and make parricides, and murderers of mothers, and introduces all sorts of evils into men's life, which is the reason why Paul entitles her the root of evil, she suffers not her lovers to be in any better condition than those who work in the mines. For as they, perpetually shut up in darkness and in chains, 
labor unprofitably, so also these buried in the caves of avarice, no one using any force with them, voluntarily draw their punishment on themselves, binding on them fetters that cannot be broken, and on those condemned to the mines, at least when even comes on, are released from their toils, but these both day and night are digging in these wretched mines, and to those there is a definite limit of that hard labor, but these know no limit, but the more they dig, so much the greater hardship do they desire. And what if those do it unwillingly, but these with their will, in that thou tellest me of the grievous part of the disease, that it is even impossible for them to be rid of it, since they do not so much as hate their own wretchedness. But as a swine in mud, so also do these delight to wallow in the noisome mire of avarice, suffering worse things than those condemned ones. As to the fact that they are in a worse condition, hear the circumstances of the one, and then thou wilt know the state of the other. Now it is said that the soil which is impregnated with gold has certain dens and recesses in those gloomy caverns. The malefactor then condemns to labor in that place, taking for that purpose a lamp and a spade. So we are told enters within and carries with him a cruise, a drop oil, from thence into the lamp, because there is darkness even by day, without a ray of light, as I said before. Then, when the time of day calls him to his wretched meal, himself, they say, is ignorant of the time, but his jailer from above, striking violently on the cave, by that clattering sound, declares to those who are at work below the end of the day, Do ye not shudder when you hear all this? Let us see now whether there be not things more grievous than these in the case of the covetous. For these two, in the first place, have a severe jailer, viz. avarice, and so much severer, as that together with their body he chains also their soul. And this darkness also is more awful than that. For it is not subject to sense, but producing it within, whithersoever they go, they carry it all about with themselves. For the eye of their soul is put out, which is the reason why more than all Christ calls them wretched, saying, But if the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness! And they for their part have at least a lamp shining, but these are deprived even of this beam of light, and therefore every day they fall into countless pitfalls, and the condemned, when night overtakes them, have a respite, sailing into that calm port which is common to all the unfortunate. I mean the night, but against the covetous, even this harbor is blocked up by their own avarice. Such grievous thoughts have they even at night. Since then, without disturbance from anyone, at full leisure, they cut themselves to pieces. Such are the circumstances in this world. But those the next, what discourse shall exhibit? The intolerable furnaces, the rivers burning with fire, the gnashing of teeth, the chains never to be loosed, the envenomed worm, the rayless gloom, the never-ending miseries. Let us fear them, beloved, let us fear the fountain of so great punishments, the insatiate madness, the destroyer of our salvation. For it is impossible at the same time both to love money and your soul. Let us be convinced that wealth is dust and ashes, that it leaves us when we depart thence. Or rather, that even before our departure it oftentimes darts away from us, and injures us both in regard of the future and in respect of the present life. For before hellfire and before that punishment, even here it surrounds us with innumerable wars, and stirs up strifes and contests. For nothing is so apt to cause war as avarice, nothing so apt to produce beggary, whether it show itself in wealth or in poverty, 
For in the souls of poor men also this grievous disease ariseth, and where is their poverty still bearer? And if there be found a poor covetous man, such an one suffers not punishment in money, but in hunger, for he allows himself to enjoy his moderate means with comfort, but both racks his belly with hunger and punishes his whole body with nakedness and cold, and everywhere appears more squalid and dirty than any prisoners, and is always wailing and lamenting, as though he were more wretched than all, though there be ten thousand poorer than he. This man, whither he go into the marketplace, goes away with many a stripe, or into the bath, or into the theatre, he will still be receiving more wounds, not only from the spectators, but also from those upon the stage, where he beholds not a few of the unchaste women glittering in gold. This man again, whether he sail upon the sea, regarding the merchants and their richly freighted ships, and their enormous profits, will not even count himself to live, or whether he travel by land, reckoning up the fields, the suburban farms, the inns, the baths, the revenues arising out of them, his own life will thenceforth seem to him not to be endured as life, or whether thou shut him up at home, he will but rub and fret the wounds received in the market, and so by himself do greater despite to his own soul, and he knows only one consolation for the evils which oppress him, death and deliverance from this life. And these things, not the poor man only, but the rich also will suffer, who falls into this disease, and so much more than the poor, inasmuch as the tyranny presses more vehemently on him, and the intoxication is greater. Wherefore also he will account himself poorer than all, or rather he is poorer, for riches and poverty are determined not by the measure of the substance, but by the disposition of the mind, and he rather is the poorest of all, who is always hankering after more, and is never able to stay this wicked lust. On all these accounts, then, let us flee covetousness, the maker of beggars, the destroyer of souls, the friend of hell, the enemy of the kingdom of heaven, the mother of all evils together, and let us despise wealth that we may enjoy wealth, and with wealth may enjoy also the good things promised to us, unto which may we all obtain, etc. Homily 24, 1 Corinthians 10.13 There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape, that ye may be able to bear it. Thus because he hath terrified them greatly, relating the ancient examples, and thrown them into an agony, saying, Let him that thinketh he standeth, take heed, lest he fall. Though they had borne many temptations, and had exercised themselves many times therein, for I was with you, saith he, in weakness and in fear, and in much trembling, lest they should say, Why terrify and alarm us? We are not unexercised in these troubles, for we have been both chaste and persecuted, and many and continual dangers have we endured. Repressing again their pride, he says, There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man, i.e. small, brief, moderate. For he uses the expression common to man, in respect of what is small, as when he says, I speak after the manner of men, because of the infirmity of your flesh. Think not then great things, saith he, as though ye had overcome the storm. For never have ye seen a danger threatening death, nor temptation intending slaughter. Which also he said to the Hebrews, Ye have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. Then, because he had terrified them, see how again he raises them up, at the same time recommending moderation. In the words, God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able. 
There are therefore temptations which we are not able to bear. And what are these? Also to speak, for the ability lies in God, turning the scale, a power which we draw down by our own will. Wherefore, that thou mayest know and see that not only those which exceed our power, but not even these which are common to man. It is possible without assistance from God easily to bear. He added, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape, that ye may be able to bear it. For, saith he, not even those moderate temptations, as I was remarking, may we bear by our own power, but even in them we require aid from him in our warfare, that we may pass through them, and until we have passed, bear them. For he gives patience and brings on a speedy release, so that in this way also the temptation becomes bearable. This he covertly intimates, saying, will also make a way to escape, that ye may be able to bear it, and all things he refers to him. Verse 14. Wherefore, my brethren, flee from idolatry. Again he courts them by the name of kindred, and urges them to be rid of this sin with all speed. For he did not simply depart, but flee. And he calls the matter idolatry, and no longer bids them quit it merely on account of the injury to their neighbor but signifies that the very thing of itself is sufficient to bring a great destruction. Verse 15. I speak as unto wise men. Judge ye what I say, because he hath cried aloud and heightened the accusation, calling it idolatry, that he might not seem to exasperate them, and to make his speech disguising. In what follows he refers the decision to them, and sets his judges down on their tribunal with an encomium. For I speak as unto wise men, saith he, which is a mark of one very confident of his own rights, that he should make the accused himself the judge of his allegations. Thus also he more elevates the hearer, when he discourses not as commanding, nor as laying down the law, but as advising with them, and as actually pleading before them. For with the Jews, as more foolishly and childishly disposed, God did not so discourse, nor did he, in every instance, acquaint them with the reasons of the commands, but merely enjoined them. But here, because we have the privilege of great liberty, we are even admitted to be counselors. And he discourses as with friends, and says, I need no other judges. Do ye yourselves pass the sentence upon me. I take you for arbiters. Verse 16. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the bud of Christ? What sayest thou, O blessed Paul, when thou wouldest appeal to the hearer's reverence? When thou art making mention of awful mysteries, dost thou give the title of cup a blessing to that fearful and most tremendous cup? Yea, saith he, and no mean title is that which was spoken. For when I call it blessing, I unfold all the treasure of God's goodness and call to mind those mighty gifts. Since we too, recounting over the cup the unspeakable mysteries of God and all that we have been made partakers of, so proceed to offer it and to communicate, giving him thanks that he hath delivered from error the whole race of mankind, that being afar off, he made them nigh, and when they had no hope and were without God in the world, he appointed them his own brethren and fellow heirs. For these and for all such things, giving thanks, thus we approach. How then are not your doings inconsistent, saith he, O ye Corinthians, blessing God for delivering you from idols, yet running again to their tables? The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? Very persuasively spake he, and awfully, for what he says is this, this which is in the cup is that which flowed from his side, 
and of that do we partake. But he called it the cup of blessing, because, holding it in our hands, we so proceed to exalt him in our hymn. Wondering, astonished at his unspeakable gift, blessing him, among other things, for the pouring out of this self-same draught, that we might not abide in error, and not only for the pouring it out, but also for the imparting thereof to us all. Wherefore, if thou desire blood, saith he, redden not the altar of idols with the slaughter of brute beasts, but my altar with my blood. Tell me, what can be more tremendous than this? What more tenderly kind? This also lovers do, when they see those whom they love desiring what belongs to strangers, and despising their own. They give what belongs to themselves, and so persuade them to withdraw themselves from the gifts of those others. Lovers, however, display this liberality in goods and money and garments, but in blood none ever did so, whereas Christ even herein exhibited his care and fervent love for us. And in the old covenant, because they were in an imperfect state, the blood which they used to offer to idols he himself submitted to receive, that he might separate them from those idols, which very thing again was a proof of his unspeakable affection. But here he hath transferred the sacred office to that which is far more awful and glorious, changing the very sacrifice itself, and instead of the slaughter of irrational creatures, commanding to offer up himself. The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? Wherefore said he not the participation? Because he intended to express something more, and to point out how close was the union, in that we communicate not only by participating and partaking, but also by being united. For as that body is united to Christ, so also are we united to him by this bread. But why adds he also which we break? For although in the Eucharist one may see this done, yet on the cross not so, but the very contrary. For a bone of him, saith one, shall not be broken. But that which he suffered not on the cross, this he suffers in the oblation for thy sake. And he submits to be broken, that he may fill all men. Further because he said, The communion of the body, and that which communicates is another thing from that whereof it communicates. Even this, which seemeth to be but a small difference, he took away. For having said, the communion of the body, he sought again to express something nearer. Wherefore also he added, verse 17, For we being many are one bread, one body. For why speak I of communion, saith he? We are that selfsame body. For what is the bread, the body of Christ? And what do they become who partake of it? the body of Christ, not many bodies, but one body. For as the bread, consisting of many grains, is made one, so that the grains nowhere appear, they exist indeed, but their difference is not seen, by reason of their conjunction. So are we conjoined both with each other and with Christ, there not being one body for thee, and another for thy neighbor to be nourished by, but the very same for all. Where also he adds, for we are all partakers of that one bread. Now if we are all nourished of the same, and all become the same, why do we not show forth the same love, and become also in this respect one? For this was the old way too, in the time of our forefathers. For the multitude of them that believed, saith the text, were of one heart and of one soul. Not so, however, now, but altogether the reverse. Many and various are the contests betwixt all, and worse than wild beasts are we affected towards each other's members. In Christ indeed may thee, so far remote, one with himself, but thou dost not deign to be united even to thy brother with due exactness, but separatest thyself, having had the privilege of so great love and life from the Lord. 
For he gave not simply even his own body, but because the former nature of the flesh, which was framed out of earth, had first become deadened by sin and destitute of life, he brought in, as one may say, another sort of dough and leaven, his own flesh, by nature indeed the same, but free from sin and full of life, and gave to all to partake thereof, that being nourished by this, and laying aside the old dead material, we might be blended together unto the eternal life by means of this table. Verse 18. Behold Israel after the flesh. Are not they which eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? Again, from the old covenant he leads them unto this point also. For because they were far beneath the greatness of the things which had been spoken, he persuades both them from former things and from those which they were accustomed. And he says well according to the flesh, as though they themselves were according to the Spirit. And what he says is of this nature, even from persons of the grosser sort ye may be instructed, that they who eat of the sacrifices are partakers of the altar. Dost thou see how he intimates that they who seem to be perfect have not perfect knowledge? If they know not even this, that the result of these sacrifices to many oftentimes is a certain communion and friendship with devils, the practice drawing them on by degrees. And if among men the fellowship of salts and the table becomes an occasion and token of friendship, it is possible that this may happen also in the case of devils. But do thou, I pray thee, consider how with regard to the Jews he said not, they are partakers with God, but they are partakers of the altar, for what was placed thereon was burnt. But in respect of the body of Christ not so. But how? Is it the communion of the Lord's body? For not of the altar, but of Christ himself are we made partakers? But having said that they are partakers of the altar, afterwards fearing, lest he should seem to discourse, as if the idols had any power, and could do any injury, see again how he overthrows them, saying, verse 14, What say I then, that the idol is anything, or that which is offered in sacrifice to idols is anything? As if he had said, Now these things I affirm, and try to withdraw you from the idols, not as though they could do any injury or had any power, for an idol is nothing, but I wish you to despise them. And if thou wilt have us despise them, saith one, wherefore dost thou carefully withdraw us from them? Because they are not offered to the Lord. Verse 20. For that which the Gentiles sacrifice, saith he, they sacrifice to devils, and not to God. Do not then run to the contrary things. For neither if thou wert a king's son, and having the privilege of thy father's table, shouldest leave it after all, and choose to partake of the table of the condemned, and the prisoners in the dungeon, would thy father permit it, but with great vehemence he would withdraw thee, not as though the table would harm thee, but because it disgraces thy nobility and the royal table. For verily these two are servants who have offended, dishonored, condemned, prisoners reserved for intolerable punishment, accountable for ten thousand crimes. How then art thou not ashamed to imitate the gluttonous and vulgar crew, in that when these condemned persons set out a table, Thou runnest thither, and partakest of the viands. Here is the cause why I seek to withdraw thee. For the intention of the sacrificers, and the person of the receivers, maketh the things set before thee unclean. And I would not that ye should have fellowship with devils. Perceivest thou the kindness of a careful father? Perceivest thou also the very word? What force it hath to express his feeling? For it is my wish, saith he, that you have nothing common with them. 
next because he brought in the saying by way of exhortation lest any of the grosser sort should make light of it as having license because he said i would not and judge ye he positively affirms in what follows and lays down the law saying verse twenty one ye cannot drink the cup of the lord and the cup of devils ye cannot be partakers of the lord's table and of the table of devils but he contends himself with the mere terms for the purpose of keeping them away then speaking also to their sense of shame verse twenty two do we provoke the lord to jealousy are we stronger than he i e are we tempting him whether he is able to punish us and irritating him by going over to the adversaries and taking our stand with his enemies and this he said reminding them of an ancient history and of their father's transgression wherefore also he makes use of this saying which moses likewise of old used against the jews accusing them of idolatry in the person of god for they saith he have moved me to jealousy with that which is not god they have provoked me to anger with their idols are we not stronger than he dost thou see how terribly how awfully he rebukes them thoroughly shaking their very nerves and by his way of reducing them to an absurdity touching them to the quick and bringing down their pride well by why some one will say did he not set down these things at first which would be most effectual to withdraw them because it is his custom to prove his point by many particulars and to place the strongest last and to prevail by proving more than was necessary on this account then he began from the lesser topics and so made his way to that which is the sum of all evils since so that last point also became more easily admitted their mind having been soothed down by the things said before verses twenty three and twenty four all things are lawful for me but all things are not expedient all things are lawful for me but all things edify not let no man seek his own but every man another's wealth seest thou his exact wisdom because it was likely that they might say i am perfect and master of myself and it does me no harm to partake of what is set before me even so saith he perfect thou art and master of thyself do not however look to this but whether the results involve not injury nay subversion for both these he mentioned saying all things are not expedient all things edify not and using the former with reference to oneself the latter to one's brother since the cause are not expedient is a covert intimation of the ruin of the person to whom he speaks but the clause edify not of the offense of the brother wherefore also he adds let no man seek his own which he everywhere and in every epistle insists upon both in that to the romans when he says for even christ pleased not himself and again even as i please all men in all things not seeking mine own profit and again in this place he does not however fully work it out here that is since in what had gone before he had established it at length and shown that he nowhere seeks his own but both to the jews became as a jew and to them that are without law as without law and used not his own liberty and power at random but to the profit of all serving all here he broke off content with a few words and by these few guiding them to the remembrance of all which he had said before these things therefore knowing let us also beloved consult for the good of the brethren and preserve unity with them for to this that fearful and tremendous sacrifice leads us warning us above all things to approach it with one mind and fervent love and thereby becoming eagles so to mount up to the very heaven for whithersoever the carcass is saith he 
There also will be the eagles, calling his body a carcass by reason of his death. For unless he had fallen, we should not have risen again. But he calls us eagles, implying that he who draws nigh to this body must be on high and have nothing in common with the earth, nor wind himself downwards and creep along, but must ever be soaring heavenwards and look on the sun of righteousness and have the eye of his mind quick-sighted. For eagles, not daws, have a right to this table. Those also shall then meet him, descending from heaven, who now worthily have this privilege, even as they who do so unworthily shall suffer the extremest torments. For if one would not inconsiderably receive a king, why say I a king, nay, were it but a royal robe, one would not inconsiderately touch it with unclean hands. Though he should be in solitude, though alone, though no man were at hand, and yet the robe is not, but certain threads spun by worms. And if thou admirest the dye, this too is the blood of a dead fish. Nevertheless, one would not choose to venture on it with polluted hands. I say now, if even a man's garment be what one would not venture inconsiderately to touch, what shall we say of the body of him who is God over all, spotless, pure, associate with that divine nature, the body whereby we are and live, whereby the gates of hell were broken down and the sanctuaries of heaven opened. How shall we receive this with so great insolence? Let us not, I pray you, let us not slay ourselves by our irreverence, but with all awfulness and purity, let us draw nigh to it. And when thou seest it set before thee, say thou to thyself, because of this body am I no longer earth and ashes, no longer a prisoner but free. Because of this I hope for heaven, and to receive the good things therein, immortal life, the portion of angels, converse with Christ. This body, nailed and scourged, was more than death could stand against. This body the very Son saw crucified, and turned aside his beams. For this both the veil was rent in that moment, and rocks were burst asunder, and all the earth was shaken. This is even that body, the blood-stained, the smitten, and that out of which gushed the saving fountains, the one of blood, the other of water, for all the world. Wouldst thou from another source also learn its power? Ask of her, diseased with an issue of blood, who laid hold not of itself, but of the garment with which it was clad, nay, not of the whole of this, but of the hem. Ask the sea, which bear it on its back. Ask even of the devil himself, and say, Whence hast thou that incurable stroke? Whence hast thou no longer any power? Whence art thou captive? By whom hast thou been seized in thy flight? And he will give no other answer than this, the body that was crucified. By this were his stings broken in pieces. By this was his head crushed. By this were the powers and the principalities made a show of. For, saith he, having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Ask also death, and say, Whence is it that thy sting hath been taken away, thy victory abolished, thy sinews cut out, and thou become the laughingstock of girls and children, who was before a terror even to kings, and to all righteous men? And he will ascribe it to this body. For when this was crucified, then were the dead raised, then was that prison burst, and the gates of brass were broken, and the dead were loosed, and the keepers of hell gates all quaked for fear, and yet, had he been one of the many, death, on the contrary, should have become more mighty. But it was not so. 
for he was not one of the many. Therefore was death dissolved. And as they who take food, which they are unable to retain, on account of that vomit also, what was before lodged in them, so also it happened unto death. That body which he could not work upon, he received, and therefore had to cast forth those also which he had within him. Yea, he travailed, whilst he held him, and was straitened until he vomited him up. Wherefore, saith the apostle, having loosed the pains of death, for never woman laboring of child was so full of anguish, as he was torn and racked in sunder, while he held the body of the Lord. And that which happened to be the Babylonian dragon, when having taken the food, it burst asunder in the midst. This also happened unto him, for Christ came not forth again by the mouth of death, but having burst asunder and ripped up in the very midst the belly of the dragon, thus from his secret chambers right gloriously he issued forth, and flung abroad his beams, not to this heaven alone, but to the very throne most high, for even thither did he carry it up. This body he hath given to us to hold and to eat, a thing very appropriate to intense love. For those whom we kiss vehemently, we oftentimes even bite with our teeth, Wherefore also Job, indicating the love of his servants towards him, said that they oftentimes, out of their great affection towards him, said, Oh, that we were filled with his flesh. Even so, Christ hath given to us to be filled with his flesh, drawing us on to greater love. Let us draw nigh to him then with fervency, and with inflamed love, and let us not have to endure punishment. For in proportion to the greatness of the benefits bestowed on us, so much the more exceedingly are we chastised, when we show ourselves unworthy of the bountifulness. This body, even lying in a manger, the Magi reverenced, and men profane and barbarous, leaving their country and their home, both set out on a long journey, and when they came, with fear and great trembling, worshipped him. Behold now, let us at least imitate those barbarians, we who are citizens of heaven. For they indeed, when they saw him, but in a manger, and in a shed, and no such thing was in sight, as thou beholdest now, drew near with great awe, but thou beholdest him, not in the manger, but on the altar, not a woman holding him in her arms, but the priest standing by, and the spirit with exceeding bounty hovering over the gifts set before us. Thou dost not see merely this body itself, as they did, but thou knowest also its power, and the whole economy, and art ignorant of none of the holy things which are brought to pass by it, having been exactly initiated into all. Let us therefore wake ourselves up and be filled with horror, and let us show forth the reverence far beyond that of those barbarians, that we may not, by random and careless approaches, heap fire upon our own heads. But these things, I say, not to keep us from approaching, but to keep us from approaching without consideration. For as the approaching at random is dangerous, so the not communicating in those mystical suppers is famine and death. For this table is the sinews of our soul the bond of our mind, the foundation of our confidence, our hope, our salvation, our light, our life. When, with this sacrifice, we depart into the other world, with much confidence we shall tread the sacred threshold, fenced round on every side, as with a kind of golden armor. And why speak I of the world to come, since here this mystery makes earth become to thee a heaven? Open only for once the gates of heaven and look in, nay, rather not of heaven, but of the heaven of heavens, and then thou wilt behold what I have been speaking of. For what is there most precious of all? This will I show thee lying upon the earth. For as in royal palaces, 
what is most glorious of all is not walls nor golden roofs but the person of the king sitting on the throne so likewise in heaven the body of the king but this thou art now permitted to see upon earth for it is not angels nor archangels nor heavens and heavens of heavens that i will show thee but the very lord and owner of these perceivest thou how that which is more precious than all things is seen by thee on earth and not seen only but also touched and not only touched but likewise eaten and after receiving it thou goest home make thy soul clean then prepare thy mind for the reception of these mysteries for if thou wert entrusted to carry a king's child with the robes the purple and the diadem thou wouldst cast away all things which are upon the earth but now that it is no child of man however royal soever but the only begotten son of god himself whom thou receivest dost thou not thrill with awe tell me and cast away all the love of all worldly things and have no bravery but that wherewith to adorn thyself or dost thou still look towards earth and love money and flutter after gold what pardon then canst thou have what excuse knowest thou not that all this worldly luxury is loathsome to thy lord was it not for this that on his birth he was laid in a manger and took to himself a mother of low estate did he not for this say to him that was looking after gain but the son of man hath not where to lay his head and what did the disciples did they not observe the same law going to the houses of the poor and lodged one with a tanner another with a tent maker and with the seller of purple for they inquired not after the splendor of the house but for the virtues of men's souls these therefore let us emulate hastening by the beauty of pillars and of marbles and seeking the mansions which are above and let us tread underfoot all the pride here below with all love of money and acquire a lofty mind for if we be sober-minded not even this whole world is worthy of us much less porticos and arcades wherefore i beseech you let us adorn our souls let us fit up this house which we are also to have with us when we depart that we may attain even to the eternal blessings through the grace and mercy etc if you enjoyed this recording please support our channel by subscribing liking and sharing our content we would also be happy to receive any comments or feedback below.